This is Audible. Podium Publishing presents The Cycle of Oron, The Complete Trilogy Written by Edward W. Robertson Read by Tim Gerard Reynolds Chapter 7 They were three hours into the journey, and twenty miles west of the city, before Dante realized he was missing a vital piece of information. Where exactly are we headed? C gave no indication she'd heard. For a moment, he thought his words had been lost beneath the tromp of the horse's hooves and the coo of the birds in the trees. It was black as sin except for a small pool of light he was maintaining in front of C's mount to watch for any bad spots in the road that might cripple a horse. To find your friend, she said at last. Useful information. While I have this here, can you tell me more about this ground we're walking on? You'll find out where we're going once we're there. That's just it, Dante said. I will see. So why not tell me now? To encourage you to see the deal to the end. You've already got my coin and my word. Do you realize I could rescind both with one flick of nether? If I were going to kill you, what difference does it make whether it's now or when we reach our destination? C clopped along. Without turning, she said, Setevan. Setevan? Dante said. What's he doing there? Last I saw, getting rich. Is a widowed dowager involved? C turned, but her expression was silhouetted by the light at the front of the horses. I wouldn't be surprised. He's doing business with every nobleman and woman in the court. A misstep from the horse jostled Dante's spine, but his brain was reeling before that. You must be mistaken. We fought a war against those people. I followed him for weeks, except when I couldn't. Like when he went to stay at one of their chateaus. There has to be more to it. See for yourself, she said. Either way, I'm keeping the silver. He couldn't believe it, yet her confidence undermined his own. What would motivate Blaze to trade with those who'd once been their worst enemies? Was he mistaken? Was Blaze up to something? Or had he simply moved on? putting his past with Setevan behind him as thoroughly as he'd done so with Narashtovic. If so, he wouldn't be the first to forsake everything else in pursuit of a life of wealth and pleasure. Maybe he thought he had nothing left to him. Dante lapsed into silence. They'd crossed a few villages after leaving Narashtovic, but they were currently traveling to a stretch of woods populated entirely by squirrels and owls. That night, they had to make camp in the wilds. Compared to sleeping in caves in the Wodens, however, the discomfort was trifling. They made steady progress, pushing the horses without exceeding their limits, stabling them in a new town each night. Dante wanted nothing more than to race all the way to Setevan, but his impatience was tempered by an ironclad fact. If C was right about plays, he wouldn't be going anywhere soon. Not if he was in bed with the capital, not when there was a fortune to be had. It was an odd thing. 
Blaze had never been greedy. Even when Dante had been elevated to the council, and all the wealth of Norashtevic had been at their disposal, Blaze had shown little interest in throwing it around. He'd wanted no more than clean clothes, sharp swords, and the occasional night in the taverns. He'd mocked merchants more than once, scorning them for scurrying around after slivers of silver, noses buried too deep in their ledgers to ever see the world around them. But the death of Lyra had broken him. That much was clear. It was why Blaze had left. In that state, he could have become anything. Grief had a way of transforming a person into what they most hated. Perhaps instead of killing himself, falling in with the enemy was Blaze's way of destroying everything he'd once been, and his pain with it. Mile after mile faded behind them. Pine forests and grassy plains and ridges of weathered limestone. He gave some thought to sailing to Yallon and then heading upriver to the capital, but in all likelihood that would require backtracking to Narashtevik to find passage on a boat. Instead, they took the road nearly all the way to Dolendon before cutting overland to the west, intercepting the road and the river after a day in the wilds. The mountains of Galador sat in the south, gauzed in mist. A fork in the road fed them straight toward Setevan. They were deep in Gask now, and Dante rode with his cowl pulled over his head. He wasn't certain what would happen if he were recognized. Narashtevik had been at peace with its former masters for more than three years, and while the two states weren't throwing each other tea parties, neither were they on the brink of conflict. But peaceful relations between countries would mean nothing to anyone who bore Dante a personal grudge. A blood relative of the slain Cassander, for instance, or the friends and families of the thousands of Gascon soldiers killed in the war. Dante's role had generated far too much anguish to assume he could move through these lands in safety. On the morning of the day they expected to reach Setevan, they entered a quiet forest. Sparrows flitted across the road, passing through thin beams of light. They had traveled three hundred miles, and with their destination so close, Dante let the horses amble at their own pace. Red shirts, C murmured. Dante snapped up his head. Down the leaf-littered road, men in red doublets blocked the way. King's men, just like the thousands Dante had plunged to their deaths in the final battle of the Chainbreakers' War. This time, there were just eight. He could kill them in moments if it came to it, yet his pulse quickened. The last thing Dante needed was to draw attention, and, by definition, there was no such thing as a safe fight. Hurriedly, he called on the nether and went to work on his face shifting the planes of his cheekbones, lengthening his nose, thickening his brows. The illusions were slight, a dim version of the method Callie had used when he'd infiltrated the council, but it should be enough to hide his identity. Act normal, he said. No killing. C gave him a look. Do your friends normally have to be ordered not to kill strangers? He's reminding himself, Lou muttered. Dante shook his head. He let C lead. She slowed as they approached the soldiers. 
The men watched them alertly, but didn't reach for swords or bows. Once C rode within twenty feet, a trooper held up his hand. C stopped and nodded in greeting. Where are you headed? The soldier said. Setevan, C said. Early in the trip, they'd arranged a cover story. We're on business from Tatonin. Are you armed? C flipped back her cloak to show the scabbard on her hip. If I draw this, it'll flash. Why do you have weapons? For the same reason you do, I expect. The redshirt nodded. Have you run into trouble? Seen anything fishy? Nothing but quiet. Something we should be wary of. Highwayman, the man spat. We appear to have cleared out the vermin, but be on watch. C tipped her head. We'll do. Safe travels. The group parted, allowing them to ride through. Lou looked back. Dante didn't. C waited until they were out of earshot. Awfully close to the capital for bandits. Is this road normally patrolled? Dante said. Rarely. She flashed a grin. Or I would have been caught years ago. Dante kept his eyes open, and they crossed the forest without incident, riding into a wide plain of farms and hamlets. At one settlement, another group of redshirts eyed them, but let them pass without questions. Then Setevan sprawled before them, stretched across the hills and the river, bustling with trade and life, smoky from chimneys, raucous with talk and clicking hooves and shutters squeaking closed against the growing cold of late afternoon. Dante could smell the manure from beyond the walls, but as they rode through the white gate on the south end of town, the odor was fought by wood smoke, the freshwater smell of the river, and frying bacon, which Setevan was famous for. It looked younger than Narashtovic, perhaps because it wasn't littered with ruins, yet it had the unmistakable appearance of a city that's been around for eras. Many of the structures were patchwork, wooden upper floors atop stone ground floors, row houses grafted onto each other one after another, classical arches on a temple of Menok beside a manor house designed with modern parallel lines. As in Narashtovic, many of the locals wore long coats, but the people here combined them with round hats trimmed with fur. Lou glanced from side to side. Doesn't look like the capital felt the war at all. They felt it, Dante said. You'll note they haven't come back. Time to get off the street, C said. Establish a base of operations. Dante had never been to Setevan before, so he left the logistics in her hands. She took them to an inn in the baker's district. Staff led the horses to their stables. The shutters in Dante's second-floor room were open, and the whole room smelled of rising bread. Despite the agreeable aroma, he closed up the window. What now? Depends, C said. What are you going to do when you find him? That's for me to decide. I don't care if you mean to spit him like a hog or serve him in honey, but what you want done impacts how I go about finding him. Dante shook his head. I won't know that until I know what he's doing here. Just get me intel. 
quietly. C snorted. Will do, boss. Guess you better stay out of sight until I'm back. She took her sword and a small pack with her. Dante sent Lou downstairs for food and stoked up the fire. Lou returned with bread, stew, and sour green apples that were Dante's favorite. He eyed Lou. Did the kid spy on his meals too? He couldn't complain about the fare, though. The stew was potatoes and bacon, and so heavily peppered it burnt his tongue. The sort of thing an innkeeper might do to hide the taste of spoiled meat, but the stew tasted so good, Dante figured the Setevites just had a thing for spice. What if it turns out C's right, Lou said, around a mouthful of bread. If he's doing business with Setevan, doesn't that make him a traitor? No, Dante said after a moment. We're not at war anymore. There's no use speculating until we hear what C has to say. Mercifully, that put an end to the conversation. After dinner, Lou nodded off in his chair. With nothing better to do, Dante did the same. It was dark and quiet when C returned. Have a nice nap, she said. Ready to meet my informant, or would you rather catch another forty winks first? Dante stood. Let's go. Lou blinked from his chair, annoyed, but he followed them downstairs. Setevan was the Gascon capital, but it was hardly better lit than any other major city. C found a wide street where lanterns burned at major intersections and over the stoops of public houses and tea shops. She hooked right down a side street. Over the course of three blocks, the neighborhood shifted from pleasant and prosperous to mean and grim. Pools of stagnant water forced them to swerve like drunks. The lanterns were gone, feebly replaced by the quarter moon and a few open windows. People cackled and argued. Dante pulled the nether to his hands. C swung into an alley littered with garbage and sleeping vagabonds. Wash lines crisscrossed the air between the crooked row houses. She turned into a dead end, abutting the backs of several connected buildings. There, a bearded man sat on a blanket, clicking around a set of clay tiles inscribed with what looked to be old Gascon runes. Took you long enough, he said. C jerked her thumb at Dante. Tell him what you told me. Still fiddling with his tiles, the man gazed at Dante. Couple months back, one of Lord Pendelis's servants had me arrested for loitering. Lives on Dunvern Street, big pink house. Did you see him? Dante said. The man himself? The bearded man laughed. Course not. They had me arrested so people like him wouldn't have to see me. Do you know if he still lives here? Yeah, let me check with my vizier. Pay him, C said. Five hammers. Dante spent enough time on the streets to recognize the slang for iron coins. He counted them out and handed them to the man, who rattled them around his palm and nodded. C thanked him and walked away. That's it, Dante said. Why didn't you just tell me yourself? Because he would have demanded I take you straight to him and ask your own questions. She brushed back her hair. Anyway, I wasn't about to spend my money.
On the way back to the inn, they hashed out their next step. They knew where Pendulous lived. Now it was time to determine whether Pendulous was, in fact, Blaze. While Lou might be able to positively identify him, Dante wanted to do so himself. That meant staking out Dunvern Street. Dante could disguise himself, be it magically or mundanely, but if he were to hang out in the open, Blaze was canny enough to recognize him by posture or gesture. He couldn't use a dead bug to infiltrate the house either. They never moved right. To most people, it would just look like his moth spy was sick. But Blaze would know it for what it was. Dante needed somewhere he could watch from in secret. That meant attempting to rent a room. C could handle that, but they were dressed for travel, not doing business in one of Setovan's trendiest neighborhoods. If they were to walk into Dunvan Street in dirty cloaks and scuffed boots, they might be kicked out on sight. Even if they were allowed to roam around, no landlord or innkeeper would let C degrade his property with her presence. In short, they needed new clothes. Acquiring these ate up the next morning. As soon as they finished, C hired a carriage. She couldn't arrive on foot for the same reason she couldn't wander around in dingy clothes, and besides, the hackney might know who in the neighborhood was renting, and headed off for richer pastures. That left Dante and Lou in their room. Dante had brought a kappa scale with him and killed time trying to study it, but since he couldn't reach inside it with the nether, there was little for him to see. Lou had got his hands on parchment and a quill. He spent all day parked in the window, scribbling away. A report to Ollivander. If so, it certainly was detailed. Anyway, Lou would probably be less open about it. Poetry, then. Or a letter to his mom. At sunset, cat calls erupted from the common room downstairs. Dante wasn't surprised in the slightest when C opened their door a minute later. She had chosen a sleek purple dress that wasn't shy about expressing her décolletage. She gave Dante a look that could have cut boiled leather. One word and you can book your room yourself. He splayed his palms. I think you look regal. If nothing else, I'm the queen of getting things done. Your room is right across the street. Can we go now? Sure, but unless you want to crack your skull, you should stay seated until you hear the bill. She quoted him the room's rate, but the silver meant nothing to him. They packed their things, and Dante and Lou donned their new dress, formal long jackets, shiny boots, and fur-trimmed hats, they flagged a carriage and headed across town. As the name suggested, Dunvern Street straddled a high hill interrupted by parks, paths, and assorted greenery. Below its crest, the road leveled, overlooking a slope too steep for structures. The city sprawled to all sides, darkness pricked by ten thousand lanterns and candles. Miles away, moonlight bounced from a lake and shined on the confectionery eminence of the palace. The road curved from the cliffs into rows of stately residences with little space between them. The carriage creaked to a stop in front of a pillared white structure labeled the Hotel Austere. Dante paid the driver and exited. 
He wore a hat and had selected a coat with a collar that rose to his nose. Yet in the cold, quiet street, he felt exposed to the world. He dreaded every second C and Lou dawdled inside the carriage. At the hotel entrance, a doorman examined them, then saw C and smiled. His eyes moved to Dante and Lou, and his expression flickered with amusement. As he led the three of them up a grand staircase to a rug-padded hallway, Dante understood. The doorman believed Dante and C were wealthy bluebloods who'd paid Lou for a night of fun. As that made it less likely they'd be interrupted, Dante was content to maintain that illusion. He followed the man to the reserved room, tipped him, and winked. The doorman closed the door and padded away down the hall. Dante went to the window and parted the curtains. Bubbled glass filled the panes, presenting a sweeping view of the dim street. Which one? C moved beside him and pointed to a house almost directly across from them. That's it. Looks like a blaze house to you. A blaze house would be walled with rum bottles and roofed with swords clean to an obsessive degree. Side note, if he invites you over, I wouldn't visit on a windy day. If he learns I'm the one who brought you to him, I doubt he'll be inviting me anywhere. He dragged a chair to the window. Douse the lights. You'll have to entertain yourselves in the dark. I'll keep the heavy breathing to a minimum, C said. He scowled. They took a couple minutes to settle in, then blew out the candles, casting the room into darkness. Dante sat and waited. The cold of the night seeped through the window, chilling his hands and face. Dunvern Street was one of the capital's nexuses, a hotbed of trade, fashion, and society. Though it was well after dark, the road thrummed with pedestrians, riders, and carriages. Red-uniformed watchmen patrolled the way, protecting the taxpayers, many of whom were escorted by personal bodyguards as well. It was a veritable crowd, but no one approached the Pink Manor. As the night deepened, the street calmed. Only the watchman remained. The watchman and Dante. Dawn poked through the gap in the curtains. Blankets stirred behind him. Have you been there all night? Lou croaked. Dante didn't turn. What do you think? That you're cranky when you haven't got any sleep. Want a break? Will you know him if you see him? I'll wake you if anyone comes or goes from the house. Dante sighed and stood, staggering on his stiff legs. A nap might do me some good. Lou sat in a nest of blankets on the floor. C had claimed the poster bed and was stirring, woken by their voices. You look like a dried-up frog, she laughed. I'm guessing you haven't seen him. With such uncanny powers of deduction, it's no wonder you're so good at your job. Dante shrugged off his coat and draped it over a chair. Lou replaced him at the window. Dante stretched his legs, wandering closer to see. Speaking of, I need you to hit the streets again. I have to know more about what Blaze is doing here. 
She rubbed her eyes and stretched an arm above her head. Elbow talked. I've got a contact on the other side of the hill. I'll see what she's heard. Right after I've had some damn tea. That sounded pretty good, but sleep sounded even better. Dante installed himself in the bed, which smells like hotel perfume and sea's skin, and quickly drifted into the realm between consciousness and proper sleep. He stayed there some time, vaguely aware of the noise of sea preparing to depart. As soon as the door clicked, he fell into a dead slumber. A hand shook his shoulder. He smacked at it and slapped his face. He jolted upright, feeling dizzy and sick from too little sleep, head pounding. Lou pointed at the window. Dante's heart drummed his ribs. He ran to the window. Outside the pink house, a sleek carriage sat in the noon sun. A man hunched inside it with one hand on the running board, fishing around its floorboards, back turned to the hotel. The man straightened, put whatever he'd found into the pocket of his sweeping coat, turned, and looked Dante straight in the eye. Or so it felt. In truth, Dante watched through the narrowest sliver of window, obscured by a heavy curtain and the glare of the sun on the glass. In the street, the man planted his palms on the small of his back and leaned back until it looked like he'd snap in half. Dante had seen that stretch a thousand times before. He moved to the side of the window. Well, Lou said. Dante nodded blankly. Lou gestured frantically. And? We wait for C. He sent Lou down for tea. He hadn't known how he'd feel at this moment, but he hadn't expected this numbness. He had no idea what to do next. Ironically, if he and Blaze had still been companions, Blaze would have come up with the perfect solution in a trice. They had complimented each other, improvising their way through a thousand different disasters. Three years later, Dante still wasn't used to making decisions without having his thoughts challenged and improved at every step of the process. Lou returned with tea. Dante thanked him. More words almost followed, but something stopped him. C got back a few hours later. We're in luck. Dunvan Street is as incestuous as the royal family. Lou wrinkled his nose. What's so lucky about that? My person knows a person. Their person's already agreed to speak to us tonight. Dante refilled his mug. Tell me it's not another trip to that above-ground sewer we visited the other night. It's a temple, C said. Will that work, or will you burst into flames if you step inside? The temple might, he said, but that's its problem. With the meeting hours away, Dante caught another nap. C got out a deck of cards, cajoled Lou into playing, and methodically fleeced him of every penny in his pockets. The hour arrived. Once more they donned their fancy garb and hit the streets. It was close to midnight, and except for a few intoxicated revelers, the only other travelers on Dunvern Street were the city guard. Dante made a show of chatting about the party they were on their way to crash, chuckling heartily. 
C strode ahead, turning down a leaf-strewn alley that opened into a pedestrian mall. She crossed this without a second glance, taking them to a stone staircase set in the side of a hill. After a brief stretch of wooded parkland, the ground leveled and cleared. The temple topping the hill was from an earlier age, but even at a distance, its hexagonal spire gave it away. It was dedicated to Tame, father of time and judgment. Dante couldn't help wondering if there was a symbolic element to their context's choice of location. The base was hexagonal, too, capped by a slate dome. Out front, a pedestal displayed a small blue flame, burning unattended. C took them around the back, where a viciously narrow staircase had been wrought into a seam in the temple. Their boots scuffed on the steps. The temple dome was painted with silver points, a map of the night sky. Eighty feet up, the top of the dome flattened to a platform, allowing a view of the city and access to the spire. A shadow moved from the spire and stood across from them. Why do you want to know about Pendulous? Dante had no idea which lie was best. I believe he might not be entirely trustworthy. Do you represent the king? The woman asked. Far from it. Do you? She laughed sourly. I represent one of the many people the king has wronged. That being... A lady who deserves better than to be run over roughshod? She slitted her eyes. That's all you need to know. Fair enough, Dante said. A breeze picked up, and though his footing was perfectly sound, he couldn't stop himself from throwing out his hands for balance. So, what is Pendulous doing in Setovan? Are you aware of Bossen? The clothes? Like the Norin make? And are you aware it is the most prized object in the land? Pendulous practically has a monopoly on it, and he's about to turn that monopoly over to the king. What? Dante blurted. Why? The servant made a face. Why do you think? To get filthy, stinking rich. My lady had a deal in place, but when Mardigan caught wind of it, he decided to snatch it up for himself. Pendulous couldn't say no to the king. He was probably happy for a chance to acquire a tie to the throne. I'm sorry to hear that, Dante managed, head spinning. Then anything more you can tell me will serve both our aims. The deal goes down in two days. The woman grinned ruefully at the spire. That's why I came here figured I'd beseech Tame to knock the palace to the ground. You never know. Thank you for your time. Dante bowed and headed back down the steps. Back on the ground, he turned to see. Good work. I know, she said. Now can we get back to Narastovic and fit me for my new uniform? I look deadly in black and silver. Just one more step. He gazed into the night. Blaze is no longer the man I once knew. It's time to expose his true colors to the king. Chapter 8 Taya absorbed his story about the meeting as thoughtfully as ever. 
When he finished, she said, Have you thought about why Mulligan is offering to buy you out? Blaze shrugged. So he can fill his basement with coins and swim around in them like an avaricious duck? In your pursuit of the Duke, you've been blathering far and wide about the deal for weeks. The King's known about it at least that long, possibly since the first day you mentioned Bossin. Why swoop in now? He went still, following the lines of her logic. To hide something, to protect the Duke, his nephew. Taya nodded once. The Duke couldn't afford the Bossin, so he thought to steal it instead. Somehow, Modigan was led to believe you knew who was behind the attack on our wagons, and now he's buying your silence. You're devious, aren't you? Should I be hiding the kitchen knives when I sleep? Blaze folded his arms and watched Dunvern Street through the window. Follow-up question. So what? That the king is duping you? He's buying my bosom, isn't he? He'll have more than anyone in Setovan. He won't flip it the next day. He'll try to dribble it out to maximize his investment. Meanwhile, we flood the market beneath him. This is significantly more dangerous than going after the Duke. Dillager is a cad, a fool. If he were to go bankrupt, the court would echo with, I told you so. Whereas the king is far too savvy to sink his wealth into a bum horse. Taya lifted her finger and pointed at him, meaning he'll pin the blame on the horse trader. He's fettered by the inconvenient fact his nephew tried to rob me. If he tries to come after us, he risks exposing Dillager and his own attempt to cover up the crime. And if he loses his fortune, revenge might throw reason out the window. She circled her finger on the arm of her chair. I'll work on finding direct evidence between Duke Dillinger and the bandits. If Modigan winds up coming for us, it would be nice to have a dagger and not an empty sheath. Agreed. Time to order more bosom into Dolendon, too. Oh, you know what else you should do? Start thinking of how you'll spend our upcoming hoard of riches. I was thinking of buying a fleet, personally. Seems useful. They both knew the funds generated from this venture would go right back into bringing Gask to its oppressive knees. But it was amusing to pretend. Anyway, they'd been building for this for so long that no one could blame him for feeling buzzed. And through dumb luck, or, more accurately, due to a ruthless, single-minded, months-long campaign, they'd come further than he'd ever imagined. The Bossen Gambit wouldn't be enough to wreck Modigan by itself— but the kingdom had been sorely lacking in free labor, since the Norren had wrested themselves from their chains, and with fewer taxes out of Galador, and none at all from the newly independent Narashtivik, the once mighty Gascon Empire was looking a little shabby around the edges. A bit wobbly. A good shove would only knock it further off balance, and if some other disturbance came along after that... Enough dreaming. He had just three days until he'd returned to the palace and sealed the deal. He still had to bring the bossin in from the country. Now that he'd struck a bargain with the king himself, he didn't think there would be any more attempts to steal it, but you never knew. Once the goods were on the move into the city, he didn't intend to let them out of his sight until he shook hands with Modigan and replaced the crates of clothes with chests of silver. 
he spent the rest of the day down at the warehouse, preparing it to shelter the wagons. The next day, while Taya pursued gossip and intrigue, he rode to the country and drove the bossen back to Setevan. They parked the wagons in the warehouse. He and the guards set up beds there, maintaining a constant vigil over their prize. The sun rose on the day of the deal. He dressed in his finery, even the ridiculous little tricorner hat currently in vogue. A squadron of red-shirted cavalry arrived at the warehouse while he prepared, augmenting his guards. There were perks of doing business with the crown. Bathed and outfitted, Blaze strolled into the daylight and saluted the commander of the cavalry. Shall we? The man nodded. Blaze climbed into his carriage. The procession rattled over the cobblestones, barged its way across town, and crossed the causeway to the palace. The wagons ground to a stop in the gravel. There existed the chance, however remote, that Modigan was on to them, and that this was an elaborate counter-sting. In case things went bad, he'd arranged for Taya to bug out with the wagons and hide at a safe house in the country. Paranoid, but when you are dealing with this much money, there was no such thing as being too cautious. There outside the palace, Blaze nodded to her, and she nodded back. He was met by the same servant who'd summoned him to the king three days ago. As the two of them walked inside, guards and teamsters moved the wagons around the side of the palace to conduct the physical exchange of bosson and hard currency, which would be inspected by Modigan and Pendelus's staff. The two of them were too lofty to degrade themselves by being concerned with money. His Highness awaits, the servant said. Boy, even when he's sitting around, he makes it sound impressive. Blaze glanced through the marble foyer. He had a sword on his hip, ostensibly decorative, and a knife on his calf, but he saw no signs he'd be needing to put them to use. They climbed onto the lift and were borne up to the top layer of the edifice. The guards eyed Blaze and allowed him past. Rather than being deposited in the cramp, windowless room where he'd first met Modigan, he was escorted to a lavish, sprawling chamber of tables, chairs, chaises, and benches, with a stage at one end and a panoramic view of the lake and the city beyond. Servants bustled about, offering refreshments on silver trays to the handful of nobles present. Statuesque guardsmen flanked the windows, staring levelly. There was no sign of Modigan but Blaze's attention was diverted by servants offering him crystal goblets of dark wine and assorted dishes of things stuffed and or wrapped with other things. As he ate and drank, the people of importance drifted up to him in ones and twos to exchange standard party chatter. The weather, upcoming holidays, the ways Pendulous's homeland differed from Setevan, and which he preferred better. Yet they were also unusually forward about business matters. What else did he deal in? Did he believe demand for Norin goods would continue to increase? Yes? To which Nuller, then? This event was a celebration of the Bossen deal, but it soon became clear that it was about something more, introducing Pendulous to the king's friends and business partners, so they, too, could fatten themselves on the new markets Pendulous was bringing to the table. 
This had large and wonderful implications for he and Taya's campaign against the Empire. He was too busy exchanging bon mots and advice with the upper crust to properly explore the avenues opening before him, but now that he knew they were there, he looked forward to turning them into his new stomping grounds. A hush fell over the room. Heads turned. The king had entered. Modigan had ruled for decades and was practical to the point of severity. The sort who placed function several rungs above form. He wore a red doublet of elegant simplicity and a crown with as few frills as a wedding band. Good morning, he said, stopping at the edge of the stage. I hope you are enjoying yourselves. Please continue to do so. Some of the younger nobles in attendance glanced around, awaiting some regal speech, but Modigan descended the steps and crossed to Blaze. Lord Pendulous. Blaze bowed his head. Your Highness, my people have assessed the goods. Should I inform them the transaction is complete? That depends. Do you think the palace is sturdy enough to bear all the shiny new coins that are about to flow into it? Modigan snorted crooking the corner of his mouth. You are well practiced in mockery to turn it on a king, especially when you compel him to enjoy it. He made a small rolling gesture. A pole-bearing servant stepped out onto the broad stone balcony and waved a white flag back and forth. Far below, horses snorted and jangled. A thin servant stepped beside them. Your Highness. Modigan didn't turn. I am in the middle of something. I had noticed the celebration and would not dare to interrupt it. The man smiled with a happy arrogance, except that the matter I bring before you is directly relevant to it. Cease interrupting me, or you will be escorted to a place where you will have no company to interrupt. The servant adopted a look of shock. You would imprison me for warning you of an attempt at treason? Finally, the king turned to meet the man's eyes. That would be a charge which, if presented falsely, would be grounds for the death not of the accused, but the accuser. You wish proof? The man said thoughtfully. What kind? Like the swords I'll turn on you if you keep stalling. Hard and swift. The servant nodded, winked at Blaze, and snapped his fingers. The man vanished, replaced by... Dante fucking Galland. Greetings, Your Majesty, he said, no longer disguising his voice. We've never met, so I won't blame you if you don't recognize me. The king blinked and actually fell back half a step, faltering on his bad leg, yet he managed to keep his voice level. You are known to me. There is no need for worry, Dante said. It's not you I'm here to see, rather it's the man disguised in your midst. The king swiveled his head toward Blaze. Blaze tipped his head and sighed at the ceiling. You idiot! Modigan's jaw bulged. What is your real name? Pendulous. Blaze thrust back his shoulders. The jig was up. There was nothing left but to try to cause a riot and let his wits take it from there. Pendulous testicles. A blanket of silence muffled the room. 
as suddenly as that blanket being ripped from the bed of a man who's overslept, the chamber erupted with shouts, questions, and the whisper of swords yanked from sheaths. Take them alive if you can, Modigan commanded, retreating. But I won't blame you if you have no choice. Great job, Blaze shouted at Dante. You ruined everything and we'll spend the rest of our lives in a dungeon. Dante grabbed his elbow. Wrong. The king's men advanced, sword tips glaring. Dante laughed. The stone floor beneath Blaze's feet pulled away like oil sliding across a hot pan. Blaze yelped and fell into the void. A plucky guard leapt after them in hot pursuit, but the stone swept back to its former shape, sticking the man fast at the waist, his legs kicked in confusion. Blaze slammed into the ground, and into something else, too, judging by the jolt of his elbow. A plush rug had cushioned his fall. He pushed himself to his knees and examined his elbow. Blood pattered to the carpet. Do you have any idea what you just destroyed? He said. Besides this table? Dante grimaced and sat up amid its splinters. You mean your attempt to refill the king's war coffers? I was going to empty them, to smash this whole kingdom. Blaze tried to rise, but his elbow quivered and gave out. Dante swabbed this cut with a handkerchief, then swathed it in nether, sealing the wound as quickly as it had appeared. Bullshit! You've been enriching these people for over a year! He got to his feet, pulling Blaze up with him. A bald old man gaped at them like a breathless eagle. Boots stomped upstairs. Shouts rang through the cavernous halls. Dante grabbed Blaze's elbow and dashed toward the terrace. What are you doing here? Blaze said. I came to explain. To apologize. Dante flung open the door to the brittle daylight, and to snap you out of whatever madness sent you down this path. Blaze wanted nothing more than to explain in detail how Dante had just saved Narashtivik's worst enemy. That bit of knowledge would fester in Dante's gut for sure, but there wasn't time. Dante had a route out of the top layers of the palace, and if Blaze didn't follow, he'd be caught and tortured. He dashed out onto the stone sweep of the terrace. I don't need your apology. All I need is for you to leave me alone. It doesn't have to be this way. I had no other choice than to kill the only woman I've ever loved. For an instant, that silenced him. Dante reached the waist-high railing at the edge of the balcony. Others extended beneath them in narrow terraces, each ledge separated by a twenty-foot fall. Dante gritted his teeth. If I hadn't, we all would have died. What else could I do? Blaze glanced behind them. No pursuit yet. You can wave your hands and put a hole through a marble floor. How hard would it have been to get her out of harm's way? Dante got a vague look on his face. Blaze felt it in the air, the way he always did when Dante summoned the shadows prior to accomplishing something ridiculous. A yard-wide ribbon of stone shot from the edge of the balcony and slanted down to the one below it. But it didn't stop there. The same thing was happening on every level. The strip was bent up at its edges, like a slide. Dante fell on his ass. His face had gone as pale as a cavefish. Maybe there was, he gasped. Maybe there was another way, and I was too foolish to see it. But I can't undo it. No one can bring back the dead. You're right, Blaze said. It's done. 
and so am I. The color seeped back into Dante's cheeks. He stood shakily and stepped over the railing onto the top of the slide. You're sure? I'm sure. And what are you going to do about it? A look stole over Dante's eyes. One blaze knew too well. Dante gestured for him to cross the rail. Bring you to your senses. Once again, you've opened my eyes to what I must do. Blaze stepped over, peered down the slide, and shoved Dante over the edge. Before Dante had time to cry out, Blaze jumped onto the slide. Air whisked past his face. The slide was as smooth as the stones at the bottom of a mountain stream, and he accelerated quickly. Something thumped behind him, but he didn't bother to turn. He had no illusions Dante was dead. The damned warlock had probably turned the stone below him into a friendly mud puddle. Even if he hadn't had time for sorcery and had snapped a few bones, he could knit them back together with a snap of his fingers. Blazer's only hope was to outrun him. The slide was providing him an admirable head start. His eyes watered. He lay back, gliding on his shoulder blades and the worn leather heels of his boots. The tip of his scabbard skittered. He clamped the weapon to his thigh. After shooting down three levels, he sat up to slow down and get a look around. Below, his caravan was already on its way across the causeway. Guards were shouting from up top, but the lift would take a couple minutes to get downstairs. The grounds immediately in front of the palace were clear. And he was approaching them at an amazing speed. He splayed his feet, attempting to drag his soles without yanking his legs off. It helped, as did spreading his arms to the wind, but he was still descending at lethal speed. He pulled his sword from his belt. As he hit the gentling curve of the slide's end, he leaned into a crouch, flung the blade as far ahead as he could, and leapt. Turf soared beneath him. He tucked his chin to his chest and angled his wrist over his head, letting his arm fold as he struck the ground. He rolled onto his shoulder, somersaulting three times before skidding to a stop. His whole body smelled like damp grass. It hurt pretty badly, too. But he got up, ran back for his sword, and charged onto the gravel road, where a groomsman readied a horse. Ah, right where I left it, Blaze said. He brandished his blade in customary threatening manner. The groomsman ran off with a moan. Blaze jumped onto the horse's side, wrestled himself into the saddle, and drove it toward the causeway. Men cried out behind him. Too bad for them. They should have taken the slide. He thundered forward, gaining rapidly on the dawdling caravan, which had no reason to believe anything was wrong. The rearmost riders turned. He put away his sword and waved his hands over his head, then gestured forward, urging them on. They exchanged a look, then called to the drivers. The wagons picked up speed. He reached them at the same moment guards spilled from the palace door. Thea detached from the caravan and rode back to meet him. It's over. Dante found me. He exposed me to the king. Thea eyed him levelly. You're sure? Given how absurd the events of the last three minutes have been, this could be a wild fever dream. But if we are in fact real, I'd advise you to get out of town as fast as possible. Continue our work however you can. And you? He's got my blood, Blaze said. Sneaky bastard pretended he was healing me. 
With that, he can track me anywhere. So where will you go? The one place he can't follow. That tells me nothing, she said, which I suppose is for the best. We'll regroup and continue as best we can. Sorry to leave you in the lurch, Blaze said. It's been wonderful to work with you, Tear. I'll see you again someday, promise. As unruffled as ever, she nodded, then turned to their men and began barking orders. Blaze sighed and charged forward. At the gates between the bridge and the Street of Kings, he waved gaily to the red-shirted guards who nodded back. Blaze wasn't surprised they hadn't caught on. They were used to keeping people out, not keeping them in. He cut south through the city. It was what they'd expect. If they believed he was in league with Narashtovic, the obvious first leg would be the southern road to Dolondon. But they had no way to catch up with him, not if he kept riding. He juked around pedestrians, hat long gone to the winds, just starting to feel the aches in his shoulders and ribs. It was incredible how swiftly he'd accepted his fate, adapted his whole plan. Deep down, he must have known this day would come. While he'd been playing spy games, his inner wolf had been preparing for the moment he'd have to jump out of the metaphorical window. Either that, or he was just damn good at this. He tore out of the city, raced down the road toward Dolondon, then veered southwest into the vacant hills. By early evening, with spears of yellow light shooting in from the west, he stopped atop a ridge to give the horse a breather and to scan the lands behind him. No sign of pursuit. But Dante would come. Blaze couldn't rule out the king, either. Modigan had nethermancers of his own, and who knew what tricks they had tucked in their voluminous sleeves? Additionally, Modigan must be highly confused. He had apparently been conned by an impostor, an enemy, into parting with a fortune. Yet, the bosun was legit. He'd be highly motivated to hunt Blaze down and hang him by his thumbs, until he revealed the purpose behind his scam. That, in turn, meant Blaze was highly motivated to continue running as fast as humanly possible, or, more accurately, as fast as equestrianly possible. Tragically, his mount was already beginning to flag. Farms dotted the landscape, snugged into the draws between hills where streams flowed north toward Setevan. Blaze stopped at a house, spoke with the farmer who lived there, and arranged to swap his exhausted horse for a fresh one. The farmer cannily extracted two precious rings from Blaze as well. An outrageous price in the normal world, but Blaze would soon have no cause for money. Besides his blades, the only thing his current possessions were good for was to get him to his destination. Blaze made sure to snag a lantern and oil in the deal. He knew he'd have to sleep eventually, but he wanted to put more miles behind him first. If a broken leg befell his horse, a sturdy workhorse but rather less impressive than the fancy-stepping palace mount he'd just left behind, Dante would catch him within a day. Trails snaked through the hills, but nothing you'd call a proper road. For the most part, he had to travel the night at a walk, picking his way forward with the help of the lantern and the moon. By midnight, he'd had enough. He camped in a drawer 
tearing up brush and grass to form a rudimentary cave tent. But he'd forgotten to get blankets from the farmer. And that night, the cold autumn wind nearly killed him. He got up after a few hours, less from the urge to keep moving as from the need to stir his limbs enough to get warm again. Stiff, sore, exhausted, hungry, and generally miserable, he continued across the hills, pushing the horse to a trot here and there, but mostly sticking to a walk that would preserve their collective endurance. He cursed Dante's name the whole while. He descended from the hills into a plain bordered by the mountains of Galador Rift to the east and by Vossen Forest to the west. He stopped at another farmhouse and traded a silver necklace for meat pies, baked potatoes, a sack of walnuts, and two thick blankets. He almost asked for a quick nap in a bed, but there was no getting around the fact the next couple days would be a living hell. He just had to make it through. He carried on. Sometimes he dozed in the saddle, but despite the lack of roads, he wasn't concerned about going off course. Hemmed in by mountains and forest, the way forward was clear. Miles came and went. His horse wouldn't win any shows, but it had been trained to endure, and he only spent two more nights in the wilds. He was so tired that, when he first saw the sheer black cliffs of Pocket Cove, he thought they were a mirage. He rode up and touched the cool basalt. The cliffs rose monolithically, sweeping north to south, blocking all entry to the bay on the other side. He dismounted, legs aching. Wind whistled through the prairie. He waved his hands over his head and shouted as loud as he could, Hello! Hello! Nothing. Just as he'd expected. He led the horse south along the wall, stopping every few hundred feet to shout some more. After three hours, he searched the spot in the wall where the hidden staircase was, more accurately, where it had been. First in his excitement, and then in his exhaustion, he'd forgotten the people of the pocket had crumbled it into rubble. Hello, he said. Listen, I know you're up there. I've met you. And if one of you doesn't have the courtesy to come give me a wave, I'll climb up there hand over hand. The whooshing wind was his only reply. He added a sigh to it, got down from his horse and began to climb. It wasn't easy. The cliffs were almost smooth, and he didn't have anything in the way of equipment. Instead, he had one extremely effective tool. Maniacal determination. Eight feet up, as he clung to a two-inch ledge, the rock beneath his fingertips disappeared. He fell to the ground, landing in a low, knee-jarring crouch. He tipped back his head and smiled wryly. Far up the cliff, a head poked over the edge. If you try that again, the woman said, voice carrying with unnatural vigor, I'll wait to drop you until you're a hundred feet up. There you are, he said. Do they leave one of you unfortunate souls posted up there all day? We keep watch on our walls. So, have any of your friends recognized me? 
I'm Blaze Buckler. Visited you a few years back. I had a friend with me named Dante. I remember, she said. We haven't had another visitor since. Blaze nodded and took a drink to soothe his throat. Well, Dante figured out how to move the earth around like you guys do, with a vengeance. If you don't let me in, I'll sneak around the coast and into Pocket Cove when you least expect it. To find me, he'll tear down the cliffs. If we let you inside, what would stop him from tearing down the cliffs anyway? At least you'll know when he's coming, and I'll do my best to talk him into leaving. She lifted her head to look across the plains. Blaze followed her. Miles away, three silhouetted riders moved across a ridge and dropped from sight, heading west. What exactly do you want? the woman said. To learn what you do best. How to disappear. Those who come in can't ever leave. Perfect, Blaze said. Where do I sign? One moment. The woman withdrew from the cliff. The wind stirred the grass. A minute ticked by. As Blaze prepared to call to her and demand an answer, stone groaned across the plains. Before his eyes, a staircase appeared on the side of the cliff. Blaze grinned and started up. Chapter 9 The dark curtain stood on the prairie, like a wall at the end of the world. Dante sighed and cursed simultaneously. What is it? Lou said. Did we go the wrong way? Is that a dead end? Yes, which only proves we're in the right place. Dante shifted in the saddle. Give me a minute to think. He'd come so close. Since riding from Setevan two days ago, the pressure in his head had mounted steadily. And in the last hour, that pressure, the physical manifestation of the ethereal link between Blaze and the blood Dante had collected on the handkerchief, had accelerated. That meant Blaze had stopped, stymied, most likely, by the cliffs of Pocket Cove. Dante knew that Blaze wouldn't have dashed all the way out here without some sort of plan for entry, but the people of the Pocket, A, didn't know Blaze was coming, and B, were notoriously inhospitable, which was likely the very reason Blaze was gambling on this approach. There had been a chance, in other words, for Dante to catch him again. He'd sent another burst of nether through their horses' veins to cleanse them of their aches and fatigue, then galloped across the prairie. And then the pressure had begun to slacken. Blaze was moving away from Dante. Somehow he'd gotten inside. Considering Blaze's head start, it was a miracle they'd come this close to him. Blaze's stunt at the palace had caught Dante completely off guard. He'd been so startled by the fact Blaze had shoved him off the railing that, before he hit the ground, he'd had no time to do more than clutch his arms to his head and yelp. He woke in a stone room. Four guards and two old men in robes whirled to face the bed, feet shuffling as they stepped back. Dante's left arm and hip throbbed dully. His head ached much worse. Not all the way conscious, he drew on the nether. The robed men shouted. Pale ether crackled in the air. Dante went very still. 
That pause allowed them to explain. They were Modigan's court ethermancers. In the fall from the terrace, Dante had broken his arm, chipped his hip, and rattled his head. They'd healed him. This was confusing, especially in his adult state, but over the following hours of discussion, his status clarified. He wasn't a prisoner per se, although he wasn't allowed to leave despite his urgent protestations. Eventually, the court interrogator downgraded him from potential assassin to... question mark. At that point, Modigan himself stepped in for a brief conversation. Because Dante was a fellow regent. Even if he and Modigan were dire enemies, which they no longer were, Dante would have been afforded the special privileges that were his due. By definition, a ruler bore the mandate of Aron. You couldn't disrespect that without weakening your own status as king. Not to mention degrading yourself in the eyes of other regions who might not feel compelled to treat you any better should you someday wind up in their hands. Additionally, Modigan seemed to understand Dante hadn't come to Setevan to hurt him. If anything, given Modigan's line of questions, Dante deduced that he believed Dante's exposure of Blaze had helped save him from something. The long and short of it was that, while the events in the palace had been shocking and remained opaque, Modigan had no reason to believe Dante knew any more than he did. The nations weren't at war, or particularly close to it. The crown appeared safe. Even so, had Dante been a commoner, he never would have seen the light of day again. Instead, he was told that the court would continue to investigate, and that if they determined Dante had come to the palace for hostile intent, the consequences would be sinister. Then he was released. All told, he'd lost less than twenty-four hours. A frantic scramble to the southwest ensued. By the time he, Lou, and C took their first rest, Dante had guessed where Blaze was headed. And here they were, at the indomitable cliffs of Pocket Cove. Following the pressure in his head, he rode to their base and threw back his shoulders. I am Dante Galand, High Priest of the Council of Narashtavik. You will give me Blaze Buckler, or I will come in and take him. Grass whispered to itself. High above, the cliffs remained vacant. Do you think they heard it? Blue said. Absolutely. Blaze will have warned him. They're the people of the pocket, C said. They don't talk to anyone. They'll hear this, Dante said. He cut his arm and wiped the blood across his palm. Nether bloomed. He delved into the shadows lurking in the rock atop the cliff and coaxed them away. Stone flowed like tepid bacon grease, revealing the first turn of a new staircase. Five heads popped up from the cliffs. Stop that, a woman said. Sure, Dante replied. All you have to do is give me Blaze. No one goes in or out. Then how did Blaze get in? Give me the same exemption you gave him. Leave now, she said, before you're left to fertilize the prairie instead. If that's how you want to play it. Dante focused on the cliff and began to carve another segment of stairs. He'd no sooner touched the nether in the rock than a flood of shadows gushed through the earth toward his work. He shouted, redoubling his strength, 
but the combined efforts of the pocket's defenders dashed his hold, erasing the steps from the top of the cliffs. First warning, another woman called. The next time we bury you and your friends alive. I don't want to be buried, Lou hissed. Can't you negotiate? Why does it always have to be the crushing of them by you? Quit cowering, Dante scowled. He tipped back his head to call up to the cliffs. Why does he matter to you? Because he does, the first woman said. See, that's not actually a reason. I won't hurt him, I'm his friend. You don't understand. He's passed into the pocket. Your previous lives, whatever your connection to him, none of it matters now. These are the last words we give you, the second woman said. Now go. Dante nodded slowly. A hawk shrieked from the vacant blue sky. He turned his horse and strolled away from the cliffs. The others didn't speak. After he'd gotten a half mile from the black wall, the sun descending on the west, he stopped, dismounted, and made camp. Still some daylight left, C said. I see that. Daylight that can be used to distance ourselves from this creepy ghostland. Dante pulled a towel from the bags and rubbed his horse's flank, settling in. We're not done here. C rolled her eyes. Sure, in the technical sense that you can stay here until you starve, it's not over. But in the sense that you will never, ever get into Pocket Cove, it's done. Let's go home. You want a position at Narashtovic? Then you start now. Dante pointed at the dark line of the cliffs. Your first job is to get me inside the pocket. She reached for a water skin and said nothing. Lou gazed at the grass. It seems like he doesn't want to be found. If you get to him again, what are you going to do? Talk to him, Dante said. Get him to see reason. The others fell silent. They strung up canvas tarps to block the wind. The night was frigid. Small creatures rustled, foraging for seeds. Dante woke in the darkness, killed a rat with a pinpoint of nether, and delved his sight into its dead eyes. He directed it to run across the flat ground to the rocky scree beneath the basalt walls. The rat's claws hooked into nooks in the stone, ascending. When the wind gusted, it flattened itself against the wall. It was three-quarters of the way up the heights when a bolt of nether lashed down from above. Dante's second sight winked out. With dawn glowing to the east, someone cleared their throat. It repeated. Dante opened his eyes. Are you out there? Nack said through the loon. Where else would I be? Dante said, phlegm catching in his throat. Give me your comings and goings. For all I know, you're on Aron's grassy hill, or underneath the sea, demanding the crabs tell you when they last saw Blaze. What do you want? For you to do something about the infestation. Nack, do you have any idea how early in the morning it is? Start talking sense, or I'll throw this loon in a lake. The infestation of Norrin. 
in our plaza. Dante rolled to his side and sat up. Norin, has something happened in Gask? Why does it sound like that wouldn't surprise you? Nack said. They came to tell us they've seen lights in the hills near the Dundons, strange creatures. Oh, and a man named Hop claims that if you continue to defy him with your non-presence, he'll send you downstream like the good old days. Does that mean anything to you? Unfortunately, Dante said. Specifically, it was a threat to drown him, like Blaze almost had during the admission trial to Hop's clan of the Broken Herons, which Dante still belonged to. Dante might be a great lord and master in the human world, but among the Norrin he was a common clansman, beholden to the orders of his chief, assuming, of course, he cared to honor his part. He found that he did. While his time fighting alongside the Norrin felt like it belonged to an earlier stage of his life, in fact, he hadn't seen Hop in over a year, it still held meaning to him. He might have respected his chieftain's wishes, even if Hop hadn't been bearing news about the same phenomenon they'd witnessed in the Wodens. Tell him to stay put, Dante said. We'll be back as soon as we can. And how long will that be? Nack said. A week, no more than ten days. Ten days? Where are you? The moon? Dante glanced at the cliffs. In one sense, it's even further. I'm not going to bother to ask what that means, Nack said. See you when I see you. The connection dropped. We're going back to Narashtivik, Dante informed the others once they were up. Does your brain sweat or something? C said. You change your mind like some men change socks. There's no getting inside. I can't handle the people of the pocket by myself, and there are more pressing matters at home. Like what? Large, furry men who get grumpy when you make them wait. They ate and rode out. With no desire to risk any further troubles in Setevan, Dante set a course dead east towards the peaks of Galador. They found a trail across the prairie and rode hard. When their horses tired, he showed Lou how to soothe their exhaustion. Though the young monk was talented and a quick learner, there was only so much the Nether could do for the animals, who still required regular rests and sleep, as did the humans. Regardless, they made great time and soon reached the paved road into the mountains of Galador Rift. The lakes glittered below them. In less trying circumstances, he would have paid a visit to Lolligan, to catch up and hear for himself how things stood between the Gascon Empire and the semi-breakaway state of Galador, but that could wait for a later day. The events in the hinterlands troubled him, mostly because nobody seemed to have a single clue what they meant. They crossed the basin and the mountains to the east, then descended to the wheat fields of Tetonin. Oxen lowed, ploughing rows of winter wheat. The land looked at peace. Dante stopped to purchase supplies, then took the northern road all the way to Narashtivik. He wasn't sure of the distance they'd crossed between the city and Pocket Cove. Eight hundred miles? Amazing how fast you could move with proper roads and magically enhanced mounts. Past the inn gate, 
a makeshift village of tents and yurts filled the square between the Cathedral of Ivars and the walls of the sealed citadel. Norrin men and women sewed clothes, smoked fish, and chipped arrows from flakes of obsidian, as if they were off in the lonely hills, instead of occupying one of the busiest plazas in one of the largest cities in the known world. A yurt flapped open. Hop strode into the sunlight. To Dante's mild surprise, he was still beardless, continuing to display the circled R branded on his right cheek, relic of the days not so long ago when Norrin had been property rather than people. This is how you treat your chieftain's orders, he boomed, by dawdling. Dawdling, Dante said, tell that to our overworked horses, if you're prepared to get trampled. Such insouciance calls for a public flogging. He turned and flung out his hands. Men, where is my cat on ninety-nine tails? Please, sir, Lou said. We came as fast as we could, all the way from Pocket Cove. Hop turned on him, glowering down at him from a height of seven feet. Lou raised a hand to protect his face. Unable to take it any longer, Hop burst out laughing. What the hell were you doing at Pocket Cove? Admiring the scenery, Dante said. What the hell are you doing camped in the middle of Narashtovic? Coming to see you. Is that a problem? The whole clan? Hop squinted, then nodded broadly. This is strange to you because you are a human, and humans don't like to leave their homes. Whereas if you're Norrin, Dante said, the entire world is your home. Close. The clan is our home, so it would be more strange for a few of us to leave the others behind than for us to bring the entire band. Dante glanced across the men and women of the broken herons. He still recognized nearly all of them. You look well. Has there been any trouble? That is a worthless question. Pop laughed. When is the answer not yes? Rather than playing games, why not tell me what brought you here? Dante gestured to the citadel gates. Should we talk inside? Ollivander will want to hear this. Is he too good to come and join us in the fresh air? Beside Dante, Lou looked like his eyes might explode. C smirked. Dante scratched the back of his neck. He's a military man. They guard intelligence like they gave birth to it. On the other hand, if we speak in the open, that makes it less likely he'll flay me alive. I'll ask him to come down. He called up to the gatekeepers to send for Gant. A minute later, the major domo emerged, listened intently to Dante's request, and returned inside. Soon enough, Ollivander exited the gates. Burly and bearded enough to be mistaken for one of the Norrin, though half a foot too short. He saw Dante and suppressed a flicker of emotion. He nodded to Hop. Ready to talk? I've been ready since I got here. The Norrin raised his thick brows. It's your future commander who's caused the delays. Well, we're all here now. Ollivander gestured to Hop's yurt. Shall we? A more ornery Norrin might have insisted they stay outside, but Hop was unusually easygoing for a clan chief, and agreed without issue. He, Ollivander, and Dante walked inside a warm, round room of wool blankets and fur pillows. 
In the corner, an old woman gazed at them from the darkness. She's trustworthy, Ollivander said. Hop shrugged. More than I am. They settled onto the pillows, sitting cross-legged. The familiarity between Hop and Ollivander suggested they had spoken more than once while waiting for Dante to cross the western continent. We have been troubled, Hop said. We know our lands like no other, but things have appeared that are strange to us. Lights in the skies, patterns, animals we've never seen, or which at least we can't remember having seen before. Cappers, Dante said. Hop shook his head. Cappers never leave the Wodens, which is why Norrin never enter the Wodens. Then what are they? How should I know the name of something I've never seen before? The power of description might prove helpful. One is like a rabbit, Hop said, except for fangs. Dante stared at him, trying to determine if this was a jest. Are they aggressive? Not to date. Either you missed me more than I could imagine, or you came here to tell us about something more than pretty lights and carnivorous rabbits. It isn't a rabbit, the Norrin snorted. I said it looks like one, but yes, I came to tell you a story. A story, Ollivander said. An old story, but aren't they all? This story says that, many years ago, lights shined from the hills from the peaks, from all the high places. The nights aglow with colors never seen by day. Some feared this and fled to the low places. Others stayed put in their tents, but others were curious, and their curiosity lured them to the peaks. Among these was a woman named Yona. She went into the mountains with a spear and a bow of many arrows, because she may have been curious, but she was also prudent. This was good, because the lights attracted other creatures besides people. The Holland, the Crocs, the Dog of Six Arms. On her way up the heights, Yona slew more than a few. But this is not a story about how an armed person was able to destroy unarmed animals. So, each night the lights streamed above her. Each day she climbed closer to their source in the sky, until one night she found herself right beneath them. The lights danced close, as if daring her to touch them, but every time she reached up they flicked away. For three nights she chased them. Once her hand came so close, she felt the light's cold heat on her skin, but she was never able to touch them. So she sat on the cold turf, and thought. Rains came, soaking her to the bone, but still she sat, reflecting. When night came again, she moved to a pool of rainwater. The lights soared across the sky. She jumped to reach them, and again they danced away. She grinned, knelt beside the pool, and touched their reflection in the water. No sooner had she done so, when Jolson Joe, Lord of all things, special guide to the Norrin, who are his— I know who Jolson Joe is, Dante said. Hop cocked a thick brow. Does your friend? Ollivander glanced around the yurt. I've heard of him. But you don't know him, 
So it is good to be reminded. Besides, he glared at Dante, it is how the story goes. Dante opened one palm. By all means, proceed. Hop frowned at the corner of the yurt, casting about for the thread of his story. If you're so impatient, I'll abbreviate. Joseph Joe appeared to Yona. He looked her from head to toe and said, Why did you come here? Yona shrugged and replied, Because there were lights. You found the way to them, Joseph Joe said. Now find me the Black Star. What is the Black Star? Yona asked. And Joseph Joe said, Just as it sounds. Yona did as she was tasked. And when she delivered the black star to Joe and Joe, together they lifted the drought that had blighted the lands. Hop sat back. Dante waited a couple of seconds. That's it. That's why I think it is a very old story, Hop said. Their endings are never any good. If this is one of your Norrin metaphors, I don't get it. Neither do I the chieftain said, but I knew that you would want to have it at hand, and since it is a Norrin story, I doubted that you would have encountered it before. The yurt was quiet for a moment. Outside, members of the Broken Herons chattered and laughed. Selen, Ollivander said. The word tickled Dante's memory. From the cycle of her own. It's hardly mentioned and the story is nothing like Yona's. Yet the name is the same, Black Star. It was true. Dante hadn't drawn an immediate connection because Hop had pronounced the word in a Norrin dialect. He tapped his fingers together. So, these events have happened before. With significant impact, Ollivander said. Indubitably. That's why nobody's any clue what's happening, and we have to hear about it in a Norrin story that's as obscure as it is cryptic. Ollivander gave him the eye. Hop, does Yona reappear in any other tales? Not that I recall, Hop said, but I always thought her story was too boring to want to hear any more of it. I'll ask my people. Thank you. He turned to Dante. Why don't we? Step inside the citadel. That didn't sound like Dante's idea of a good time, but he had little choice. He exited the yurt and gestured for Lou and C to follow Ollivander through the gates to the courtyard. Inside the citadel proper, Gant moved to intercept C and Lou, while Ollivander and Dante continued upstairs. Once inside Ollivander's chambers, the big man closed the door and stood facing it. Back to Dante. Where were you? Chasing rumors of the lights, Dante said. Is that so? To such distant corners of the earth it took you ten days to return once summoned? By the way, who gave you permission to depart on this venture? I wasn't aware council members had to seek permission to step outside. Ollivander turned halfway, his face darkened with disappointment. Brush this off at your peril. Dante lowered his gaze. It won't happen again. 
No, Ollivander sighed. It won't. Is that a threat? Being a leader means making your responsibility the core of your being. In troubled times, everyone in this city relies on you. How can I entrust tens of thousands of lives to someone who thinks nothing of running off whenever it suits him? I take your lesson to heart, Dante said. So what would you have me do for our city? Ollivander looked up sharply. I don't need you submissive and defeated. I need you to be the man who earned the head of this council. Driven, creative, and defiant. In that spirit, fuck you, sir. Ollivander snorted. Very good. Now, what were you really up to out there? I found Blaze. The hunts took me across Gask. There may have been an incident with King Modigan. He winced, then decided, what the hell? There was an incident. I believe it's blown over, but I'll write it up for you. We may want to dispatch one of Somber's people to soothe any wounds. Should I be angry? Modigan had me and let me go, if that means anything to you. Quite a lot. As is the fact you're back and Blaze is not. Not like you to let what you want get away. Well... It's not like him to do anything he doesn't want. My attempt to set things right didn't go as well as I'd planned. Dante glanced toward the window. In any event, there's nothing more I can do about it. So what about Selen? Do you think it's serious? I have no idea, Ollivander said, and that is why I'm so concerned. I look into it. He met Ollivander's eyes if that's okay with you. The big man chuckled. Do your worst. Dante returned downstairs and had Gant round up Lou and C. He dispatched Lou to the archives to search for any mention of Selen or Yona. Once the monk was gone, Dante turned to C. Are you only good at finding people, or are your talents more versatile? She squinted at him. Are you asking me if I can find books? It doesn't have to be books. It can be anything with a record or mention of what's happening. What do you think is happening? I don't know. C rolled her eyes. Sure. You're clueless. That's why you're running after it like a thirteen-year-old who's just glimpsed his first bare ass. Typically, I would dismiss Hop's story as typical Noran obscurity, he said but this time their legend matches what we're seeing. He gazed across the courtyard. You found Blaze. You earned yourself a job. Now find me everything there is to find. She saluted mockingly and exited through the front gate. Dante ran upstairs to his room and opened the cycle of Aron across his desk. He had whole passages of it memorized and found the mention of Selen without the need to check the monk's indexes, but that mention was no more than a blink. And Selen slipped through the skies, a dark pearl in a black sea, while bright stars flashed on all sides, as common as the sand. That was it. There was little to be gleaned from the context, either a story of sorcerous warfare in an eastern kingdom that had probably never actually existed. 
Dante read the passage three times, but found no hidden meaning. Not that he'd expected it to be that easy. Carrying the cycle, he went into the hallway, walked past the tapestries depicting the white tree, and knocked on Tarkin's door. The old man met him with a smile and led the way to the balcony where he'd been drinking tea and watching the city go about its business. What do you know about Selen? Dante asked. Selen? His brows banged together. About as much as I know about the magical alchemical process that transmutes food into dung. The man had to be ninety or better, but his wits seemed ageless. Dante smiled. Yet you recognize it. Samarans talked about it from time to time. I never paid it much mind. You know how she was about her prophecies. Dante nodded vaguely. He'd only known the former leader of the council for a few months, and at the time he'd been less concerned with getting to know her than he'd been with exterminating her. She had died by Callie's hand during a highly questionable attempt to summon Aron himself to lead her followers to victory in Malon. Her willingness to believe his avatar would appear to her cast shade on anything she might have believed, yet the woman had been a brilliant nethermancer and a powerful leader. Anyway, considering Dante was currently chasing a Norrin myth, it was hard to be too harsh in his judgment. I never got to know her that well. What did she have to say about Selen? Tarkin sipped his tea and scratched the back of his ear. Gibberish, mostly. I got the sense she thought it was a tangible object, something you could take hold of. What stuck with me most is she was most keen on making sure nobody else got it. Why was that? Dante said. Search me. These days my memories are sieve. She never trusted me enough to fill me in on her schemes. Dante stood. If you think of anything else, please let me know. There might be more about it in her rooms, Tarkin said. Callie's chambers. There's nothing left of hers in there. No, her rooms. Downstairs. The existence of these was news to Dante. As soon as Gant led him downstairs, past the main basement and the dungeons, and into a cramped staircase Dante hadn't even known existed, it was clear that Samaran's trove had been well known to Callie. The old man's notes were all over her collection of scrolls, folios, and notebooks, which filled multiple shelves and several desks. There were artifacts, too. Bottles of colorful oils, a bucket of stones and gems, two complete possum skeletons held together with wires and glue, driftwood planks carved with foreign runes, silver goblets and flatware. All of it was cobwebbed, dusty, yellow-gray with age, some of the items were so time-weathered Dante wasn't certain exactly what they were. One item stood out like a lantern on a midnight hill, an object Dante had thought long lost, a four-foot rib bone, shaken from Barden itself during the battle that had taken Samaran's life. Its edge held a terrible, undulling sharpness. Callie had done some work on it early on, then declared it required much more study. Supposedly, he tasked a team of monks with it, 
but somehow the bone had just wound up down here. Dante couldn't guess why. It would have been just a little useful during the war. Perhaps the old man's mind hadn't been as coherent as Dante thought. Perhaps it had been brought here during the war, hidden out of the way, where Modigan's people would be unlikely to find it. Or maybe Callie had simply stored it here with the intention of returning to it later, but the constant business of Narashtevik had left it forgotten. Much of Samaran's collection was quite interesting, but it wasn't what Dante was after. He ordered the servants to help him carry Samaran's prodigious volumes up to Callie's room, then dove into the work. For days he pored over her writing, skimming where he could, but reading closely enough to catch any glancing mention of Selen. Meanwhile, Lou stacked up one old book after another, bookmarking relevant pages with knotted strings. C came and went at odd hours. When Dante's eyes grew strained, he sat back and closed them while she related stories and legends she'd culled from the streets of Narashtevik. The problem, however, was that none of these tales were about the Black Star itself. Instead, they used it as a storytelling device, a metaphor for things that were cryptic or obscure. And so young Hollander became as lost as Selen, for instance, or Gina's dreams remained as out of reach as the Black Star. The same pattern emerged in Lou's books. There had been a flash of mentions of Selen four hundred years ago, during the High Dwardic period, but only as that same metaphorical device. Dante could only conclude an influential thinker had dredged up the term from the mists of the past, and other authors had quickly aped it as a way to display their erudition. Not terribly useful. And then he found Samaran's notes on Selen. His hopes soared. Hours later, they crashed like Vosk and his leather wings. While she had been aware of the phenomenon, teasing it out of a skein of classical references, her knowledge hadn't run any deeper than his own. In one sense, this was impressive, because she had been working with nothing but rumors and scattered mentions of a thing that, as far as Dante could tell, no one else had even known existed. In terms of useful information, however, there was just a single segment he might be able to use. Ten years, total power. Rest Malin back to us, but to find it, to brush back the curtain so it will shine like a flame. And that was it. The rest was largely the same passages copied from the books Lou was bringing him. C's efforts fared no better. During the second week, the stories grew more and more outlandish. Aron pulled the serpent Gormer's heart from its chest, and it was so dark that all who saw it went blind. He had no choice but to stick it behind the night sky, where no one would see it. Dante began to suspect people were making them up on the spot to earn another payment. He burned through the materials in the citadel and enlisted a slew of monks to help comb the public and private libraries distributed across Narashtevik. Even with so many extra eyes in the search, they turned up nothing of note. Strange, considering how strongly Samarant had felt about it, and how obviously the lights were flaring across the mountains. But maybe Selen hadn't appeared in a long, long time. 
or maybe it was nothing more than pretty lights, and didn't deserve a detailed historical account at all. But he thought there was more to it. After three weeks of hunting, he strolled through Ollivander's open door. Permission to sail away to foreign land, sir. Ollivander looked up from the paperwork he never seemed able to leave behind, the one trapping of office Dante most dreaded absorbing. To any land in specific, or has all that reading finally driven you insane? Considering I've exhausted what Narashtovic knows, it would make sense to try anywhere else, but I have a more specific idea. The one place that knows everything. The Hukali Islands. Chapter 10 Blaze jogged up the staircase through the cliff. Up top, the wind tousled the woman's hair. She stood in place, gazing at him as he wiped sweat from his temples and glanced across the plain far below for sight of Dante. Well, he said, aren't we going to head down to the caves, meet the other ladies? I brought you up here because I was tired of shouting, she said. Now talk. About what? The weather. This fog feels strange, but I assume you're used to it. This is why we don't let outsiders in the pocket. She turned to go. Hang on a second. He grabbed for her sleeve. As soon as he made contact, an icy jolt shot up his arm, paralyzing his fingers into claws. He yelped and jerked back, slipping on the damp rocks. He tipped toward the edge of the cliff. Before he could fall, he sat down hard and remained there, massaging his right hand. That was rude, he said. She regarded him impassively. From most angles, she looked as young as he did, but in other moments she looked no less than fifty. More so than grabbing the clothes of a stranger? If you have more to say, quit wasting my time and spill it. I want, I need to learn how to disappear. I know you've got more protecting you than these cliffs. What happens when someone approaches by sea, or one of you decides to take a vacation from the sanctum? We don't leave the pocket. When they come by sea, we seal the caves. Blaze sighed and closed his eyes. Look, the fact you have to lie about it only proves you do have contact with outsiders. Last time I was here, all I saw was women. Unless you've got a very lucky man tucked away in a cave, new recruits have to come from somewhere. A streamer of mist shrouded the sun. In the dimmed light, she looked much older. The man down there, is he here to kill you? I don't know what he intends, to blather at me, probably, but he's crazy enough to try to haul me away with him. He rubbed his hands down his face. Does it matter? I'm sick of being hunted. I want to learn what you do, to be free. How do I know you're not a spy? For who? The guy I'm trying to warn you about? Let him up here and see for yourself. She smiled slightly. Come with me to the shore. We'll see what the others have to say. She turned and squelched through the muck. Ahead, gnarled black pillars rose from the plateau like the arms of plague victims. Cold fog billowed through the rocks, sliming them with condensation. 
It smelled like salt and the flatulent scent of peat. Insects squirmed in the lichen. The mist enveloped them, reducing visibility to fifty yards. The woman picked a careful trail through the columns and stagnant pools. Adrift in the fog, the walk felt eternal, yet it couldn't have lasted more than fifteen or twenty minutes. Eventually, the plateau fell away, exposing a narrow strand of beach and an endless gray sea. She walked to a staircase built into the cliff and descended to the sand. You will wait here, she said. Righto. She moved to the cliff face, brushed aside a leather curtain, and entered a dark cave. Blaze stood there a few minutes, rubbing his hands together to warm them back up after the chill of the plateau. The afternoon was growing late, and a bitter wind swept off the sea, bringing the smell of kelp and hollowed crabs. A group of women emerged from the cave. He stood up and smiled, but they ignored him and headed up the staircase to the bluff. It only took him a second. They were off to deal with Dante. He sat back down, got cold, stood up and wandered the strand, careful not to stray too far from the cave. Mist swirled overhead, but the beach itself was clear. The steam appeared to be materializing as currents of air moved from the sea to the land. Miles to the north and south, the cliffs curved inward, encircling Pocket Cove in a solid wall of stone. It was the world's finest fortress, and if Dante could be believed, the people of the Pocket had built it themselves to keep them safe from the conquering Gascon hordes. Blaze could almost believe it. The sun glowed from the waves so fiercely he thought it might melt the sand into glass and him into jam. It hung above the water, a perfect red ball he could stare right at, without blinking. It touched the horizon and slid away with the slow, steady momentum of a beast with no fear of predators. As soon as its red rim winked behind the blue ledge, the woman appeared from the cave. You can stay, she said, for now. Blaze grinned. I was afraid men weren't allowed. Rarely. They have a habit of trying to take this place for themselves. Well, I promise you'll find me as pliable as that pile of goo next to the seawater over there. I'll take that in the spirit it's intended. So, he said, got a name? Min. She walked toward him. Twilight softened her features, made her look younger again. And it's the last name you get to learn until we know you. Fair enough. Now come and go inside. I'm freezing. Min swiveled her head toward the leather curtain shielding the cave mouth. That is where the people of the pocket live. Are you a person of the pocket? Is this a trick question? You live here, she gestured to the beach, as we did when we first came here. Blaze frowned. If that's how it's going to be, it would have been nice to have some warning. I could have built a hut while you were in there talking. We weren't expecting visitors, were we? Your house, your rules. 
But if you come out here tomorrow and I'm a solid block of ice, at least have the courtesy to drop me in something alcoholic. Min laughed twice, a quick, ha-ha, that sounded rusty from disuse. I'll get you started. She turned back toward the blank cliffs. On reaching their base, she drew a razor from her belt and touched it to the back of the first knuckle of the third finger of her left hand. Shadows bloomed in her hands. As Blaze watched, a wall of rock six feet long and three feet high emerged from the sand. You can handle the rest, she said. How about dinner, he said. Or am I catching my own fish too? Can you? With this, he smacked the sword on his hip. On a calm lake, on a clear day. In churned-up waves approaching dark, I think I'll wind up eating sand cakes. She pointed to the mist-fed falls a couple hundred yards upshore. There's your water. Tonight I'll bring you food. After that, your needs are your own to meet. I regret this immediately, he said. Without another word, she returned to the caves. He took a deep breath and walked down to the tide line to gather driftwood and carry it back to the stone wall Min had conjured up. But there wasn't enough for a roof, let alone walls, and night was coming on fast. He propped a loose rafter system between the wall and the cliffs, then jogged back to the water to gather dried kelp. Tiny black flies swarmed in protest, and it was crackly and foul-smelling, but it was either that or shiver in the breeze all night. He layered it over the rafters. He had a half-decent roof by the time Min showed up. She'd lied. Not only did she bring him a wooden bowl of soup, fish and green onions, but she'd brought a blanket, too. She said her good night and returned to the cave. Blaze ate, tucked the bowl inside his hovel, and walled both sides up with kelp and driftwood. By the time he'd finished, it was dark and the wind had calmed to flickers. Inside the hut, which smelled like salt and sea stink, he found the blanket was just warm enough for him to drowse off. The coastal weather was a touch warmer than it had been inland, but unless he could build himself a fire pit and find both fuel and flint, he figured he had about a month to endear himself to the people of the pocket. If he still wasn't inside by then, he'd have to run away to some place that had actual shelter. Yet he went to bed unworried, feeling as light as the mist floating above the sands. It wasn't just that there had been no sign of Dante. It was the lightness of a new beginning. The purity of that allowed him, for the moment, to forget the rest. He beat the sun to rise. There was plenty of moon, so he took the opportunity to comb the beach in search of anything useful. A mile down shore, a spur of rock extended into the water. Dark, oblong shapes crusted the boulders. Mussels. He wasn't hungry enough to eat them raw, but it was always good to know you had a ready source of individually wrapped snot-like ocean creatures at hand. He found a frayed length of rigging and slung it over his shoulders. Thatches of broad-leafed grass sprouted from the sand. He pulled up an armload and carried it back to his hovel. As light filtered in behind the eastern cliffs, he stripped away the kelp and clumsily wove himself a new, and much better smelling, roof.
Min walked out as he was sitting in the sand, rubbing his stomach and thinking about walking back down to the rocky spur. You're still here, she said, despite your best efforts. She eyed his shelter. It looks like you'll be staying. He laughed. That depends on whether my stomach agrees to hold down raw mussels. The stems of the grass you used for your roof are quite nourishing. Is that so? Do I have time to go fetch some, or is it time for my first lesson? You have time, she said. When the stomach is angry, the memory's lazy. He watched her a moment, expecting her to crack a smile, but had no such luck. He winked at her and padded up the beach. This time he tore the grass out at the base, gnawing on the thick white stems. It was salty, but there was a sweetness to it too, and it filled his belly so he couldn't complain. Except about it being grass. Once he'd had enough, he walked back to Min, who'd remained on the shore across from his shelter. So far, my role appears to be that of a new dog, he said. I'm not allowed inside the home. You're my master. Fortunately for you, I'm housebroken. Sound about right. That's the gist of it, she said. To them, you're a mongrel. You should be thrown out. But I respect what you want. Enough to show you how to get it. Excellent. So is there a potion or something I can take to get my friend off the smell of my blood? Or are you simply masters of disguise? We use the nether. He threw up his hands. Oh, shit. She drew back her head and the years accumulated in her face. What's the problem? It's ten or twenty problems, all of which boil down to the fact I'm not a nethomancer. We all have the nether inside us. We've all got a brain inside our skulls, too, he said, but it turns out very few of us are capable of using it. She turned to face the wind blowing off the sea. Anyone can be taught to use the nether. Is that why its practitioners are valued more highly than the king's seamen? Min laughed a real laugh. You're right about this place. We bring people in from outside, but a recruit's natural talent is only one factor in our decision. He bit his lip. You have ways of developing it. Two degrees the king would kill for. Can I make you as potent as your friend? No. But if you're willing to work, I can teach you to disappear. Just like that, Blay said. No, she said. Not like that at all. Then it sounds like we'd better get to it. She turned to give the water a long, meaningful look. We begin with the four seasons. The first is fall. Not on any calendar I've ever seen. You're in a place you've never been, Min said. Expect different. In the autumn, the mist clears from the water, and the islands reveal themselves. That is why fall comes first, because first you must see. Right, Blay said. See what? The nether. And I do that how? Min shrugged. That's up to you. This doesn't feel like you're doing much teaching. It's best to try to see for yourself, 
And if I can't? Then we'll see. Blaze rolled his eyes. Can you at least tell me where it is? Everywhere, she said. Well, then, this should be a breeze. He closed his eyes, because that's what the supplicants of Earth did when they got serious about seeking out the truth. Flecks of color drifted against a field of black. After a few moments, Min's feet crunched away through the sand. He stood like that for a long time. The sun rose, touching his skin. He put the light to his back and faced the sea. The breakers sighed up the beach. Birds called so sadly you'd think someone had stolen their lunch. Soon he got stuck on his breathing. Breath was a vital part of being good at waving a sword around, and he had trained himself to become well acquainted with the tidal influx of air into his lungs. But this felt different. For the first time, he was spine-deep aware that it wasn't an inevitable process. One day, it would stop. And now that he was focused on it, what if he suddenly took that focus away? Would his breath stop? What if he didn't notice? Would he pass out? If so, would his body remember to do what his brain had forgotten? Probably not a productive area of thought. He was getting off track. And close your eyes so that you might see was the kind of stupid crap Callie would have yelled at Dante. Blaze opened his eyes, blinking against the harsh yellow glare. For a moment he thought he saw shadows waving at the edge of his vision, but it was just his eyes adjusting. He sat on the shore and gazed over the ocean, relaxing his focus so it didn't settle on any one particular thing. That felt like a good way to go about it. Don't miss the forest for the trees and all that. He tried to ignore his breathing. The sea was still gray, gulls banked in the steady wind. He tried to let the corners of his mind sort of reach out there and wave to the nether, entice it to show itself. But by the time the sun climbed up to its noontime throne, all he had to show for himself was an empty belly and swollen impatience. At that moment, Min showed up behind him. How does it go? I'm not seeing anything, he said, besides all the usual stuff. She nodded. Are you hungry? Would it matter? Those who work hard eat free. Then bring on lunch. All this sitting has been grueling. She left him to it. Whatever it was. He had the suspicion he was wasting time. Not that he minded idling about or sprawling, lounging, loitering, or snoozing. But when there was a thing that needed doing, but which wasn't being done, he got restless. Terribly so. To the point where he was apt to do something stupid just for the sake of doing something. He didn't know how he could get in trouble on an empty beach, but he had the feeling he might find a way. Min returned with more stew. This time it had lemongrass in it probably to conceal the fact that it was the same stew from last night. Blaze was too hungry to complain. Anyway, a little digestive trouble only toughened your guts against further troubles. While he was mid-slurp, Min turned and walked away. He finished eating and rinsed his bowl in the surf. 
Since the previous hours had seen no results, he decided to apply a more active approach. Anyway, his legs were stiff. He got up and crept down the tideline, hovering over pebbles and shells, then snatching them up to try to catch the nether by surprise. Nothing. Except a few sand crabs and some horrible red worms as thin as thread. He made a note never to go barefoot again. He continued down the beach, yanking up shells and rocks to catch the shadows off guard. Soon enough, he forgot what he was doing. On realizing his mind was a blank, he waited for enlightenment, but it refused to manifest. He kept at it until late afternoon, when the sun once more glowed from the waters like a furnace made out of the whole earth. He was hungry again, and the fact men was having to feed him was doing something to his pride, not stinging it exactly, but giving it a poke. She seemed to appreciate his effort, though. Perhaps a display of such would convince her to make more of one toward his education. With the hopes of killing two birds with one stone, he headed back north to the tide pools he'd passed on his southern rambling. There, he bashed up a couple palm-sized crabs and used his knife to pry a bushel of mussels from the rocks. He was forced to pocket the salty bunch. On the way back to his hut, he gathered up some driftwood that looked reasonably dry, along with several handfuls of yellow grass. Back home, he pulled broad strands of grass from his wall and laid his catch on them. He scooped out sand and arranged the pit with the wood and grass. He was squinting at it, trying to think of a way to make it combust, when Min exited the cave. She glanced at his tinder, extended one finger, and set it aflame. Blaze scrambled to find flat rocks. Once the fire burned down, he layered them over the smoldering wood and set down the crabs and mussels to bake. He spent the next day staring at sand, stones, shrubs, birds, the cliffs, as directly and pointedly as he could, as if trying to see right through it. Min and Dante always talked about the nether being inside things, after all, but his powers rudely refused to present themselves. On the third day, he meditated, and napped, which seemed to be the inevitable outcome of any prolonged meditation. He refused to feel guilty about this. Men had said it was best to discover sight through your own means, and his process had always involved scads of napping. But this, too, failed to do anything except leave him exceptionally well-rested. On the dawn of the fourth day, Min came to stand with him at the shore. Well? I'm nowhere, he said. Well, as the Norrin would point out, I'm undeniably somewhere, but it's not the where I want to be. Do you feel there's been any progress? I haven't glimpsed so much as a single speck of the stuff. Can you see this? She turned to a bedraggled bunch of kelp. Bug-like shadows flocked from it, hanging in the air between them. What, you mean the cloud of terrifying darkness? Can you see it emerge? She dispersed the cloud and refocused on the kelp. As Blaze watched, shadows oozed from the fronds and bulbs. I see it. Yeah. She stepped back. 
Now look for yourself. He squatted and peered at the kelp, trying to see past it, to the shadows lurking in its shadows. He saw plenty of the mundane kind. Something twitched in the shade. Hey, Blaze exclaimed. He leaned forward and a black fly crawled from the darkness and rubbed its legs together. Never mind. Try again, Min said. They repeated this business a second time, then a third. After the sixth, Blaze flopped on his back in the sand and barred his arm over his eyes. I can see it when you do it, but when I look by myself, all I see is a pile of rotting kelp. The rot is where it's strongest. And why are we so eager to deal with such a substance? The four seasons has more than one meaning, she said. It commonly takes a full season of time to advance to the next season of Nether. I'm no mathamancer, Blaze said, but it sounds like you're saying it could be a year before I learn to do anything. Are you in a rush? Is it bad to want to be good at what you do? If it causes you to learn badly, it's better to know nothing than to unlearn false wisdom. I don't know. I found that acting like a fool can teach you all kinds of interesting things. He sighed through his teeth. If it's best to be in no hurry, then I'll be in no hurry. Keep trying what we've done today, she said. If there's no fruit on that tree, we'll plant another. He didn't think much of the prospect of gazing into the inner recesses of the beached kelp's soul, but Min's talk had recalibrated his expectations. He tried. Perhaps not with enthusiasm, but with undeniable effort. When he got tired of kelp, he went to examine grass, then mussels. Then he got hungry and ate a few of them. He thought their death might convince the bloodthirsty Nether to pay him a visit, but no dice. After a day of this, he tried talking to the darkness, first chatting, then cajoling, then insulting. But apparently he was beneath the Nether, because this too failed. In the afternoon, Min came to check in, and he asked her to summon it some more. She repeated, and he watched till sundown. Yet when she left, and he looked by himself, he still couldn't find it. He persisted just looking for shadows. Tedious as hell, but Min seemed convinced it would pay off. He had doubts, but he starved them as best he could. After a few more days, he wasn't bothering to keep track, Min watched him watch a pile of shells, then folded her arms. Care to try something less conventional? Blaze swung up his head, shielding his eyes from the sun. More than anything. We'll talk over lunch. She wandered into the caves and returned with two bowls of off-white paste. Eat up. You'll need your strength. This sounds ominous. He spooned up the paste. It was thick and warm and had been sweetened with ground-up nuts, but that still couldn't cover the bitter, brackish taste. For your next recruit, you should consider a chef. She smiled to herself and ate a great gob of mush. When they finished up, she sat back in the sand and faced the ocean. Blaze did the same. So what's the big deal? Just wait.
That sounds like what I've been doing ever since I got here. She shrugged, perfectly content to sit there until the end of time. Out of amused spite, he resolved to beat her. A half hour later, his bladder forced him to forfeit. He got up to amble down the beach, but on his first step his foot missed the ground. He plunged face down into the sand. Oh, he said. Strange. You look like you're ready, she laughed. For what? With difficulty, he pushed himself up on his elbows and blinked at her owlishly. You drugged me. You said you were ready for unconventional methods. I thought you meant whacking ourselves on the head with a board or something. Why is the sun all shimmery and the air all airy? What did you feed me? Nat root. Death root? Don't worry, it's perfectly safe. She stood, extending her arms for balance. I took it too. He was unable to stop himself from repeating her. You took it too. How could we communicate unless our minds shared the same journey? For some reason, this struck him as tremendously funny. He tried to get up from where he'd fallen in the sand, but he was laughing too hard to find his footing. On the third attempt, Min squatted down, secured her stance, and offered him a hand. He leapt up, clinging to her for support. It feels like I'm walking on a boat in the middle of the sea that is bound and determined to prove to me I am not a fish. Hey, do you think we could be fish if we tried? You're experiencing loss of balance. Perfectly common with Natrud. Come on. Hanging on to his arm, as much for herself as for his sake, she led the way down shore to the tide pool. The walk was less than half a mile, but by the time they reached the pool's fragrant edges, Blaze felt as if he'd been running for a month, or possibly two months. His time sense felt as off-kilter as his balance. His mouth felt unusually large, too, as if it belonged to another, bigger Blaze, one who really needed a drink of something wet. The sunlight on the water lent everything a golden halo. He reached out for a yellow beam and discovered it wasn't tangible. Watch, she said. He watched. Inches below the surface, a red-limbed starfish glided over the rocks. Behind it, a trail of black tendrils waved in the water. What? Blaze grabbed at Min's sleeve. Is that stuff real? What? She laughed. That black gunk. Is it black gunk? With extreme focus, she stood up straight and looked him in the eye. It is. I see it. The little black fingers melted into the rock. Blaze clapped his palm over his mouth. Oh, shit, I scared it. You can't scare Nether. I feel like I probably scared it. Min waved a hand in dismissal, but the notion threw her off balance. She windmilled her arms, swearing a cobalt streak. Less talking, more looking. He scowled, pressing a finger to his lips. 
Once he quit giggling, he carefully lowered himself to the slimy stones bordering the pool, braced himself on both palms, and leaned forward. Wherever there was life, an orange fish, a swaying anemone with its many fat fingers, the starfish scouring their way across the floor, there was also nether. It stuck to the creatures like a shadow, the exact shape of themselves. He could only glimpse it when they were in motion, separating themselves, however momentarily, from their dark mirror. Why does it lag like that, he said. Is it lazy? Time feels wrong, right? Right. You are. Time definitely not right. We use gnat root when we want to change the way we see. I see, he said, then burst into laughter, although he wasn't quite sure why. He stopped suddenly, terrified he'd scare the nether away again. But there it was, spread across the pools, trailing in the wake of the fish and the waving claws of the crabs. After a while, he saw it wasn't just stuck to life, but that it was carried in the water too, a faint cloud that shaded everything in subtle gray. At that point, he was too dumbfounded to do anything but gape. And then it was gone. The fish were fish. The crabs were crabs. The shadows were nowhere to be seen. Min must have seen the look on his face. If it's past, we should probably get you some water. Oh, we could take some more. Not a great idea. It's not called gnat roots just to keep the children from eating it. He found himself angry that he'd been given sight only to have it taken away. But after their visit to the pool, he knew it was possible. He had seen. There was no reason he couldn't see again. Meanwhile, the gnat root had taught him that it seemed to be easiest to see the nether in life. From then on, he concentrated on watching living beings, be they animal or plant, fish in the water, grass in the wind, whatever. Sometimes he thought he saw a flicker of black, but it never lasted longer than an instant, so brief he couldn't be sure he'd seen anything at all. As the days went by, he sometimes considered the possibility he was wasting his time. But even if his abilities never manifested, he was sitting on a beach, eating crabs, untroubled by anything more than the chill in the wind. He was free. Except for one question. A week after the incident with the natroot, Min brought him hot fish soup for dinner. He ate most, then set the bowl aside. Why are you doing this? She tipped her head to the side. Because we had extra. Not that. He swept his hand around to take in the semicircle of cliffs, finishing on himself. This. She thought a moment. Because you want to learn. Of course. I'd forgotten we were in Pocket Cove, public university. And I think you intend to keep what you learn secret. Your arrival here wasn't so different from ours. How's that? She shook her head, then smiled at him. How is Fall treating you? I'm not sure. To give himself something to do, he spooned up more broth. 
I don't think I've seen it since. We could try more gnat root. Do you think it would help? No, she said, but we could try. I doubt it would last longer than the first time. He set aside the bowl. I'll keep at it. There's not much else for me to do. Day after day, he continued to watch the life of the cove. The days grew shorter, the nights colder. He added another layer of weaving to the roof and the walls of his hovel and stuffed a layer of grass between the two mats. Every now and then, he saw women leave the caves to tend to nets and cages left in the surf or the lagoon south of the tide pools, but Min's friends never paid him any mind. He dragged up driftwood and leaned it against the side of the cliff to dry. Nin had long ago lent him flint, and he had his own steel. That was what opened his eyes. That, and a bit of good old-fashioned foolishness. A full month after he'd arrived at Pocket Cove, he jogged to the tide pools to cut loose more mussels for dinner. As he braced himself against the slippery stone and gouged at the bivalve's tight hold, the knife slipped, raking across his left palm. The cold metal bit into his skin. The sting of salt followed. Blood dripped from his hand and fell into the tide pool, dotting it with small red blooms. Blaze froze, pain forgotten. He laughed. He ran all the way back to the cave. He parted the leather curtain and hollered inside. Min! Min! She showed up a moment later, annoyance darkening her placid face. You know you can't come in here. He shoved his bloody palm in her face. Look at this. Sew it up, you crybaby, you'll be fine. Don't you see? He laughed again, letting the blood slip down his fingers and fall to the smooth stone outside the cave. I see. Chapter 11 The waves frothed and tossed driven into violent white peaks. Dark storm clouds piled in the sky. The first rains hit as they made port at the cliffside port of Quixote. Dante flung his hood over his head and ran down the gangplank toward the nearest public house. C and Lou filed in behind him, cloaks drenched. Crewing and outfitting a boat to the Hukali Islands would have taken longer than the trip itself. Instead, they'd hopped passage on a merchant ship, and arrived in port two days later. This time, Dante had made sure to get Ollivander's approval on every aspect of the trip. It was funny. Had Callie still been in charge, the penny-pinching man would have insisted they take their own ship. Callie was already paying their people. There would be no sense dropping additional funds for travel via a third party. But if they had done so, the storm would have hit them mid-trip. At best, they would have been delayed by days. At worst... Well, there was no reason to think of that. Lightning crackled across the sky. Dante ordered a pitcher of beer to help warm their blood. They sat beside the window. Inland, clouds whirled and broke against the heights of Mount Siri. Lou set down his mug with a ceramic clank. How are you so sure they'll have the answers? They're the Hanassans, C said. So what? Even the Hanassans don't know everything. Think they know my birthday? Of course not. They only know what's important. Lou frowned over his beer. 
How can they possibly know so much when they're isolated themselves on a mountain in the middle of nowhere? The Oracle, Dante said. C snorted. He glanced at her. You doubt? Like a girl hearing she's the princess first, she said. The Hanassans get their intelligence the same way the rest of us do. Legwork and bribes. I've been to the monastery. It's not exactly crumbling under the weight of its finery. They trade in knowledge. She sat back and took a slug from her beer. That's what keeps the boats coming back. It's the lifeblood of the entire island chain. Dante shrugged. That, and the fact the Hukales are located midway between Narashtavik and Yalin. I tell you to think what you like, but I know you'll do that anyway. Rain hammered the square, bouncing so fiercely from the roofs of the rounded homes that the whole city was enshrouded in a grey blur, as if it were in the act of lurching forward. The road up the mountain was dirt. In these conditions, mud. They would have to wait out the storm. Dante secured lodging in the rooms above. Hours later, sleepy from beer and supper, they retired to their beds. Rain drummed above. It stopped in the middle of the night, and the sudden silence woke Dante from a dead slumber. In the morning, they walked into the hills north of town and discovered the path up to Sereni Temple was less of a road and more of a miles-long strip of dirt porridge. They turned around and, after questioning a couple of the locals, wound up at a stable off the main square. Three mules, please, Dante told the proprietor, a stout woman who wore outer layers of shiny cotton to shield herself from the constant wind. Four, she said. Dinner, he said. He leaned over her desk. For passage to Sereni Temple, the road's no good. Then I shall charge you triple. He opened his cloak, exposing the sapphire and silver brooch of Narashtavik that marked his station. You'll charge me what's fair. The front door opened and shut behind them. The woman rubbed her nose. Then you can use what's left over to purchase yourself a sense of humor, my lord. She kitted them out with three mules, sturdy beasts who plodded through the muddy trail with little difficulty. For half a mile, they passed between farmhouses and fields of mud. Loose straw lay scattered across the furrows, drenched and wind-beaten. Ahead, a forest of firs rose from the hills. Beyond, three white peaks stood shoulder to shoulder. The road led to the tallest. Its slopes were painted with alternating bands of green. The darker bands were common pines, tousled by the ceaseless winds. The lighter bands were a plant native to Hukali, shedwind. Wrist-thick shoots standing ten feet tall, the plant's bladed leaves stayed eerily still, even in the most punishing gale. Fox-like statues watched the trail. The mules swayed on. Though they'd made a very early start, by the time they reached the plateau halfway up the mountain, the overcast sky implied it was nearly noon. Ahead, a grassy plain stood before a basalt cliff. The muddy trail diverged into four smaller paths to four caves in the rock. The last time Dante had visited here, 
a monk had been sitting out front, eager to send fools home. But today, the grounds were empty, a churned-up mess of mud and standing water. He rode up to the cliff and dismounted. Hello? The caves were barred with woven shedwind, braced by fur frames. Dante knocked on one after the other, but received no response. He backed up and gazed at the silent cliff. He hollered some more, knocked some more, wandered around in search of the monks. He found nothing. Suppose they went somewhere to weather the storm, Lou said. Dante wiped his nose. They're mountain people. Surely they're used to suffering worse. Maybe they just don't want to see you, C said. That's a little paranoid. Only if you weren't watching. When you flashed your badge at the stables, a boy scampered out the door. His tracks run all the way up here. Now the monks are gone. I've never done anything to harm them, Dante said. All I want is answers. These fellows are pretty smart, right? Isn't that why we're here? Maybe they're smart enough to know what you were going to ask, and that you'd force the answers from them. Dante scowled at the heights. This is their home. We could hunt them all winter, and they'd be two steps ahead of us the whole time. C strolled forward, nudging the mud with her toes. The good news is you couldn't ask for better conditions to follow their tracks. Lou crossed his arms tight. The bad news is it's freezing cold and we'll ruin our boots. You can always head back to town, Dante said. Or would Ollivander execute you for letting me out of your sight? Atop his mule, Lou swore with hair-raising blasphemy. Of all the world's horrors, there's nothing worse than muddy boots. You think, C said, guess you've never had shitty boots. Lou could only close his eyes. They found the tracks within minutes, or what Dante took to be the tracks. The monks appear to have departed single file, pulling a sledge behind them to erase their footprints. This had left an obvious rut through the mud, but if Dante hadn't already been suspicious that they'd run from him, it might have been enough to throw him off. It was strange, there was no way around that. But the fact they'd tried to hide their tracks spoke more loudly than words. The tracks continued across the grassy field to the left of the cliffs, leaving the monks' passage as clear as dawn. The blades were trampled down, ground into the mud. The wind picked up, colder than ever. The plain angled up, heading to a steep rise that was barely walkable. Soon the tracks led to a path too tight and rubble-strewn for the mules. Dante got down, and C helped secure the animals behind a thatch of shedwind sheltering the approach to the escarpment. The path up the mountain was often bare rock. Where it wasn't, it was snot-slick with lichen and moss. The occasional footprint in this, or the patches of mud gathered in the flat spots, continued to point the way. The way grew steeper yet, then swung into a series of switchbacks. Some points were so narrow, Lou pressed his back to the wall and edged forward inches at a time. Dante would have berated him, but he was secretly grateful to be forced to slow down. A thick haze clung to the heights. 
After an hour of slow progress, the mists grew too thick to see the plains below. The upper reaches were just as hidden. The angle of the rise gentled, and the switchbacks ceased. They stopped for a snack and some water. As with any time they left the city, they'd brought enough consumables to get them through a day or two. C plunked down on a rock and leaned forward, stretching out her legs. Either these guys have gone on a very abrupt and inconvenient pilgrimage, or they do not want to see you. They can't have much of a head start, Dante said. We need to be silent from here on out. Up to that point, the path had been navigable, if completely unpaved, but within minutes it reduced in size to a game trail, and not necessarily one traveled by larger mammals. Shedwind grew thickly overhead, providing a leafy pergola. Condensed mist patted their cloaks. The ground inclined again, and the vegetation shrunk to moss and hardy clumps of grass. The patter of mist intensified, but the shielding shedwind was gone. It was raining again. Within two minutes, the sprinkle became a downpour. Hard sheets of rain pounded the trail, driven by a gusting wind. We're completely exposed, C said, and not in the way that means I'm having fun. It's just a bit of rain, Dante said. And floods, Lou pointed. Uphill, runoff streamed into the trail, coursing down in a muddy froth. Dante turned in a quick circle. Since leaving the temple, they'd seen no man-made structures of any kind. They had encountered a few crevasses and overhangs in the rock, but the last one was at least a quarter mile back a trail that was growing more treacherous by the second. With no other options, Dante ran off the path and jogged up a house-sized mound. He got out his knife, pulled up his sleeve, and cut the back of his left arm. The rain rinsed the blood away, but the nether couldn't be confounded that easily. The dirt swelled at his feet. He let the mud slide away, then drew the underlying rock into a broad shelf, extending it outward, slightly rounded, with its entry pointed downhill. Finished, he ran beneath it. The others joined him. Rain sluiced over the doorway in a solid curtain. Their clothes steamed from the heat of their bodies. They panted, wiping water from their eyes and toweling it from their hair with rags kept safe in inner pockets. There goes our tracks, C said. Lou wrung water from the cuffs of his cloak. And our whole hunt. Try not to sound too happy about it, Dante said. Beyond the makeshift cave, capillaries of flood water joined to become veins. Dante watched it all literally wash away. Downhill, a crow fell to the ground with a strangled squawk. It whapped its wings against the mud, but couldn't stand up. It slipped in a torrent and was swept against a crush of brambles. When the water relented a few minutes later, the crow was no longer moving. The storm was a coastal squall, blowing itself out shortly. Once it abated, Dante stuck out his palm. Mist settled to his clammy skin. He walked outside, boots squelching. The trail 
was obliterated. So were entire stretches of mountainside. C moved beside him. You know, there's a good chance they don't even have what we came here for. Dante blew into his hands. Then why would they run? Hell, if I know, you believers do all kinds of things that don't make any sense. For someone whose expertise is finding things, you give up awfully fast. Watch and learn. Without another word, he walked away from the sludgy remnants of the trail and headed to the brambles. He called to the nether, and it leapt into the broken body of the crow, hungry for fresh death. The bird jerked, twitched its wings. Callie had always said you couldn't get a dead bird to fly, but Callie had never been much for working with animals. Dante had tried, on occasion, and while he'd never succeeded, he'd seen room for potential. He picked up the crow, lobbed it into the air, and ordered it to fly. It flapped clumsily and slammed into the wet grass. He tried again, but it was simply too heavy. Well, for one thing, it was soaked. As the others watched, he took it back into the cave and transmuted the nether into raw heat. Steam wafted from the black feathers. Once the crow dried, he took it back outside and threw it into the air again. This time it was able to glide for fifty feet before it arced back to the ground. Still too heavy. What are you doing? Lou said. Dante got out his knife. I thought you'd like a pet. C didn't know whether to look amused or disgusted. Well, if she was going to stick around, she'd have to get used to it. Dante dug the blade into the crow's gut and hollowed it out, letting the entrails fall to the grass. They were no good to anyone now. All he needed was its wings and its eyes. This time, when he lobbed it into the sky, it wobbled, glided, and rose. Look at that, Dante said. I might never have to leave my room again. He suspected the next phase of operations was going to involve a high degree of dizziness. He went back to his little cave to sit down. Firmly planted and sheltered from any more sudden rains, he sent his sight to the crows. The ground rolled along a hundred feet beneath him. Dante's heart leapt. Involuntarily, he sent the bird flapping higher, then got a hold of himself and let it do its thing. The hillsides were a mess of mud and torn-up sward. Sediment flowed around boulders. In places, the floods had swept rocks onto washed-out paths, piling them up at the bottom of slopes. He made the crow bank and glimpsed the top of C and Lou's heads far below. He circled around, getting a sense for how people looked from that high up in the sky, then turned it loose to scan the hills and valleys. Now and then, he registered C and Lou murmuring something to each other, but they knew enough to leave him to his hunt. When he felt himself get chilly, he got up to pace around, but still kept his sight tied to the crows. At first, he had no real plan to the search, letting the crow follow the winds, which were still quite stiff. But he soon found himself wandering over ground he'd already covered. He directed the crow to soar through an ever-expanding spiral. It continued to see a whole lot of nothing. Now and then, an odd spot of brown or white drew his eye, 
but whenever he sent the bird closer, it turned out to be a piece of rock or a patch of clay exposed by the storm. Sometimes he homed in on motion, but it was always revealed to be the rush of wind through the plants, or very rarely, a vole or sparrow emerging from cover to see if it was safe. He was growing weary, losing his focus. He let the crow land on a boulder, then withdrew his sight, stood up and rubbed his eyes. That's not the posture of a man who's found what he's looking for, C said. No, Dante said. It's the posture of a man who spent the last twenty minutes staring through the eyes of a dead bird. Light's getting late. He glanced at the clouds. This whole time, his vision had been pointed groundward. He was surprised to see that much more than twenty minutes had passed. At least an hour, maybe two. Yet between battling the winds and swooping up and down to get a better glimpse of suspicious colors or shapes, he'd barely investigated a fraction of the terrain. Get some firewood, Dante said. We're going to have to spend the night. That idea is so bad I want to take it behind the barn and club it. We don't have a choice. Even if we headed downhill right now, we wouldn't be back to the temple before dark. There's no way we can navigate this mud after nightfall. But you could create a light for us, C said. I've seen you. He clenched his teeth. I'll search until sunset. We'll camp here tonight and head back tomorrow morning. The slopes will be drier then. You're the boss. She turned and walked out from the cave. Lou wandered off to lend her a hand. Dante reseated himself and returned to the crow. After a couple false starts, the undead creature was able to take off on its own power, launching from a branch. It soared on the winds, passing over a tight valley of swaying grass. Dante frowned. Only parts of the grass were swaying. And it wasn't grass, it was shed wind. The crow ceased flapping and banked, bleeding altitude. Through a gap in the shed wind, a man in a soaked robe tugged at green stalks, lashing them together into a crude shelter. Dante's eyes flew open. He let the crow circle a few more times, then had it climb higher and higher to take in vast stretches of mountain. I found them, he said. They're close. But Lou and C weren't. They were downhill, logging up damp branches, sour looks on their faces. Dante jogged to them and repeated himself. They're settling in, he said. If we hurry, we can catch them before dark. And then what? C said. We sit down and converse. Like normal, everyday people who aren't chasing each other across mountains during a potentially lethal storm. She looked skeptical. He didn't care. They hiked through the hills, following a crow-scouted path over solid rock that had suffered little during the downpour. A half hour later, with the light weakening, they crept over a ridge and looked down on the shedwind-choked valley. Let me handle them, Dante murmured. If they threaten us, don't hurt them unless you're in imminent fear for your safety. I don't want to hurt anybody, Lou said. C smiled. Then stay behind me. Dante crept down the ridge, 
crawling through the mangled brush until he got down to where his silhouette wouldn't show on the horizon. His clothes were soaked. His boots were so laden with mud, they were three times as heavy. Mud had crept up his shins, too. The smears just below his knees had gone lighter as they dried. Voices drifted from the valley bottom. The rustle of leaves. Dante's crow alighted in a fur and eyeballed the camp. A dozen monks sat in a loose circle, holding their hands above a large rock as if to warm them, but there was no visible flame. Dante paused within bowshot, hidden behind a screen of leaves. The Hanassans were renowned for their wisdom, their knowledge and lore, but some were sorcerers too. If they perceived him as an enemy and lashed out at him, particularly the ethermancers, he might regret being so sneaky. He already had a few nicks on his knuckles, but he cut his forearm and kept the nether close. Please tell me there's been a misunderstanding. He stepped from behind a tree. If you really ran all this way to avoid me, I'm afraid of what I've come to ask. As he spoke, three monks drew nether to their hands, where it swirled darkly like blood dropped in sluggish water. Motes of ether danced on the fingers of a fourth man. The Hanassans stared as one. Dante moved further from cover. I'm not here to hurt you. Since sorcerers needed no weapons to do harm, and actually had a habit of splaying palms and swooping their arms about when they meant to do business, the typical displays of peaceful intentions, hands open, raised, or held before you, tended to evoke hostility from fellow practitioners. Instead, the Gascon custom among sorcerers was to press your palms together in front of your navel where they could be clearly seen, and any motions of the elbows or wrists would be obvious. Dante wasn't certain whether the display was the same in the Hukalis, which, like so many other places, was a part of Gask, but hadn't always been, yet he attempted it anyway. And neither are my friends, he finished. Behind him, Lou and C slipped from the brush. That's good. A monk took a step forward. Furry leggings showed beneath his cloak, thick with mud. Would hate for our holiday to be spoiled by violence. What is it you're trying so hard to hide? What is it you came all this way to find? The Black Star. Dante moved forward. Selen. Oh. The monk lowered his gaze to the leaf-strewn ground. That. How do you find it? A second monk stared Dante down. This man was much older, a hood draped over his bald head. What do you want with it? I don't know, Dante said. Bullshit. That depends on what it can do, doesn't it? The old monk smiled thinly. What do you think? One story says it was used to end a drought, Dante said. Is it an amplifier or a pure source? Does it matter? I suppose it would mean the same thing in the end. He looked across the monks' faces and failed to find a clue to their mood. He wasn't going to be able to trick or buy the answers from them. His only chance to get the truth was to give them the same. I believe that good comes from inside us. 
sparks arising in the hearts of individual men and women. But the most good comes from institutions, from collectives of individuals dedicated to nourishing, growing, and spreading that good beyond themselves. In this way, you can build something to outlast your brief life. Get to the point, the second monk said. A good institution is built over the course of generations. Each leader stands on the shoulders of the last, drawing on the strength of his people to climb a little higher. He paused. But, like Aron's mill, all it takes is one crack to send it tumbling down. If a single leader has bad balance, poor judgment, he will fall, and his empire falls with him. Isn't that what's happening in Gask now? Eight hundred years to build, and over the course of a single year, the decisions of Modigan and Cassander broke it apart. Now Cassander's dead, and Modigan clings to the splinters. The monk's impatience had vanished, replaced by wary curiosity. Dante took a long breath and went on. Given enough time, every well-meaning order will be brought down by an unbalanced leader. Good can never last. Chaos always wins. It's inevitable. Dante drew a breath, then forced himself to finish. Unless its leader never has to die. In the silence, the only noises were the splash of falling drops and the hiss of wind in the trees. Everything must die, the old monk said. It's the mandate of Aron. Aron doesn't, Dante said. Do you think it's good for a man to aspire to be as deathless as Aron? If Aron wants me, he can take me. The monks exchanged looks. The first one said something Dante couldn't catch. The older monk nodded and turned to Dante. We don't know if it's an amplifier or a pure source. Either way, in your hands, it could likely do what you wish. Why does it manifest? Dante said. We don't know that. Then how can I find it? The old man shrugged his shoulders high. If we knew... Perhaps we would be seeking it ourselves. Dante pinched the bridge of his nose. At least answer me this. If you run away to hide this from me, why tell me now? Because you're not the only one who'll be chasing it. And at least your motives aren't greed and hegemony. Thanks for the vote of confidence. Besides, we respect those who'll go through hell to attain the knowledge they seek. So, Selen is real, Dante said. It has the power to do things no person could do on their own. Yet no one in the world knows a single thing about it. Wrong, the old monk said. No one in this world knows about it. Dante laughed. This world? Am I to travel to the underworld, then? The underworld would be much easier to get to. Sadly for you, your path lies to the east. The Wodens, Dante said. We've already been there. The monk shook his head. Beyond the mountains, and into the forbidden lands on the other side.
Chapter 12 The answer came to me when I realized I was lousy at this, Blaze said. More accurately, it came to me when I cut myself and bled everywhere. But that's when I saw it, because the morbid old nether just loves blood, doesn't it? That's when I saw it, and understood that I was seeing it all along. Min frowned. That might be too profound for me to understand. It's like when we ate the gnat root. At first, I could only see it in life, where it was strongest. But after a while, I realized I could see it in the water, too. Turns out I can see it everywhere. Root or no root, it's just so subtle I didn't know what I was looking at. You're right. You are lousy at this. And you're even worse at explaining it. You're not supposed to agree with me. Blaze leaned an arm against the outside of the cave. So what season's next? Winter? Or are the people of the pocket unconstrained by our earthly perspective on the year's cycle? A smile dented the corners of her mouth. Winter comes next here, too. But first I think it's time you came in from the cold. As he puzzled over the apparent metaphor, she pulled back the curtain to the cave. Lukewarm air wafted forth, smelling of incense and cooked seafood. Blaze met her eyes. You're sure your friends won't gaff me and throw me out to sea? It's already been settled. No one wants to see you freeze to death. Now that you mention it, it would be nice to feel my fingers and toes again. He stepped inside. A torch stone glowed from the wall, casting its unblinking light down a bare tunnel. Min made an immediate right into a short passage that led to a single doorway. Thick drapes revealed a square room, ten feet to a side. She drew her finger across the air, creating a soft and ethereal light. Blaze squinted at it, trying to pick apart the energy within it. It's all yours, she said. Just don't go any deeper into the tunnels. A few shelves were sculpted into the walls. A thin mattress lay in the corner. Next to it was a low-end table and a rack of candles. Glancing up, he could just make out a hole in the ceiling to vent smoke. And there wasn't a speck of dust anywhere. Did you make this just for me? Don't let it go to your head. It took five minutes. She moved back to the entry. Wait here. I'll get you some dinner. Is it soup time already? You know, just because you live next to salt water doesn't mean you need to eat it for every meal. She lit a candle and walked into the hall. While she was out, Blaze moved around the room, eyeballing it. Not that there was anything to see other than the mattress, the table, and the candles. There was nothing else there. He had no possessions besides his clothes, a sword, a knife, and the sundries in his pockets. And it felt good. Except for the one-sword bit. He'd need to find a new one somewhere. Walking around with a single sword was like trying to get by with one shoe. Min returned with soup and a bowl of greenish mush, mulched grass stems. Seasoned by kelp shavings and green onions, judging by the taste. It was warm, though, and the room was an agreeable temperature. 
other than fleeting moments in the afternoon when the sun was up and the wind was down, it was the first time he hadn't been chilly since fleeing from Setevan. Men sat on her heels and watched the candle flicker. You're from Narashtavik, aren't you? What's it like these days? Are you from there? No, but I'd heard it's in something of a renaissance. I don't get to hear much of what goes on beyond the cliffs. I guess it is doing well, he said. It was pretty grim when I showed up several years ago. Now, not so grim. Coincidence. Wasn't there a war? Didn't that have any impact? Oh, that thing? Blaze laughed. I still can't believe we got duped into starting it. An all-powerful Norrin bow, the oldest trick in the book. She regarded him. You started it? Well, I'd argue they started it. We weren't enslaving Norrin for decades. But in a very technical, wholly unintentional sense, yeah, it was totally our fault. Tell me about it, and the man who chased you here. Why? Because you're my student, she said, and I've a right to know who I'm teaching. He couldn't argue with that. Well, he could, but it would be a churlish thing to do. Instead, he talked about the mission that first brought them to Narashtavik to assassinate Samarand, about the refugees of her truncated war revitalizing the city, of the long sequence of events leading to the Chainbreakers' War, about Dante and Lyra, too. Strangely, it had the feel of a confession. Stranger yet was the fact that, in hindsight, he wouldn't have changed the thing. Not entirely true. He would have gone outside and warned Lyra to step to the side of the gaping chasm that had claimed her. Aside from that, and the myriad minor fumbles he'd made, but which ultimately didn't matter, the outcome had been great. Grand. Norin freedom. Independence for Narashtavik. You couldn't ask for more. But it had come at a cost. He skipped quickly through his recent stint in Setevan, telling her nothing of his schemes against the king. For all he knew, Taya and Lolligan were still executing a revised version of the plan, and while it seemed highly unlikely Min would care, let alone tell someone, who, about it, he saw no need to expose their operation to any risk, however slight. It all sounds so busy, she said once he'd finished. I guess it was. Do you miss it? Not yet. He grinned. I told you my story. Now why don't you tell me how the people of the pocket are so good at hiding? Not yet. She smiled back. No need to clutter your head with what might be until you've learned to do more than see a few shadows. Then let's get cracking. Tomorrow. She stood, shaking one foot to work the blood back into it. See you then. With nothing else to do, he ran through a few sword and dagger forms, then set aside his blades and practiced seeing the nether. Even after his revelation, it was hard to spot it unless he looked at something alive, such as his hand, or the shiny black beetle that had trundled in during his recitation to Min. He tried to see it in the shelves, 
But in the dimness of the room, he couldn't tell whether the shadows were ethereal, physical, or the spawn of his imagination. Once his irritation began to show up, he blew out the candle and went to bed. No use getting angry over something that was supposed to be fun. What with the lack of windows or daylight, he stayed asleep until men came for him. After breakfast, they went outside. The sea winds were sharp enough to cut off the tips of his ears. One night inside, and he was already spoiled. Winter's here, she said, padding southward in the direction of the tide pools. What do you suppose that means? That the weather is intolerably cold? Do you find flippant questions help you to learn? Sure, they drive away the gadflies. Those who stick around must really want to teach me. You're right. Asking you about winter is an unfair question, one you couldn't possibly answer. Min walked on, gazing out to sea. If fall is the season of clarity, winter is the season of difficulty. Everything becomes harder from the ground to survival. Animals go into hiding. Trees hide their wealth inside nuts. To make it, you have to learn to reach into the cold, dark places. Meaning what, in practice? It's time to learn to touch the nether. Sounds easy, he said. I know right where it is. She tipped her head to the side, neither conceding nor disagreeing. Most find it the harshest season. Learning to touch it means learning to forge a connection with it. Okay, then how do I do that? Why don't you try for yourself? And then we'll see? Men smiled. Who's the teacher here? At the edge of the tide pool, he knelt. Men stayed standing, which made him momentarily self-conscious about his decision— Getting a few inches closer to the nether probably would not bring him the slightest bit closer to being able to touch it with his mind, but whatever, he was already down on his knees. More restful, anyway. A blue-finned fish drifted above a brainish lump of coral, nibbling at whatever caught its fancy. Blaze cleared his throat. Bit of an odd thing to do, given that he wasn't about to speak to it, but again, this was his show. And looked. And there the nether was, tucked beneath the fish's scales, looming in its gawping mouth, lurking in its flesh. He reached out with his mind. He thought he did anyway. He certainly focused on the fish and the nether inside it, concentrating on the wisps of blackness. But he didn't feel a thing. Is this like when I was trying to see it? He sat back on the rocks, withdrawing his focus. Am I touching it, but it's so subtle I just don't know it? Everyone's feel for the shadows is different, Min said. But when you do feel it, trust me, you'll know. He tried again, jabbing his attention at the fish like a spear. It didn't flinch. Neither did its nether. He tried coming at its sidelong, whistling a lazy tune while his thoughts snuck closer and closer, all to no effect. He was about to cycle through all these approaches again, then sat back and threw back his head. He was going about this like a stupid person, 
flailing about like a child with a wooden sword. Speaking of, he was already damn good at one area that required the perfect tuning of his mind and body, sword fighting. And he had a ritual whenever he was attempting to learn a new technique. It had begun as a general exercise, a way to isolate and thus gain control of every individual muscle group in his body. As he breathed in and out, he flexed and relaxed, learning to isolate, say, the muscles under his arms or those in his shoulders. It was a surprisingly useful exercise. It relaxed him, but it also taught him to exert sudden, devastating force whenever he cared to deliver it. For instance, a downward cross-body stroke could be augmented with the sudden diagonal tensing of his abdominals. He might do no more than twitch his wrist, but the extra force generated by the rest of his body could add bone-splitting force to his strike. Over the years, he had adapted the technique into more than a method to coordinate his musculature. It was also a way to clear his head, to get out of himself. Using it, he could learn a new skill in minutes, invent new fighting techniques from whole cloth. By envisioning the combination of movements that would lead to an effective maneuver, he could break it down muscle by muscle, then combine those movements into a single gesture. A few days of practice, and the new technique no longer took conscious thought. As he sat on the rock, he put himself through his paces, starting with his head and working his way down. He tensed his ears, scalp and brow, his neck, then his shoulders, his pectorals and lats, abdominals and hips, and so on. From the corner of his vision, Min was giving him a funny look, but he was already feeling better, more at one with the various components that comprised the blaze he was. He let his breath flow in and out. He reached for the fish. Oh, shit, he said. It feels like being stabbed with cold iron. Min jolted forward. Are you okay? Did you sit on something? I felt it. The nether. It's cold and it hurts, right? Generally. She pushed out her lower lip. But you can't have felt it already. You just started. Unless you gored me with a pig sticker while I wasn't looking, I think I've done it. How? She said. I swooped in on it. You swooped in on it, like a bird of prey. He cut his hand through the air, like a blade closing on the bearer's enemy. Impossible, Min said. Then do it again, whatever you say. He breathed, tensed, relaxed, reached out, felt the icy sting. Though he'd touched it with his mind, not his fingers, he couldn't stop from shaking out his hand. She blinked. How'd you do that? Magic. Well, you've magically destroyed weeks of my plans. Does that upset you? She looked up from the fish. I put a lot of thought into those lessons. Plans are like newborns. He straightened, retracting his focus from the nether. Best not to get attached to them until they grow sturdy enough to be put to work. She laughed, then stopped herself. Perhaps you'd like to spend the rest of the day honing your new skill. I have to find a way to build new plans on the ruins of the old. He thought he pretty much had it down, but it wouldn't hurt to be sure. 
As Min retired to the caves, he worked his way around the pools, touching the nether within the snails, minnows, kelp, and a cruising octopus. He didn't see what the big deal was. The nether was there. He knew it was there. So why shouldn't he be able to touch it? Hungry and too lazy to go build a fire, he cut loose some mussels and ate them raw. He wouldn't go so far as to say he was getting a taste for raw mussels. He wasn't sure you could get a taste for nature's phlegm. But he no longer minded them. Funny how fast you got used to things. In the morning, he and Min reconvened at the tide pools. He stretched his elbow over his head and pulled it to the side, extending his shoulder. Figured out what you're going to do with me next. Tell you about the next season. Just like that. She brushed a ragged bang from her eyes. What were you expecting? A feast in your honor? Shall I fetch the stew? In truth, he had been expecting something to mark his accomplishment. The progression of the seasons was supposed to take about as long as the real ones, wasn't it? And he'd burned through winter in ten minutes. Darned impressive, he thought. He supposed that, in the scheme of things, it was nothing more than a baby step. He hadn't even begun to use the nether yet. This was just his ego standing up and taking its pants off. Ego could be a fine thing, of course. A strong one could help you accomplish goals even when those goals were plainly boneheaded. And aside from the practical advantages of ego, it was simply fun to have. But at the moment, ego wasn't helping. If anything, it was slowing him down. When it came time to learn, the role model was the sponge, and he had yet to meet a sponge that was full of itself. What would all the holes they could never get enough? Yesterday's stew can wait. He blew into his hands. I hope the real winter passes as quickly as the fake one. A change that sudden would drown us in storms, Min said. She took a moment, letting her amusement fade and replacing it with a look of authority. Spring. The next season of melting and unlocking. First you saw the nether, then you learn to reach it. Next you learn to melt it. Makes sense. It felt as cold as snowman's piss. It's critical to keep in mind this isn't literal. Though similar in some ways, the nether isn't ice. It isn't water either. Don't confuse a metaphor for what's actually in front of you. Don't worry. I'm used to dealing with people who are constitutionally incapable of talking in plain terms. Then get to work. He ran through his breathing warm-ups. On top of a damp, slimy rock, a fiddler crab was jerking its big claw back and forth, announcing to all the other crabs that it was the most fiddlin' fiddler that ever fiddled. He saw the nether in it, touched it. It was as cold and sharp as before. He intensified his focus, imagining it as the heat of a climbing bonfire. The nether stayed cold, immobile. He was unworried. He hadn't expected spring to zip by as briskly as winter. The subtleties of fall were still fresh in his mind. After a while, Min returned to whatever other duties occupied her in the caves. But he stayed beside the captive salt water, willing the nether to come forth. A week later, he was still there.
He had tried any number of mental tricks, thinking of his attention as heat that would melt the dark ice. That it was a knife that would slice loose the fastened shadows. That it was a big old fist capable of yanking trees out by their roots. He had tried it on crabs, fish, birds, grass, slime, coral, a juvenile shark, a lost seal. And as far as he could tell, he'd gotten exactly nowhere. Got any more roots? He asked Min at the end of spring's first week. Preferably something that will cause my brains to pour out my ears so I can pick them up and give them a shake. Natroot won't do you any good here, she said. She caught the look on his face. But we can try it anyway. I mean, worst case, we have a good time, right? So they ate bowls of mashed-up root, and Min sat by the water while he tried to warm, force, and tickle the nether from its obstinate shell. He fell over more than once, but despite one incredibly convincing hallucination that he'd convinced the shadows to swim out from their hidey-holes and leap like a pod of dolphins, he had no luck. Another week went by, never to return. The first snow hit, a squall of swirling flakes that barely had time to crust the sand before a warm wind blew in from the south. Blaze watched it melt with calm fury. Stupid nature, always showing people up. When he calmed down a bit, he tried to take a lesson from that, to imagine where he might conjure up a southern wind of his own. But after a couple of flailing attempts, he threw the idea out like an empty muscle shell. Thinking it would be the strongest and thus easiest to get a handle on, he cut himself to work with his own blood. But that got him nowhere, except bandaged. Finally, so frustrated he could kill something, he climbed up the staircase to the misty plateau, where he could overlook the beach and have a laugh about flinging himself down upon it. The climb felt good. The solid sheet of mist-borne ice on the rocks, however, felt like it might induce death. But there was something bracing about that, something that kicked him free of his snarled irritation and back into immediate survival. So he turned his back on the ocean and picked his way inland. Below, the exuberant tide thundered to the shore. Ahead, he heard nothing, not even the dripping of water. But then he heard voices, one male and one female. They appeared to be conversing, not shouting, so he left his sword sheathed. He'd only brought it because the plateau was known to harbor centipedes as long as your arm. He crept forward keeping knobby pillars of rock between himself and the two people. Anyway, he didn't need to see the woman to recognize the voice as Min's. He came within proper earshot as their conversation reached the goodbye phase. Their parting words were lengthy, and as it became clear he was eavesdropping on close friends, Blaze grew sheepish. He turned back to the staircase. By the time he reached the bottom, however, he felt less bad. Min wasn't supposed to be up there in the first place. He sat in the sand to watch the stairs. Min walked out a couple minutes later. Her eyes alighted on Blaze, widening. Went up for a walk, he said. Just to clear my head, she said.
Me too. Who are you talking to? She shrugged. A friend. Who else? This friend sounded decidedly male. Afraid I'm replacing you. Are we allowed visitors, then? Or is that one of the countless things I still don't understand about Pocket Cove? Min eyed him, head angling to the side. Maybe it's time to fix that. I haven't been much help this season. Then again, the first time is as much a lesson for the teacher as the student. I'm your first student, Blay said. I don't know whether to feel honored or horrified. Both, I'd think. Perhaps it's time to take you to my teacher. No, I'm definitely horrified. Min smiled. At least your instincts are good. She took him to the cave, then had him wait in his room while she went deeper. She returned and nodded. As they walked to the main tunnel and ventured toward what lay beyond, Blaze found himself so thrilled to be seeing something new that he laughed out loud. Min glanced at him, but held her tongue. Torchstones embedded in the walls threw just enough light to reveal the way. They passed a doorway every ten or twenty feet, each papery door supported on a frame of the bamboo-like reeds that grew on the beaches to the north. The hallways grew warmer rich with the scent of incense and spices. Although Blaze knew better than to say so, it was probably to cover up the smell of fish oil that hung in the air, too. Once they passed a young woman in a loose robe, a red scarf fluttering from her wrist. The woman gazed at Blaze with mild curiosity and moved on. After a couple more turns, men opened one of the parchment doors. A brief foyer opened to a wide room. The walls and floors were so thick with blankets and rugs, it took Blaze a moment to spot the woman sitting in their midst. Oh, he said. You again. Min's head cranked around. You know each other. We met a few years ago, Blaze said. Sort of. I think Dante was too busy blathering for me to get in a single word. I remember you, the woman said. Her long, dark hair was streaked with gray. But we don't get many visitors. Really? All it would take is a 300-foot ladder. My name is Ro, she said. Min tells me you're stuck on spring. Blaze looked up from a rug woven with a repeating geometric pattern he'd never seen before. Is that unusual? I thought these things could take months to get right. Often, yes. Others find it goes much faster. But after unusually swift advancement, you seem to be... unable to find my ass with both hands. He winced. Ma'am, if that's what you prefer to be called. Roe is fine. Maybe I passed my first two seasons too easily, without gathering the tools to go further. Maybe I'm missing something obvious. Or maybe I'm not cut out for this. Either way, I would appreciate any lessons you can manage to pound through my dense skull. She nodded. First, why don't you tell me what you've been doing? Well, 
Whenever I try to get the nether to move, I... When you try to do what? You know, he said, make it melt. Make it let go of whatever it's stuck on so it'll come over and say hello. She turned on Min, face heavy with reproach. You couldn't have asked him this yourself. Min held up her hands. I never told him anything about trying to move it. Apparently, you didn't do so well explaining the concept of melt, either. He's my first student. Don't pocket yourself, Rose said, softening her voice. I'm not berating, I'm explaining. It could be, Min said, that my explanation was lacking. Or maybe he really is that dense. Ro! Oh, she's right, Blaze said. You shouldn't assume I've understood a single word you've ever said. You're trying to skip spring and go straight to summer, Min said. Well, why didn't you say so? You might think there is no difference between unlocking Nether and getting it to move. Ro leaned forward, blankets rumpling. But if you're thirsty and all you have is snow, you won't be able to drink until you've turned it to water. Blaze nodded slowly. And drinking is a special skill of its own, too. Ro smiled wryly. Tell me about it. Oh, do you have a bottle of something? Get back to work. This was said friendly enough, but Min took it as an omen to depart immediately. She thanked Ro and took Blaze back through the maze of tunnels to the gusty beach. Sand blew over the dunes in streams. I'm sorry, she said. Yeah, you really trampled the rabbit on that one. I should have paid better attention. I've been wasting your time. He wiped his nose against the cold. Then I guess we'd better get to it. You're dedicated, aren't you? When I have to be. He resumed his studies at the pools. Min took a more active role, watching him closely. He'd never enjoyed instruction that was too hands-on, preferring to be given the occasional pointer or whack on the head and be otherwise left to himself. But this wasn't like learning to bake bread or sew a wound, straightforward and a mere matter of practice. This was magic. Then again, maybe learning to do magic was as mundane as learning to do anything else, a simple equation of effort and time. Either way, the only way to move forward was to keep at it. Though she continued to keep watching him, after a few days, Min backed off to let his revelations come at their own pace. For three days, a wind blew in that was so warm, Blaze could have sworn it came all the way from the Carlins. When it got cold again, it stayed cold. As for the Nether, his progress with it was as fleeting as that warm snap. A summer blink, Min had called it. But he found that, as he attempted day after day to melt it, to coax it away from the physical world it held fast to, he grew better and better at seeing it, at reaching it. It came faster and stood out sharper. This consoled him, even when, a month into spring, he still couldn't do more than make the nether shiver.
He didn't spend all his time in practice. Often he poked along the shores, exploring closer and closer to the curled horns of rock enclosing Pocket Cove. The beach was nice, somehow placid, even or especially when the wind whipped the waves into sudden thunderous hammers that he jumped out of his skin each time one boomed into the sand. He still missed Lyra. It made him angry that he'd known her less than a year, and had truly been with her for a handful of months. Yet, years after the fact, he still mourned her as if he'd lost some deep part of himself. Like a limb he'd never known he had. That was the galling part. He'd been happy before she came into his life, even happier once she was there, granted, but once she was gone, in a just universe, he would have returned to that same pre-Lyra baseline. He had always pushed through his dark moods with a combination of hard work, an eagerness to try new things, and a happy fatalism. Maybe it was still working. After all, he had been far worse back in Malin, not all that long ago. But as the winter deepened, and the snows came and went with the wild temper of the coast, he wished to his core that the feeling could be cut from his body like an abscess. He'd suffer a few moments of anxiety, an instant of heart-stopping pain, and a couple weeks in bandages. A small scar left over, perhaps, to remind him to be more cautious in the future. One day, he got up from the tide pools with a sigh, and walked north to clear his head. The wind was bracing and tasted of salt. He passed the caves and kept going. A woman's voice carried over the waves. At first it was so faint and warbled, he thought it was a memory or a trick of the wind. But then it repeated, distorted by the commanding gusts. He squinted out to sea. The water was in chaos, white-capped and as choppy as a bucket lugged in haste from the well. The scream came again. Piercing. Something thin and white waved back and forth from the water. The arm of a drowning girl. Blaze kicked off his boots and stripped off his cloak and dived into the freezing sea. Chapter 13 all the way to... Dante stopped. He didn't actually know the name of the land east of the Wodens. He'd heard it before, and he knew he'd seen it on Callie's extensive maps, yet the place came up so infrequently he couldn't recall the word. The mountains blocked it off so well, it might have been a different world. He never even met anyone from... wherever it was. Wesley, the old monk laughed, or even further. Who knows? How do we get there? How should I know? Dante flapped one hand. If you know so little about them, how can you be so sure they'll know about Selen? Because they're to blame for our lack of knowledge. They're hiding it from us. Why don't you quit wasting time and talk plain? Because this is everything I know. The old monk sat on a fallen log. And even then, I don't know, 
not with any certainty. But the gaps suggest where the knowledge lies. If the answers are anywhere, you'll find them in Wesley. That had the air of finality. So, too, did the actual air. The overcast light was growing thin and weak. Dante gestured toward the horizon, blocked by trees and ridges. It's too late to get down tonight, he said. May we stay with you? The old monk gave him an amused look. You're the reason we're out in this mess. Right. I summoned you here. Did you like the gilding on my invitations? Say the word and we'll make our own camp. The man glanced at his fellow monks, but if any felt like arguing, they were too tired to advance their objections. He sighed. It never hurts to have more eyes on the night. But if this is a ploy to learn more about Selen, I can assure you we've told you all we know. Before the darkness completed its victory, Dante and the others helped cut brush and branches to layer over fresh-cut shedwind poles. If there were another downpour, it wouldn't be nearly enough. Perhaps Dante would sneak off and build himself a cave, but it would hold against lighter winds and rain. The Hanassan scraped a shallow fire pit, loaded the bottom with rocks, and layered wood over it. This was drenched, of course, but they used the nether to heat the stones, drying the wood enough to catch fire. The smoke was thick and white and smelled of resin and steam. The monks had brought some dried fruits and meat with them. Dante didn't ask to share, though it felt like several days since they'd left Coyote. It had, in fact, been that very morning, and they still had provisions from the inn. They did borrow blankets, though, drying them by the fire and then settling down on ground that was depressingly wet. The fire shrank. The monks conversed in hushed, mournful tones, then settled down to bed. Wesley's really not that far, is it? Lou whispered from the dark. Why is it that hard to get to? Dante rolled over. The impassable mountains, I would imagine. So, you sail around them. They run all the way to the northern wastes. Even in summer it's frozen. I'll show you the maps when we get home. Who says the mountains are impassable? C spoke up. They do, Dante said, with their snow and thin air and man-eating cappers. Well, we've heard of the place. You have maps for Lyle's sake. Someone must have been both there and Gask. Will you shut up? The old monk called. A few of the others chortled from their beds. Dante gave it a moment, then whispered, You're the finder, aren't you? So find us a route into Wesley. C didn't answer. Damp and sore as he was, Dante was also incredibly exhausted. He managed to sleep till pre-dawn, when the monks started rustling around to rebuild the fire, empty their bladders, and dispense breakfast. Dante huddled at the fire, shivering, silently resolving never to return to Hukali again. As soon as it was light, the group turned around and made their way back down the mountain. The rains had washed out portions of the trail, but nothing had fallen since yesterday's downpour, and for the most part the mud was bearable. Back at the clearing, surrounding the monastery, two of the mules cropped the grass, but the third was nowhere to be seen. Thank you for enlightening me, Dante told the old monk. 
No thank you for making me work so damn hard to find you. It comes at a price, the man said. If you go to the east, you will return to tell me about it. Will I? What you're after is dangerous. Some day, long after we're dead, it will return again. This order exists in part to shield the world from the consequences of ignorance. If you believe a word of what you said on the mountain, you'll bring us knowledge of what you find. Dante took a half step back for a better look at the man. I will. He and the other two rode back down the trail toward Quixote. Lou insisted Dante and C get the mules, but Dante was having none of it and rotated the beasts between them. The stable master was dismayed that one of her animals had been lost. Silver mollified her adequately. On the piers, few sloops would leave for Narashtovic that day, but given the weather, Dante didn't trust anything so small. He booked passage on a proper, wallowing merchant carrack that would make way for Narashtovic at the end of the week. C took advantage of the delay to go tearing across Quixote. Dante didn't know what she was after, but when she was that eager to get to work on the Woden's-Wesley conundrum, he wasn't about to slow her down with questions. Lou volunteered to comb the local monasteries and temples for histories of Wesley. Dante made the rounds at the piers and taverns, buying drinks for sailors and travelers in exchange for whatever lore they possessed. Their tales were as tall as the Wodens. Squamous dragons swimming in the North Seas, eagles so big they snatched sailors from the decks, floating ice sheets patrolled by white bears as big as a house. He was inclined not to believe a word of it, but after encountering the cappers firsthand, the foundation for his disbelief had eroded considerably. As for roots, however, even the most boisterous speakers were stymied. One woman believed that in late summer, the northern ice broke up enough to sail through, so long as you could make it past the dragons, and the eagles, and the storms, rogue icebergs, and merciless pirates who claimed the storm-churned northeast sea where no one else bothered to travel. Dante thought there might be something to her claims, but that would mean stalling their voyage for eight or nine months. He saw that as a last resort. A man whose skin was as dark as the mahogany table they drank at told him about a possibility called the Five Medinlan Way. This involved taking the riverway through the Dundons, heading down the Chancet all the way through Malin to the White Sea, sailing past Colin and the Golden Isles to, this is where Dante's knowledge of geography gave out, the territories of Kirkit, where you had the option of sailing up a jungle river, a man advised against this, or continuing all the way around the Southern Horn until you came to the high steps of Tev. There, if you could sneak, bribe, or fight your way through the nomads, you would have to cross the Mountains of Sorrow, not quite as bad as they sounded, the sailor claimed, and then ride northwest through five hundred miles of the Desert of Grass, a relative cinch. This, at last, would deposit you on the eastern fringes of Wesley. Is that all? Dante said. It's not called the Five Medinlan Way for laughs, the sailor bristled. It's five thousand miles if it's afoot, and frankly, I think they underestimate. Now where's that next beer?
sighing inwardly, Dante asked him to repeat this while he took notes. The man obliged, going so far as to sketch a map which he allowed was very much not to scale. Even so, the distance implied by his scribbles was enough to make Dante want to retire to a life of farming. At week's end, the three of them reconvened at the Carrick, a tremendous vessel much too fat to navigate Quixote's inner bay. Big as it was, it was fully crewed and booked, and Dante had only been able to secure one small cabin below decks. He sat in one of the beds, which were little more than hammocks. Any luck? Not much, Lou said, quickly losing the battle with his own bed. I copied what little there was, if you'd like to read it. Of course. How about you, see? I have some leads to run down in Narashtivik, she said. I'll make my report then. Be fast about it, Dante said. She smirked. You're thinking of trying the mountains, aren't you? Every other route sounds more likely to land us in a grave than in Wesley. The mountains must be snowed in already, she said, but I'll move with the quickness. The ship weighed anchor an hour later, heaving into the pitching waves. At once, all three of them were wretchedly seasick. So, apparently, were the rest of the crew. Things were so dire, their cabin was allotted a single extra bucket. With frequent excursions to the nearest porthole, they made do. In between vomits, Dante read Lou's records. As he'd said, there weren't many. One followed the picaresque voyages of someone who appeared to have completed the five Medinlan way, but the account was so outlandish, one-eyed giants, talking mushrooms, that Dante was inclined to consider it fantasy. It spent little time in Wesley anyway. If it could be believed, Wesley was split into loose factions, with each of its peoples sheltering in a different range of mountains to keep themselves safe from their war-hungry countrymen. Also, their women had two nipples per breast. The other tales were far more fragmentary. One supported the factional composition of Wesley. Another claimed it grew very fine killnuts, which Dante had never heard of. The others were largely concerned with the feats and prestige of various noblemen who were several centuries dead at this point. Not much to go on. But that seemed to be the name of the game with everything regarding either Selen or Wesley. The only solution to both mysteries was to get across the mountains and see for themselves. On the second day, the waters calmed, and so did their stomachs. They made port in Narashtavik early on the third day. Dante dispatched Lou and C to continue their search for information on reaching Wesley, then went to see Ollivander. He summarized the trip. It didn't take long. Knowing you, Ollivander said, I assume your next move will be directly east. Dante leaned forward in his chair. Well, do we have any other choice? You could always stay here. And do nothing. And administer your city while remaining ready to act should anything more come to light. Ollivander, he said, fighting to keep the irritation from his voice, do you know what Selen is capable of? Do you? From all suggestions? Anything. 
Our inquiries suggest its capabilities are endless. Ollivander folded his arms across his broad chest and sighed through his nose. Let's hear your proposal. We return to Sol. Hire asked Modell to take us through the mountains. We, meaning you, Lou, and this bounty hunter of yours. We make a good team, Dante said. Lou knows the nether and is a born scholar, and C is as savvy as Carvajal. I have the suspicion she can hold her own in a fight, too. Wouldn't hurt to have more muscle, Ollivander mused. Would be a perfect fit for Blaze. Blaze isn't here. I've noticed. If nothing else, the fact we can keep up our ale supplies would be a dead giveaway. So, does this meet your approval? Would it matter? Dante pressed his lips into a tight line. I am trying to be responsible here. As dangerous as the trip sounds, I think it would be more dangerous to sit on our heels while an object of unknown power manifests in our backyard. Assuming it's an object, Ollivander said, and that it manifests, and if so, that it will be within ten thousand miles of here. Perhaps the fact all knowledge of it is kept in the east means that's where Selen shows up. What if Modigan's after it, too, and decides to level Narashtavik as punishment for our misdeeds? It's worth pursuing just to keep it out of enemy hands. This is all so speculative, so cryptic. A cunning look came over his face. In that case, Somba will be joining you. Somber, do you expect us to have to do a lot of spine-cutting? I just told you that you can go. And you want to argue with my one personnel choice? Ollivander smacked his desk with his palm. Somber is a walking shadow, the finest infiltrator I've ever seen. And he speaks more languages than a library. If you wind up requiring help from Wesleyan officials, he's the most capable tool we've got. Dante narrowed his eyes. And that's why you'd put him at risk, to spy on Wesley. As long as we're making the trip, it would be prudent to learn more of our mysterious neighbors. If that's what it takes. He stood. I'll provide you with a list of supplies and funds. Ask Somber to be ready in five days. That long, Ollivander said. I expected you to demand to leave tonight. My people need a few days to conclude their research. This was true, but he also had business of his own. He returned to the sub-basement to get to work. There he began writing down the materiel they'd need for the venture. Mounts, provisions, arms, clothing. That evening, when C and Lou came in from their search, he asked them to add whatever they needed as well. A bow, C said. Not one of those common-issue ones you give to your guards, either. The good shit you keep for yourselves. Compact but strong. I didn't know you were an archer, Dante said. I am when I don't want to let anyone get close enough to touch me. Parchment, Lou said, and all the things that make parchment useful. Dante noted it down, adding quills and the like. And weapons? Do you expect me to... fight? Unless you prefer to die unarmed. Something sharp, the monk said. 
A sword, maybe? Something, Dante wrote down, sharp. We'll liven that up when they write your ballad. He added to his list throughout the next day, adding and subtracting as new considerations came to light. He wasn't used to this level of planning and foresight. For years, he and Blaze had improvised their way from one disaster to the next, which may have been why there was always another disaster. But there had been something invigorating about leaping into space knowing you'd find a place to land on the way down. Once he finished his list, he blotted the ink, shook off the sand, and stood, meaning to deliver it. When he turned, he crashed straight into a lurking figure. He cried out. Somba winced. Was this your doing? Don't you knock, Dante said. And was what my doing? Enlisting me on this mad voyage? Dante shuffled his papers, stalling. Somber might be excellent at spycraft, but that may have been due to his fiendish paranoia. If he believed Dante was to blame for wrapping him up in this business, he might enact a long-burning revenge that Dante would never think to connect back to him. Yet if he implied he didn't want Somber, that too could earn the man's ire. It was Ollivander's suggestion, he said. He thought you'd be a significant acid in the field. I see, Somber said. Then I'll have to thank him instead. You want to go to Wesley? Why? Because I know nothing about it. I've never been swallowed alive by a whale, but I can be pretty sure I'd rather not see the inside of one's rectum. Somber raised one brow. He was a small man, the type you might describe as elegant, and each of his motions, however small, was impossibly deliberate. You met the Hanassans for answers, yet you still know nothing about the place. How can you not be intrigued? Dante didn't bother to ask how Somber knew he'd seen the Hanassans. The man knew about the trip to Wesley, even though he clearly hadn't been briefed by Ollivander yet. Knowing things he wasn't supposed to was what he did. Well, I'm glad you're enthusiastic. Let me know what you'll need for the trip. Somber's brows flickered. I'll manage my own needs, thank you. He turned on his heel and strode away. The basement was largely empty, and the smallest sounds echoed up and down the stone halls. Yet as soon as Somber exited the doorway, Dante couldn't hear a single scuff. The third day before their departure was absorbed by arguments with the Citadel's stablemaster, who insisted they didn't have any mounts capable of crossing the Wodens, and that, even if they did, he couldn't risk such resources on a trip as speculative as theirs. Dante presented the case that the man worked for the Citadel, and that as Dante was the Citadel, he'd better get his damn horses. The man, as stubborn as one of his mules, eventually sent Dante to another stable across town where they supposedly bred animals fit for cold weather. Incredibly, this turned out to be true. The man there had bred stout, shaggy ponies that looked capable of prancing through a blizzard. After intense haggling, including making a promise to conduct at least 15% of the Citadel's next 12 months of quadruped-related business with the stables, 
Dante departed with the assurance that ten of the ponies would be delivered to him the next morning. Of course, they were late by a full day, but after surviving that scare and what felt like far too much work in general, he, Lou, C, Somber, ten ponies, and a half-ton of gear and provisions assembled in the courtyard. Don't put your lives on the line out there, Ollivander advised, no more than is intrinsically involved in the journey, at least. You're more valuable to this city than whatever it is you're seeking. We'll be careful, Dante said, though that wasn't quite what Ollivander had asked of him. The citadel gates parted. The procession of ponies tramped into the square. On the long ride to Sol, Dante had time to catch up with what C and Lou had picked up about Wesley. More outlandish tales of the foreign land ensued. Dante had two favorites. The first was a story about a princess who yearned to escape her loveless marriage in Wesley and find refuge in Narashtavik. To cross the Wodens, she concealed herself inside a dead cow, was thusly swallowed whole by a capper, and was eventually excreted on the western side, where she befriended a village and later found love in Narashtavik. His second favorite was that the Wesleyans, who lived in the eastern Wodens, and thus on the west side of Wesley, lived in trees for fear the ground would swallow them while they slept. But there was as little useful info as ever. Dante combed his memories of their first trip, trying to remember if there had been an obvious pass through the range. As he did so, Somber peppered him with questions about the Hanassans, Saul, and Ast. Somehow he'd heard about Dante's encounter with the king, too. The rumor, Somber said, glancing behind him to make sure the others weren't listening, is that he lacked adequate proof to imprison you. He let you go out of the hope you'd do something dumb enough for him to lock you up for good. I thought my freedom was granted a little too easily. You should know this about giants. When one decides not to crush you, that's because he means to eat you instead. You should consider writing a book, Dante said. Somber was cryptic to the point of opacity, but he was interesting to have around, that much was certain. Ollivander had been right to suggest him. Above all else, leadership seemed to be about recognizing a good idea when it was presented— no matter the context or your initial resistance to it. The plane slanted up. A bone-chilling wind swept from the mountains. The pony's breath steamed like dragon smoke. They entered the foothills. Each morning the frost on the grass lingered longer. How are we going to protect the ponies from the cappers? Lou asked as they bedded down a half-day's ride from Sol. We'll feed the monsters something else, Dante said. Why do you think I brought you along? It's a valid question, C said. Then start thinking of answers. They looked unimpressed. I'm not kidding, Dante said. For better or worse, you're members of this team. I need you to start contributing on all fronts, not only your abilities, but your ideas. I'll need your help thinking our way through the Wodens. Doubly so once we get to Wesley. Lou wrinkled his brow. But you do know how to stop the ponies from getting eaten, don't you? What if I don't? Then the cappers are going to be in for a very easy winter. 
You could open a cave at ground level, then seal the ponies inside, C said. Leave a hole in the wall for air. Not bad, Dante said. It's getting cold enough we should do that ourselves. They're not supposed to like light, are they? Lou pulled his blanket around his shoulders. So we build fires, summon lights, and don't let them go out. Dante thought about it. Three of us can use the nether. We should sleep in shifts. But the cappers have proven they'll attack in broad daylight, too. It would be risky. Well, I hope you've got better, because that's my one good idea. It doesn't matter. What matters is that you contribute. Good ideas are more valuable than Voss and Steel. They often take just as many strokes to forge. On the approach to Sol, they had to lead the ponies around the stone staircase. As they rode across the clearing, a horn sounded in the village. Presumably, they'd been mistaken for raiders. But the locals calmed down by the time they'd reached the edge of town. Several villagers had drifted out to see what odd circumstances had prompted a full train of visitors to show up in their backwater on the eve of winter. Vincent exited one of the communal buildings and laughed. You're back! Not for long, Dante said. We need to see Astmodel. The man rubbed his blunt nose, bobbing his head. Should he be pleased? Oh, I doubt it. Vincent grinned and wandered north into the woods. While they waited, they watered the ponies at the stream and bought a hot meal. They ate outside at the tables. Soon enough, Ast walked up alongside Vincent, tall and grave. Dante stood and shook his hand. Would you be up for playing our tour guide again? To the mountains, Ast said. As far as I've heard, nothing new has come of the lights. Not to them, through them, to Wesley. Ast's head jerked. Why do you want to go to Wesley? To learn what can't be found here. Ast glanced east at the ridges that ran from one side of the sky to the other, as white and foreboding as a full moon. It can't be done. It can't be done, Dante said. Or you won't do it. Even at the peak of summer, you're more likely to never be heard from again than get to the other side. We've brought three nethermancers, two of whom have seats on the Council of Narashtavik. Ast frowned across their group. Nether's no use against kappas. You saw that for yourself. And what if I knew how to handle the beasts? Dante said. Caves won't work this time. Some stretches are solid glacier, and the kappas are no longer bound by night. They could come on us at any time. He stopped, as if that would end the discussion. But when Dante stayed quiet, waiting... Ast wrinkled his brow. How do you propose to get us past them? How else? Dante smiled, moved to his pony, and lifted a long bundle from its back. He swept away the cloth wrapper, revealing a blade carved from pure white bone. With a sword of the gods... Chapter 14
He had known the water would be frosty, but as he ran into it, high stepping over the waves, its cold ran so deep his muscles tightened like drawn bowstrings. He stopped, found his breathing, forced himself to relax. As he homed in on the woman in the waves, he shifted to a second form of breathing. Within moments, his skin seemed to glow with heat. He knew he wasn't as warm as he felt, but every bit would help. The arm flashed again, just for a second. Then the woman was back under. But Blaze had marked her. He charged into the waves. One rolled over his waist and nearly swept him from his feet. He ran through the lull. When the next one surged forward, he threw his arms forward and dived into the swell. The noises of the air went mute, replaced by a million swirling bubbles. He swam hard. Another wave passed, and he came up for air, grabbing a quick glance around. No sign of the swimmer. He had a ways to go yet. It was shockingly, paralyzingly cold. Even his little tricks of breathing couldn't keep him going for long. Then he had nothing to do but go faster. He swam on. His clothes were much too heavy. Should have shed those, too. As soon as he made it past the breakers and into the still potent open waves, he came to the surface and treaded water. Salt water stung his eyes and dripped down the back of his throat, harsh and desiccating. He stripped off his tunic and kicked off his trousers. As he hung there, catching his breath, he scanned the roiling seas. And there was the hand, not twenty feet from him. With a flash of white, it disappeared. He thrashed toward it, keeping his head above water so he wouldn't lose the spot. Once he'd reached it, or what he thought was it, waves tossed and turned and slapped around. The sturdiest landmark he had was a ball of rust-colored kelp, and that too was swishing around in the currents. He bobbed from the water, filled his lungs with air, added a final gasp to his mouth, and went under. The burble of water, the churning of his arms and legs, bubbles trickling past his cheeks and ears. He opened his eyes. He was just a few feet below the surface, but the cloud-diffused sunlight fought to penetrate the heaving seas and screens of bubbles. He kicked deeper, casting about for any glimpse of pale skin. With his breathing exercises, he trained himself to go without breath for a couple minutes, even while fighting at full force— but that was in open air, not in a cold ocean fighting his every movement. Too soon he had to resurface. He took three long breaths, held the fourth, and plunged back in. He swam straight down, turning in a spiral. Something brushed his leg. He shuddered and glanced up. Seaweed. He realigned himself head down, then cried out, gurgling. A pale body was suspended below him. He kicked down, snagged it by the armpit, swapped his feet for his head, and fought toward the surface. He broke through, surging up and sucking in a deep breath. He pulled the woman up, sinking down as he did so, waves smacking over his nose. She was hardly a woman, late teens at best, and quite oddly, in defiance of all rhyme, reason, decorum, or desire to survive, she appeared to be entirely naked. And at least half dead. Blotched face, blue lips. He rolled on his back, holding her to his chest, and stroked toward shore. 
His teeth chattered uncontrollably, clacking like the finger drums of the Clan of Red Sky. It was going to be a fun bit of business hauling the girl all the way back to the caves before he dropped dead of hypothermia. She spasmed and choked, spewing water into the air. She heaved for breath. With that first taste of air, she grabbed at his body and climbed up him, keeping her head from the water by pushing his under it. He kicked back up. He had plenty of size and strength on her, but she was in full-blown, can't-breathe panic, and she clung to him like the buoy he wasn't. He went under again. Again he wrestled his way back to the surface. She raked his chest, clawed his shoulder, bright lines of pain scored his skin. Knock it off, he burbled. She screamed and pulled at him just as he was going for breath. The first half was air, the second was water. He dropped below the waves and filled his lungs with salt and wet. He kicked wildly, but she was holding him down, using him like a human raft. His sight tightened, dimmed, grayed. Blackness. But he could see different shades of black. Vague arms of matter reaching for him, touching his nail-raked skin, merging with the blood floating from his body. A part of him wanted it, and it reacted to his want like a hungry lover. He reached for it, and it responded. Cold lips pressed against his. His chest jerked. He felt so perfectly still, as if even his heart had gone quiet. And then his body stiffened like a plank, and he coughed salt water, and he was lying on a gritty beach with a naked girl blowing air into his mouth. He gagged and jackknifed, to a sitting position, drooling all over his chest, hacking and gagging. The brackish taste would not leave his mouth. The girl whacked him on the back. In sudden fury, he cocked his fist, coiled his muscles, and stopped. She wasn't attacking him. She was saving him. What? He wheezed. You went under, she said. I had help. He stopped and coughed some more. He was shivering and chattering. Who are you? Helen, she said, words chopped up by her chattering teeth. Can you stand up? We have to get warm. He lurched to his feet. He wobbled and she grabbed his arm, exposing her small breasts. Despite his shock and pain and cold, he immediately felt supremely awkward. He averted his eyes and tottered toward the cliffs. His sodden small clothes streamed water to the sand. Where are you going? she called. He didn't answer, just wobbled over to where he'd shed his cloak. He desperately wanted to throw it around his own shoulders, but he wrapped it around her instead. Here. He snugged it tight. Let's go. His shoes were there too, but he was too stiff to go for them. They staggered down the beach leaning on each other, gripping his upper arm, her fingers were as cold as stone before sunrise. He couldn't feel the sand grinding under his feet. She tripped and dropped to her knees and stayed there. Praying he wouldn't fall too, he hauled her back up. The caves were far down the beach. So far. It would be much easier to fall down and lie there, Hot defiance burned up his throat and down his spine. It wasn't time to die. 
they trudged on. As they neared the caves, his hands and ankles began to tingle. That was either very good or very bad. Beside the cliffs, a woman in a flapping cloak called out. She ran to them, goggling between the girl and Blaze. Shadows flocked to her hands. A trickle of warmth seeped into his skin. She helped them inside. After the buffeting waves and deafening winds, the silence of the tunnels roared in his ears. His feet slapped the floor. One light lurched in his vision. They turned this way and that. He was deposited before a snapping fire. Towels rubbed him, chafing his skin. Someone pulled off his soaked shirt, his small pants. He was too woozy to protest. Two more women arrived. One set her hands on his chest, while the other tended to the girl. His teeth stopped beating against each other. He took an endless, shuddering breath. What happened? A woman crouched over him, red hair cut close to the scalp except for a strip running down the center of her head. He tipped his head toward the girl who was wrapped in three blankets, juddering like a wet dog. I think she fell in. I did not, the girl said. I was betweening. Something must have gone wrong. This man pulled me out. And in your gratitude, you attempted to kill me. Her pale face flushed from chin to scalp. I'm sorry. I don't know what happened. He closed his eyes. I've seen it before. When we get close to death, we don't think about anything but escaping it. Anyway, you saved me too, didn't you? She looked down. I might have. So we're even. We'll share some stew sometime. The door opened. Min burst inside, eyes bulging. Are you all right? What happened? Somebody else tell her, Blaze croaked. I can barely talk. Helen was between, the redhead woman said. Lost in the waves, your dog paddled out and retrieved her. Min pressed her palms together and held them tight to her mouth. Is everyone all right? We've warmed them. They're fine. I'll get tea. Min paced around while Blaze warmed various parts of himself in front of the fire. He toweled off on a blanket and slung it aside. Min exited. He was suddenly too tired to do more than stare at the flickering orange flames. Min came back with a spare set of clothes. He hopped into them. The redhead woman returned with tea. Blaze gargled his, rinsing out the taste of salt. What's between? Min turned to the woman. Maybe you'd take Helen to get dressed? The woman laughed. Enjoy yourself. She helped the girl stand, then walked her out. Min closed the paper-thin door and spoke in a low tone. Thank you for saving her. Wouldn't you have done the same, he said. Or would that interfere with the people's save-yourself ethos? By the way, I'm fairly out of it. Yet I've managed to notice you persist in ducking my question. What was Helen doing in the water? What is between? Min was quiet a moment. Worlds. Worlds? Between worlds. It's a process we discovered long ago. When we find outsiders, 
and bring them here to become people, they must place themselves between life and death. Like, for fun. Blaze gargled another mouthful of tea and spat it at the fire. The salt was impossible to wash out, as if it had marinated him. To become one of us. You think the best way to add to your numbers is to convince recruits to kill themselves? Betweening is voluntary. And what happens if they don't take part? Min took his cup and refilled it. Bitter steam wafted from the dark liquid. They're sent home. Throw yourself into the waves or be exiled. He laughed harshly, then choked. He soothed his throat with more tea. No wonder you're all so grim. You don't understand. We go between to make ourselves stronger. When there is nothing left but you, your heartbeat, and death, the nether comes so close a child could touch it. There is no better way to train those who can't yet do what we do. Blaze blinked. Well, that would explain what just happened to me. When I was drowning, I saw it melt. I could melt it again right now. You can. She moved close enough to feel the heat of her skin. How? By wanting it. Show me. He set his tea on the mantle and focused on the nether in her. He saw it, touched it, wanted it. It became liquid, reaching back at him. Min's eyebrows shot up. Welcome to summer. Thank you, he said. Now please explain why you throw girls into the ocean naked, but treat me like I can't be trusted with anything sharper than a spoon. She folded her arms. You weren't vetted. Do you think I'm no good? Too weak? That I can ever be one of you? It doesn't matter what I think. And if I cared what they think, I wouldn't have put my Lee on the line to take you in. Lee? Blaze sighed. Do you expect me to know what that is? It's... She rolled her hand through the air. My reputation, my standing, my place as a part of Pocket Cove. They didn't want you here. I did. Why? I already told you, because we all deserve to be free. No more bullshit. He picked up his mug and slugged it down. It tasted like spirits without the burn, like food for the soul. Take off the kid gloves. Tell me what to do and I'll do it. She stared him down. You have no standing to make demands of me. I'm the only reason you're allowed to stay. I think I can do more, that I can complete the same trials the rest of you endure. Do you think I'm wrong? I can't know that until we try. She held her ground, but her gaze softened. I'll discuss it with Ro. Wonderful. He pushed his palms into the small of his back, stretching his spine until he thought the bits might pop. Now why don't you tell me what Helen's training to do? To move Earth. I know that, which is why you think it's safe to tell me that. So why don't you tell me the rest? How do you go unseen? Min laughed and shook her head. Just because I'm embarrassed and humbled doesn't mean you can bully me into blabbing. How about I ask you nicely, 
as someone who just risked his life to save one of your people. People who look at me like I'm a farm dog of questionable house training. Shadow Walk. He threw off his blanket. Is that their name for me? That's what we do. We shadow walk. Move through the places others can't see. What does that involve? Besides words that sound like a foreign language. Exactly what it sounds like. Her eyes ticked between his. We walk through the shadows. We move like the nether, invisible, silent. And you'll never know we're there. Okay, he said. I'm gonna need you to teach me that right now. Min shook her head. Summer first, dog. You've seen, reached, melted. Now you learn to move it. In summer, people want to slow down, to rest. It's too hot. But the rest of nature wants to grow, to move upward. The nether does, too. Can you make the darkness grow? You know, my friend didn't have to move through a mystical gauntlet. All he had to do was read an old book. The cycle. That's the one. Blaze bit his lip. How'd you know that? I thought you guys isolated yourself from earthly affairs. We haven't always been so isolated. She shifted her weight, then moved to a pile of pillows in the corner and sat down. The cycle is a tool for people who don't require this depth of training. Exposure to it is enough. Whereas for people like me, it requires suicide attempts. And you may never be all that good, Min smiled. But you're more dedicated than most. Whatever your limitations, that helps. So how do I bring summer to fruition? Give it three days. He laughed. That's it. I mean, I'm commanding you to take three days off. Lyle's balls, an hour ago you nearly drowned. Now you want to skip right through the last season. Well, all right. But in return I demand more tea. He thought she was babying him, but whatever the red-headed woman had done to push death from his shoulders, it wasn't complete. He was soon tired, and after that he was so weak he could do no more than wander back through the halls, with Min's guidance, to his bed. He slept until he felt good. That took two days. Once he'd relieved his bladder, the tunnels had water closets with holes in the ground, cunningly wrought to drain moisture from the plateau down through them and wash it out to sea. They even had valves to rinse yourself with. He ate what must have been an entire flounder. Finished, Min said, once he'd flopped into a heap of his blankets. Then let's go see Roe. Clutching his bloated stomach, he righted himself and followed her down the tunnels. Rose's room was thick with the smell of singed wintrel leaves. The woman combed her fingers through her gray-streaked hair and shifted on her cushion of blankets. What are you doing here? Blaze covered his mouth to suppress a belch. My master is taking me for a walk. Arf! She narrowed one eye in distaste. Why did you come to Pocket Cove? I'm guessing Min's already told you. That hasn't changed. I came to learn to disappear, to walk outside without fear of being seen. 
Do you consider yourself a part of this place? Despite all your efforts to keep me separate from it, the woman chuckled. Thank you for saving Helen from the waves. You're grateful. I figured a drowning here and there must serve to strengthen the herd. We keep ourselves strong so we're able to keep ourselves safe. There was an edge of warning in her voice. We don't need to kill our own to do that. So, if you will accept it, thank you. You're welcome, he demurred. Is that the reason you summoned me here? Min has permission to train you however she sees fit. Rose smiled at Min. And if he drowns, remember to bury the corpse six feet deep. The sand does an awful job concealing the smell. Min didn't seem to know if she ought to smile. She inclined her head and took Blaze outside. It was as cold as ever, but he hardly noticed. It's summer, she said. Can't you feel it? It would feel more like it with a cold drink. Time to feel the nether grow. And when it's ready, to take it. How would one of your perfect recruits be instructed to grow and to take it? She ambled toward the tide line. By swimming naked in the worst of winter, or running through fire, or being sent to the plateau shoeless and unarmed. He scratched his neck. His beard was getting thick. This truly helps them progress, into things other than a worm's breakfast. When you're between, your only weapons are your wits, your hands, and the nether. What could be more motivating? Sex, booze, a roasted pheasant smothered in gravied mushrooms. No? Then I'll take the cliffs. She nodded once and headed toward the staircase. You'll spend three days in the fingers. You can come down any time, but if you return early, you'll be sent home. What if I don't know where home is? Then you carry your home in your pockets, don't you? Free to make it wherever you wish. He unbuckled his sword. Keep it safe for me. She wagged her finger. Knife, too. He glanced at his ankle in mock surprise. Oh, this isn't one of those killing knives. This one's purely sentimental. Oh, what cherished memories does it carry? Killing things. He handed it over. She pocketed it. You can keep your shoes if you like. We don't normally send people up to the fingers this late in the year. If it costs me a toe, that's why the gods gave us ten of them. But if you come down early, I'll have to send you out. I want to do this the way the people do. Otherwise it means nothing. He pulled off his shoes and handed them over. Practice too much with wooden swords, and when the real thing comes out, you're liable to get gored. Min pointed to the overcast sky. It's noon, or close enough to it to pretend. I'll see you in three days. He grinned and surprised himself by hugging her. Equally surprised, she patted his back. He walked to the stairwell. Without Min there, 
It went pitch black after the first turn. The steps were damp with ocean spray. He moved up in perfect silence, trailing his fingers over the walls. Eventually, light peeped from above. He turned a corner and was shrouded in light. It was cloud-filtered and wintry, as weak as noontime got. But after the blankness of the staircase, it was blinding. Well, that was two minutes down. Only four thousand-something to go. Fog slunk between the upthrust columns. Moss and vines clung to knobs of rock and wedged their roots into nooks. The ground was slippery, a mishmash of bare stone, thick mud, moss and water that couldn't decide whether it aspired to be frozen, slush or fluid. A peaty, half-rotten odor lingered among the smells of fresh and salt water. Water was going to be a problem. Finding stuff that wouldn't turn him into a two-ended fountain, anyway. But he might be able to find some clean pools condensed on the fingers of rock. Or lick it from the moss or something. At least he wouldn't be doing any sweating. Maybe water wouldn't be so much of a problem after all. It was just three days. The cold, on the other hand, that was liable to kill him. And if he didn't find some way to insulate his feet, or at least keep them off the ground, his dancing days were over. There was the matter of the giant centipedes, too. As he had that thought, an ant the size of his thumb wandered over a clump of moss and stopped to wave its antennae at him. Blaze frowned. Forget food, water, shoes, or shelter. The first thing he needed was a basher. A fist-sized rock at the base of a column would do for now, but he really needed a stick, something that would keep his precious hands at a safe remove from all stingers, mandibles, and smelly ichors. He wiped the rock's muddy bottom off on a patch of fuzzy lichen and stepped forward, keeping one eye on his feet. A single cut could be the end of him. It quickly became apparent that there weren't a lot of trees up here. Nor anything, really, besides fog, the slimier sort of plants, and bugs so big it made you want to sit down and cry. After just a few minutes, he had to sit on a rock and tuck his feet into his lap and rub the feeling back into them. He really shouldn't have accepted Min's offer to keep his shoes. Principles were for idiots. Once he'd warmed his feet, he moved on. Most of the rock pillars were as steep as towers, but he soon found one with a natural staircase. On a lark, maybe it was a sign, he climbed it to a small plateau. A gnarled tree grew up there, orange berries festooning its branches. With no idea whether the berries were poisonous, he let them be, but... Beard-like gray-green moss hung from the branches as well. He tore this off, wiped off as much moisture as he could on the thighs of his trousers, and put the moss in his pockets. He tore off a springy branch as long as his arm and as thick as his big toe. What he really needed was a proper bug-whomping log, but the stick would do for now. 
Careful not to slip, he got back down, rubbed his feet some more, and wandered on. And that was as exciting as it got for three hours. Bouts of walking regularly, interrupted by bouts of sitting and soul rubbing. On the eighth or ninth stop, he noticed three toes on his left foot had gone numb. The moss in his pocket was dry, but unless he ripped up his clothes, something he was loath to do, given that he was barely warm enough as is, he had nothing to secure the moss to his feet with. He picked up bark on his stick, but it was much too thick and rough to tear into strips. Grass grew beside a pillar, but it would shred within seconds of walking. His clothes were the only way. Stomach rumbling, he found a loose string on the bottom of his cloak and began to pick at it. He unraveled eight feet of string, booted his feet in moss, and tied it in place. Ha! His laugh died in the mist. He got up, hefting his stick, and decided to see if there was any food that wouldn't wriggle all the way down his throat. Not ten minutes later, the string tore from his left foot, dragging moss behind him. He secured it back around his foot, but the same incident repeated twice. He sat down and pressed his palms to his forehead. He did his breathing trick to warm himself up a bit, and then, to boost his sagging morale, he climbed around on the rocks until he found a shallow, fresh-smelling pool. It tasted good, and if he caught a disease, so what? At that point, the warmth of a fever would feel good. Using the stick, he poked around in lichen and moss, exposing a handful of white grubs. They twitched disturbingly, but a quick chomp ended that. They tasted fatty, almost sweet, but it wasn't much, and only stirred his hunger. The day grew short. He picked up his pace, eyes out for shelter. Could be a natural cave around. The people of the pocket might even have built a cabin or something to house those anyone on sentry duty in the fingers. Twilight came, then a descending gloom. With the stars and moon blocked by fog, he curled up beside the eastern exposure of a pillar, shielded from the worst of the mist and steady wind, and proceeded to pass what might have been the most miserable night of his life. On the second day, he decided all this running around was foolish. It wasn't as if he had to find the necessities of life. He didn't have enough to work with here. If he'd mysteriously woken up in the fingers, he wouldn't try to live here. He'd walk out of it as fast as possible. Find somewhere with trees whose branches you could use to bash mammals whose skin you could wear to avoid dying. All he had to do was get through another forty-eight hours. Then it was back to the caves. No point breaking his back with the end so close. Anyway, he was supposed to be up here to get closer to the nether. He sat with the bottom of his cloak swaddled around his feet and practiced his seasons. And there it was, all right. Shadows everywhere. Fall no longer took him any thought. Winter was as easy as a snap of his fingers. Spring still required conscious focus, but now that he knew the mood necessary to make the nether pliable, he could do so with few failures. 
To shore up his ability, he spent the rest of the day getting the nether to melt. Now and then he got up to stir his blood. On one such meander he found a rock structure so massive a rivulet of water trickled down its side. He let it pool in his palm to make sure it wasn't clouded with bad humors, then drank until his thirst went away. His stomach sucked against his backbone, but there wasn't much he could do about that. To help ignore it, he cycled through his three seasons, repeating spring over and over. He got lost in the work. Instead of walking around when he got cold, he breathed in and out, tensing and relaxing, willing his temperature to rise. Night came, and all warmth went. Nether seemed to fill the void, surging everywhere. He called out to it like you'd call in the herd. It wobbled but refused to detach from the moss, like a drop of water clinging to the underside of a windowsill, defying gravity. He woke. It was light again. His cloak was draped over his lower half. One of his moss-wrapped feet stuck out. He was very warm. He lay there, enjoying the sensation. Shadows roiled over him, mingling with the mist. He'd never felt closer to peace. With a completely inappropriate sense of amusement, he realized he was on the brink of death. He bolted upright, rubbing himself down from head to toe with his cloak. As soon as his fingers and toes began to tingle, he jogged slowly between the rocks, kicking his knees high, shaking his hands. He began to shiver uncontrollably, but he thought that might be good. As his wits returned, he felt sick, starved, weak and clumsy and exhausted. He knew if he lay down again or let himself sit for longer than a few moments, he'd drift off, and he wouldn't return. So he walked, and when he got too tired, he leaned against a pillar until he felt well enough to go on. He'd gone some distance from the staircase, but without a clear sense of the sun's position, and with his head swimmy and confused, he wasn't positive he was heading in the right direction. His feet hurt. At some point the moss wore away. It was afternoon, probably, but that meant he had a whole day left in the fingers. He stopped with no strength or will to keep searching. A couple of tears wound down his cheeks. He tasted salt on the back of his tongue. He closed his eyes. A faraway rumble carried through the silence. In his state, he felt certain that Dante had found him and was punching a chasm in the ground that he'd tumble inside, never to be found. The same fate as Lyra. Just one more bag of nether being returned to the messy web of shadows that enwrapped the whole planet. The rumble faded. Three seconds later, it repeated. It was the surf. He blinked back his tears, feeling foolish, and headed toward the sound. The fog thinned. Below him, white yellow sand curved to north and south. He found the staircase soon thereafter, and sat beside it to massage his feet. 
A deep part of him yearned to stagger down it and end this nonsensical quest. Just what was he doing here? Not just up here in the fingers, willingly shaking hands with death, but in Pocket Cove at all. But he felt his ego tear from its cocoon, grab him by the collar and scream into his ear. He wasn't going to give in. He wasn't going to die. He was going to find greatness. That night, the nether flitted around him like black shooting stars. He tried to summon the shadows to his hands, but it remained as aloof as the heavens beyond the clouds. He persisted. Morning came. He stood beside the stairs until the sun's blocked glow stood overhead. One step at a time, he descended. Standing on the sand, Min's face was white with worry. He collapsed. It took a few days of sleeping to prove he was fine. He wasn't certain what he'd learned betweening in the fingers, except that he never wanted to do that again. But he did feel closer to the nether. He spent days at the tide pools, urging it to separate from its hosts and come to him. When that stalled, he stripped nude and dived into the waves, meaning to literally shock himself out of his rut. It felt incredible, doubly so once he got out and ran to the caves to shudder in front of a fire. But the wisdom of summer remained elusive. The actual year ended. He stood on the beach to see the first dawn. Min joined him. Where is summer? Blaze laughed. In hibernation. How are you trying to move the nether? By calling to it, summoning it. That's what you're supposed to do, right? Why should it listen? Because I say so. A wave retreated, and he watched pea-sized crabs scurry to bury themselves in the wet sand. Seriously, because I wanted to. Is that wrong? She folded her arms. Hell if I know. Oh. That's one of those questions where the answer is whatever I find in myself. Hate those ones. Then answer it quickly and get it over with. Because it wants death and knows that I will die, he blurted. Are you afraid of that? That's why they call it death, isn't it? They do, she conceded. But I didn't ask about them. If I told you that you'd die tomorrow, what would you do? Check your sleeves for poison, he laughed. I do nothing. Climb up to the fingers and watch the surf. That's it. I've had fun. I came here to be reborn. If instead my life were to end, maybe that's the same thing. Are you serious? She said. Or is that typical soldier bravado? He shook his head. Who can tell until it happens? She nodded toward his waist. He glanced down. A fly had landed on his fingers. He jerked his hand to dislodge it, but it held fast. He looked up and gaped. Min grinned. The shadows swirled around his finger, cold in the way that it felt when he held his hand above a sheet of ice. He'd done it. His year was over.
Chapter 15 A white sword? Ast said. Well, we'll never hear from the monsters again. Dante lifted its tip. This sword is taken from Barden. Ast laughed. The white tree doesn't shed leaves or branches. Since the day it sprouted, it hasn't been broken. Dante nodded, mildly impressed by Ast's knowledge. Until I got there. He wheeled the sword over his head and slammed it into a table. The blade hit the wood with a jolt to the wrist. Instead of the ring of steel, the impact made a flat crack. The sword passed through and bit into the ground. The table teetered, then fell in half, parted down the middle. Onlookers gazed at the weapon. After a pause, Vincent knelt by the table and rubbed the cleaved edges. Waste of a good table. Cappers may be toughened against Nether. Dante wiped dirt from the sword's tip. But this could cut the clouds from the sky. Ast rubbed his hand down his mouth. Are you provisioned? For a month or more. Then we move now. If the blizzards beat us to the divide, no amount of want will get us through. C tipped back her head to the clear blue skies. Do you know something we don't, pal? Yes. Ast patted his pockets, reminding himself of what was on his person. The names of three dozen men who've died on those peaks. Oh. Don't you want to discuss your payment? Dante said. A man of your stature has the means to make it worth my while, and I'm sure a man of your honor will see that it is fair. He excused himself and jogged toward the cliffside homes. Somber moved beside Dante. You know this man? Dante nodded. Like I said, he's the one who led us to the lights. I don't trust him. You don't trust anyone. People have odors. Somber said unhappily. He reeks of betrayal. Then it's good you're here to watch my back. While he waited for Ast to return with his personal effects, Dante spoke with Vincent about compensating Sol for the table. Vincent attempted to brush it off on the grounds that whatever mission Dante was on would likely enhance the villagers' safety. But Dante sat at an intact table and penned a quick note to Ollivander, to be delivered to Narashtavik by whoever was heading that way soonest. As he finished, he allowed himself a small smile. This was just the sort of responsibility Ollivander would want to see him take. Ast returned wearing a long sword with a round guard, its scabbard carved with a spiral reminiscent of a kappa's horn. Dante assigned him a pony. Ast eyed the creature, ran his fingers through its thick mane, bent to examine the tufts around its sturdy hooves. Satisfied, he swung into the saddle and moved to the point. The ponies trudged up the switchback north of town without hesitation. At the grassy meadow above, shepherds shielded their hands to watch the team strike out for the wilds. Lou raised his hand and waved. A woman waved back. The ponies had some problems with the talus fields beyond the meadow. They picked their way, step by step, 
planting each hoof firm before trusting it to hold. They resumed their pace at the pine forest. Dante could smell the cold in the air. Pine needles, too, but the odor had changed. It was more brittle, as if the trees had retreated into themselves in advance of the coming freeze. As the daylight grew hard and yellow, Ast spoke for the first time since departing from Sol. Where do you intend to sleep? The ponies can't climb up to a cave. Samba and I worked that out on the way here, Dante said. It's a bit gruesome, but less so than waking up to a herd of mauled ponies. Ast scowled. Anything would be. They rode along the cliffs, edging the forest, stopping once they spotted the cave Dante had created on their first time through. It was too small for all of them to sleep in comfortably, but three could fit in without problem. And should disaster strike, in the form of malevolent beasts or indifferent storms, they could pack themselves tight until Dante was able to expand it enough to stretch their legs. They grazed the ponies on the thin, dying grass. As soon as the sun fell below a ridge, Dante heaved up a saddlebag and extracted a squirrel, two possums, three rats, two rabbits, and eight mice. All were undead. He and Samba had been collecting them since Samba devised this plan on their second night out from Narashtavik. It was straightforward enough that Dante likely could have conceived it on his own, but he appreciated a. that Samba had shown more foresight, and b. was not squeamish about using the animals as sentries. He sent his half of the creatures scattering into the twilight to keep their eyes out for cappers and more mundane predators. There would be bears in the mountains. They might have already retired to their caves for the winter, but any wolves in the area would be growing hungrier by the day. Somber kept his half of the scouts on the fringes of camp, near enough that the rustling made Dante's heart leap every few minutes. Where exactly in Wesley do you intend to go? Ast asked during their dinner of completely unremarkable travel fare. We're not yet sure, Dante said. Do you know it well enough to offer suggestions? You're braving the wardens, on the verge of winter, and you don't know where you are going? We're following the lights. We were told we could learn more about them in Wesley. Do you know of such a place? Asked Chewed, thinking. No. Then get us through the Wodens via the safest route possible. We'll take it from there. Both he and Somber could have slept the whole night. The creatures would wake them through their mental link should they encounter anything dog-sized or larger. But Dante stayed up the first few hours anyway, listening to the woods its screeching owls and lonely coyotes. He was glad he wasn't alone. The cold of the night persisted through the morning. The others were stiff and grouchy, and so was he. Think we can risk a fire tonight, he said. Ast glanced across the woods. Cappers know that campfires are attended by their favorite kind of walking meat. So it depends on how much confidence you have in your rats and your sword. Dante nodded, mildly annoyed at Ast's lack of faith. 
Dante may have been an outsider, but he wasn't some wealthy, sheltered nobleman hiring locals to help him hunt cougars or bears. He compressed his irritation and prepared for the day's ride. The forest quit abruptly, depositing them into an endless scree of rocks of all sizes. Ast scouted ahead for paths of solid stone that would be better suited for the ponies. Eager to prove himself, Dante joined the search. He may not know the mountains, but he could damn well tell the difference between jumbled stones and an even surface. They rode for miles, stopping whenever the ponies balked and needed to be detoured. Did you intend us to skirt the ravine? Ast asked as the day wore on. Or were you thinking of bridging it? Bridging, Dante replied at once. This time I don't have to worry about conserving myself to build caves each night nor about exhausting my power to heal or do harm. In his own right, Somber's just as capable as I am. Ast didn't look entirely convinced, but he didn't object. They exited the spread of Talus and stopped before the ravine. While the others took the opportunity to dismount, stretch their legs, and have a snack, Dante could open his arm and let the blood fall to the ground. His gap was wider than anything he'd bridged, so rather than extending a path direct from one side to the other, he drew out his supports first, extending diagonal struts of rock to connect in the middle of the canyon. He fleshed these out with triangular junctions to help disperse the weight of their passage, then paved his bridge across the gap. Somber watched with naked curiosity. I've always meant to ask... Was that hard to learn? The work of months, Dante said, letting out a shaky breath. And refining it's taken years. Do you think it would come in handy on your ventures? It occurs to me that if you were to open a hole in the floor beneath a person, an enemy king, say, you could drop him inside and reseal the hole and no one would ever know. That's a disturbing thought. No, Somber said. What's disturbing is the thought of liquid stone flooding their mouth to choke off their screams. He couldn't argue with that. Dante walked across the bridge himself to test it, delving his focus into the reshaped rock. He felt no hint of weakness or strain. Though the icy stream glittered a hundred feet below, the ponies were well used to clambering around on narrow paths and mountain slopes, and didn't slow down as they were led to the other side, one by one. They crossed a snowfield, descended to another forest. That night, Dante spent his time on watch looking out for the ghost lights, for Selen, but saw nothing out of the ordinary on the skies or the ground. At the second ravine, where he'd slain the kappa, he repaired his broken bridge and buttressed it with additional supports. Below. White bones showed within broken black shells. They made good time before their next camp. That night, a feeling like numbed pain spiked him from sleep long before dawn. His link with one of the mice had gone dead. Did you lose one too? Somber said. Dante jumped. Just now. When was yours? Twelve minutes ago. Have you been counting the seconds? Somber nodded. Haven't seen the attacker. 
Dante hopped between the sight of each of his remaining scouts. Their night vision was better than his, but showed nothing more than trees and pale pockets of snow. Go back to bed, Somber said. I'll sleep in the saddle. When Dante got back up, clouds skidded across the sky, mounting on the eastern peaks. He joined the others for breakfast. We lost two scouts last night. Lou looked up from his cornbread. Cappers? Owls, I expect. But keep your eyes open. Good tip, C said. As it turns out, eyes are especially useful when you're stumbling around the mountains. We've got more than cappers to worry about, Ast said, ignoring her sarcasm. We'll see a storm this afternoon. Ahead lay the boulder-strewn field where their last trip had ended. Since they were no longer hunting the lights, Ast skirted it, swinging to the north through a notch in the ridge. Snows crusted the slopes, shrubs clinging gamely to any hold they could find. The mountains were already so high, Dante thought they must be crossing the divide. But the other side opened to an up-and-down jumble of hills, screes, and cliffs, glued together by blue-white glaciers, striated by the constant winds. On the horizon, another spread of mountains soared yet higher. Dante's ears ached. Since the day before, even moderate strain had left him taxed for breath. Ast seemed little worse for wear, and Somber's expression was as elsewhere as always, but he saw the discomfort in C and Lou's faces too. Is it much further? he said. Ast pulled his scarf down from his mouth. Steam gushed from his nose. He pointed to the distant peaks. That's the divide. Oh, thank the gods, Lou said. Dante felt relief, but not much. The glacier field looked like the work of two days by itself, and unless Ast knew a hidden pass through the divide, they'd have to climb another thousand feet or more of stark terrain before they looked on Wesley. But it was a bit late for complaints. They moved on. Dante and Somber sent their animal scouts bounding ahead to check for pathways through the ice. After a short descent, they slogged through four inches of powdery snow, overlaying hard-packed ice that likely never melted. The ponies crunched along. An hour into the walk across the ice, one pony stopped and danced away, holding up its left front hoof. Dots of red patted the snow. It had sliced itself on a blade of ice. Dante instructed Lou to heal it. Lou dismounted and sent the nether to wipe away the animal's wound. The pony snorted and hopped sideways, kicking its foot about as if it itched. Abruptly, it calmed down and gazed across the snow like nothing had happened. The skies grayed. Glittering powder gusted in flurries. One of the dead rabbits stumbled on an alternate route a quarter mile to the southeast. It required navigating a tricky frozen slope, but the glacier at the bottom flowed like a solid river for at least a mile, a much cleaner path than the eskers and slants ahead of them. Ast agreed 
and they angled toward the idle rabbit scout. The powder in the air thickened, accumulating in the folds of their cloaks. It wasn't just the wind. It was snowing. By the time they got to the slope, the skies were charcoal. Incoming snow whirled around them, dropping visibility to a couple hundred yards. Ast paused before the descent. A long ramp of ice fed down to the glacier hundreds of feet below. The ice was solid and broad, but ahead and to the left, the edge plunged sharply, riddled with deep blue folds. We'll lead the ponies. Ast dropped from the saddle. Slow and steady. If you hear a crack or a pop, abandon the beasts as fast as you can. The lower half of Lou's face was muffled, but concern shined in his eyes, and yet the angle looked worse than it was. Ast led, swiveling his head to gauge the ground. There was little powder on the slope, and the ice beneath Dante's feet was gritty and irregular, making for relatively solid footing. They proceeded in a loose line, careful not to follow directly behind one another in case of a mishap. Halfway down the decline, with another tenth of a mile to go, Ast's pony yanked its head, tearing the reins from his gloved hands. He cursed and stomped after it. The ice to Dante's right crackled. The hair stood up on the back of his neck. He dropped the reins and tensed his legs. But it wasn't a collapse or an avalanche. Fifty feet away, from behind a low mound of snow, a capper stalked onto the ice. Dante's pony shrieked. Perhaps he did as well. Somber rushed forward, knives appearing in his hands. Dante drew his sword. Originally, the raw rib had been heavy and unwieldy, but using a combination of nether and steel chisels, which had gone blunt after two good whacks, he'd shaved and shaped the bone to the desired shape. By the time he'd finished work in Samaran's basement, the sword was three and a half feet long from point to pommel, gently curved. It was thicker than most steel blades of the same shape, but hardly any weightier, and unimaginably stronger. He held it from his side and faced down the kappa. The beast dipped its head, swaying its horns back and forth. Ast's pony took a faltering step to the left. The kappa padded forward. A bow twanged behind Dante. With a hard whack, the arrow struck the capper in the middle of its plated skull and deflected away. The capper accelerated into a lope. Heart hammering, Dante stepped forward and raised his sword to a guard. Another pony screamed, an unnatural whinnying cry. Lou shouted. Dante glanced back. Two more cappers stalked down the slope behind them. Deal with that one, Somber said, pointing to the first. We need to clear room to run. Dante nodded and gripped the sword with both hands. Animals skittered on ice behind him. Ponies brayed, hoofs scraping. One bolted to the left, slipping on the ice. The first capper dropped its head and rushed Dante. He could try to knock a hole in the ice, send this one plunging to its death and race to face the other two. But he had no practice manipulating ice, and even if it operated along the same principles as Earth— and he suspected it would, 
He didn't know how the rest of the sheet would react if it were suddenly sheared open. He might slip and join the capper, and any fall sufficient to kill it would surely claim him as well. So he leveled his sword and trotted forward. The capper closed on him, snow twirling past its twin horns. He stopped and planted his feet. Moments before it impaled him, he leapt to the left, slashing at its head with his sword. The bone connected with the capper's horn. A two-foot spiraled point spun into the ice and stuck there. The monster thundered past him and smacked straight into a pony's flank. The animal shrieked. The capper drove it into the ground, then backed off. Blood spurted from the pony's ribs, dripping from the capper's intact horn. Upslope, the other two monsters charged through a loose knot of people and ponies. Sea's bow thrummed. Ponies galloped toward the left edge of the sheet, sliding as the grade fell away. Shadows lanced through the air and burst harmlessly against a capper's armored hull. The first beast, now down half a horn, twirled away from the downed pony and romped toward Dante. He timed his second effort better, diving away at the last instant, raking his blade down its side. It bellowed. Dark blood stained the snow. Dante landed on his hip and rolled. The capper stumbled, snow spraying from the impact of its body. Dante popped to his feet and sprinted toward it. As it found its footing, he whipped the sword into its neck. The blade ripped through the plated armor, passed through the flesh like it was no more substantial than the powder beneath their feet, and jarred to a stop against the capper's spine. Drunkenly, the capper swung its head around, attempting to face him. Its legs gave out, and it collapsed on its face. He yanked the sword clear. The scene behind him was sheer mayhem. Two more ponies were fallen, unmoving. As he watched, another skidded on the left slope and fell into an unseen crevasse. A second followed, braying all the way down. One capper chased two more back uphill, the other charged straight toward sea, while Somber and Lou maneuvered to either side. She flung herself flat. It bounded over her, kicking snow. Dante was already running, sword tight at his side. Nether darkened the air. The capper ducked its head and squeezed its eyes shut, and the bolt caromed from its head, sparkling away through the anarchic snowflakes. The creature opened its eyes. It blinked as Dante's sword ripped into the top of its head. A slice of skull went flying, trailing plates and scalp. Dante glimpsed an open pink bulb of brain. The capper planted its front feet, skidding through a semicircle that left it facing him. Distracted by its maneuver, Dante tripped. Ice gouged his chest and banged the side of his head. The capper was already upon him. Steel flashed. Ast plowed into the galloping creature, leading the way with his sword. He drove its point straight into the capper's exposed brain. Its legs went limp. It dashed into the snow, landing on Dante. The breath jerked from his lungs. He rolled, face abraded by snow. It came to a rest just past him, its back legs pinning him. He fought free. To his left, the third capper drove another pony over the ledge. 
A lance of shadows struck it from behind. It squealed, stiffening, then turned and sprinted up the slope. Lou watched it retreat. Dante braced his arm on his knee, fighting to catch his hitching breath. C pushed herself onto her palms and shook her head like a wet dog. Ast had been flung ten feet from the dead capper. He got to his feet, limping. Lou glanced over his shoulder, took in the scene, and ran to Dante. Are you all right? Knocked the wind out of me, he said. He jerked his chin at the last capper as it disappeared above the icy rim. How did you wound it? I noticed they have a tendency to raise their tail just before they strike, and, well... He tore at a new asshole, Samba said, crunching up beside them. Dante laughed. His ribs pulsed with pain, and he clutched at them. He thought one might be cracked. He eased himself to a sitting position. The ice had scraped his cheek, meaning he had no need to cut himself. The nether answered his summons, and he sent it into his ribs. The pain dulled. Samba was already seeing to see, who sat in the snow clutching her head. Ast wiped his sword on the snow, lifted his right foot and rolled his ankle, wincing. Thank you, Dante said. You did the hard part. He nodded to the treacherous left edge, where the three remaining ponies trotted in aimless circles, snorting and twitching. We need to round them up before any more are lost. He sounded more than a little grim. Initially, Dante didn't understand why. While C appeared to have been dazed, and he and Ast had suffered moderate injuries, by and large, they'd come through it miraculously intact. But as he called to the ponies, attempting to soothe them best he could, the source of Ast's mood became clear. When the other ponies had fallen, they'd taken supplies with them. Blankets, tools, most importantly, food. Lou used the nether to fix up Ast's ankle best he could. C was blinking and scowling a lot, but she was capable of walking. They walked the three ponies down to the flat, river-like glacier, then took stock of their remaining supplies. I'd say there's enough to stay warm, Ast said. Not enough to stay fed. Dante sighed. Well... The cappers provided a solution to that. Kind of them, wasn't it? Lou glanced between them. What are you talking about? Dante shook his head. Stay here and keep watch. Dante picked up a canvas bag of horse tack and dumped it in the snow. Ast joined him as he trudged uphill to one of the fallen ponies. Its eyes were glassy, vacant. Together they skinned it and cut away heavy strips of muscle, packing them into the bag. What do you think? Ast said. Dante chuckled. He's never going to eat this. Ast shook his head, cheeks flushed with battle. The storm will be worse in the divide. Can we cross it? Possibly. But if it lasts, there won't be any turning back. There's no guarantee we'll have enough food. 
Dante sat back and wiped his hands in the snow. It would be a waste to turn back. There's no sense feeding good grain to a dying cow. Ast slipped his blade between the pony's bowed ribs, cutting another slice of red meat and depositing it in the bag. The cappers are hunting in packs. Next time we won't have ponies to distract them. Do you want to turn back? Will you? Show us to the pass, Dante said. We can find the way from there. Then your job is done. Ast scrunched his face, hanging his head over the remains of the pony. I can't leave you to cross the mountains by yourself. Sure you can. You can literally just walk away. And leave you to die. You saved my life not twenty minutes ago. I don't think the gods will spit on you if you decide you've done your part. I don't give a shit about the gods. Ast looked up sharply, then spat, which meant, unfortunately, that it landed on the blameless pony. I care about what's right. If you go on, I do too. Dante dried his fingers on the inside of his cloak. I think you believe I'm forcing you to do this, Ast. But you have to understand this is your choice, and that your brain is smarter than any sense of obligation. Surely you know the brain is worth nothing when the heart is troubled. He grabbed the bag and stalked downhill. Dante got up and followed him. Under Somber's care, C was able to walk without wobbling, though she didn't say much. He asked if she was all right, and she brushed him off. They walked beside the ponies, continuing toward the peaks. The snow followed them, channeled by the glacial valley, dancing along the ice. Traveling with two other nethermancers was a luxury. Even with the battle and its aftermath, Dante had more than enough strength to open a hollow in the cliffs for the night, widening it to make room for the three surviving ponies. Once everyone and everything was inside, he closed the entry behind them, leaving three fist-sized holes in the thin rock to let air inside. Being out of the wind and snow and inside a safe room full of warm bodies seemed to relax everyone, ponies included. C smiled and groaned. Hey, who thought it was a good idea to pick a fight with three one-ton monsters? I would have been happy to talk things out with them, Lou said. Somber gazed toward the holes in the wall. Think what you could do if you could train them for war. Become evil, Dante said. Or stop evildoers from getting to them first. They fell silent, thinking this through. Wind whistled through the holes. I can be of help, Ast said, picking up their conversation on the hill, as if it had never stopped. Wesley is not as unified as Gask, or what remains of it, but I know some of its dialects. Somber smiled. You know the languages of a land you've never been to? Ast met his eyes. Who said I've never been there? You never said you had. Quite an omission, given that no one goes to Wesley. Why would you hide this? Somber, Dante said. 
The spymaster gave him a cynical look. You want your guide in unknown lands to be a man who doesn't want you to know he knows them? I didn't say, asked Katin, because I didn't intend to go any further than the Divide. Somber turned on him. Why is that? Are you not welcome in Wesley? Ast stared him down. I lost people there. Why do you think I left? Enough, Dante said. If Ast knows his way around, if he can communicate with these people, it's a huge boon. We don't need to conduct an interrogation. It's called due diligence, Somber muttered. Dante chose to ignore that. He raised his eyebrows and asked, So you can tell us about Wesley? It's people. It's fractured, Ast said. It has been that way as long as anyone can remember. The former Gascon Empire isn't exactly a homogeneous whole either. The fact you would compare it only proves how foreign it will be to you. Ast covered his right fist with his left palm and leaned his brow against his hands. I can't speak for most of it. I can only tell you of those who live in the eastern Wodens, the Spirish. They fear the ground so much they live in trees. Lou burst out laughing. That's true. Ast gazed at him the way you'd look at a rat you'd hoisted up with your well water. Should I continue? The monk covered his mouth with his fist and cleared his throat. By all means. There is no point. Ast turned his back and pulled his blankets, tugging them straight. If we make it through, you will see it for yourselves. Please, go on, Dante said. This is all very strange to us, that's all. The best cure for disbelief is sight, isn't it? He ensconced himself in his blankets and would say no more. In the morning, the cavern was thick with the stink of pony piss and dung. Dante pulled open the cave wall and snow flooded inside. It had drifted two feet thick against the cliff, but in the open fields, the new fall was less than six inches deep, and for now the skies had quit tormenting them. In the chaos of the battle, he and Somber had lost control of their dead scouts. Dante cursed himself. Ought to have raised one of the ponies, even one of the cappers. It could have pulled double duty as both sentry and tireless beast of burden. But it was probably for the best. Such creatures were clumsier than their living counterparts. In conditions like these, the meanderings of a dead squirrel could touch off an avalanche. The snow proved surmountable, but it slowed them enough that Ast thought it best to tackle the divide the following day. The peaks looked down on them, blank and forbidding. That night they found a natural cave that required only minimal modification. Dante woke feeling vaguely sick. It was the air, Ast told him, thin and hostile. It could leave you disoriented if you weren't used to it. He warned everyone to let him know if they were feeling dizzy, faint, or confused. They trudged toward the crotch of two great peaks. 
It was the lowest pass in sight, but there was nothing like a trail, and twice Dante had to shape switchbacks up sheer risers as much for themselves as for the ponies. At its crest, with the wind howling like the souls of the betrayed, they stopped and stared at the sweep of glaciers, valleys, and lesser mountains, abruptly blocked by a floor of clouds. It doesn't look all that different, Lou said. Yet it felt like triumph. They had crossed the Wodens. They had reached Wesley. Chapter 16 Min grinned at the shadow as if she'd summoned it herself. If you let it go, can you bring it back? Blaze hesitated. The uncertainty he faced felt very foreign. He knew better than most that there were many things beyond his power. Most things, to be frank, but his awareness of his limitations tended to make him feel more confident than others, not less. After so much work, such hardship, he couldn't imagine willing the wisp of nether on his finger to fly away. What if he never got it to come back? Well, then, he supposed he'd find a new way to spend his life. He winked at Min, lifted his finger, and blew on it. The nether held fast. He'd no sooner got annoyed at it than it got the picture and dissipated into the coastal wind. If I can't, I'll never forgive you. He said it deadpan, but her face creased with such worry he couldn't help laughing. By his feet, one of the tiny crabs wiggled its way into the sand. Effortlessly, he drew the nether from it. A black smudge perched on his finger. How am I doing this? She smiled, teasing. Ask yourself. Figuring actions always spoke clearer than words, he sent it away and called again. But this time he was worried it might refuse him, and so it did. He tried again. It held fast to the crab hidden in the sand. Before he could get angrier, he took a mental step back. He'd just done this, and not once, but twice. That was no accident, no fluke. How had it first come to him? When he'd accepted the prospect, Scratch that, the certainty of his own death. Then he'd opened himself to that absolute end. That was when he'd stepped through the last door of summer. He conjured up the shadows again a minute later, when he'd set down his worries like a pack at the end of a long day. The power relied on something deeper than mere belief in himself, yet it seemed to help and he found he believed. The third time took effort, the conscious opening of himself, a self that included the death of that self. But once he found that place, and breathed in and out, relaxed, the nether curled around his finger. This is very odd, you know. He raised it inches from his nose. When Dante did this, I'd swear it was through sheer will. You're not Dante, Min said. I know that, he said, but his tone was a little too hard. The nether wavered. 
he sighed at it. Fickle son of a bitch. Just as it went translucent, ready to flee the scene, he sighed and accepted this was how things were going to be for him. The nether congealed, darkening to the color of a midnight cloud. What's next? Now you learn to put it to use. This might sound like an odd question at this phase, but you really believe that? That anyone can learn to use this stuff? It's a part of all of us, isn't it? Everyone learns to use their hands and feet. Why not the nether? Because it's magic. The domain of Aron's chosen. Min snorted. That's a lie perpetuated by kings and priests. If everyone could work the nether, they'd have no call to obey their lords. So why don't you go out there and tell the people how they're being kept in bondage? Min gazed out to sea. That's not my place. Really? Why isn't your place wherever the hell you want it to be? It wouldn't change much. If I told you that you could find peace by giving up everything you own, leaving everyone you know, and spending the next five years pursuing the truth, would you do it? I'm right here doing just that, aren't I? Under some very unusual circumstances. She glanced up shore, where a flock of gulls had begun to shriek at nothing. Anyway, you might not be as skilled as your friend, but you are exceptionally speedy. Others would have to sacrifice much more. Many people would like to become great painters, but very few of them are willing to spend ten years of their lives learning to do so. I mean, sure, apparently I've just proven you right, Blaze said, but it's weird to me that everyone has this potential, yet so few fulfill it. Men laughed loudly, eyebrows widening in surprise. Doesn't that describe all of life? When you put it like that, it's easier to believe, and is much more depressing. She pursed her lips. Anyway, if no one believes it is possible, no one will try, leaving only the chosen. The lie's been repeated so much, it's become the truth. That makes more sense yet. He rubbed his face. I would ask you what's next on the agenda, but I think I know the answer. Do you? Getting cocky? Far from it. Next, I practice summer until I've got it down pat. She grinned. Let me know when you're ready to move on. As excited as he was to take the next step, to go from learning how to access the nether to learning how to wield it, he found himself in stock of a surprising amount of patience. Maybe it had arrived with his latest epiphany about keeping himself open, or maybe he was simply that pleased with himself. In any event, he found it no trouble to go back to his studies as if nothing had happened, crouching beside the tide pools and calling the nether to his hands. Within four days he had it, and he knew it. Even so, he spent three more days honing his technique. Putting in the time now would minimize his stumbles when he took the next step. Ready, he told Min, once he was sure it was so. She gave him a brief test, watched as he brought the nether oozing from the sands and swimming from the pools. She noted he couldn't draw very much of it yet, 
but expected his reach would expand as he learned to put the shadows to use. He smiled. How exactly do I do that? We'll start with something simple, keeping Vanetha close to its natural form. Did you ever see Dante conjure a shadow sphere? I was there when he did it. It was the very first thing he did. That's because a shadow sphere, in essence, is nothing more than making Vanetha visible to those who can't see it. And turning it into a shapely sphere. She eyed him for signs of mockery, then shrugged. That's true. It requires shaping Vanetha, too, though a sphere is one of its favorite forms. That's where we'll start. Show me a sphere. Blaze brought the nether to his hands. Based on past experience, he knew that when he focused very, very hard, he was capable of summoning a glob the size of a walnut. But that would take all the strength he had. This time, he called forth enough to pack into a modest grape. It pooled in his palm like black mercury, formless. He willed it to become a ball. It sat there. Very placid about it, too. Blaze's brow tensed. He concentrated harder. After a couple minutes of fruitless mental poking and prodding, he extended his index finger and jabbed at it. Min laughed. Think that's dough you've got there? I wouldn't have any idea, would I? Nether's more like a liquid than a solid. In that case, I'll just do the same thing I do when I want water to form a perfect sphere. Don't get snippy she said, with infuriating mildness. I'm trying to help. Blaze breathed in and out and nodded. What should I be doing instead? First of all, it doesn't fall to earth like everything else. What a rebel. Second, it stays in motion when any other substance would stop. Bearing these somewhat vague tips in mind, he tried again. But the nether was content to sit in his palm exactly as if it were gravity's slave, and a very tired one at that. It's all right, Min said when he stepped back to take a breather. Don't expect this to proceed any faster than the seasons. I'm starting to think I shouldn't have any expectations at all. You use a lot of breathing techniques, don't you? Pay close enough attention, and you'll see the nether seems to breathe too. It's very subtle. One of our training methods is to focus on its cycle. When it breathes out, try to make it shrink even more. When it breathes in, see if you can expand it further. Learn to give it shape through its natural movements. This made a lot of sense. Grateful to have a concrete technique to follow for once, Blaze spent days huddled over the rocks, working away on the nether, sustaining himself by munching dried kelp flakes the people harvested from farm pools on the southern curve of the beach. It took him a full day to determine the nether did indeed breathe, slowly pulsing outward, contracting, and repeating. It took much longer to figure out how to get inside it, but he did that too. As the bubble of nether breathed in, expanding, he imagined a tiny little blaze inside it, pushing up on the ceiling with all his strength. When it contracted, the mini-blaze pulled the ceiling down instead. That's it, Min said when he showed her. 
Now, every time it expands, push out. And when it contracts, don't touch it. You'll soon have a sphere. Keep pushing and expanding, one breath at a time, and you'll form a shadow sphere. Just like inflating a cow's bladder. She wrinkled her nose. Do you spend a lot of time breathing into bladders? You have to entertain the kids somehow. Feeling pretty good about himself, he resumed practice. Within a day, he was able to shape the blob of nether in his hand into a walnut-sized sphere. But try as he might, he couldn't get it to grow any bigger. Each time it breathed out, it shrank to its original size. He spent a week tinkering with his approach. Though he didn't admit this to Min, sometimes he did visualize it as a bladder that he was inflating with his own lungs— other times he tried moving his focus to the outside of the dark sphere and pulling from there. But nothing worked. And while persistence was a virtue, so too was recognizing when your efforts were futile. Let me see, Min told him. Try everything you've tried so far. Maybe it's working, but it's too minute for you to see. He ran through everything he'd attempted even the bladder blowing. He spent several minutes on each method, and displaying them all took the better part of an hour. By the time he finished, he had a bastard of a headache. You're right, she said. A big fat nothing. He sighed. I'm starting to understand why people would rather believe it's a special talent handed down by the gods. Better to believe it's not possible than to admit you don't have it in you to keep trying. Min played with the clasp of her cloak. Would you like to leave Pocket Cove? Are my efforts that disgraceful? Just for a few days. To the south lies an island called Koo, home to a volcano of the same name. He rubbed his chin. Think it's time for a live sacrifice. The volcano is dead, but its reefs thrive. Within them is a species of snail known as a kilovert. The Grim Slug? Is this your idea of a vacation? She glared at him until his expression promised he'd quit interrupting. Keleverts are exceedingly rare, and the people of the pocket are partly to blame, because their shells have the unique property of helping those in their first seasons find their way. Blaze glanced up shore to the cave. So why not skip the trip and give me one of your old ones? They wear out with age, and a shell seems to perform best for the person who found it. No, he decided. I don't want a crutch. No one wants a crutch, she said. With such hot vehemence, Blaze knew her patience with him was thinly veiled. But if that's what it takes to get you back on your feet, then your only choice is to swallow your pride and put it to use. He nodded once. If you think it'll help. Anyway, she said, softening her tone. It's something of a rite of passage among the new people of the pocket. Didn't you want to go through the same challenges as everyone else? I'd welcome it. He jerked his thumb at the winds and clouds. But do your people always go slug hunting when it's so cold the ocean itself is looking around for blankets? Prepare yourself. I'll secure permission from Roe. He didn't exactly have much to pack, 
So he wound up sitting in his room in the caves for hours while men conducted business in the inner tunnels. He was in the middle of an impromptu nap when she returned with the news they'd leave in four days. He yawned. I thought you told me to get ready. They've decided to come with us. Oh, dear. Don't tell me this is becoming an event. Didn't I warn you it's a rite of passage? What exactly does this rite involve? She smiled more than a little smugly. You'll have to wait and see. On the day in question, men rousted him from bed, gave him a few minutes to take care of his business, then marched him outside. First light was breaking from the cliffs, but a boat was already waiting beyond the surf. Silhouettes moved about its deck, fighting with the rigging. Boy, he said, once you people get moving, you don't waste time, do you? You can sleep on the boat. She strode across the sand. A rowboat waited just beyond the surf. He nearly froze to death helping to push it into the tossing waves. Fighting the tide got him warmed up at least. They rowed to the waiting vessel. Roe was there, along with five other women, three of whom Blaze recognized. Months after his arrival, he still had no idea how many people lived in Pocket Cove. The place was so quiet he could believe it was no more than a couple dozen, yet strange faces kept popping out of the woodwork. For all he knew, the tunnels secretly housed thousands. Men guided the rowboat between the boat and its outrigger. They threw ropes to the crew, who secured the lines and tossed down a rope ladder. Men scrambled up it and helped pass their few possessions up to the deck. Once she and Blaze were aboard, the crew went to work on two winches. The rowboat creaked, lifted clear of the waves by a loose net that had been lurking below the surface. Welcome to the outcast, Roe said. Before Blaze had a chance to answer, the crew flew into motion, hauling on ropes and trimming sails. The outcast lurched forward and curved to the southwest. The water was so choppy, Blaze staggered to a bench and planted himself before it was able to fling him overboard. Rope handles were secured to the bench, and he hung on tight. By the time the sun cleared the eastern cliffs, the waves calmed enough for him to stand and move around. They were headed what appeared to be west-southwest. Straight ahead, a conical bluish lump sat on the edge of the ocean. He'd seen it a hundred times before, though it disappeared on hazier days, but had never given it much thought. It was just one more item in the vast set of places that weren't Pocket Cove. As the ship sped through the waves, powered by a fierce eastern wind, he got a better look at Koho. It appeared to be little more than a volcano, steep and silent. The side of its peak appeared to have been scooped out by a hungry god, creating a slanted bowl at its top. The rubble of this event may also have been responsible for the flat plain that extended a half mile from its southern slope. Trees and greenery coated the volcano, but its upper heights remained clear, lending it the look of a dented tonsure. If he'd had to guess, he'd say Coa lay a solid twenty miles from Pocket Cove, 
yet they reached it before noon. Navigating around a spur of rock and swinging into a sheltered bay with a flat, sandy beach. Rather than anchoring and rowing in, Roe guided the outcast right up to the shore. It slid over sand and ground to a stop. Grass fringed the beach, with a forest sprouting behind it where the soil got better. Half the crew hopped out while the other half handed down sacks some of which strained with the weight of the wood clunking inside them. Blaze pitched in. Once they finished, they waded ashore and set to digging a shallow pit in the sand. A couple women emptied logs from the sacks. Rose stacked them into an elegant triangle of kindling that mirrored the volcano. As soon as she finished, she called up the nether and set her work ablaze. Dry smoke plumed into the air smelling like pepper and the incense they burned back at the tunnels. A woman with short black hair erected a grill. Another woman brought Roe a pouch. She withdrew skewered strips of red meat, which Blaze hadn't seen since coming to the cove, and lay them over the grill. The meat sizzled. Roe stood over it, flecks of nether dancing between her hands and the strips. It was all very strange to Blaze, but he'd traveled enough to know that when it involved rituals and food, strangeness was customary. Min had been gone for all this. She returned then, pants soaked to the thighs, carrying a wriggling fish as long as her forearm. She brained it with a rock and cleaned it expertly, then flensed the meat from its ribs and set it on a hammered copper plate. Roe pulled charred meat from the grill let it cool for a minute, then removed it from the skewers and piled it on a second plate. Crouched in the sandy grass, she ate a strip, fat greasing her lips, and passed one to each of the women, who ate their share as soon as they got it. She concluded with Blaze. Not everything outside the pocket is to be shunned, she said. Taste for yourself. He ate. It was venison gamey and succulent, perfectly cooked. As much as he made fun of their repetitive fare, he actually found their stews pretty good, but this was something else. But we don't need it. Roe kicked sand over the fire, knocking down what remained of the fancy pyre. Sparks spiraled in the wind. The cove has all we need. She took the copper plate from Min and passed around hunks of raw fish. Each woman chewed and swallowed. The plate was held beneath Blaze's nose. The meat felt oily and smelled fishy. But Blaze wasn't one to complain. Well, he was, but not under these circumstances. He lit into his portion. Somehow, he'd gone all his life without being forced to eat raw fish, He'd seen too many worms squiggling around inside fresh catches to think it was a good idea. But it tasted simple and clean, and was firmer than he'd expected. Do what you must do while you're away from the cove. Roe held his gaze. But don't forget that whatever you do, you do it for your people. Blaze nodded. I won't forget. She began to return the plates to a sack. 
We'll be back in two weeks. You're not staying? Rose's eyes flashed with laughter. I've got more important things to do than help you chase snails. The others grabbed the shovels and the grill and followed her to the boat. Min stayed beside him. The women pushed the outcast free of the sand, pulled it past the low breakers, then tacked against the uncooperative wind. Will it really take two weeks to catch a snail? Blay said. I thought they were supposed to be slow. Min gathered up the bags her people had left behind and sorted through them. Dried fish, flaked kelp, water. Not enough to last the duration, but enough so they could get their feet under them. There was also a lot of fishing line, a handful of hooks, some blankets, and four flat objects a foot and a half long, flared at one end and visibly narrow at the other. Leather straps dangled from the narrow ends. They might have been shields, except the straps were on the wrong part, and they really weren't that big and they were made of a springy, bamboo-like wood that wouldn't protect the bearer against a yawn. Fish feet, Min said. I'll show you the rest of the gear later. Right now we need to find the stream, follow it to shelter, and collect firewood. Standard operating procedure when you found yourself lost in the middle of nowhere and didn't expect to leave soon. There was no one around to steal anything, so they picked up the food, piled the rest of their stuff in the grass, and walked into the woods. Min seemed to be familiar with this part of the island, leading them to a stream, then following it volcanoward until it opened into a small clearing. A fieldstone house sat on the side of a low hill. Blaze loosened his sword in its scabbard. Min opened the door. The single room was empty. Of people. Anyway, quite a lot of leaves, dirt, and shredded grass had been dragged inside by winds and animals. A broom stood in the corner. Blaze went to work. That left finding firewood. No great task, given they were in the middle of a deciduous forest. There was even a rusty axe inside the house, but they hardly needed it. By the time the sun was getting low, they'd carried a sizable pile of fallen branches back to the shack, as Blaze stoked the fireplace, Min went to the stream to fish with a line. She brought back three trout and fried them in a pan on the stove. Not quite enough for dinner, not after the work they'd put in on the day, but supplemented with their dried food, it filled their bellies. After, they sat beside the fire, digesting. Drafts snaked in through the chinks in the walls, but it was a large fire in a small space, and Blaze was able to shed his cloak. Min got up and brought one of the sacks over. She extracted its contents, the springy fish feet, two cane-shaped pieces of bamboo, and two oblong transparent bowls. Like the fish feet, these had leather straps as well. Time to learn your equipment. She pulled off her boots and socks, stepped on top of one of the fish feet, and strapped it on like a sandal. One for each foot, the closest we can come to imitating the seals. Strap them on tight, or you'll lose them in the water. 
This is so we can drift all day without getting tired. She handed him one of the fins. He began the laborious process of lacing it to his ankle, heel, and toes. Once he had it tight, she picked up one of the oblong bowls and fitted it around her eyes. And this is so we can see in the water without our eyes getting stung. He accepted it when offered and placed it around his eyes. Pressure mounted. He tried to pull it away, and it held fast. To get it off, he had to slip one of his fingers between his skin and the sticky seal on the rim of the bowl. He turned the object over in his hand, tapping the tacky substance on its rim. What the heck is that? The sap of a tree that grows in the carlins. She reached for the cane-shaped bamboo stick and fit it to her mouth like a flute. And this is so we can observe the seabed without ever coming up for air. Blaze stuck the curved end in his mouth, bit down and sealed his lips. Air whooshed out the other end of the stick. He groped for its tip and felt his warm breath flowing out. This is quite a setup for a snail hunt, he said. Do you guys come out here often? There's more in the sea than grim slugs. We harvest food, medicine, shells, dyes, pearls. We trade what we don't need. He spun around to expose his cold back to the fire. So we've given ourselves fake fins, unscratchable eyes, and extended lungs. How do we keep warm? Last time I spent more than a minute in the ocean, I got a closer look at the nether than I wanted. That's where I come in, she grinned. As to the matter of the kelevert, here's what we'll be searching for. She unrolled a scroll, pinning the corners to the cabin floor with stray rocks. Two drawings filled the page. The top one was much smaller. Its shell was pure white. Its body was a stripe of yellow. The lower drawing was larger. Its shell was black, as was its body. The shells of both the white and the black snails were spiraled like a cinnamon bun, with spiked prongs jutting radially from the shell. What's that? Blaze pointed to the two snails. The female and the male. The white one is the juvenile, just a few weeks old. The older they get, the darker they get. Aha! Uh -huh. And we are going to be attempting to find these against a dark ocean floor, while generally swimming ten to thirty feet above it, in rough, foamy seas. Min nodded. The young ones aren't developed enough to be of use, but if you see one, it might mean adults are near. And what happens if I don't find one? More exile? That wouldn't make any sense. The trials of between are about resourcefulness, endurance, commitment. Finding Kelevert, that's just luck. Anything else horrible I should know about them? Do they eat people? Adults are only the size of your fist, she said, but they are venomous. We'll have spears. Try not to break the shell. He cocked his head. Will that disperse its power? It won't look as pretty. They went to bed.
They spent the early morning fishing, cleaning their catch, and storing it in a pouch they concealed under a rock where animals couldn't get to it. Once the sun was well up and the air's temperature had increased from freezing to cool, they piled their blankets above the tide line, stripped down to their small clothes, and strapped on the fish feet, breathing pipes, and goggles. The shack's many tools included thin spears with barbed tips shaped like fireplace pokers, and they'd taken four of these with them to the shore. Blaze was shivering before he dipped a toe in the water. He stood at the edge of the surf, scowling at the placid gray bay. This really feels like suicide. It will be cold. She drew a small knife and poked her left biceps. A drop of blood welled beneath the point. If it gets too cold, let me know. Nether swooped to her hands, then leapt to Blaze. His shivers slowed, then ceased altogether. A wind was blowing over his face and arms, but he hardly felt it. He turned in a circle, trying to get a look at himself. Whatever that is, keep doing it. She smiled, then turned the nether on herself. If you think you see one, signal by spinning your hand in a spiral, like their shells, and stay close. Even in the bay, the currents are stronger than they look. She sealed the cut on her arm, and they walked toward the surf, fish feet slapping on the wet sand. A wave broke and surged to their calves. He registered the cold, but he didn't have the feeling of, Good gods, I'm dying. I must run south as fast and far as possible. That typically accompanied winter dips into a northern sea. He sloshed forward. Another wave washed past his balls. Even that wasn't so bad. Once the water ran waist deep, men sank to her shoulders, spear in hand, and kicked out into the water. Keeping her face below the surface and the tip of her breathing tube pointed straight at the cloud-streaked skies, Blaze imitated her. His breathing soughed in his ears. Bubbles rushed past his faceplate. He was underwater, yet he was breathing. The rush of sensations, many of which were utterly frightening and wrong, forced him to stand from the water. He let the tube fall from his mouth. They'd pinched their noses shut with C-shaped copper clamps, but he could still taste salt water at the back of his throat. After a few seconds, Min surfaced and glanced back. Everything okay? Except for the fact my body's convinced it's about to die. I'll have it convinced otherwise in a minute. He slicked back his hair, stuck the bamboo pipe in his mouth, and lowered his face into the water. He didn't try to swim yet, just stood there breathing until the experience didn't feel quite so insane. Waves rocked past him on a rush of bubbles and sand. During the lulls, he had an incredibly clear view of the bottom, which was nothing but sandy ridges, twirling seaweed, tiny white shells, and the occasional chunk of pumice. Once he was acclimated, he gave Min the thumbs up, pushed forward, and swam. The ground sloped gently away until it was too deep to stand. Within the space of a few kicks of his fins, it suddenly dropped ten feet deep.
becoming a mixture of pale sand, black rock, and gray coral. A school of finger-length fish flashed in the sunlight. As soon as he came within reach, they turned as one and zipped away. He laughed, bubbles tickling his ears, the noise echoing hollowly up the tube. Now that they'd hit interesting territory, Min hooked a sharp left, swimming parallel to the shore and toward the long spur of rock that sheltered the bay. The waves were even gentler than along the shore, but hidden currents tugged him in every direction. Once, water sloshed into the top of his tube. He tipped his head the wrong way and sucked down a mouthful of salt water. He thrust above the surface, sputtering and hacking. Water in your pipe, Min said, fifteen feet away. My lungs, mostly. When you feel it getting clogged, just blow out as hard as you can. That's scandalous, milady. Her eyes rolled behind her goggles. Still warm enough? You're a miracle worker. They got back to swimming. The sandy floor beneath the surf had been as barren of life as the sands of a desert. But amongst the rocks and coral, creatures sprouted as abundantly as at the tide pools. Fish, crabs, anemones, starfish, snails, mussels, and all manner of bivalves. And while the fish at the pools of Pocket Cove were largely minnows and fry, those here swam in full schools, multiple species of which were longer than his hand. Eels gulped from crevices. Once, a two-foot gray fish sped below him with a single flick of its tail, sleek as an arrow. He got so caught up watching it, he forgot to look for keleverts. Min reminded him of the task at hand by breaking from the surface and plunging straight down. Once she reached the bottom, she picked up a small, round object, examined it, and let it fall back to the shelf of coral. As it turned out, the ocean was absolutely filled with bits of things that were white, black, or somewhere in between. Not only were they searching for something exceedingly rare, they were doing so amongst thousands of false positives. Blaze swam up and down, investigating one sighting after another, bringing any snail or shell that remotely resembled the drawings to Min for inspection. Each time she shook her head. They swam all the way to the arm of rock, shielding the bay, then turned around and kicked the other direction, positioning themselves further from shore to cover new ground. Or water, as it were. They weren't too concerned about the spacing. Didn't need to cover every square inch. A calivert could be anywhere. Min's blood-warming trick seemed to fade every hour and a half or so. As soon as Blaze began to shiver, he signaled her and they returned to the beach so she could dose them up with another round of nether. When they came in early that afternoon, he found he was ravenous. They stoked up the scented kindling that remained in Rose's fire pit and cooked the fish they'd caught that morning. How are you feeling? Min asked, picking bones from the flaky white flesh. A bit tired and a lot salty, he said, but all in all in good spirits. Good. We've got a lot of days ahead of us. Even if we can't find you one, this won't be the end of your path. The sun was out, 
and they agreed they could use a few more minutes to rest their limbs and lungs. So she had him do a quick run through the seasons, and then attempt to manipulate the resulting nether. As usual, he could push the shadows outward when they expanded, but as soon as they contracted, they shrunk back to resting size. Before he could get frustrated, she strapped on her fish feet, cut her biceps, and refreshed the warmth in their skin. They returned to the waves. She swam past the surf, then stroked out to sea to continue the search. As her left arm rose from the water, diluted blood slipped down her biceps. She'd forgotten to heal it. But it probably looked worse than it was. Water always made a little blood look like a great big mess. They kicked around, scanning and diving. They'd hardly been out five minutes when Blaze glanced to his right, out to open ocean, and saw the shark cruising through the water in perfect silence. Chapter 17 As they passed the glaciers, ravines, crags, escarpments, talus fields, and snow fields of the eastern Wodens, Dante allowed himself to daydream. He still didn't understand how Selen worked. But to date, everyone had been in universal agreement as to what it did. And that was to grant you a wish. His own wish, as he'd explained to the Hanassans, was to become immortal. He had no way to know whether this was the scope of Selen's power. But he had reason to believe so. For one thing, Callie had crossed the century mark without slowing down. Yes, he was old but his mind and body hadn't been nearly as decrepit as they should have been. Dante had taken Callie's agelessness for granted, assuming he'd last another thirty to fifty years, and perhaps he would have. It had taken a Gascon assassin to finally put him to rest. Callie had accomplished this with no more than normal nether and mortal skills, if highly honed ones. Was it that hard to believe Selen would grant his owner much more? Even if the true immortality of the gods was out of reach, it seemed plausible, probable even, that it could grant him centuries of life. In fact, there was some, questionable, granted, historical support for the idea. A figure from the early pages of the cycle was said to have lived to be 1,080 years old. Maybe he'd pulled that trick off with a little help from the Black Star. Surely an object of such divine power could allow him to live to be at least three hundred years old. With that as a minimum, infinity as a maximum, and, say, five hundred to a thousand years as a conservative median, what would the course of his long life allow him to see? With the millennium of uninterrupted prosperity, how grand would Narashtavik become? With Dante steady at its helm, steering it away from all pitfalls with his ancient wisdom— it seemed only a matter of time until the city turned the tables on Setevan and conquered Gask for itself. If that was what Dante wanted. Just because he could conquer the northern half of the known world didn't mean he'd want to. There were advantages to staying small. You were more nimble. He'd be more able to directly oversee all aspects of Narashtavik's course and thus ensure it fulfilled its potential greatness. Anyway, 
he didn't want to fall victim to hubris. A more modest expansion made sense. He could peacefully absorb Tatonin to ensure Narashtavik never wanted for grain. Given their recent history together, it would be no problem to forge a permanent alliance with the Norin, uniting their rolling hills with the city. Then he could grow west into Gask. Through Dolondon, he thought. That would establish a nice buffer between Narashtavik and Setevan without overreaching. This would mean rearranging Narashtavik's political structure. The farmer barons of Tatornan and the chieftains of the Noran territories deserved a voice in this hypothetical nation. A new second council ought to do it. The council of Narashtavik could remain the governors of the city and the arbiters of Aron's will on earth, while a separate secular council would see to the administration of the Confederacy. He liked the thought of this very much. Hell, once he carved off the slice of Gask his new empire required, Narashtavik and Setevin wouldn't even have to be enemies. Their enmity could be buried whenever King Modigan kicked the bucket. Beyond all this, however, he wondered what would become of himself. This was where his walking dreams took flight. He knew a talent like his was incredibly rare. He was the youngest ever to be named to the council, by far the youngest to be named its leader. Some of this was due to a regrettably high turnover rate during the last decade, but plenty of more experienced candidates had survived the turmoil. No, it wasn't just a matter of right place, right time. It was that he was already one of the most powerful nethermancers to walk the earth. If he stood this tall at age twenty-six, how much higher could he climb by age five hundred and twenty-six? For that matter, what if he lived long enough to see Sullen emerge again? What if Aron and Tame and Carvajal and all the gods of the Selaset had started life as simple humans? And through skill, chance, opportunity and will, they had built themselves into beings beyond comprehension, climbed from the earth to the stars. That was getting a little out there, highly speculative. It was fun to ponder, however, during the long, tedious walk through the snows and rocks. Even if true immortality was out of the question, he felt fairly confident that he'd have a very long and supremely interesting life ahead of him assuming he found Selen and made it his. When he wasn't daydreaming, he was being tutored by Ast, learning as much of the local language as he could absorb. Though Ast warned that his own vocabulary was rudimentary, Dante didn't care. Knowing anything would be a huge advantage. Their group was going to draw too much attention as it was, if only one of them spoke the language, they'd look like exactly what they were, a party of foreigners being led around by a guide. But if even two of them could converse in the tongue of the land, they would look like, well, like something else. Merchants who'd hired foreign bodyguards or pilgrims who'd fallen in with strangers. Infinitely less conspicuous. Additionally, knowing the language would be crucial to learning about the object of their desire. Dante didn't like the idea of relying on a single person to get them around. If they lost, asked, 
Finding a Wesleyan who spoke Gascon was going to be difficult and attention-drawing, nor would they have any idea whether they could trust this hypothetical local linguist. So Dante paid close attention. Somber joined the lessons, too, picking up the grammar and conjugations as easily as Dante could pick up a snowball. Lou asked if he could listen, too. Dante had the perverse impulse to deny him. Why would he need permission? But gave him the okay. To his mild surprise, C began to participate as well. He was not at all surprised that she was good at it. She was the resourceful type and had been making a go of it alone for some time. Other than not dying of weather, they had little else to do. Within a few days, they were able to have halting, poorly accented conversations in Wesleyan. More accurately, in Third Wesleyan. According to Ast, the nation's main tongues all branched from the same tree, but there were significant differences in dialect. After growing up in the monoglot culture of Malin, then migrating to the equally monolithic tongue of Gasque, Dante had a hard time understanding why the same people would speak different languages. As with everything about Wesley, that made no apparent sense. He chalked it up to the eccentricities of an alien land. A full week after crossing the divide into the eastern Wodens, each of them could understand enough third to order a meal or ask directions. Somber could even speak it without pausing to cast around for vocabulary. Dante wasn't quite there yet, but he knew his own learning habits well enough to think he'd take a big leap forward as soon as he was around native speakers. And on that seventh day, since the divide, he got his chance. For the two days prior to that, they'd finally descended from the glaciers and snowfields into forests. The first trees they encountered were pines that looked more or less the same as those in the western Wodens, but as the steep mountains drew down to softer hills, the woods became the likes of which Dante'd never imagined. Over the span of no more than a mile, the pines gave way to towering trees that looked like the warped cousins of mangroves. Rather than standing with their trunks seated firmly in the ground, the roots forked down to the earth like a river delta. Some of these were as thick as a keg, while others were as spindly as a child's wrist. And as the trees grew taller and taller, the roots thickened disproportionately, with some as sturdy as the pylons of a bridge. Stranger yet were the branches. Many looked like your average branch, but the largest ones weren't round. Rather, they were flattened, like the end of a paddle, with a small spar growing along their underside for added support. This left them much wider than normal. Many were broad enough to dance on without fear of falling. The largest you could drive a team of oxen down, provided you could hoist the beasts up in the first place. Along with the oddity of their branches, each tree sprouted two distinct varieties of leaf, one star-shaped and hand-sized, the other fan-like and large enough to wear as a cape. Lauren trees, Ast said. You can eat the fruit or the mushrooms on their boughs. Use the leaves for whatever you like, but on your life, do not cut one down. Why's that? Dante said or the minister will take an axe to your legs as well.
Lou craned back his head at the canopy 200 feet above. Are they sacred? They probably belong to the king, C said. They belong to everyone, Ast gestured sweepingly. So when you cut one down, you steal from every single person in Wesley. C stared at the flattened branches. Then cutting off your legs is a modest sentence. After you've been cut down, they peel off your bark, too. Lee frowned. And we came here on purpose? Dante sighed, breath hanging in the damp air. Refrain from cutting down any holy trees and we'll be fine. As they continued down the hills, a canyon gaped to the right, hundreds of feet deep. A creek ran through its bottom. Beside it, the land continued to rise and fall, but the path of the little river continued in a straight line, dead east. With their supplies of dried food dwindling, they broke pace to forage in the Laurens. The trees were easy to climb, the roots made natural ladders, and once the trunk cohered into a solid column, Dante found them spotted with natural hollows. In the larger trees, these depressions were deep enough to house a person, or, as they discovered, legions of raccoons, squirrels, birds, and a bear-like dog-sized creature with the tail of a fox, the eyes of a cat, and, quite disturbingly, the hands of a human. The wide, flat branches made reaching the fruits a snap. They were round and pink, with rinds thicker than an orange, and they grew plentifully, despite the season. The pulp was thick and cohesive, almost more like a well-cooked porridge than a fruit, in both consistency and flavor. Ast claimed you could live on Lorbell fruit alone, but mushrooms grew just about everywhere too, and they harvested these as well. Through two days of travel, the Laurens grew higher and higher. Two hundred feet, three hundred. The above-ground root systems flared like Noran yurts, built to house an entire clan. Just as Dante was about to ask Ast whether he knew where they were going, distant laughter sounded from ahead. Everyone but Ast reached for their weapons. Ast merely pointed. They walked a few hundred feet before the object in question resolved from the trees occluding it. It was the largest Lauren they'd seen. Creatures moved in its branches. Smoke snaked from the trees in white columns. For a moment, Dante thought the forest was on fire, but each trickle was discreet, contained. They were fireplaces. He was looking at a house. Strike that. He was looking at a village. We should make camp out of sight. Ast turned to Dante. You'll come with me to the village. We need new clothes. Ours out us too clearly. Not fans of foreigners, Dante said. Is anyone? I should be the one to go, Somber said. I speak third better than anyone. Then it sounds like I need more practice, Dante said. Anyway, this isn't a vote. The spymaster smiled wryly. It was worth a try. They turned the ponies around and set up in a draw, a short ways from the towering Lauren. 
Dante and Ast hiked toward the tree. Both carried their swords. I would prefer to talk, if you don't mind, Ast said. Considering you're the one who knows how to talk, that sounds like a good plan. Have you been to this tree before? When I was very young. I doubt if much has changed. Wooden hammers wrapped from the boughs, muffled by whatever fibrous matter they were smashing. To the left, an irregular circle of dirt was bare and reeking. Ast glanced up and gave it a wide berth. The village wasn't entirely contained within the Lauren. A number of huts sprinkled the grounds above the tree, but its sprawling roots had been walled up and converted into a hive of houses and shops with people bustling in and out. A few of the locals watched Ast and Dante approach, but no cries or horns were sounded. Ast stepped through a high, triangular gap in the root walls. The inside was dimmer than the canopied forest, but the people had left enough open spaces in the roots for sunlight to filter through. It smelled overwhelmingly of loam. The streets, such as they were, were designed around the root structures, and rarely ran straight for more than a few feet at a time. It would have been beyond confusing if not for the regular presence of wooden stairs leading to observation platforms where one could have a look around and take shortcuts across the winding structures. Ast wanted nothing to do with exposure like that, though. He approached a vendor who sold mushrooms fried in garlic, onions, and oil. After a short conversation, the woman minding the stall pointed across the market village, twitching her finger around a bit. Ast nodded, exchanged a few more words, then rejoined Dante and moved on. After a few dead ends and turnabouts, Ast found the tailors. A tarp shielded the front of the shop from any rain that might make it through the roots spoked overhead. The back of the shop was enclosed to allow prospective buyers a measure of privacy. A portly man engaged them, speaking too fast for Dante to follow. As Ast conversed with him, Dante wandered the racks. In general, the clothing was nothing too exotic. You had just standard shirts, trousers, cloaks, overcoats, etc. But there was a heavy emphasis on gloves, particularly ones that were either fingerless or that had rough, high-friction pads over the fingers. He tried on a pair with small claws that snugged tightly over his fingertips. He waggled his fingers and turned to drop some bawdy witticism, but no one was there to hear it, and he wasn't about to out himself by speaking Gascon. He tugged off the gloves and replaced them on their shelf. Dante wandered back to observe the intensifying conversation. Aston the tailor dickered back and forth, pointing at clothes, themselves, about the world at large. After a crescendo of overlapping speech, they went dead quiet, stared at each other, then nodded. Ast passed over a knife and a bracelet, and the tailor handed him an armload of clothes. They gave a cursory glance at their new wares, then touched hands. Bargain concluded, Ast turned and walked out from under the top. Were those your personal items you traded? Dante said. Why not pay cash? Ast smiled sidelong. 
Do you think they accept Gaskin silver? They don't even use coins. Metal is drawn from the ground. They seem to have no problem using metal for tools. People are happy to discard morals in exchange for practicality, but money is symbolic, a pure representation of what a culture values. So, all our cash is worthless? Ash shrugged. We may be able to exchange it in the city. This place is rather backwards, if you'll forgive the pun. On the walk back to the others, Dante inspected the clothing. It was very plain, dyed in drab earth tones, and though he wasn't familiar with the fabric, it didn't take a Wesleyan expert to realize it was rough-spun and cheap. Unless they found a money-changer, their purchasers would be limited to whatever they could trade for, and most of their trade-worthy goods had been lost in the battle with the cappers. Back at camp, Somber eyed the clothes while Lou gazed toward the giant tree. What was it like being that high? We didn't get above the roots, Dante said. Why not? What's up top? People who look down on attempts to climb the literal social ladder, Ast said. These clothes will make us look less conspicuous. It will be less of an issue in the big city, where they're used to dealing with plenty of people they don't like. How can they live like that? Dante said, cramped in those roots. It felt like getting squeezed to death by a giant wooden hand. To me, it feels little different than the slums of Narashtavik. Tell me more about the upper branches, Somber said. Is this a caste-based society, then? Ast shook his head. The Lawrence provides free food and shelter. If that's all you want out of life, it leaves its denizens with too little work and too much time to socialize. But we're here for knowledge, yes? To do business. We can avoid getting sucked into the games. They dressed in their new clothes, which more or less fit, and continued past the village tree. On the other side, a dirt path cut through the forest floor. Ast said it would take them to the capital, a city called Coral. As they walked on, Dante gazed at the numerous Laurens and discovered most showed evidence of human habitation. Clotheslines hanging between branches, the whack of axes, people pulling strings attached to the big leaves to dump rainwater into buckets. Living in a tree dozens or even hundreds of feet in the air struck Dante as beyond foolhardy. But there was no arguing with what they were seeing. Somehow they made it work. Between the road and the lack of snow, they made more miles that day than during any three in the mountains. The hills dropped and the temperature rose, staying above freezing. They went by several more single Lauren villages, but didn't stop until they reached Coral, capital of Spiron, the westernmost district of Wesley. There was no mistaking it. The body of the city was comprised of no fewer than a dozen of the biggest Laurens they'd yet seen, massive and ancient, branches interlocking to form bridges in the sky. The central pillars carried spiral staircases around their trunks. A score of satellite trees showed signs of habitation as well. One of these appeared to be entirely dedicated to the lifting and lowering of people and goods, an industrious tangle of ropes, 
platforms, winches, wheels, ladders, nets, and stairs. People called back and forth from the branches, guiding sacks and barrels up into the branches. I am seeing this, Somber said. Me too, Lou said reverently. I'm not speaking poetically. I mean, I'm going into the city and seeing it for myself. He raised his eyebrows and asked. I have no authority nor desire to tell you otherwise, asked Demurred. Shall we stable the ponies, or sell them? We'll need them for the way back, Dante said. Anyway, for the moment, they had enough money to absorb the stable fees without issue. Ast had managed to swap a bit of Gascon silver at one of the lesser Lauren towns in exchange for local currency, which turned out to be teeth. Not just any teeth, of course. The species varied, but all were carved by Spiron's department of Scrimshaw, according to their value. Lorens, mountains, or the woven sigil of the king, a man known only as the Minister. According to Ast, since forgery would be so easy, it was punished by the removal and carving of the forger's own teeth, which were then put into circulation. Somber had found this delightful. Apparently, the highest denomination of Spirish currency was the seed of the lawbell fruit. For the most part, they were seedless, but on very rare occasions one held a round black pit capable of growing a new tree. The version used as money was carved with a highly stylized four-pointed star, and supposedly infused with an ethereal signature known only to the court sorcerers. The lucky few residents who found a seed in their daily meal of law bills were required to bring them into the department, where they were exchanged for tooth coins. At a much lesser rate than the value of the seed, of course, but given that the penalty for hiding a Lauren seed was the same as for cutting down a Lauren tree, hoarding and forgery were unheard of. On its face, it was confusing and barbaric. To Dante, it glared like noon on a pond. It was about the minister asserting control over the Lauren, the heart of Spirish life. About claiming it as his, and thus co-opting its might and authenticity. Spirish political manipulation was beyond the scope of Dante's interests, however. Right now, all he cared about was finding a stable. Ast located one in the root system of an outlying tree and paid its master in teeth. As the ponies were led away, Ast asked the stablemaster something, and he replied with what Dante recognized as directions, though the language still moved too fast for him to pick up more than that. It was enough for Ast, though. He took them around two Laurens to a third, perched near the edge of a startlingly deep canyon. The Laurens' trunk was carved with a six-foot image of an owl, but as the tree continued to grow, it had distorted the image, giving it a totemic feel. People came and went on the staircase, wrapping the trunk. Ast headed up. The plank stairs had distressing gaps between them, but the treads were deep, the steps were a good eight feet wide, and the outer edge was fenced with posts and rope railings, though these didn't look sturdy enough to stop your fall if you were determined to lurch into them. The stairs wound past a number of landings leading to oval holes in the trunk. 
These could be enclosed by four quarter doors, but most were open to the day, inhabited with people kneeling at low tables or snoozing in hammocks tacked to the walls. There was very little space in any of them, but Ast said the apartments at this level were a single rung up from the root slums. Dante supposed the confines of the trunk rooms weren't as bad as they seemed. Many of Narashtevik's residents lived in tighter quarters than these actual holes in the walls. It didn't matter. After all, the entire city was their home. Ast stepped off the staircase into a branch thirty feet wide. People milled about on its worn surface, talking, laughing, stopping for drinks and trinkets at the stalls and airy shops strung across the branch, particularly at the hub, where it forked into smaller sub-branches. The scene was much like a major thoroughfare of Narashtevik or Dolondon, except most of the stalls were roofed with giant leaves. And there was nothing on the sides of the street except for open air and a forty-foot drop to the ground. Lou threw his arms out for balance. Well, this is terrifying. Quit gawping like a yokel, Dante said. Those kids over there don't have a problem with heights. Maybe because they've fallen over the edge before. On their heads. Ast glanced back at them, scowled, and increased his pace. Lou gritted his teeth and managed to lower his right hand to his side. His left still stuck straight out, wavering any time the lazy breeze sent the barest gust. His horror was short-lived. At the first intersection of the main branch and two offshooting but still substantial side branches, a structure claimed the plaza. It was a wooden frame sheltered with tiny cloth tarps, and it stood in the middle of a colossal tree city. But its function was obvious in all languages. It was a public house. Dante wasn't certain of the wisdom of drinking beer while strolling around four stories above the earth, but he certainly believed in the general wisdom of the tavern. They parted the fibrous top and entered. Inside, people sat on their feet beside long, bench-like tables, drinking from squat cups. Ast pointed toward a vacant bench. While Dante and the others sat on a leaf mat provided to preserve their knees, Ast went to the bar set a handful of teeth on it, and bought them a round of sweet cider that tasted vaguely like bread. He then returned to the bar to speak with the woman behind it. Dante had nothing to do but drink and look around, so he did that. The space was not large, and he was privy to several of the alcohol-amplified conversations around them. The locals all seemed to be speaking third, and, of course, there was the whole tree thing— but the people wouldn't have looked out of place in Narashtevik, pale-skinned and dark-haired. A bit thinner-boned, though. Perhaps they'd spent too long in the trees. As he gazed about, Dante got a few looks back, especially when Lou or C said something to each other in Gaskin. No one caused them trouble, however. Ast came back and knelt beside Dante at the table. It's difficult to ask about what you wish to know. Dante sipped. So I've discovered. As usual, the monks are those most interested in wisdom. I've secured directions to a temple where they may have some idea what the hell you're talking about. 
Gast had the habit of delivering his wit in the exact same tone he used to present facts, and it was a moment before Dante laughed. Let's go. First, you must finish your drinks. There is nothing more suspicious than a man who leaves the pub with ale still in his glass. Dante recognized this as one of life's deeper truths. He finished his mug and eyeballed the others until they did likewise. Outside, the breeze had picked up, and between that and the alcohol, he had to fight not to wing his arms out for balance like Lou. We have a climb ahead of us, Ast said. The temple is on the fourth loft. You don't say, Dante said. Ast glanced back, confused, then did a double take. I forget all of this is new to you. Right now, we're on the first loft, the lowest division of this Lawrence branches. Lou risked a look up into the foliage. How high is the fourth loft? Every tree is different. That is one of the beauties of Spiron. Typically, a loft spans roughly fifty feet of height. Is it too late to go stable with the ponies instead? They returned to the great staircase wrapped around the trunk. While there were far more people making this tree home than Dante would have believed possible, the stairway's traffic was light. People seemed content to stick to their own loft, for the most part, hanging out on its various flats, a word asked used for the flattened branches, before returning to their rounds, the hollows in the trunk, to sleep or catch a bit of solitude before venturing back into the communal areas. As they climbed, Laughter and the clatter of industry sifted in from all sides, from above and below, too, and from the other Lorens. Dante found it difficult to grasp the idea of living in three dimensions. Assaulting such a place would be virtually impossible, too. Not only would you have to fight your way up the choke point of the stairs, but you'd have to shelter from all the limbs overhead, fighting gravity the whole way while the city's archers rained hell on you from behind the cover of branches and thick leaves. Fire was an option, but it had been showering on an almost daily basis since they'd descended from the mountains, and dew clung thickly to the leaves. A good nethermancer might be able to whack through a Lauren's mighty trunk, but he doubted any had the power to do so in an instant, and a place like this would have defenses against that too. He didn't know how the minister or history or culture had conspired to convince these people to live their lives in trees, but a part of him was jealous Narashtavik was so exposed in comparison. The first three lofts were indistinguishable to Dante's eyes, but the fourth was insulated by a gap in the stairs. A guard stood at either end, armed with a bow, and a short spear with a spiked head that looked capable of doubling as a climbing instrument. Ast paid the first guard a toll, and the guard gestured across the space. The guard on the opposite side pulled a lever in the trunk, and a set of stairs ratcheted down, clunking into place. As soon as their group crossed, the man cranked the stairs back up, once more separating the third loft from the fourth. Ast stopped to ask the second guard something. Directions again. Dante couldn't follow at all, but got the gist their destination was on the outer edge of a nearby flat. 
The toll was only a couple of teeth, but that and unseen social pressure conspired to keep the loft segregated. Most of the rounds on this level had their doors shut to the eyes of the public. Fewer catwalks and ladders connected the rounds. People's dress was more colorful. Some of the shops on the flats had solid wood walls, roofs composed of woven leaves and sealed with pungent resin. The ground waited two hundred feet below, but even at this height, the winds weren't enough to sway the Lauren. Ast climbed off the staircase onto a flat that bore a single compound situated eighty feet out from the trunk. A doorless wooden gate stood before a house-sized structure with a high conical roof. Behind it, a couple of long, single-story buildings stretched into the wild profusion of leaves. A lone man was in front of the main building, broom rasping as he swept debris to the side of the platform. Watching dust and leaves swirl over the edge, Dante understood why the higher the loft, the richer its residence. Ast stopped and turned to them. This is a shrine of Dirison. The monks are famed for their law. Please treat it as you would treat any other temple. Are you sure you wouldn't rather I used the spittoon? C said. Ast gave her a dubious look, decided she was probably joking, and continued. As they neared, the monk stopped sweeping and turned to face them, resting his fists on the top of his broom and his chin on his fists. Ast spoke to him in third. The monk glanced across the rest of their group. The two men conversed for a moment, then the monk padded inside the shrine. He is checking with the others, Ast said. What did you say to him? Dante said that we are pilgrims from a far-off land searching for stories of the Black Star. Dante nodded. It was closer to the truth than he preferred, but at this point they had few options. Sooner or later, they would have had to lay it out for someone. Considering how difficult it had been to locate information in their homeland, perhaps sooner was preferable than later. The monk came back after a few minutes. He shook his head and shrugged and asked. Ast frowned at the smooth bark coating the ground. He says he never heard of it. But this is where the Hanassans told us to go, Dante said. They told you to go to the shrine of Dirison in Kohl? They said the answers would be in Wesley. Ast kept his expression neutral. Wesley sprawls for hundreds of miles. It's little smaller than Gask, and Spiron is just one corner of it. He's never even heard of it, Dante said. Ast shook his head. Dante gritted his teeth and glanced at the confused-looking monk. The Black Star? Selin? The monk could only shake his head, but a face poked through the doorway behind him. The second man was older, white whiskers spangling his face. The first monk glanced at him and immediately stepped aside. Salon? The old monk's gaze bore into Dante. Where are you from? Kirkit, Dante said, drawing on their cover story. A Kirkishian-speaking Gascon and Wesley. Dante locked up, because the man was speaking Gascon too. 
The old monk raised his eyebrows at the first monk, who blinked, then disappeared inside. The man walked into the daylight, fighting through the leaves. You'll get one chance to tell me the truth. Dante nodded slowly, buying himself a couple of seconds to think. Flies buzzed in the leaves. The moment had come out of nowhere and sounded too good to be true, like a trap. But Dante had no choice, not if he wanted to find the object that might let him live forever. Or so he convinced himself. Gask, Dante said. Narashtovic. The man's eyelid twitched. Why have you come so far? To find Selen. The monk's face was as motionless as the trunk of the Lauren. I don't know, he said loudly and in third. Like many of the tree people, he wore baggy trousers and overshirt, but his wrists and ankles were cinched tight, presumably so they wouldn't snag when climbing around. He reached into his left sleeve and produced a small scroll of parchment and charcoal pencil. He said something else apologetic, still in third. As he spoke, he spread the scroll on his left palm and scribbled without looking down. He removed the pencil and the scroll snapped shut. He held out his hand. Dante shook and palmed the paper. The man bowed and went back inside the shrine. Heart thudding, Dante walked back toward the staircase. He resisted the urge to open the note until he'd climbed enough stairs to put a screen of leaves between them and the shrine. The note was written in Gaskin, but given that its contents were directions around the unfamiliar city, it may as well have been in 18th Wesleyan. Asked, asked to see it. He wants to meet, tomorrow midnight, another flat on the fourth loft. Dante took another look at the scroll. Can we trust him? The Dirison order is trustworthy. That particular monk, your guess is as good as mine. Meaning worthless. Eager to speak with us, Somber mused, but frightened to be heard by others. The smell of legitimacy, or the false skin of a cunning traitor. Cunning as he might be, he won't expect to be dealing with anything like us. Dante squinted into the branches. I will go with Ast. Somber, Lou, and C will cover us from a higher flat. Sound thinking, Somber said. That's it all right with you? Dante said to Ast. The tall man nodded. Agreed. The afternoon waned. Before it closed, they found lodging at an inn that was essentially a long row of shacks strung wall to wall along one of the flats. A common building was set at the intersection of the flat and its major secondary fork. They took dinner there, a mash made of laurels, a stew also made of laurels, and skewers of bird meat interspersed with cubes of laurel, marinated in spices and melted fat. They digested as the sun set. A chilly breeze tousled the leaves. The flat swayed a bit, but not enough to threaten their footing, let alone the integrity of the inn. Once evening had fully dethroned the day, 
they returned to the staircase. Ast claimed they sometimes kept the toll gates raised after dark, but the flat where the monk wanted to meet was on the same loft. They climbed to the flat above it to get a look. Below, the flat narrowed to the point where it wasn't terribly practical for buildings. There was still plenty of space to walk around in, however. The place appeared to be the spirish equivalent of a park, complete with benches. It was remote, but the overhanging flat made for an excellent firing platform. They returned to the inn and retired to the one shack, which was all they'd been able to book. Between the snoring and the knowledge he was suspended two hundred feet above the ground, Dante's sleep was not restful. He kept a low profile the next day, less than eager to draw attention when such a promising lead was so close. To make the most of their time, he and the others wandered around the fourth loft in search of libraries and similar repositories of history. They found none, but did buy an hour's talk with a traveling storyteller, who didn't know anything about colored lights in the sky, but was more than capable of telling them tall tales about the far-flung corners of Wesley. His stories were even more outrageous than the bards of Malon, but the tree cities of Spiron made everything feel less impossible. After dinner, Somber departed to make his way up to the platform above the meeting spot, where he'd hide via shadow sphere if necessary. Lou and C departed around 10.30 that night. Lou carried nothing but a knife and the nether. C had an unstrung bow and a quiver concealed beneath her cloak. Twenty minutes before the meet, Dante and Ast left the common room and walked to the staircase. The flat where they were to meet the monk was deserted. Dante gazed up at the branches, trying to pick out the silhouettes of the others, but saw nothing. Either something had gone terribly wrong, or they were doing exactly what they were supposed to. A few minutes before midnight, feet sounded on the stairs. Dante turned. The flat jiggled faintly. Instead of the monk, eight soldiers walked down the branch carrying long spears and clad in studded armor. Hello, strangers. One of the soldiers stepped forward, smiling in a manner that wasn't entirely friendly. He spoke third, but his words were simple enough for Dante to understand just fine. The minister wishes to see you. Now. Chapter 18 Men paddled along the surface, staring down at the forest of kelp beneath her. Out to her right, from the open water, a sleek, gray missile soared toward her, twelve feet long if it was an inch. Blaze thrashed his arms, but she was ahead of him, beyond sight. He popped his head above water. Shark! Shark! Without waiting for a reply, he dove and kicked as hard as he could toward her. She righted herself, sticking her head about the surface and treading water. In that position, with the sun glinting on the waves, she wouldn't be able to see the shark at all. Blaze thrashed forward. She was thirty feet away, but even with the fins, he could swim no faster than a fish would be able to walk if it wore fake feet. The shark arrowed closer. Blaze moved to the surface so he could yell at her, but she dropped below the water to see what he was up to. He pointed frantically. She turned, legs trailing behind her. Her scream warbled through the water, bubbles gushing around her head. The shark's face distended. 
Thrashing, bubbles, a sudden bloom of red. Blaze kicked forward, spear in hand. The long shape curved away. Blood swirling from its jaws. Min struck wildly at the water with her spear, kicking at a monster that was no longer there. Blaze angled to put himself between her and the shark. The gray missile swam directly away from them, unhurried, undulating through the gloomy water. And then it disappeared. He surfaced. You've been bitten! She gaped at him. Salt scraggled hair hung around her paling face. I'm fine. It's gone. It bit you in the leg. He fought to keep himself calm, but he could hear the quaver in his voice. We need to get you to shore right now. She glanced down at the water, staring blankly at the spreading cloud of red. That's not me. It must have gotten a fish. Hey. He grabbed her by the collar and pulled her to face him. Swim to shore. Right now. Once we're on dry land, you can show me you're fine and swap me on the nose. Deal? Doubt flickered over her brows. You're going to feel pretty stupid. Despite her protests, she kicked toward shore, swimming on her side. Blaze's throat felt choked. His heart ran harder than it ever had. He glanced nonstop between her and below the water, whipping his head around at every glimpse of motion, sure the shark would be back. Once, he looked directly at her leg. Her calf trailed pale scraps behind it. He had seen worse on the battlefields a hundred times before, but something about seeing her skin wafting in the water, the blood drifting as carefree as a summer cloud, flowing from the person who was, at this moment, his only friend in the world. He grew faint. While she kicked ahead, he had to float in place and take deep breaths until the feeling passed. They reached the surf and waded to shore. When they were nearly clear of the water, she turned to give him the eye, lifting her right leg clear, then her left. A raw hole dribbled blood down her calf. Her jaw dropped, and so did she. Surf hissed over her body. Men! He tried to run to her, but staggered on his fins. He pulled her from the water and braced her against his body so he could yank at the straps of his fish feet. He got them loose and hurled them above the tide line. Then he carried her there as well. The wound was bad. Not quite as big as he'd feared, given the size of the shark, but she was missing a generous handful of flesh, and what was left bled freely. He wiped salt water from his eyes and grimaced toward the northeast. The black cliffs of Pocket Cove hung on the horizon like a storm. There would be no help from them. Even if he had a loon connecting him straight to Roe, Min's friends wouldn't be able to arrive quickly enough. She was capable of patching herself up much better than he could, but she was out cold. It was up to him. He stripped off his shirt and tore it to shreds, twisting the longest strip into a cord and tying it below her knee as tight as he could. As he knotted it, her eyes fluttered open. Wake up! He tapped her on the cheek. Min, can you hear me? Her eyes were wide and frightened, her breath fast and shallow. Am I going to die? The net is all around us. I need you to put it to use. You know how to heal yourself, right? A dreamy voice sharpened. 
It's one of the first things we learn. Then do it. Right now. Quit lying there and staring at me like a lamb and get to work. She blinked, clearing her eyes of fear. She sat up, chin trembling, and forced herself to look at her leg. The tourniquet had reduced the flow of blood to a trickle, but that left the damage all the more apparent. Her eyes rolled. He reached to slap her, but her eyelids snapped open. She was whiter than dead coral. She calmed her expression. Nether flowed to her from all sides, thirstier than a lost traveler. She sent it to her leg. Nothing happened. Blaze forced himself to look beyond his eyes, focusing on the shadows themselves. They moved inside her flesh, smoothing out torn vessels and capping them. A moment later, the angry red hole began to shrink, fresh pink skin growing from all sides. The growth slowed in moments. She was good, but not nearly as strong as Dante. He could only watch in helpless frustration. As soon as she finished, and new skin covered the wound, though a deep chunk of her leg was simply gone, she passed out in the sand. Between his adrenaline and her warming spell, he hadn't noticed the cold, but he began to shiver violently. Min breathed evenly, but was otherwise still. He got on his shoes, pulled on his cloak, wrapped her in hers, and carried her back to the cabin. Inside, he put her to bed and went to work on the fire. They'd put it out before heading to the beach, and it took him some time to get a spark to catch. He huddled in a blanket and sat over her, but the exhaustion hit him well before the sun had set. He woke to darkness. Min slept on, breathing in and out in steady, slow breaths. She was still asleep as morning broke. Blaze didn't leave the cabin except to bring in more wood, and once to catch fish from the creek. The following morning, he glanced at her and saw her eyes were open. She groaned. The first thing she did was pull the blankets from her legs and examine the divot in her calf. The second thing she did was run outside, still half-dressed, to use the bathroom. Back inside, she pulled on warm clothes and sat beside the fire. Found a calivert yet? When would I have done that? Don't tell me you wasted... How long have I been asleep? A day, he said. I wasn't about to leave you to hunt snails. I just needed to rest. I'll be fine. You're sure? Because your leg looks... She smiled wryly. Like it has a bite taken out of it. I was going to say something less horrible, but yes, it looks exactly like that. He glanced out the window for a look at the light. Are you hungry? Extremely. He fried a couple fish. She stared at the pan the whole time. Once he got them out, she ate both, so he dipped into their supplies, which were dwindling quicker than he liked. We could wait here, he said. Wait for the others to come back. Min looked at him like he'd suggested they might swap genders. We're here. We have no way to get them to come sooner. Why would you throw that time away? You can't possibly be thinking of getting back in the water. Will you? 
Sure, he said. In another day or two. But I'm not the one who nearly served as floating breakfast. She snorted. I was careless. It won't happen again. So long as I'm not bleeding, what are the chances of being attacked twice on the same trip? I don't think chance works that way. In fact, I believe it delights in screwing people over just when they think they can't be screwed any worse. You will resume your search. That is my order as your mentor. There will be no argument. He was all right with that much. She did seem to have recovered enough to look after herself while he was swimming. Tomorrow, then. I think you could use more rest. Anyway, we're low on food. She agreed, but insisted on helping him fish. She walked with a hitching limp and occasionally winced. By and large, however, he had to admit she looked healthy enough to stand on the banks and trick clueless trout into swallowing hooks. That night, she made another effort on her leg, darkening the cabin with wings of nether. But Blaze saw little improvement. Unless Roe could do more, Min was likely to be left with the gouge forever. Before he headed out in the morning, she warmed him up with nether. He carried his things down to the beach, donned his gear, and, tightly clutching his spear, stepped into the sea. The tossing of the waves made them opaque, and he was horrified by what might be swimming within. The only solution was to get his face underwater so he could see. He threw himself forward, hovering below the surface to look in all directions. Once he determined it was safe, for now, he paddled out beyond the surf to resume his hunt for the Kelevert. Even then, he spent more time glancing out to open sea than he did scanning the ocean floor. As noon neared, he got hungry and cold. He turned back to shore and saw Min standing on the sand. He crawled out of the water, fins flapping. No luck, Min said. Well, that's about to change. I brought you lunch. She'd found, and roasted, wild onions and tubers to go with the fish. It was a nice change. See any sharks? she said. He shook his head. Just a bitty one. Couldn't swallow your pinky toe. He took a quick nap in the sun, then returned to the hunt. By the end of the day, he'd searched far enough that the water beneath him was twenty feet deep. It was difficult to make out details. Every time he dived down for a closer look at a suspicious bit of black or white, pressure squeezed his ears so hard he thought his head might pop. The day after, he moved down the beach to shallower waters, splashing around over a bed of slimy kelp. Since the shark, he'd been rigorous about avoiding rocks, coral, and anything else that might cut him. But as he swam over a pillar of coral, a swell fell out from under him, scraping his left arm across the hard, rasping growth. A small cloud of blood drifted from the wound. He swore and turned straight for shore. Like the day before, Min was already down on the beach. Yesterday it had been to bring him food, but that day she stood in the surf, waves foaming around her shins. What do you think you're doing? Blaze said. Warming up my feet, 
She brushed hair from her eyes and watched a gull wobbling on the winds. It makes no sense to sit here on the beach for the rest of our trip. Yes, it does, he said. You were bitten by a shark. That was three days ago. Do you know how recent that is? You could count that on one hand, even if you've lost a couple of fingers in a tragic shark attack. Water dripped from his underclothes. He'd thought about swimming naked, but swimming around with his bits dangling like a juicy worm did not strike him as his finest idea. Aren't you scared? Petrified, she said. But if I force myself forward an inch at a time, sooner or later I'll have to swim. That day, she made it to her knees. The next, as she stood with the surf swirling around her thighs, Blaze found his first kelevert. It was smaller than one of his knuckles, a white ball pokey with spikes. Carefully, he gripped one of the prongs and pulled it clear from a knob of coral. He watched for any signs of fangs or stingers, but the snail seemed content to hide in its shell. He swam back to land and presented it to Min. Is this what I think it is? She bent over for a better look. A little baby that won't do you any good? Yes, it is. But I found one. It's possible, and I know what they look like. Well done, dolphin man. Now get back to work. He grinned and ran back to the sea. With no use for the little snail, he swam it out to deeper waters, then released it. It tumbled down, swaying from side to side as it fell, like the world's most useless pendulum. As it came to rest on a slab of sludgy rock, a fish with a yellow stripe and a gray beak swam up to it, gave it a nibble, then swallowed it whole, spitting a plume of splinters from its mouth. Blaze was aghast. Then he was thoughtful. Rather than swimming about willy-nilly when the fish with the yellow stripe departed to peruse the ocean floor, he followed it. When it cared to, it swam much faster than him, jetting ahead with a blur of its tail. Mostly, however, it poked around like a couple out on market day, allowing him to catch up and keep pace. Its stripe stood out like a beacon. As afternoon waned, he found he'd followed the fish across a shallow plain and was now hundreds of feet from shore. Out of the corner of his mask, he glimpsed a gray shape as big as a man. He froze, clutching his spear. The creature drifted away into the watery haze. He took that as a sign to call it a day. Back near land, Min was in up to her waist. She grinned at him. See any sharks today? He thought about lying, but if that got her back in the water and she was hurt again, he knew that he would have to kill himself. Maybe. I didn't get a good look at it. Well, I hope you did. I'm going to kill it and eat its heart. He laughed and walked with her back to the cabin. Their trip was now half over, but he felt good. He'd found one of the snails. There would be more, and he thought he knew how to find them. In the morning, he returned to the rocks where he'd found the juvenile, then struck out in search of one of the striped fish. 
Within minutes, he spotted one picking away at a crab. It fluttered away whenever its prey raised its claws, only to dart in from the side, wearing the crab down, bite by bite. The fish soon proved the victor. And insatiable. As soon as it finished hollowing out the crab, it continued on its way, roughly parallel to shore. Blaze kicked after it. A shape loomed between him and the land. He cried out, voice echoing up from his breathing pipe, and rolled on its side to put his spear at the ready. Min grinned at him and waved. He pulled his head above water. Fancy seeing you here. Did I just feel a warm current pass me by? He frowned, then scoffed. I would have speared you like a criminal. Are you sure you're ready to get back out here? No, she said, but here I am. He wasn't sure if he'd have been able to do the same. Just like he'd done his first day back in the water, she spent more of her attention looking around her than she did for Kellevert's. She stuck within ten feet of him at all times, too. Blaze didn't mind. They should have been doing that from the start. Are you following that grinder? she asked some time later. Is that what they're called? I've been thinking of him as Sir Stripe. That's not a bad idea. Following it. Not your name for him. That's terrible. Even with Min's eyes adding to the search and following the grinder until it swam away, they found nothing. The day after that, Min burst from the surface, bearing a black shell the size of a tomato. But it was a false lead. The shell was empty and cracked. Even so, at least Blaze had now seen one in the flesh, as it were. Dark clouds swept in from the southwest. Just as he was beginning to wonder if they ought to take a break, lightning cut the sky in half. Thunder roared behind it. They swam back to the beach. Halfway to the shack, the clouds tore apart, battering them with rain. At least it got the salt off and spared them a dip in the creek. The thunder and lightning quit before morning, but the rain and winds persisted for three days. Every time it looked like it had calmed down, a new gale rode in and dumped buckets of rain everywhere. Blaze spent the idle time trying to get the nether to expand. He'd been fooling around with it a little every day, but between all the swimming, fishing, and bathing, not to mention the exhausted sleep those things produced in massive volume, he'd had little time. It was good to get more practice in but he could feel his time on Koho slipping away. Deep down, he'd been hoping to find a shell in the first few days, then take a hike up the volcano. He didn't think he'd ever climbed a volcano before. At last, the skies cleared. The rain dried. The seas were still choppy and visibility was less than ideal, but they had just three days remaining before Roe returned to take them back to the cove. Sand and pulverized plants wheeled through the waters, tugged this way and that by the angry tides. Many of the fish had gone into hiding, or maybe they'd been sucked away by the storm. Either way, the grinders were nowhere to be seen. The first day was a bust. 
On the second day, a follow-up storm blew in and ruined their chances. Blaze wandered along the beach, hoping to see a fresh shell turned up by the riotous waves. The storm raced off by late afternoon, and he was able to get back in the water for a couple hours. But the seas were so rough he didn't dare swim more than a hundred feet from shore. The last day began well. Within minutes of diving in, he turned up another white-shelled juvenile. But the auspicious start just gave Blazer's hopes farther to fall. The sun peaked, then began its slow-motion crash into the sea. Over the course of their two weeks, they'd been venturing more and more to the south, leaving behind the rocky arm of the bay. As the afternoon waned, Blaze decided to reverse course and head straight north. It was too rough, the water too cloudy. Anyway, by sticking near the shore, they'd have better sight of the bottom. They hadn't been over the more sheltered water since arriving on Koo. The storms may have blown in a wandering Kelevert during their absence. Just as the sun hovered over the horizon, he saw a flash of yellow. Underwater, he beckoned to Min, but she gestured up and surfaced. Time to head in, I think, she said. I just saw a grinder. In minutes, it'll be too dark to see. We can try to squeeze in a couple hours in the morning. He stuck his face under the surface and glimpsed the grinder drifting away to the north. Then I'll see you at the house. He crawled after the fish, slowing down when he grew near so he wouldn't spook it. He glanced back and saw that Min had decided to follow him after all. He suddenly felt stupid. The water was already growing dark. If something came for them, they might not be able to see it until it was upon them. More plausibly, if they misjudged how far they were from an upthrust coral, a surge could drag them over it, shredding their skin, or even breaking their bones. Twenty feet ahead, the grinder swashed its tail and dived straight down. Heart thudding, Blaze followed. Most likely it was after another crab, or biting senselessly at a branch of coral. But it went straight for a stretch of basalt and began attacking the rock. A fist-sized lump of darkness slid away from the basalt, retracting its charcoal tail whenever the grinder darted in for another bite. Chapter 19 Dante stared down the team of soldiers. At times like these, confronted by common-issue warriors with sharp but ultimately mundane weapons, he was always tempted to destroy them, bring down the nether and churn them into a fine red mist. Even without having any of his blood at hand to feed the nether, he could do it almost effortlessly. But acts of incredible violence weren't as simple as that. For one thing, his friends were up there on the next flat. Three nethermancers would make a potent group, but if Dante mistified eight soldiers, the rest would be unleashed upon them post-haste. The second encounter would be much nastier than the first. For another thing, he wasn't sure these men meant him harm. The only way to find out would be to go with them. The minister, Dante said mildly in the local tongue, aware his accent was less than stellar. 
Are we arrested? This seemed to confuse the lead soldier. The minister wishes to see you, so you will see him. Ast glanced between Dante and the soldier. The tall man hid it well, but Dante had spent enough time around Blaze to look for the subtle tension in Ast's arms. He could draw his sword in a flash if he had to. Dante nodded once and stepped forward. We go. The soldier eyed Dante's sheathed sword, then gestured them to head back to the staircase. Though Dante was dying to see if the others were seeing this, he was careful not to look up into the branches. Two of the soldiers took the lead up the stairs, with Dante and Ast in the middle, ushered upwards by the remaining six. It was a long walk, and Dante had questions, but he didn't trust his Wesleyan vocabulary. Lanterns flickered in the branches, pooling light over flats popular enough to be doing business after midnight. Dante wondered where they got their oil. Most of Narashtovic's was garnered from the whaling trade that thrived in the northern seas. If he'd had to bet, he'd bet money, Gaskin silver or spirus teeth, that they piped their oil right out of the Lorens. They stopped at the toll gate to the fifth loft. The soldiers called to the guards. His speech was quick and informal. The guards were expecting them. They lowered the steps into place, and the soldiers continued their climb. It was too dark to tell, but the fifth and sixth lofts looked little different from the fourth. Halfway up the sixth, the soldiers stepped off the staircase and walked across a never-ending flat lined on both edges by plain row housing. Eventually, they reached another trunk-based staircase. They had crossed seamlessly from one Lauren to another. Foreigner he might be, but Dante could tell at a glance this tree was different. The rounds on the other trunk had been individual one-room apartments, but on this Lauren, each round circled all the way around the trunk, giving the owner 360-degree views of the forest and a heck of a lot more living space. Alternately, he supposed they could be barracks for soldiers. Whatever the case, this tree was somehow associated with the court. After a whole bunch more stairs, with lanterns shining through three hundred feet of branches below them, they reached an elaborate triple gate. While no tolls were required, one section of stairs couldn't be lowered until the next one had been raised. The metal teeth of cranks clanked in the night. Wood groaned. Passing through it took a couple minutes. It was enough of a delay that Dante suspected there must be a secret bypass elsewhere for when the minister and his agents needed to travel in a hurry. Past it, big blocks of buildings sat on the flats, blotting out the night. A spider web of catwalks and ladders connected the flats, blurring the transition between one structure and the next. A speckling of stars peeped behind the leaves. The soldiers climbed out onto a branch, passed through a gated checkpoint, and led them down a narrow ledge along the back of one of the buildings. A single rope rail stood between Dante and a four-hundred-foot drop. He was glad it was too dark to see the way down. The lead soldier unlocked a nondescript door, 
took them up a cramped staircase into a slightly less cramped hallway, knocked on a door, and said something Dante couldn't understand. A male voice replied from the other side. As feet thudded behind the door, the soldier turned to them and made a statement. Ast nodded and handed over his sword. Dante hesitated, then did the same. The door opened to a long rectangular room with a snapping fireplace, shelves of books and ledgers, and eight more soldiers standing around the walls in statuesque stillness. A great many rugs, weavings, curios, carvings, and artifacts filled the walls, floors, and tables. There were no aesthetic commonalities to the hoard of art, as if it had been collected from all across Wesley and lands beyond. Dante didn't have a lot of time to absorb this, however, as someone immediately began speaking to him in what sounded like a sub-dialect of third. The man wore simple black clothes and the unmistakable air of authority. He said something more, a question, judging by its inflection, and cocked his head at Dante. Two seconds ticked by. Ast opened his mouth. The man, presumably the minister, made a cutting motion with his hand. Or should I put it another way, he said, switching to Gaskin. He smiled brightly. I see you understand me now. That provides the answer to my question. Where are you from? Gask, Dante confirmed, breaking from their cover story. You might as well be telling me you're from Earth. Tatonin, he improvised. We are exploring the possibility of bringing tea from Galador to Wesley. How exactly did you manage to cross the Wodens? Ponies bred for mountains and cold weather. We had to use wall tents the whole way. Are these very small ponies? The minister smiled. Or did you bring very large tents? I heard stories of cappers, Dante tried. We must have been fortunate. We encountered none along the way. You would be the first. His jaw tightened. I believe you're lying, and that I will punish you by throwing you off the top of this tree. I was born in the Eastern Wodens, Ast said. The minister paused mid-gesture to his guards and raised one brow. Ast continued, but I've lived in Gask for many years. I know the ways. I took them through Torun Pass. The minister narrowed his eyes. Have the cappers granted you a gentleman's agreement to leave your bodies intact? They've been drawn away from the divide by its strange lights to the north. The ghost lights? Ast shook his head. Not like any I've ever seen. We've been trying to find a route through the mountains for a year. When I saw the cappers vacating the route, I seized the opportunity to make the attempt. The minister stroked his upper lip. Just the two of you? We lost a couple in the crossing. There are others here with us. That matches what I had heard. And I thank you for telling the truth. Where are they now? What is all this about? Dante said. It's about the fact you're foreigners, Gascons, who are in my lands, my home, without my permission. Dante gave Ast a severe look. I wasn't aware we had to register. 
The minister laughed. You believe you should be granted clemency because you were too irresponsible to learn the laws of my land? Your Highness, one of the reasons for our trip was to learn more about your people. In Gask, Wesley is virtually unknown. He smirked. Perhaps we like it that way. I've reached a decision. You won't be flung from the farthest ledge. Instead, you will leave Spiron. Now. And you will never return. We're not done with our business. Yes, the minister said. You are. Their soldier escort flanked them. The minister nodded at the commander, then sprawled in a stuffed chair and grabbed a book from his desk. The troops took them back into the night. Where are your friends? Their captain said once they were below the palace. Ast rattled off an address in third. The captain gave a quick order. Half the soldiers jogged toward the flat connected to the other tree. The descent to the ground took several minutes. There, the captain returned their swords. Dante had asked tell the commander about the ponies, hoping to be allowed to fetch them himself, give the soldiers the slip, and rush to track down the monk. But the soldiers shadowed him to the stables, where a very angry owner woke to bring the ponies around and demand more money for the inconvenience. The captain said something, and the owner went quiet and sullen. Dante had been on edge this whole time, half expecting that once the soldiers rousted Somber, C, and Lou from the inn, they'd be imprisoned or led to a quiet place to be slaughtered. But the other three were brought to them without incident. As they took to the road, the minister's soldiers continued to chaperone them. What's happening? C said. We saw the minister, Dante said. He suggested we leave or he would be happy to throw us out. Of the tree. The minister? How did he know we were here? Dante glanced back over his shoulder at the soldiers. Keep walking. It was already one in the morning, but the soldiers stayed with them until they stopped two hours later at a one Lauren village with rooms available in the routes. The captain walked up to Dante. We'll check with the innkeep tomorrow to make sure you've moved on. I suggest you don't tarry. Given the lateness of the hour and the exhaustion soaking Dante's body, it was a minor miracle he didn't explode the captain's head on the spot. My tarrying will be kept to the bare minimum. He watched the men walk away. No stable was open this late, so Dante revised the plan, taking the ponies beneath the roots of a different tree. Their group settled in, hanging up tarps and unrolling blankets. I don't know how the minister knew about us, Dante said, finally answering C's question, given how particular he is about allowing outsiders into his realm. Anyone in call could have turned us in. Well, now what? Lou said. They threw us out before we got to talk to the monk. Dante nodded. He was having a hard time thinking of anything besides passing out. We'll have to move along for at least another day, make sure the locals see us leaving, then turn around and sneak back into call. How are we going to do that? There are toll bridges between every loft, guards everywhere. Some of the flats are connected to other trees. 
We may be able to sneak up to one of the unpopulated Lorens and cross over to the one where we were staying, or hire a local to take a message to the monk to meet us on the ground. As far as we know, Somber said, the monk was the one who turned us in. It wasn't, C said, and we don't need to go back to Kor. Dante rubbed his bleary eyes. Is that right? Did you suddenly remember what Selen is? And where we left it? Can't help you there, but I did see a very scared-looking monk fleeing from the soldiers taking you into custody. It occurred to me we might not get another chance to speak to him, so I stopped him. She produced a tiny scroll. He gave me this. Dante grabbed at it, but it was written in third, and the few words he understood made no sense. He handed it to Ast. Ast unrolled the scroll in his palm and scowled at it, as if it had told him his mother enjoyed the company of men who weren't his father. It's an address. Do you recognize it? Is it close? It's one of the biggest cities in Wesley, and it's three hundred miles from here. What's the address, too? Another shrine? Ast handed him the scroll. Beats the hell out of me. Dante burgeoned with curiosity, but he had an even greater need for rest. Despite the damp, the chill, and the snorts of the ponies, he managed to sleep until mid-morning. Before they struck out, he dropped by the inn to let the owner see they were on their way out of Spiron. And then they walked. Then and there, with the immediate need to put Spiron behind them, they had no choice but to continue on foot. After discussing the situation, however, they reached the consensus that they would walk to their new destination. For one thing, they might have enough silver to buy five-plus horses, but they didn't have enough in Spirish currency. For another, even if they wanted to risk dawdling around in a land they'd been banished from, the woods weren't exactly teeming with horses. Or four-legged beasts of burden and or meat of any kind— Dante and the crew ran into the occasional flock of sheep or herd of goats, but for the most part the people found it more fruitful to harvest their trees than to plough fields or maintain herds. The few horses stabled in the Lorens were property of the wealthy, or those whose livelihoods relied on fast travel. So, with the option of revisiting the issue once they crossed into less hostile lands, they made their way forward on foot. The road was well-drained, and they made fine time. The forest continued around them, the rolling hills falling lower with each mile. Was this what you had in mind when you came to Norashtovic? Dante said to see as the afternoon grew late. When I signed up to be your hunter, she said. No, I figured I'd spend all day down in a basement signing papers. You can't be that blasé. Two months ago, we hardly knew this place existed. She gazed up at the trees. I didn't even know Wesley's name. How did you get into a job like this in the first place? Growing up, I spent a lot of time hiding. Once I got older, I found I'd developed a keen insight for where other miserable creatures might try to hide. He watched her sidelong. Often. She laughed through her nose. Sooner or later, aren't we all? Do you think I'm prying? 
We've been working together for a season, and I hardly know a thing about you. I was born in Setevan, she said. Mother died in childbirth. Father died of plague when I was seven. A family friend took me in, but he was killed in a duel less than a year later. Despite winning, the aggrieved party did not feel the death of my foster father was satisfaction enough. He came for the rest of us. With the estate crumbling and my foster brothers being hunted, I wound up in the streets. I was on the streets of Brussel for a while, Dante said, but not until I was sixteen. C was quiet for a moment. Well, I was eight, and a girl, and my adopted name was a death warrant, signed by one of the palace's bluest bloods, and its most bloodthirsty. Sounds like Cassander, he said. She nodded. Wait. It was. I killed him. In the war. I know, C said. Why do you think I wanted to help you find your friend? The pocket-splitting reward. I should feel ashamed for not wanting to starve to death. How did you get through it the first time? Alone, hunted by a powerful man when you were so young? At first I followed dogs. She laughed. I figured they'd know their way around. Then I fell in with kids like myself. We stole food, picked pockets. When we got low, our leader rented us out as servants for days or weeks at a time. She got the money, and we got slices of bread. I was better off with the dogs. Did you have to kill her? Lou said, hushed. C laughed harder than before. Is murder your solution to everything? I ran away. She probably thought I'd died. No one cared either way. There are always more like me, kids with so little they're grateful for anything. You work yourself to the bone for your daily bread. You wake up tomorrow and do it again. Better than sleeping on the street. Than never knowing where your next meal will come from. Of course, when you work like that, you're running in place. And if you ever fall down, you won't have the strength to pick yourself back up. That's what I figured, anyway. For a while after I ran away, I lived mean, thieving. For a while I lurked under the docks and ate the fruit and grain that fell from the boats. Then I started to live smart. I found a notch in the ridges overlooking the palace and grew a secret garden. One day I left my garden and walked down the street of kings. A servant's horse had stumbled, broken a leg. The servant needed to see it, but he needed to deliver a letter immediately. For some reason, I still don't know why, he thought he could trust me. Maybe he saw a young girl, reasonably clean, and thought I'd do whatever I was told. He was wrong about that, but right that he could trust me. Because I saw an opportunity. After years in the streets, I knew the city like I'd built it. I delivered his message faster than he'd have brought it on horseback. He was so grateful, he kept bringing me more and more jobs. I was quicker than the devil, and never got robbed. Servants talk. Word spread. Soon I had more work than I could handle. Eventually, hired a couple other girls to keep up with it. After a few years, I got bored. Traveled, quit being a courier, and started being a hunter. And I always worked for myself. That's the only way. 
Dante looked up. Then why are you so eager to work for me? She pulled down her hood. They'd entered a clearing and the sun was out. When Cassander killed my foster dad and got away without so much as a slap on the wrist, it taught me that we might all live in the same city, but men like him walk in a higher world. Untouchable. If a person up there reaches down to kill a person like me, no one's going to stop them. Unless you attach yourself to someone else from that world. C nodded. It grinds my teeth, but that's how it is. Figured I may as well attach myself to the person who got to Cassander before I could. That's a hell of a story, Dante said. Why didn't you tell me sooner? I didn't want your decision to be colored by sympathy. I wanted you to hire me because I'm the best. She left it at that. When dusk fell, they holed up beneath a juvenile Lauren whose roots were barely spacious enough to accommodate the ponies. Ast swung up into the branches to cut down laurels. Lou scurried around beneath him, trying to catch the fruits before they dashed into the dirt. Three days after their departure from Corl, the forest came to an end. The hills overlooked a long plain. The horizon was crumpled with another range of hills. Patches of the basin were dark green with trees, but these were common firs, nothing like the land they'd just left. Instead, the pastoral scene was much like any in Gask or Malin. Flocks of sheep, small villages, a keep standing watch on a lonely hill. They stopped at a village to sleep in real beds and allow Ast the opportunity to get directions to the city of Ellen. The locals spoke the same language as the people of Spiron, but with an accent that sharpened their vowels into lethal points. When Ast asked the way to Ellen, they looked at him like he'd asked which direction was up. Dante seized the opportunity to work on his Wesleyan and to learn more about the city the monk in Corl had sent them to for answers. Ellen was the capital of the plains region known as Cameron, and its history had echoes of Narashtivik, repeatedly sacked, wrecked, and burned, sometimes to the point where its citizens had considered abandoning it altogether. One woman, who had lived there for many years before retiring to the countryside to farm, proved a bountiful source of information. It sounded like the foundation of Ellen's current prosperity had been laid roughly two centuries ago, when a fiendish series of marriages, trade agreements, and border realignments had converted two enemies into allies, pacified three others, and reduced one foe to ashes. Ellen had experienced ups and downs since then. It sat in the middle of the prairie and had few natural defenses but kept itself intact through aggressive trade and politicking. She had no insight into the address they'd been given, and nothing, she said, stood out as an obvious reason why Ellen would hold the keys to understanding Selen. But with a city that big and that busy, Dante could believe it possessed the wisdom they needed to finally take another step toward their goal. Overnight, a snowstorm blew in, layering the plains with three inches of white. To save wear on themselves and their ponies, they stopped for a night in a middling burg. In the plaza, 
A vendor of beef pasties looked askance at their spirish currency. An eavesdropping merchant offered to swap it, for a minimal fee, for Camrish money, which looked much closer to what Dante was used to, round metal coins, though these had holes punched through the middle. In the smallest denominations, the coins were thin rings. As they increased in value, the holes shrank until they were so small you could hardly pass a string through them. Dante recognized bronze and silver, but was confused by the most valuable, which resembled tin. Ast informed him it was aluminum. They crossed the hills and looked down on a sweep of grassland dotted with lakes and carved up by sluggish streams. Herds of sheep and cows roamed the prairie, cropping the grass that tufted the snow. Many of the beasts were tender to, but others appeared to be wild. After inquiring at another village, Ast hooked south at a crossroads. This connected to a larger, rutted road running eastward, parallel to a wide, languid river. People came and went in both directions. Many of the wagons were laden with lumber, harvested along the river or in Spiron. All of it was bound toward Ellen. For the last two days of their walk, they fell in with one such caravan. Dante thought they'd be less conspicuous arriving in the company of legitimate businessmen. With the plains so flat, Ellen was visible from thirty miles away. At first it was just a dark lump beneath a pall of smoke, but it soon congealed into a typical, if gigantic, city. Makeshift slums around its outer walls. Row houses were visible behind the walls, interrupted by cathedrals, universities, palaces, and a towering coliseum. Most of the larger structures were made from clay bricks or sandstone, but the housing was a mishmash of that and wood. Whatever the materials used, the architecture remained uniform. The homes were squared off with flat roofs. The more elaborate structures employed square or hexagonal towers, frequently with domed caps. While they were still a mile outside it, horns piped from within the walls, blasting from several points across the city. Dante started. The lumber merchants took no notice. Ah, Dante recovered. Sounds like they're heralding our arrival. Lou wrinkled his brow. How would they know? C laughed. Question is, are they horns of celebration or warning? The front gates were a grill of shining brass bars. The city walls were fired brick. Their group was met by guards wearing white and carrying long spears. After a cursory investigation, the guards allowed them into what turned out to be a brief maze. The caravan navigated it easily, emerging through another gate into the city proper. A brick tower faced them across a plaza of pale yellow flagstones. People streamed in and out of the gate and the buildings, ringing the square. Ast had already asked the caravan's members for directions to the note's address, and after exchanging goodbyes, the two groups parted ways. Ast led their party down a side street that linked up with a wide but less frantic avenue. People babbled to all sides. Much of it was in third, 
but a good bit was in tongues Dante didn't understand, including at least three others that sounded like they might be branches of the greater Wesleyan speech tree. After several blocks, the street spilled into a sprawling fruit and vegetable market. Much of the trade was in grain, rice, spices, and other dry goods, but there were also fresh laurels and mounds of citrus in greens, yellows, oranges, and pinks. Most had brown spots on their skins, but they looked edible enough. Ast bought a handful of limes, and spoke with a vendor who explained how to navigate their new environment. Ellen was enormous, and as hodgepodge as all great cities were, yet its main streets were laid out in a vast grid, individually named. Every building was marked by a chest-high stone pillar marked with a numeral and a cardinal direction to tell you which side of the street it was on. They were looking for Iden Street, number 327 East. According to Ast, they were already on the proper street, and now it was a simple matter of following it to the correct address. The brick shop to Dante's right said, number 151 East. The next one up was number 152 East. They continued north. Very quickly, he became myopic to anything but the increase of the numbers. These ticked along in orderly fashion, but now and then one got skipped. He could only guess the address had been absorbed by a neighboring building, or possibly got destroyed long ago in one of Ellen's many raids and wars. Over the next half mile, Several addresses were skipped, missing, and yet, when they reached number 326 and the neighboring building advanced to number 328, Dante was dumbstruck. Number 326 was a private residence. Number 328 was a shop filled with bolts of cotton, silk, and hemp. Ast inquired with the avuncular shopkeeper, who got a puzzled look and informed them there was no number 327 East on Iden Street. Dante had asked to check in at two other businesses across the street, then with three separate street vendors. All agreed there was no such address. They returned to the textile shop and paid off the owner for a thorough inspection upstairs and down. The roof allowed them a good look at the neighboring residence. There was no sign of a hidden address anywhere. Baffled to the core, Dante wandered to the shadow of a sandstone temple. Why would the monk send us to a place that doesn't exist? Ast shook his head. Cities change. Perhaps he hasn't been here in a long time. Maybe, C said, or maybe he meant to send us on a two-tailed fox chase. Then why all the subterfuge? Dante said. Why go to the bother of setting up a midnight meeting that could have landed him in deep shit with the minister? He could have told us any old lie, and we'd have bought it. Lou folded his arms. Could he have written it down wrong? What if it's actually at 372 East or something? This sounded plausible, barely, but Dante was worn out, thirsty, angry, and tired of wrangling the ponies around the crowded streets. Running down the various ways the monk might have transposed the numbers would take hours. He decided to find a stable and an inn and clear his head.
Ast got directions to a place two blocks away. Unlike the monk's address, this inn actually existed. The innkeeper quoted them a knightly price. Ast frowned. Dante had little reference for the cost of things in Ellen, yet the man's price struck him as ludicrous. The man grinned and countered with an offer five percent lower. Dante was good and pissed off, and the ensuing bartering session gave him the opportunity to blow off a great deal of steam. When he made his final offer, the innkeeper laughed, slapped his hand, and offered him two pitchers of free beer. Dante accepted with a smile, feeling an instant camaraderie with the man. It struck him that Ellen's intense focus on commerce might have arisen as a survival strategy. With Ast's assistance, he plumbed the innkeeper for knowledge of the city. The man had lived in Ellen all his life, but couldn't remember there ever being a building on Iden Street designated number 327 East. What exactly are you trying to find? He said. A delicate question, but Dante had already given it thought. Do you have the cellar set here? The River of Stars? The innkeeper pursed his lips. This is a place? It's the House of the Twelve Gods. Their seats in the sky. Thirteen, the man corrected. The thirteen lords of the Broken Circle. Dante needed a bit of help from Ast to translate that, and then to ask and confirm that the thirteen lords were the Wesleyan equivalent of Aron, Tame, Leah, and so on. Are you a priest? the innkeeper said. Dante nodded. I'm from Malin. In my travels I discovered that while the land of Gasque shares many of our beliefs, Gascon accounts of the past differ from ours. After years of inconclusive research, I've come to Wesley to see if your stories can help guide me to the truth. You've come to the right place. Ellen is famed around the world for its scholarship. Dante felt no compunction to let the man know that in Malin and Gasque, Ellen wasn't famed to exist, let alone be a hotbed of learning. Where would I go to learn more? The man immediately rattled off half a dozen of what, judging by the fact Dante couldn't understand any of them, he assumed were proper names. But the first place I'd go is the Stole of the Winds. They're proud of their wisdom and eager to exchange it with others. Dante asked for and asked transcribed the very thorough directions that followed. The innkeeper lingered a moment to ensure there was nothing more, then went to slap hands and exchange loud greetings with another patron. I don't know why the monk sent us here, Dante said. Maybe we're being misled, or maybe we haven't searched hard enough yet. By the way, Ellen is big, and we can move openly. I think we can find knowledge of our past here. You're the boss, Somber said dryly. Perhaps we could divide our labor to hasten the search. I need us to translate. Somber shrugged. I speak well enough to get around on my own. Can I go with you to the stall? Blue said. It sounds fascinating. C flicked the rim of her beer cup. That's not in the top thousand words I'd use to describe it. Because you don't have a thousand words in your vocabulary. She stared him down, then laughed and waved her hand. Enjoy your temple. I'm going with Somba. 
Fine, Dante said. Samba, if anything happens, you know how to reach me. That got strange looks from Aston C., a brief nod from Somber, and a look of smug wisdom from Lou. Dante wasn't tempted to explain. The loons were still a highly guarded secret. Now that he thought about it, he wasn't certain they'd work. He and Somber didn't have a direct connection. Rather, they had to pass messages back and forth through Nack, who was hundreds of miles away in Narashtovic. Since the loons were bound by shared nether, they could, theoretically, work from any distance, but Dante had never tested them at this range, nor when there was a colossal mountain range separating his loon from its twin. As soon as Somber and C were on their way, Dante went to the back of the inn on the pretext of using the water closet. Once he was alone in the dim, cool hallway, he activated his loon and pulsed Nack. My goodness, Nack said. Do I even want to ask where you are right now? Dante chuckled. The city of Ellen, capital of Cameron, one of the superlative territories of the amalgamated kingdom of Wesley. Is there anything more boring than the name of a place you'll never visit? The appendices of the cycle? Hearing a footstep, Dante glanced behind him, but the hallway was empty. Let Ollivander know that progress is slow, but I remain optimistic we'll land our fish. Are we speaking in code now? <clears throat> the raven watches the plane. Glad it's found employment. Will you loon somber and confirm we're capable of exchanging messages? We just split up. Nack allowed that he would do so and dropped the link. A moment later, Dante's loon pulsed. Nack had successfully made contact with somber. By the way, Nack said, there was another burst of lights in the Wodens a couple weeks ago. And your friend from the mountains, Vinson, he says a party of strangers passed through Saul not long after you did. They claimed they were pilgrims from Yalin, but Vinson got a look inside one of their pouches and saw a letter sealed with mulligan's wax. Dante dropped his voice to a whisper. The king knows about Selen. Given the accepted definition of the word no, we don't know about Selin. Thus, I doubt Modigan knows what he's after. But we can assume he knows there might be something worth aftering for. Good thing we sent our finest spy to another country. What would you like me to do about this? Ollivander's monitoring the situation, Nack said, unworried as ever. Just thought you'd like to know. Dante shut off the loon. Back in the common room, he gathered up Ast and Lou and hit the streets. Sunlight dazzled from the jaundiced bricks. A pleasant wind blew through town. It had to be nearly fifty degrees out, easily the warmest it had been since they'd crossed the Wodens. He couldn't say if the profusion of people in the streets was a product of the weather, or if it was always this busy in Ellen. Many of the residents wore drooping white cotton that resembled a fitted version of a monk's robes. They wore scarves around their heads or mouths, bright with the colors of flame. Red, orange, yellow. There were a great deal of foreigners, too, including a healthy minority of spirish dressed in their loose, earth-toned garb with cinched ankles and wrists. Maybe it was the steady wind or the open prairie on all sides, 
but it didn't smell as bad as most cities. Some animal dung, but that was largely overwhelmed by the profusion of vegetables, perfumes, and spices on display on every block, along with the racks of meat, onions, and garlic being grilled in every plaza. He'd never seen a more grill-happy place. He would have to find time to take advantage of it. They had an address for the stole of the winds, but hardly needed it. Dozens of orange banners fluttered from the rim of its round roof. It stood a hundred feet high, its outer layer faced with a vertical brick herringbone pattern, dizzying to look at. Each floor was separated by solid blocks of sandstone carved with freezers. The front doors stood open. Inside, the vestibule was lit by narrow windows, redolent of incense, Ast informed a passing monk they were foreigners seeking the wisdom of the lords of the broken circle. Could he help them? The monk smiled and padded into the depths of the stole. As a convert to the path of Aron, which would get him beaten or hanged in his homeland, Dante felt vaguely uncomfortable strolling into an alien church to chew the fat with its priests. But the man who strolled out to meet them was all smiles— he wore airy cotton robes, and his head was shaved. His lack of hair, his tan, and the crinkles around his smiling eyes made it difficult to gauge his age. But he had to be close to sixty. He introduced himself as Mikkel, and took them up two flights to a small room with a balcony overlooking the street. Dante explained what he'd told the innkeep. Sometimes he needed asked to clarify certain words or concepts, but he was finding himself more and more comfortable with the Wesleyan language. When he finished, the priest chuckled like a purring cat. If Gask's stories are different than Mullen's, and Wesley's stories are different from Gask's, how will you be any closer to the truth? Won't you just be more confused? That depends on how much sense your stories make, Dante said. The man laughed some more. If they made sense, why would the world need people like me to interpret them? Dante smiled. Perhaps because the truths are so simple, people distrust them. The priest glanced about, as if for eavesdroppers, and leaned forward. Personally, I think we contort the words of the gods to ensure we stay in business. Don't tell. He found it impossible not to like the bald old man. I understand your people believe in something called the Thirteen Lords of the Broken Circle. This raises two questions. Both would be answered by the cycle of Geron. Dante checked with Ast to make sure he understood. The cycle of Geron? Indeed. To a man of your background, it is exactly as blasphemous as it sounds. You know the cycle of Aron? How? Mikkel leaned forward and pressed his palms together. Because, depending on your point of view, our book corrects it, or perverts it. All of this was so interesting, Dante temporarily set aside all concerns of Selen. So you've read both? The priest nodded. Unlike most people with an opinion on the matter, which means I disagree that Jaron is either a correction or a perversion— that would present Aron as the first text, 
an authority Jaron is responding to. But Jaron doesn't merely pick up where Aron leaves off. Instead, they diverge from a common trunk, two forks of the same tree, not father and offspring, but siblings. How long ago did the two accounts diverge? Not as easy to determine as you might expect. Because the cycle, of Aron, I mean, isn't chronological, nor is Jaron. And certain older elements of Aron were decanonized for Jaron, while other passages that weren't included in yours were made canon in ours. This makes the divergence among the most hotly debated fields of study. Mikkel eyed him. Conservatives generally agree one book became two about four hundred years ago. Credible written accounts stretch back that far. More radical scholars, however, placed the date a millennium in the past, or further. Dante needed quite a lot of help from Ass to work through all this. Once he understood, he gave Mikko a quizzical look. I must say, for a priest, you discuss this very... openly. The man shrugged, white cotton robe shifting on his shoulders. It's not like this everywhere in Wesley. If your journeys take you elsewhere, remember your version of the truth is heresy. Naturally. As for myself, I consider our truth strong enough to withstand interrogation. Furthermore, given the confusing history of our holiest book, isn't it our duty to explore its past? If we don't know where it came from, how can we hope to understand it? Do you have a spare copy of Jaron? Dante said. Many. We prefer them not to leave the stole, but if you'd like to take one, we only require that you make a donation to cover the costs of transcription. I don't suppose you have one in Gaskin, or Malish. We may have a translation, but it would take time to copy. Would you like a Wesleyan version in the meantime? Very much, Dante said. Can you tell me about the schism? Can't wait to read it for yourself. Mikkel laughed. He glanced out the window at the sky. I can give you the condensed version. Many, many years ago, two tribes occupied the land, the Ration and the Elson. These two were similar enough that some believe they were once the same. A belief I share, though now is not the time to explore why. Both were devoutly loyal to Aron, so much so that they became rivals for his favor. They offered him feasts, sacrifices, named holidays in his honor. Yet no matter how hard they tried, he gave them no sign which tribe he held in greater esteem. In time, they began to fight, thinking this would prove who he loved more. At first, this took the form of champions in single combat, but as more warriors died and Aron stayed silent, the tribe's rivalry descended into hatred. Soon they were at war. Within a generation, both tribes stood on the brink of the end. Before they could destroy themselves completely, Aron finally made himself known. Because the Elson had struck last, 
and, I believe, to terrorize the people into never fighting such a war again, he ruined them utterly. Floods, fires, quakes. In his wrath, the storms lasted for years, erasing all sight of the Elsen. Yet they persisted, because Aron's daughter, Jaren, believed he was wrong to eradicate those who loved him. With the circle of heaven's promise broken, she led the Elsen in secret to another land, east of the Wodens, and while the people knew better than ever of Aron's true might, they had also learned better than to worship strength. Now they honored wisdom, and Jaren was its brightest light. Mikkel fell silent. While Dante was able to follow most of this, He'd required Ast's help with the more obscure words, and so the telling of the story had taken longer than it might have. As Dante began his first question, brass horns blared from the top of the stole of the winds, echoed by others across the city. Duty calls, Mikkel said. Please see me again once you've had time to absorb our book for yourself. In the meantime... I will see if we have a translation in one of your native tongues. He smiled, rose, and bowed. Dante returned the gesture. A monk waited just outside the door. He led Dante, asked and a dazed Lou downstairs, and presented Dante with a copy of The Cycle of Geron. Its cover was blue, and bore an icon of a white circle broken by a wedge of nothing. The monk showed them outside. Dante stopped on the steps. The streets were packed with people, but none of them seemed in a hurry. In fact, they were all seated or in the process of sitting down, talking, laughing, passing small plates of food back and forth. Part of him wanted to find out what was going on, but a much hungrier part wanted to return to the inn and read. He headed down the steps and toward the inn, keeping close to the buildings. They drew many looks, some curious, a few hostile. These people are mad, Lou whispered. They look peaceful enough to me, Dante said. Not them, Lou gestured back at the stove. Them, for thinking something differently than we do. Then everyone outside Gask is a raving lunatic, as are many Gascons. To be on the safe side, you'd better not leave Narashtevik. Hell, you'd probably better never leave your room. Don't tell me you believe what he said. Did you hear what was at the heart of Mikkel's story? Dante stepped around a blanket, held down by a dozen gabbing people. Aron doesn't need our uninterrupted praise. He keeps himself at a remove, where he has the best perspective to judge. We'd be wise to look to him for inspiration. As they walked, several groups invited them to sit down and share their meal, but Dante feigned an inability to understand, shaking his head and smiling blandly. He and the others were still wearing their spirish garb, and this seemed to exempt them from whatever mass ritual was taking place. They got to the inn. Out front, the innkeeper waved to them, seated among a gaggle of people whose dress marked them as being from all corners of the land. 
Dante almost walked past, but the innkeeper got up and stood in his path, gesturing to their blanket. What's happening? Dante said. Is this a holiday? The man cocked his head. It's sit. Now sit. It seemed important, and it was never a bad idea to get on the good side of the one providing your food and bed, so he sat on the blanket and was treated to rice-stuffed grape leaves, apricot tarts, and a thorough explanation of sit, a twice-daily ritual where the entire city dropped whatever it was doing to encamp in the streets, share a snack, and catch up with each other. This struck Dante as a big waste of time, but the locals spoke of the people who didn't follow the custom with the same air of disapproval you'd use to discuss someone who made a habit of going to the market without wearing pants. Half an hour after the afternoon sit began, and mere minutes after Dante had joined it, a blue flag was hoisted from the stole down the street. People stood, dusted themselves off, waved goodbye, and picked their business up where it had left off. Dante climbed up to his room and threw himself into his new book. Though he found it much simpler to read a foreign language than to speak it, speech was a mangled mush, but reading let you concentrate on each word. The diction of the cycle of Jaron didn't exactly match the colloquial speech of modern Wesleyans. Even Ast struggled with it. They hadn't gotten far by the time Somber and C returned from the street. Any progress? C said. Dante marked his place and held up the book. They use a different cycle. It diverged from ours a long time back. I'm hoping its history includes mention of Selen. Once I'm a little better versed with it, I'll go back to speak to the priest again. I see. Got a minute to try something else? It could take days of reading before he felt well-versed enough in Geron to go back to Mikkel. To Dante, that just meant he had less time to spare. The thought of sacrificing any of it curdled him with annoyance. Is this something Somba could take care of? He said. You're better at it, Somba said. If this is as delicate as I think it is, I'd rather not compromise our chances of success. That was cryptic and paranoid, but then again, it was somber. Dante set down the book. Success at what? Here. C handed him a rat. It was dead, though not obviously so. Follow me. He slung his cloak over his shoulders and followed her downstairs. What's going on? We need eyeballs, attached to something less conspicuous than a person. Getting the picture, he drew on the nether and sent it flowing into the rat. It twitched in his pocket. He sent his sight to its, just to test the link, and got a big eyeful of nothing. He frowned, directed it to stick its head out of his pocket, then tried again. His sight leapt downward, showing a blank sandstone wall. After a couple of turns, C stopped in front of an unmarked door. Leave it here. He set the rat on the ground. C went inside the door and took a back staircase to the roof of the building. She hunched down and moved to the knee-high wall enclosing the roof. Three stories below, the cramped street was almost pitch black. You see that doorway? She whispered, 
pointing across the way. Next time someone goes through it, send the rat in after them. What's this about? We could spend hours up here until someone goes through it. Wrong, Somber murmured. One of them is coming now. He ducked below the retaining wall. Dante followed suit, then delved into the rat's vision. A woman walked down the alley, hands in pockets of her loose white trousers. She stopped in front of the door C had indicated. Dante edged the rat closer. The woman unlocked the door and moved inside. The rat skittered after her into a tight, dark room. It tucked itself into a corner. The woman closed the door and stood in silence. After pausing several seconds, she opened the cover of the lantern she'd been carrying, bathing the room in a weak light. She moved to a frieze on the wall. A line of round, white pebbles bordered it top and bottom. She touched one of the bottom stones, then the one to its right, then the one to its left. A soft, grinding noise sounded from below. A hole opened in the floor as a stone panel swung away into the darkness. The woman stepped onto the ladder down. What the hell? Dante said on the roof. What? C said. Quiet, it's my turn to be mysterious. The woman shrank from sight, a rung at a time. As soon as her head dropped beneath floor level, Dante sent the rat in after her. It clung tight to the ladder's side. The lantern bobbed on the woman's hip, shining onto a platform a few feet further down. She stepped onto it, reached for a rope, looped around a pulley, and cranked the stone panel back into place above her head. A stone staircase descended from the platform. Dante let the woman get a head start, then sent the rat down after her. Sand gritted beneath its paws. The rat's perspective made it difficult to tell for sure, but after what felt like about three flights of stairs, the creature scampered out into a dim cavern. And not a natural one. The floor was paved with bricks. Sand lay thick in their cracks and seams. Buildings loomed in the darkness, looking terribly ancient yet well-preserved. But what drew his eye was the address posts in front of each one. He withdrew his sight from the rat and grinned at sea. I think you found our missing building. Chapter 20 The first thing Blaze did was yell at the fish. The second thing he did was wonder if fish had ears. The third thing he did was take a deep breath and swim as fast as he could toward the grinder and the snail it was busy harassing. The fish was so intent on its would-be meal that it didn't notice him until he was within three feet. It floated to the side, regarding him without fear. He reached for the snail, careful of its spines, and pulled. It stuck to the rock, then popped free. The grinder darted in for a bite. Blaze swiped at it with his spear. It darted back, hovering out of reach, then turned its tail and flashed away. He kicked upward toward the waning light. Something brushed his hand. He jerked it back, and the snail spun from his grip, wobbling toward the ocean floor. Blaze shouted out, bubbles flowing past his face, and brought up his foot, catching the snail on the flat of his fin. 
He snatched it up and surfaced, holding it aloft. Is this it? He said. Please, please tell me this is it. Min's grin burst across her face. You are currently holding a Kelevert. I am? Now what do I do with it? Well, I would either kill it or bring it to shore before it stings you. At that, he almost dropped it again. For the moment, however, it had sucked itself into its shell. He paddled towards land, keeping both eyes pinned on it for any sign of fangs, stingers, or proboscis. Keeping both eyes pinned on it for any sign of fangs, stingers, or proboscis. His fin kicked sand. He found his footing and slapped ashore, holding the kelevert away from his body. What's next? he said. Do some sort of blessing? An incantation? Or do we wait for Roe to come and cast the spell? Min eyed him. She reached into the oiled leather pouch she carried with her at all times and removed a hooked knife and a delicately curved spoon. She took the snail from him and jabbed it with the knife. A bit of fluid dribbled to the sand. She let a few moments pass, then jabbed the knife inside the shell and soared in a circle. She removed the knife, inserted the spoon, and withdrew a slimy mass of snail and guts. She held it out to him. Chow down. He tapped his thumbnail against his teeth. Is this really necessary? This is what the people do. Does it help connect you to the power of the shell? Could be. It will certainly help you remember this moment. He moved an inch closer to the damp tube of goo she was offering him. What about its venom? Harmless when ingested. It's only dangerous when it stings you. He still couldn't tell if she was joking, but there was only one way to find out. He pinched the tail of the de-shelled snail, tipped back his head, and dropped it in his mouth. He'd intended to swallow it whole, but it was now obvious that would choke him to death. He chomped down, slashing his jaw back and forth to shear it in half. Salt water and bitter juice filled his mouth. He chewed quickly, got half down, gagged, decided gagging was better than holding the rest of it in his mouth for any longer, and swallowed. That'll freshen your breath, he said, eyes watering. How about a celebratory kiss? She looked disgusted, then decided this was hilarious. Well done. Even if it took you until the very last moment, we were here. Yes, it was a true display of skills, paddling about in the ocean until I happened on one at random. Finding a kelevet might not be a skill, she admitted, but persistence is. Where do you come up with all these pearls of wisdom? By lazing around in the ocean all day, obviously. He thought there might be some ritual to finalize things, or seal the shell to him, or what have you, but Min dried off, dressed, and headed toward the cabin. There she cleaned out the shell and rubbed it with a cloth. While she did this, he built up a fire, then sat back from the flames. Now what? She fixed him with a look of great significance. Now, you make dinner. He thought this was unfair given that he was a victorious champion and all, but he was hungrier than the grinder had been. 
he cooked up some fish they'd caught at dawn. I suppose you want to get right to it, Min said once they'd finished their meal. It had crossed my mind. There's something to be said for anticipation. Waiting only makes things stale and moldy. He moved to the table and picked up the empty shell. It was heavy, solid. His feelings toward it were the confused ambivalence he felt after slaying a worthy foe on the battlefield, elation for his triumph, but sadness that such a rare creature had been removed from the world. I'm tired. We can wait until tomorrow. But can you at least tell me how it works? She stood and moved beside him, considering the shell. In many ways, I have no idea whatsoever. Here's what we do know about the Kelevert. It's a scavenger, one that prefers its dead fresh. So does the Nether. Wolves and buzzards eat carrion too, but I've never heard of a sorcerer lusting after their bones. For that matter, I've spent long enough staring into tide pools to know that crabs eat dead junk all day too. But they eat mere flesh. The Kelevert seems to feed on not only the meat, but also on the nether drawn to it. Why? Blaze drew back his head. Don't tell me they're snails with sorcerous powers. Not that I've seen, she said, amused. I can't tell you why they do it, or how they alone, of all the creatures that we know about, do so. All I can tell you is they seem to store it in their shells. If you have one of those shells, you can draw on what they've collected. Yeah, but the shadows are in everything, right? Why don't I just go pick up a rock and draw on its nether? You could, but it wouldn't give you much to work with. It's vastly more concentrated in the shells. Makes sense, I guess. He turned the shell over in his hand. So why does it work best for the person who found it? I have no idea, Blaze. I'm not an expert on the supernatural qualities of aquatic snails. Just trying to understand. Wonderful. Meanwhile, in the practical realm, you lack the ability to generate power. This will provide a source of it for you. With any luck, by observing how it provides that power, you'll learn to draw on more of it for yourself. He tapped one of the spines. Thank you for having the patience to field my endless questions. She smiled wryly. Maybe I'm frustrated that I don't know all the answers. One of the others might know more. They're older than I am, you know. He shot up his eyebrows. I hadn't noticed. She grabbed his collar and pulled his shirt over his face. He clutched the shell tight, careful not to drop it until the assault was over. Prowling the waters until the last of the light had taken a lot out of him, and he slept later than intended, waking mid-morning. Min served him breakfast. After he helped clean out the house, for what good it would do, by the next time the people of the pocket came here, weather and animals would have rendered it filthy again. Once this was done, they carried their few belongings down to the beach. Min spotted the boat first, pointing out its sail. A couple hours later, the outcast ground into the sand. Rose stood at its front, gazing down at him. Blaze held up the shell. 
You found one. She sent her focus winging to the shell's curls. It's a good one. Thanks. He glanced at Min, expecting a ceremony to ensue. She passed her gear up to the ship and clambered aboard. He did the same. On the ride back to the cove, he did some mental poking around in the shell. It was indeed a storehouse of nether. The shadows came to him like eager puppies. He looked around for Min, but she was off talking to Ro. He didn't want to get ahead of himself before she had the chance to show him how the Kelevert actually worked, so he limited his explorations. Yet by the time they'd landed on the sands of Pocket Cove, he'd already discovered how to integrate the shell's stored nether into the cycle of the four seasons. He hopped down, helped unload, then splashed over to Min. Ready to put me through my paces? How about tomorrow? What plans could be more important than me? Ro wants to see to my leg, she said. Okay, you found the one thing more important. He couldn't help glancing down at it. Back on Koa, she'd claimed it no longer hurt, but she was still limping. She went inside the caves with Ro and the others. Blaze wandered down to the tide pools to practice with his shell. After spending the last two weeks with her, usually separated by no more than a dozen yards, it felt strange to be alone again. Well, there were upsides, too, like doing things you weren't supposed to. He sat down on the rocks and drew a sharpened shell down the back of his left arm. Blood welled from the scratch. Nether leapt from the tide pool. He shaped it into a ball, moved his focus to its center, then reached into the shell. The grape-sized ball of shadows expanded to an apple, then a melon. Blaze laughed. As the darkness neared his face, he flinched, expecting it to be as cold as the sea, but he felt nothing at all. His sight winked off, enveloped by total darkness. He fooled around with this until the sky was as dark as the shadowsphere, then went to the caves to eat and sleep. In the morning, he was eager to show Min what he'd learned, but he didn't see her. Two days later, on his way back from hauling water from the falls, he spotted her walking along the sand. Where'd your limp go? he said. Did Rose scare it away? Min's look was unreadable. Don't patronize me. She did the best she could, but it will always be there. It really does look much better. How do you feel? I'm perfectly fine. She frowned at him. Do you feel guilty? I chose to take you to Koa. Because I'm so crummy at this, I needed the help of a magic snail. Pocket Cove may be safe, but I'm happy to expose myself to the world and its dangers when I get the chance. I'm glad we went. The cost could have been far greater. A smile lifted to the corner of her mouth. Now show me what you've learned. Blaze glanced down shore toward the pools. Have you been spying on me? I don't need to spy to know you'd be too impatient to wait for me. How Dare you know me so well? He laughed, then put on a sly look. I might have picked up a new trick or two. I'll show you mine if you show me yours. For the sake of your health, I hope you're referring to my leg. Nope. 
I want to see you shadow walk. I was wondering when you'd ask. She held her arms out from her sides. Don't blink. She smiled and vanished. Blaze not only blinked, he stumbled back a step, bonking his shoulder into something solid. He whirled and faced empty space. Something tapped his other shoulder. He spun around, but nothing was there either. Min's laughter pealed from the air. She materialized in front of him. Okay, now it's time for you to drop your pants, metaphorically speaking. Holy shit! How did you do that? How do you think? I know, I know, years of practice, he said. So can you walk through walls? Min shook her head. Bro, maybe. I'm not sure. I think she gets a kick out of keeping her abilities so mysterious we're willing to believe she can do anything. This is how you stay hidden, isn't it? If Modigan launched an armada to come slaughter you, you wouldn't see a single soul. Meanwhile, you'd be fighting not to giggle. More or less. Though he has sorcerers of his own. Harder to hide from them. Right. Well, I'm going to need you to teach me this. Immediately. Before she could object, he opened his palm and expanded a pebble of nether until the sphere enveloped his whole body. He dropped his focus, and the darkness snapped away. Min was smiling. So, our weeks on the island weren't a waste. Now that he had a supply of nether and an idea of how to work it, they made good progress. Relatively speaking, anyway. It took multiple days of practice before he was able to create and manipulate shadow spheres at a distance from himself. It seemed pretty elementary. He wasn't doing anything more than making the Nether's darkness visible to others, and blowing it into a big old ball. The physical world remained untouched. To test his abilities, she showed him two other things the Nether did naturally. Hurting and healing. Blaze proved skilled at neither. Min reminded him that he had already advanced further and faster than most people were capable of, and suggested he continue to practice both abilities. If nothing else, failing at them might help him understand how to do other things better. That night, he exhausted himself with practice. Yet before dawn, he found himself half awake. The animal side of his brain was listening to the rasp of feet out in the hallway. It was very quiet, but that just made his mind more alert to it. So did the fact the steps were slightly irregular. Now fully awake, at least his eyes were open, his bladder began to compete for his attention. He pulled on his shoes and cloak and went outside. It was still dark out. Moonlight shined on the foam of the waves. Not far up the beach, a woman walked to the north. Her silhouette was familiar, but the slight limp confirmed it. He quickly went about his business, then moved to the cliffs and hugged the shadows. He was not surprised when Min entered the enclosed stairwell, up to the fingers. In the tight rock walls, Noise echoed explosively, and he had to wait until her footsteps placed her near the top before he dared follow her in. He jogged up lightly. At the exit, 
He poked up his head and peered into the fog sifting through the fingers. No sign of her. He wandered east and soon heard her murmuring with a man. Like the previous encounter, he hung back. This time, when she wrapped up her conversation and started back toward the stairs, Blaze popped out from behind a rocky column. What the hell? she yelled. Let's get this out of the way. Yes, I was spying on you. And what the fuck makes you think you have the right to do that? Because you've been sneaking around and lying to me for months? He stepped forward. What's going on? Are you having forbidden relations, Min? Her mouth fell open. That's my brother. So, forbidden in several senses. Are you jealous? I'm not a fan of being kept in the dark by people who are supposed to be my friends. It's nothing you need to be worried about. I like to keep up with what's happening in our homeland, that's all. She glanced toward the beach below. You can't tell Ro. We're not supposed to have contact with outsiders, and they're certainly not supposed to be coming up to the fingers. You've been seeing a lot of him, Blaze said. Is everything all right out there? Her eyes skipped between his. Hard to say. I might not be able to bend the nether if I had a crowbar, but when it comes to intrigue, I've got a lifetime of experience. Why don't you tell me what's going on? She took a long breath and let out a longer sigh. I grew up in Galador. My brother still lives there. We don't hear much from the outside world at Pocket Cove, but even I know that in the last few years, Galador has seen more than its fair share of turmoil. Blaze quickly nodded for her to continue. He had been a significant source of that turmoil, and did not want to feel tempted to divulge that. They've managed to hang on, she said. They're resourceful people who view setbacks as a new challenge, but over the last few months, things have been... If he's coming to you for help, it's got to be extraordinary circumstances. Right. She shook her head sharply. But there's nothing I could do about it, even if I wanted. Because you can't leave the pocket. What will they do to you if you take an unauthorized vacation? At best, my Lee would be left in tatters. It would take years of drudge work before I was trusted enough to continue my own training. At worst, they would throw me out. Banish me. He scratched his cheek. So why not tell Ro you're taking me outside for another lesson? Her eye gleamed. I couldn't lie to her. She'd know. Galador's not so far away. We get there in a couple days, check things out, then run back home. Why would you offer? This doesn't concern you. It concerns you. Therefore it concerns me. He reached for her arm, but didn't touch it. Min, fixing odd problems is what I do. I'm something of an expert. You've put your life on hold to teach my bungling ass. The least I can do is help you solve whatever's bedeviling your family. She grimaced at the mist drifting between the pillars. Maybe you're just restless. Think what you like, he said, but do think about it. He headed downstairs. She didn't follow. He was wide awake, so he returned to his practice at the pools, 
throwing shadow spheres over befuddled crabs. When he tired of that, he tried to use the nether to hack muscles from the rocks, but the shadows bounced away harmlessly. It was like he couldn't draw them into the real world, or hone what he could sharp enough to leave a mark. He tried to recall his earliest days with Dante, when they'd been kids on the run, and Dante was just learning to harness the nether. Despite being self-taught, Dante had picked it up as easily as Blaze might pick up a rock. Compared to his own travails, it was beyond exasperating. Let's do it, Min said from behind. He slipped on the rock and splashed halfway into the tide pool. He sat up, spitting salt. Liar's balls, make some noise next time, will you? Did you hear me? I said let's go. Wonderful, let me go pack. He glanced about himself. What do you know? I'm already wearing everything I own. Excellent. She turned to go. Aren't you going to tell me what this is about? First, I have to get approval for another voyage. I'll tell Roe your studies were stimulated by the last trip. She wrinkled her nose. They're probably going to think this is cover for a tryst. Blaze chuckled. How would that affect your Lee? Given my choice of partners, Roe will probably suggest we go to a live volcano this time. He went back to the caves to clean up and get together a few things. He'd just finished when Min came to his room to let him know they'd been approved to travel to a small island a few miles to the north. To avert suspicion, they'd paddle that way in an outrigger, then swing back to shore, cross the fingers, and beeline to Galador. If they hustled, they had enough time left in the day to plausibly shove off and reach the island before dark. The people docked most of their boats south of the tide pools in a lagoon and the caves that surrounded it. Blaze and Min jogged to the inlet and hauled an outrigger from a cave into the placid water. No one was there to oversee the boats. The only people who lived here were the people. None would think about taking a boat without authorization, or an emergency too severe to seek it. He and Min loaded food, spare clothes, and camp gear into the canoe, then shoved off. The outrigger yawed over the surf, rising up and splashing down. They fought past it, and Min turned north to run parallel to shore. The boat seemed to skim over the water. Blaze glanced across the sands. A couple of women were out to gather food or take in some fresh air, but no one paid them much mind. The boat was as thin as an arrow and sliced through the water like it had been fired from a longbow. They quickly left the caves behind. An island hung a few miles to the northwest. Men continued to cut north. As the sun neared the water, dazzling and red, she swung back to shore. We'll stash it here, she said. Help me haul it in before anyone sees. The smooth wooden hull ground against the sand. Blaze hopped out and dragged it clear of the waves. It was plenty heavy, but it was built to move. Between the two of them, they lugged it all the way to the cliff face. Min gestured. Keep watch a minute. He nodded and jogged a hundred feet south. Min bent over the wall of the cliff. 
After a couple of minutes, she beckoned broadly, gesturing him back to where she had opened a long, slender cave in the wall. They shoved the canoe inside. Min went still, concentrating, and sealed it behind a thin layer of rock. They built a small cairn to mark the spot, memorized a nearby spa that stuck from the cliffs, then headed north, where Min promised there was another staircase. According to her, while there was never more than one leading from outside up to the fingers, there were several connecting the beach to the plateau. Escape routes if the people ever needed to retreat and hide. She located it a few minutes later, checked it for people, then headed up. The fingers were as quiet as ever. Once they were safely concealed in the fog, the shore lost behind them, Blaze slowed down and spread his palms. Ever gonna tell me about this mission? Min bit her lip, striding over a puddle of mud. It's confusing. Then start talking. I'll let you know when I stop understanding. My uncle has a vast library, she said. It's full of oddities. Histories, legends, accounts of the occult. Many of the books in it are original manuscripts. Some never saw a second copy. I used to spend whole days in there reading one tome after another. She laughed. Come to think of it, that's probably why I wound up here. I got so ensorcelled by stories of warlocks, heroes, and demons that I decided to become one. One of the nicer ones, though. Until I'm not. She smiled. Uncle Denny's library is private, but sometimes he opens it to collectors, dealers, or scholars. A few months ago, a woman asked to see it. She said she was from Narashtavik, and... What does she look like? I don't know, I wasn't there. He bowed an apology. Please go on. Under his supervision, he allowed her to have a look around. She was immediately interested in a book called The Almanac of the Seasons of Heaven. Uncle Denny was surprised. It's one of the oldest books in his collection, which he researches like a fiend. But no one has ever asked him about it before. She wanted to buy it. The offer was outrageous, but my uncle is already rich, and with his curiosity piqued, he demurred. Three days later, she doubled her offer. And tripled his suspicions. Min nodded. He doesn't like selling anyway, would rather trade for other books, but he began to think there might not be anything worth trading the almanac for. He refused again. A few weeks after that, while he was traveling, his home was broken into. The library was ransacked, but when he reshelved it and compared it to his inventory, not one book was missing. Blaze rubbed the back of his neck. Because he'd already hidden the almanac in a vault? He wasn't that canny. He'd brought it to a scholar to try to learn more about it. But yes, it wasn't in the house. After the break-in, he knew better than to leave it lying around. Curious stuff. But unless there's another leg to this story, I wouldn't think a failed book heist would be enough to draw you out of the pocket. Not at all, she said. But when they couldn't steal the book, they stole my cousin instead. Kidnapped him? Over a book? My brother came here as fast as he could. My uncle is ready to hit the warpath. But if the woman is from Narashtavik... 
Then the only way to fight her is to bring in another Nephomancer. Blaze trudged up a short rise of rock. Or just give them the book. Uncle Denny would, in a heartbeat. But they haven't asked for the book. They haven't contacted him at all. If it were as simple as that, I would have left with my brother on the spot. Well, whatever's going on, it sounds like the sort of thing Roe would understand you need to go deal with. Min laughed wryly. When we come to the pocket, we leave the outworld behind. All of it. Our pasts, our homes, our families. The mere fact I've kept in contact with mine would be enough to ruin my Lee. And your reputation's more important to you than your family? I made a choice to leave my old family, she said, but I could never bear the thought of leaving my family at Pocket Cove. That was all the information she had. Blaze wasn't sure what she'd told him was enough to risk running afoul of Roe. On the other hand, if they were caught, he expected men would be granted much more mercy than he would. Anyway, it didn't matter what kind of risk he faced. He owed it to Min. She'd taken him in when he'd had nowhere else to go. Dusk fell while they were still in the middle of the fingers, but staying there for the night meant risking discovery at the hands of anyone patrolling the border between Pocket Cove and the Outlands. Unable to use a light, they were forced to slow their pace, picking their way across the slippery rock. As they stepped down a natural shelf of stone, he slipped in the mud. He went down hard, ankle-buckling. Somehow he managed not to scream. Min dropped down beside him. Nether swarmed. His leg numbed, went warm. He rolled his ankle around and felt a sharp twinge. Hang on, she warned. He did so. She was a skilled nethermancer, and he knew his leg would be fine in a moment. He'd gotten so used to working with a miracle maker, however, that he found himself impatient when it took her more than a moment to get him back on his feet. When he tested his ankle, there was the mere ghost of pain. They trudged on, but it took two hours to cross the fingers and turn south to the stairwell to the plains. They descended from the mist. Clouds streaked the dark sky, but the grassy ground was firm. They walked on, wanting to be out of sight of the fingers, before pitching camp. Around midnight, with a wedge of a moon sailing toward the west, they hunkered down on the far side of a short hill to sleep. Sunrise showed a world Blaze hadn't seen in weeks. Even the air felt different sharper and drier. On the coast, the light glowed like something from another world, but here it was hard and stark. The air was colder, too. The ocean kept the cove a steady temperature, day or night. On the prairie, the grass glittered with frost. But it felt good. He figured they had about a four-day walk to the lakes, then they'd catch the fastest boat they could find to the city of Wending, where Min's uncle lived. Assigned the same amount of time for the return trip, and that reduced their available time in Galador to five or six days. Min must have been having similar thoughts. She surprised him by starting the day at a jog. Sure, that's a good idea, he said. My body will let me know if it isn't. 
she was able to jog a few miles at a stretch before slowing to walk. A couple miles later, she resumed jogging. If a shark ever ate part of him, Blaze resolved to go see Roe first thing. By the end of the day, the mountains of Galador Rift were a blue smear on the eastern horizon. On the second day, they reached the foothills, lush rises of bamboo and shrubbery. The third day saw them cross the pass. A vast lake shined below. Farms terraced the slopes. Though it was still winter, the smell of tea bushes hung in the air. It was dark by the time they descended to a town on the shores of the western lake, but men headed straight to the docks and hired passage on one of the taxi galleys that serviced the lakes. She had nothing resembling money, yet the fare seemed no problem for her. The splash of the oars carried through the darkness. Lanterns drifted over the lake, hung from the prows of other vessels. The galley ploughed straight toward a bank of cliffs, separating one lake from the next, slipped into the channel connecting them, then swung southeast. Across the lake, lights shined from wending. As they approached, Blaze picked Lolligan's island home from the miniature archipelago extending from shore. They made port, debarked, and hired a personal rowboat, again without exchanging any funds. The boat threaded through the wee islands, depositing them at a larger one that appeared to be shared between three or four estates. They climbed onto a pier, housing an array of vessels ranging from canoes to a three-masted flagship. Their rower cleared his throat. Men promised she'd be right back with his payment. She jogged up the steps, leading to a sprawling home built in Galadee's style, boxy towers capped by flared eaves. Candles burned in the windows. Min strode across the deck and knocked on a side door. A minute later, two men answered. Both held swords at the ready. Hello, Jensen, Min said. Is my Uncle Denny home? The larger and older of the two men squinted. An instant later, his eyes went wide. Minima? Minim, Blaze began, then cut himself short when Min's glare warned him he'd die. I had to take a taxi, she said to Jensen. He's at the pier awaiting payment. Jensen sheathed his weapon and turned to the other bodyguard, who gazed back dully, then rocked forward and jogged across the deck toward the pier, Jensen sighed. You've heard, then. And I wish I would have been brought back by happier circumstances, Min said. Then again, happy circumstances wouldn't have been strong enough to bring me back. I don't think your uncle's asleep yet. The big man glanced up at the manor's towers. But if he is, he won't mind waking. He showed them inside, lighting more candles around the dim rooms. Min threw herself into a stuffed chair, wrenched off her shoes, and rubbed her feet. Blaze suddenly felt as tired as she looked. Knowing he'd fall asleep if he sat down, he leaned his elbows on the back of a chair, alternating which foot he placed his weight on. Within a minute and a half, a sixty-year-old man swept into the room, dressing robe flapping behind him. He spared Blaze a quick look, then crushed Min to his chest. Where have you been? Been, he gasped. 
Min fought to free her mouth from his shoulder. Somewhere I wasn't supposed to leave and have to return to all too quickly. I'm happy to see you, Uncle Denny, but I'm here to help with Cal. The man stepped back, sniffling, and took her in. How did you hear? Does it matter? He laughed, tucking his chin to his chest. You may be my brother's daughter, but your brusqueness is all mine. How much do you know? He jerked a thumb at Blaze. And who the hell is this? My student, Min said. Blaze moved from around his chair. Best if you don't know my name. The good news is people like me generally have to go nameless for a reason. Dennis took out his hand and shook. Then I guess I'll call you blank. Blaze grinned in dumb shock, then realized the man didn't know his name after all. Works for me. Last we heard your son had just gone missing. Have there been any developments since? The man's hands curled into fists, but he couldn't hide his grief from his face or voice. Nothing for days. Then, not two hours before you arrived, they sent a message. But there were no words. Just one of his fingers. Chapter 21 C shoved his shoulder. Quit with the mystery. What are you seeing in there? Not in, Dante said. Down. There's a city hidden below this one. I knew it! I don't remember you placing that bet, Somber said. She rolled her eyes. I told you they were meeting up somewhere. That's a far cry from predicting it would be in a subterranean mirror city. Dante looked between them. How did you know to watch this doorway in the first place? We were running down transposed addresses, C said, asking more people about 327 East. Things like that. We're talking to this one guy, and he starts to blurt something out. Then he thinks better, says he doesn't know. I think maybe he had it confused with a different address, remembered the right one mid-sentence. An hour later, I remember he was wearing a grey scarf. The significance being, in most cities, none. But look around. The Camrish dressed like they slept in a rainbow. Whereas this guy was trying to look bland. Dante shifted his knees. The rooftop was solid stone and he was getting sore. That's a little flimsy. By itself, C said. But this wasn't the first one I'd seen. Earlier, I watched a woman in a grey scarf open a locked door and enter a blank room. No exits besides the way she came in, not even a window. We had stopped for a meal and were sitting around, so I kept my eyes on the place. A few minutes later, another man opens the door, and the woman's gone. That's weird. On the other hand, last week we were living in a metropolis made of five-hundred-foot trees. Granted, everything's weird here— my thinking was, maybe one of these little rooms is our missing address. She produced a knife and waved it mock menacingly. Now that I've spent the last five minutes explaining what brought me here, you want to tell me what I found? Buildings, Dante said. People. Business. They have address posts down there, too, but the numbers aren't contiguous. Because they're the missing ones, see chortled rubbing her hands together, and stood. Shall we? 
The only thing I shall be doing is making sure I'm not walking into a bear trap, Somber said. If they go to such lengths to keep this mirror city concealed, and to identify those who belong and those who don't, that suggests hostility toward interlopers. Dante tapped the stone barrier, ringing the roof. The monk in call sent us here to find this. He wouldn't put us underground if we'd wind up hanged by our own intestines. Perhaps he intended to provide us with a code word, or a passphrase, but was unable due to the intervention of the minister. Aren't we overthinking this? Lou said. Everyone turned to him. He squirmed at the attention. I mean, why don't we buy some grey scarves? Because that would make too much sense, Dante said. Well, unless any of you knows of an all-night scarfery, I suppose we'll have to wait until morning. You want a scarf? C said. I can get you a scarf in two hours, fringe or no fringe. No fringe. In the meantime, I'll continue to reconnoiter below. After a brief logistical discussion, she departed with Somber and asked. Lou stayed on the roof with Dante. Not that Dante was much in the way of company at the moment, his presence was embedded in the rat. It padded down the dark, quiet streets of the caves, swinging its head from side to side. At least a quarter of the buildings were no more than ruins. Often, a single wall protruded from a bed of rubble. Another quarter were intact, but not for much longer. That left fully half of them usable and livable, however. The streets were far quieter than the ones above, but it was late at night, and he had no way to know whether this place operated on the same routines as people who were exposed to sunlight. Between the rubble, the peacefulness, and the air of antiquity, the sub-city most reminded him of Narashtovic, not the vibrant city it was today, but the one he'd encountered when he first came to it, a diminished echo of a hardier past. Navigation was confusing. There was very little light. In places, the cavern roof plunged to the floor to form giant support pillars, some of which turned thoroughfares into dead ends. Unlike above, the streets were rarely marked. To make everything that much harder, Dante was observing things from a rat's perspective, that is, from two inches off the ground. Yet after several minutes of wandering, he located Iden Street, number 327 East. It was a square sandstone building, old but maintained well. He posted the rat across the street to watch. Lou was shaking him. Dante reverted to his own eyes. C strode across the roof, scarves fluttering from her hand. Get pretty and let's go. Dante wrapped one around his neck. I don't think we should all go. There aren't many people down there. We'll be too conspicuous. I'll stay, Lou volunteered. I'm going, C said. No way I'm sitting around on the roof while you explore a hidden city. I suppose my presence is mandatory, Ast said. Which leaves me on the roof, Somber said. I'm not sure that's wise. You always treat things too lightly. Dante laughed. Because I don't spend so much time looking over my shoulder that my feet get screwed into the ground? Because of the attitude displayed by statements like that. He pressed his lips together. You have ways to reach me, if you find trouble. 
Whatever we find, you'll hear about it. Dante walked to the roof's stairs. His sword bounced on his hip on the way down. On the ground, he paused to revisit the rat and confirm that at least one of the scattered pedestrians in the Undercity was visibly armed, too, and thus they wouldn't be stopped on the spot. They crossed the alley to the door. It was firmly locked. Dante swore. C produced a kit of metal prongs and got to work. Dante barely had time to look both ways and confirm they weren't being watched before she had it open. I can see we'll have to invest in extra locks around the citadel, he said. He stepped inside the dark, cramped room. It smelled like dust. Once C and Ast were in and the door was closed, he shaped the nether into a soft, pale light and moved to the freeze. The white stones bordering its lower edge all felt loose in their fittings. He pressed one, then the one to its right, then the one to its left. Stone ground against itself. Sea whirled around and swore. The smell that wafted from below was difficult to place. A little musty, yet also the smell of a dry space that had remained undisturbed for a long time. The scent of inoffensive antiquity. Dante had a conventional lantern, and not wanting to announce to the world that he was a nethermancer, he snuffed his white light and lit the lantern instead. He descended the ladder, waited for the others to join him on the platform, then pulled on the rope, swinging the false floor back into place. Nether ready at hand, he headed down the stairs. Halfway down, steps whispered below him. He paused. A man's face appeared in the gloom. Dante resumed, walked forward. They passed each other with a faint nod. At the bottom, C took a quick look around and laughed once. Why would people live underground? Dante shrugged. Maybe they don't want people to see what they do here. Maybe they don't want people to know they exist at all, Ast said. Dante had kept a bit of his focus on the rat all the while, and as they headed down the cracked pavement of the street, he noticed movement in its vision. Someone was going inside, number 327. Good news, he murmured. It's occupied. Their clothing drew a few looks from the people walking down the streets, but either the scarves were doing their jobs, or the residents of the sub-city were less xenophobic than Somber believed. No one attempted to stop them. After several minutes of walking and two wrong turns into dead ends of rock, they stood across from their destination. Well, C said. Hang on a second, Dante muttered. For what, them to invite you inside the secret underground lair? Walk up and knock? Will do. If they attempt to kill us, I assume you'll have the courtesy to throw yourself on their swords while I run away. Before she could say more, he crossed the street. The downstairs windows were shuttered, but lights peeped through the cracks. Candles flickered upstairs. As he neared, laughter burst from inside, startling him. He clenched his teeth and knocked on the front door. Chairs scraped. People spoke in furtive voices. Beside him, C and Ast met his eyes. He got out a knife and made a quick cut on the top of his forearm. Drop that god's damn knife! Dante tipped back his head. 
People leaned from each of the four upper windows. They held bow-like weapons. But instead of being held vertically, these weapons were stretched horizontally, secured crosswise on the top of a short shaft. Spiked iron tips reflected the light of the candles. Dante lowered his hand and let his knife fall to the sand piled beside the door. I'm not here to hurt anyone. Really, the archer said, because it looks like you're trying to commit suicide by crossbow. Hands on your head. This is a mistake. The monk sent us. Above, the man laughed, giving one of his comrades an incredulous look. The monk? In that case, let me throw down my weapon. The monk from Call, Dante said. He serves at the Shrine of Derison. The man quit laughing and glanced at the woman in the neighboring window. She shrugged. They hissed something back and forth. The man took on an aggrieved look and withdrew from the window. Stay where you are, the woman said, keeping her bow aimed at Dante's chest. He nodded. The nether swam in his hands as thickly as flies on a summer corpse. The front door banged open. A young woman regarded him, a thin sword angling from her hand. What was his name? She said softly. The monk, Dante said. I don't know. Nor how to knock. She watched him, then twitched up the tip of her blade. I never learned his name because we were run out of call before we had the chance to speak. So how did you know to come here? As we were being run out of town, the monk gave me this. With slow, obvious gestures, Dante opened his cloak and withdrew the tiny scrolls he had nabbed from the monk. He handed it over to the young woman. She took it with her free hand and raised it high enough to keep an eye on him while reading its contents. Her eyebrows flickered. Why were you forced to leave Coral in such a rush? You couldn't tell each other your names. Because the minister threatened to throw me off the top of the tree if I didn't. She lowered her sword and smiled crookedly. Why don't you come inside? He retrieved his knife, then stepped inside a surprisingly airy chamber. The house was small, but it was built into a cave wall, extending back through the rock. A motley bunch watched him impassively, bearing swords and crossbows at a ready but not entirely aggressive position. The young woman took them down the hallway to a large room with a low-slung table in the center and bookshelves and pillows around the walls. Candles burned in the chandelier, providing the most light he'd seen since descending. Be seated, the woman said, and please have some water. Dante eyed her as she poured a draft into a ceramic mug, but saw no sign of her adulterating the water. He sipped. It tasted dusty, but otherwise pure. There was hardly enough for two swallows. She passed a mug to Ast, and C, took a fourth for herself, drank, and knelt beside the table. My name is Casey Gage, she said, and I think you might be dim walking up to us like that, but Yotam isn't. He sent you here for a reason. Yotam is our mutual friend, Dante said. 
It doesn't sound like you knew him long enough to forge a friendship. So what is it about you that earned his trust? It might help me answer that if you tell me who you are. She had a good laugh at that. You first. I never strip until I know it's worth my while. He leaned forward and rested his elbows on the table. What we have here is a classic trust problem. I get it. Throwing your truth on the table leaves you vulnerable. Same for me. Or maybe I'm just a prick. Either way, neither one of us wants to make the first move. She flicked a button on the front of her shirt. It seems to me you're the seeker. That means you wanted more. You don't even know what it is. And I don't know if you'll be able to provide it. Like you said, classic trust problem. Let's see if we can come at this sideways. Why did the minister throw you out of Spiron? Because we failed to register as foreigners. Wrong. She pulled her feet out from under her and sprawled back on her palms. Foreigners who don't register get a warning and a fine. They sure as shit don't get called in to see the minister. Not unless you've done something he can't abide. C laughed. The way you talk about him makes it sound like we're on the same side. Dante was about to reprimand her, but Casey gave C her crooked smile, then turned back to him. Give us a hint. The way things were headed, they'd be going in circles all night. He closed his eyes. The Black Star. As soon as we mentioned it, Yotam perked right up. Well, that would make an awful lot of sense, given the minister's doing everything he can to find it. Dante's heart pounded. Do you know where it is? If I did, you think I'd be sitting in a glorified basement? Casey folded her fingers together. What's your interest in the Black Star? Your turn to answer a question. Who are you, and why did Yotam send us to you? I imagine he thought we could help each other. I think he was right. First, we're going to have to address this trust issue. I got things need doing. Can you do them for me? Do they require a great deal of travel, pain, or food deprivation? Dante said. She chuckled and rested her forearms on the table. I'll reveal the dice under my cup. I don't feel too favorable toward the minister. If you can snatch his prize, then I help myself by helping you. Before we get to that, I got to know you're not some wicked spy. Tell me what you need done, and I'll prove my good intentions. But if you're stringing me along, expect to regret it. Well, now, threats aren't going to help us build our bridge across our gap of trust, are they? All I need is a couple of letters. Easy stuff. Get them, and we'll go from there. Dante stood. I'll have them in an hour. Casey eyed him. Awfully confident. Faith in my team. Then go on and impress me. Horace, fill him in on the details. A middle-aged man with a shaved head and a thoughtful look 
detached from the wall and intimated Dante and the others follow him inside. At the front room, he stopped to speak in low tones. A few weeks ago, we became aware of a man named Julian. Casey believes he's here to scout for the minister, but we have no hard evidence. We know he's sending and receiving a great deal of letters, but he never leaves his house. Waylaying one of his messengers would tip him off. He'd change up everything. However you steal his letters, he must not be made aware you've done it. He won't be, Dante said. Horace nodded, opened the front door, and let them outside. Do you understand why she has assigned this to you? Because we're here. Because we don't have any links to Casey or her people, C said. If we screw up, it's all on us. Be sure to keep it that way. Horace gave them the address, including the floor and room. Dante made sure he had it memorized, then headed for the stairs up to the city proper. Yasha, this is the right move, C said once they'd put the house behind them. Of course not. But at least it's a move. This isn't some desperate lurch into darkness, Dante said. This is exactly where Yotam sent us. It's moving a little fast. You'd rather it were going slow. We'll knock off this little errand in minutes. Then we'll see what Casey has to tell us about selling. Fair enough, C said. About that errand, how do you intend to sneak into a home the owner never leaves? I won't. Dante pointed to the dead rat padding along at his side. She will. It's kind of cheating when you use magic, C muttered. They reached the stairs. Up top, he lowered the false floor, climbed into the dark room, and cast about, poking at the frieze to try to figure out how to lift the trapdoor into position. After two minutes of this, Ast pointed out the metal chain at the edge of the door, which could be used to pull it back up. Once the door was raised, a tile clicked into place, concealing the chain. Outside, Dante waved at the roof. Somber and Lou joined them in the alley. Dante quickly laid out what they'd seen below ground, along with their new task. I know you won't like it, he told Somber, but right now, our other option is pouring through 2,000 pages of a very old book written in a foreign language that might not make a single reference to what we're after. Somber chuckled in his unsettling way. What isn't there to like about throwing ourselves into the middle of an internecine conflict? We'll only get deep enough to extract the information we need. Don't get so focused on using this woman that you fail to notice she's using you. To Dante's surprise, Somber recognized the name of the street housing the suspected agent of the minister. Dante sent Lou and asked, running back to the inn, then set off to locate Julian's domicile. It was a row house, in a part of town that was neither too shabby nor too chic. Some of the intersections even had lanterns hanging from poles. Despite the lateness of the hour, talk filtered from a public house at the corner, along with the music of an instrument that sounded like a fiddle, but with a metallic undercurrent Dante had never before heard. They circled around the building to confirm they had the right room. The windows were shuttered, but on the top floor, Julian's floor, the balcony door was cracked.
Dante sent Sombo down the street to keep watch, then went into the public house, taking C with him to watch over him. As soon as they were seated, he sent the rat into the street and delved into its eyes. It loped outside and bounded to the side of the building. The structure was faced with rough stone. The rat had no problem scrambling straight up, clawing its way to Julian's balcony. It gazed into the dim apartment and slipped inside. A candle flickered across the room. A man hunched over a desk, quills scratching away. Maps hung on the walls. In one corner, a bin overflowed with chicken bones, old rice, wadded paper, and fruit pits. Two live rats were already there, gnawing furtively. His rat prowled, taking in the scene. The man continued to write. Fifteen minutes later, he blotted his ink, shook off the sand, blew on the papers, and set them aside while he went to the other room to relieve himself in a pot. Dante moved the rat to a dark corner. The man returned, examined the papers, and stored them in the desk's top drawer. He blew out the candle and lay on the mattress across the room. The man was breathing evenly before Lou and Ast came into the public house, bearing Dante's writing implements. As soon as they'd arrived, he sent the rat up to the top of the desk. It wedged its paws inside the drawer and pushed it open with a soft squeak of wood. The man didn't stir. The rat clenched the corners of the papers in its teeth, dragged them out, trotted to the balcony, and descended to the street, where Somber had positioned himself to intercept. He brought the papers to the pub, and Dante and Lou copied them as quickly as they could. Finished, Somber walked the rat back to the row house, and it returned the papers to the desk, closing the drawer as best it could. The whole thing took a few minutes longer than the hour Dante had estimated, but it was among the easiest jobs he'd ever pulled. On the way back to the door, to the secret underground, he tried to read what he'd stolen, but it was too dark to make out many of the words, and what he could catch seemed rambling and quotidian. After he'd accidentally stepped in his third puddle, he rolled up the papers and pocketed them. This time, he took the whole group below, but left Lou and Somber several blocks away from the abode of Casey Gage. As Dante approached it, the door opened. Horace ushered them inside. Dante produced the papers. He was writing a letter when I got there. This is a copy of it. Horace took the pages, glancing between them and Dante. How did you get this? I suppose I'll tell you that when Casey tells me what I want to know. He flapped the letter against his thigh. She will be extremely pleased with this. Wait here. He retreated into the home, which was more shadowed and hushed than it had been on Dante's previous visit a few hours earlier. Horace returned in moments. She is pleased with the news, he said, but not with the hour. She requests that you return at noon, after she's had time to sleep and look over your findings. Dante was a bit miffed at being turned away, but he was tired enough to be relieved that the end of the night was in sight. Before I go, will you at least tell me what this place is? 
You mean the echoes? Horace gestured around the caverns. This is where the city used to be, long ago. No offense, but why does anyone still live down here? You do realize there's a perfectly usable sun upstairs, right? Some are here because they think the city above is an illusion. The history of Ellen is invasion and strife. It has never been safe there. Someday it will be torn down to the foundation, and the careless, oblivious citizens will be torn down with it. He smiled slightly, or so they believe. Why are you here? He smiled foxily. There is some business the people don't want to see, and there is other business we don't want them to see. I'm guessing your group turns toward the latter. I believe we are a mixture of both. Horace stepped back from the door. Good night. Dante went back to the stairs again, collecting Lou and Somber along the way. He told them what little there was to tell. Everyone must have been as tired as he was, because for once there were no objections or complaints. They returned to the inn straight away. Once Dante woke, he spent the morning paging through the cycle of Geron. Ideally, he would have been skimming it for mention of Selen, or absorbing enough of its theology to have a real conversation with Mikkel and try to tap his wisdom on the matter. But between his tired mind and his genuine excitement about this divergence from everything he held true, he read through the early sections it shared with Aron to determine if they were worded differently. With noon approaching, they headed down to the Echoes. The streets were visibly busier than the night before. There were even a few stalls selling food to those who called the caverns home. Not everyone wore grey scarves, and there were no guards or obvious controls over who came and who went. Dante thought the scarves might be nothing more than a way for people who lived here to identify each other when they ventured above, so they would know when they were in the presence of their own. This time, expecting useful information about Selen, he took Somber and Lou with them as well. One of Casey's people opened the door before he could knock. The man inspected Somber and Lou, then led all five of them to the back room. A minute later, Casey strode inside, offered them each a ritual sip of water, and whacked Dante in the chest with the papers. This is great, she said. It's so great I want you to steal everything else he's got in there, too. If you think that's the best use of my talents, Dante said, now, what about my info? For all I know, you're working with Julin and falsified these letters to trick me into thinking we're paddling the same way. Before my trust is bridged, I'm going to need more, something that hurts them too bad to be a part of some gambit. This is ridiculous. I can't control the content of the letters. All I can do is copy what's there. Did you get proof Julin is working with the minister? Casey slumped a little. Maybe. Doesn't the minister already know about this Black Star thing? C said. If we were working with him, why would it matter if you tell us something he already knows? He could have sent us to find out what they know, Somba said. Not helping. Dante glared at him, then attempted to smooth his expression as he turned to Casey. 
We're both working toward the same ends. You said it yourself. If you think the Black Star is a part of his plans, it's in your interest to help me find it instead. She hissed air through her teeth. You are going to owe me big. She nodded at Horace. Take them upstairs. Horace moved to the door, motioning them to follow. I don't know as much about the Black Star as you may like, but all I know is yours to hear. Chapter 22 Blaze laughed hard, then realized he shouldn't be laughing at all. He cleared his throat. Excuse me, but they've just totally and utterly screwed themselves. Denny fought to keep the wrath from his face. By mutilating my son? Yes, I'm very sorry about that, but they've given us the means to find him. Do you still have the finger? I wouldn't throw out a part of my son. Blaze was somehow able to refrain from asking what Denny intended to do with it otherwise. He screwed up his face. Well, there is just no polite way to discuss this. He raised his eyebrows at Min. Does he know what you do? With the dark stuff? I'm sure he's heard rumors, she said. Which are always five times taller than the truth. There you go, then. All you have to do is track your cousin's blood back to the source. How do I do that? You know, with the shadows. Same way Dante hunted me down. I don't know how to do that. Min said slowly. I've never even heard of it. Maybe Roe could do it. Roe's not here, Blaze said. I'm happy to try, but I'm as productive as a leech in your nose. I can try. She turned to Denny. May I? Her uncle rolled his lips together. You're talking about sorcery? She eyed him calmly. Would that be a problem? No. He jerked his head to the side. None of it helps find Cal. Then I'm sorry to be macabre, Blay said, but we'll need to see the finger. The man was spooked, but hid it well. He took them upstairs to a round room with a high ceiling and wraparound glass windows that gave a full view of the Black Lake. The chambers were outfitted with stuffed chairs rich wooden bookshelves and desks, and a cabinet of bottles of myriad colors. In the house of your typical lord, all this would mark it as a private study, the tower to which the man of the house could retreat and survey his domain. But Denny was a merchant of Galador. Blaze knew enough to recognize the room as the businessman's equivalent of a war room. Denny moved to a desk, shoulders bowed, and retrieved a small wooden box. He held it out, glancing between Min and Blaze. Tears shined in his eyes. Min accepted it without eye contact and lifted its hinged lid. Her jaw went tight. She closed her eyes. Netha wafted to her hands. She sent it to the box, and it buzzed in confused spirals. It went still, then vibrated side to side. It paused a second time, then floated like tiny flakes of snow in a tumbling winter wind. Min stepped back, holding the box at arm's length. 
I don't know what I'm doing. That makes two of us, Blaze said. She wiped a sheen of sweat from her brow. Did he ever tell you how to do this? It rarely occurred to me to talk shop when he was raising zombies and making people's heads explode. I think the concept is you find the nether in the blood, then follow it back to its source. Makes sense. In theory. He laughed wryly. Trust me, after what you've put me through the last couple of months, I understand how this feels. Relax and see what you can do. Annoyance flickered across her face. She breathed and the lines smoothed. Denny watched them the way Blaze might watch a barber bleeding a man whose cough has reduced him to a life in bed. Hopeful but nauseated, and not quite certain the supposed cure wasn't making things worse. When she was ready, Min summoned the nether back to the box. It was visibly calmer, washing over what lay in the box, retracting, then rolling forward like midnight surf. For ten minutes, she stood in perfect concentration. The nether winked away. She staggered back, clutching her head. The box tipped from her hand. Blaze darted in to catch it. Inside a bed of black velvet, a pale finger pointed at his heart. I can't do it, Min said. I'm not making any progress at all. What are you trying? Blaze said. When you follow the nether, where does it go? I don't know. Maybe you should try. Blaze glanced at Denny, who nodded his okay. Blaze gazed at the finger. Its stump was rusty with dried blood. The nether there was plentiful, flowing through severed veins and tickling along cut skin. He reached into it and tried to follow wherever it might lead but the edge of the shadows blended into nothing, leaving him lost. Even so, he tried again and again, attacking the problem with every trick he'd honed in Pocket Cove. All failed to show him a thing. He sighed and set the box down on the desk. I've got nothing. Thank you for trying, Denny said, making a valiant effort to keep the disappointment from his face. Well. Just because the shadows quit on us doesn't mean we're done. Blaze sat in a chair, its cushioned seat sinking beneath his weight. He rubbed his face. We've got other tools in the kit. Feats and brains. Why don't you tell us exactly what's happened? Denny glanced at the night, perhaps deciding whether he'd had enough of the day, then opened the cabinet and got out a pink bottle. Blank? Min? Blaze nodded. After a pause, so did Min. Then he poured three glasses with two inches of whitish liquid and distributed them. It tasted like anise and honey. Blaze hadn't had anything stronger than tea and broth in months, but he forced himself to sip rather than guzzle. Then he seated himself and laid out the facts. Though he was more detailed in places, the relevant bits matched Min's version. Blaze swirled his drink. They still haven't sent any demands. They have not, Denny said. I've seen this game at the negotiating table. The idea is to bring my nerves to a boil. Don't dangle the offer until I'm so exhausted I'll grab it like a lifeline. Any idea why they're so hell-bent on this book? It's ancient, concerned with the machinations of the Celeset. 
The woman who wants it is from Narashtovic. It doesn't take a cartographer to map those shores. Denny rubbed his palms together. But it makes little sense. Narashtovic was our ally during the Chainbreakers' War. Yeah, but these days a different brow wears the crown. Blaze tapped his glass. Here's my thinking. Min, you keep trying to hunt the blood. Denny, can I call you Denny? You look into the courier who delivered today's message. See if you can trace him back to whoever hired him. And what will you be doing? Me, Blaze said, taking a nap. Denny's eyebrows shifted together. Taking a... Sorry, I make odd jokes when I'm tired. This isn't my first trip to Galador. I know some people here. I'll visit them and see what I can turn up. Sound good? Thank you for coming, Denny said. He leaned forward and patted Min's knee. You too. I don't understand where you've been, but I know you must be risking much to be here. Then do me one favor, Min said. Don't tell my dad I'm here. How can you ask me to choose between my brother and my niece? I'm not asking. His cheeks puffed with laughter. You would have done well here. He showed them to the guest quarters and sent them around servants to see to their needs, but all Blaze needed was a bed. He slept soundly, yet woke as soon as the help began to bump around preparing for the morning. At least in Galador, you always knew there'd be plenty of tea. Downstairs, he ate crab cakes on toast. As he wiped his mouth, a servant handed him a weighty purse. Blaze grinned. Denny knew how things got done. As soon as it was light enough to get his bearings, he walked into the crisp morning. A quarter mile across the water, smoke hung over the chimney. A few dozen islets scattered this corner of the lake. Lolligan's five-story estate wasn't the biggest on the islands, but it was easy enough to spot. Blaze hopped in a rowboat and paddled over, oars stirring the smell of fresh water with each stroke. A servant met him on Lolligan's dock. Are we expecting you? Oh, I doubt it. Blaze climbed out and stretched his legs. Unless Lolligan's even spookier than I thought, Jeffers. Jeffers' jaw dropped. Lord Pendulous? Blaze put a finger to his lips. Shh. If my last mission was hush-hush, consider this one so quiet that a dog would ask you to speak up. I understand, my lord. As much as I am able, when it comes to anything concerning you. Please, follow me. Jeffers hiked up the steps and circled the building. Around back, a door led to a little used cellar. Inside, he lit a lantern, showed Blaze to a chair, and headed back outside, careful to close the door behind him. Blaze considered hiding beside the doorway and leaping out as soon as it opened. He would never have a better chance to take Lolligan by surprise. But the man was around that age where people were apt to drop dead clutching their heart. Lolligan stepped inside, his avian features even sharper in the morning light. He shielded his eyes, adjusting to the darkness, and clumped down the steps. Sweeter on, I thought Jeffers had finally gone senile. What fresh disaster have you brought me this time? None for once. Blaze bounced from his chair and wrapped the old man in a hug. At least nothing that ought to splash back on you. 
Where in all the hells have you been? Eluding Dante. So Taya said. Lolligan backed up the stairs to close the door, then swept the dust from a chair and sat. Does your presence mean it's finally safe for you to emerge from hibernation? You will be completely unsurprised to learn I'm here to deal with an emergency, which we can get to in a second. For now, tell me everything that's happened. Is Taya all right? She's fine. Lolligan smoothed his trim white beard into a point. Getting out of Setevan, they had a hell of a ride and a bit of a fight, but they made off with the king's payment. We concluded it would be best to lie low for a while. Last two months we've been smuggling as much bosson into the capital as we dare. Given that I haven't heard the unmistakable sound of a crumbling palace, I take it Modigan's fortune remains intact. As far as I know, but he's been in no hurry to sell off his stock. Even if we're not in position to pop the bubble, we can make it droop. So we won't lop off his head, but we may give him a pinch in the neck. Blaze sighed. I'm sorry I let you down. Indeed. If only you hadn't been hunted through space and time by a monomaniacal nethermancer of hideous power. Lolligan pulled his coat tighter around his shoulders. I don't know anything about your present situation, but I do know we could still use you. What if I could? Lay said. But you've become enmeshed in another outlandish contretemps, as is your way. Will you at least give me a hint? Would you believe me if I said Pocket Cove? Lolligan was silent a moment, then laughed. Only because it's you. Please, please, tell me you're not here to seek sanctuary from them. I would never do that to you. On the other hand, you do have a very nice cellar to hide in. At that moment, Blaze sneezed. The space was musty and damp. Do you know Denever of the Stotts family? We trade in similar routes. Heard about his son? Cal, Lolligan said. Went missing, yes? You aren't involved, are you? In his disappearance? Of course not. I'm here to find him. Blaze leaned forward. You have to keep this under your tongue, but we think he's been taken. By a woman from Narashtevik. Talavand? You know her. Can you tell me anything about her? Not much, I'm afraid. She came asking about Denny's interests a few weeks back. Assumed she was looking to butter him up or propose a deal of some kind— but otherwise, I didn't think much of it at the time. Then I saw her in town again a couple of days ago. Blazer's pulse leapt. Where? Stepping into a carriage around the back of the Rotterdam estate. He's a friend of mine. Want me to check into it for you? Would you? I'd prefer to keep a low profile until it's time to leap out from the shrubs. Lolligan nodded. It might help if I knew what all this was about. Obviously, it's not that I don't trust you. Blaze sighed through his nose. But it's not just about me. The person who brought me here has much more to lose. Like a favor for you, the old man grinned. Don't worry, your new secrets are as safe as your old ones. As always, thank you. Is Taya in town? She's in Setevan. Would you like me to send her a letter? Not now. But next time you write, let her know I'm safe and well. 
he headed out to the dock and rode to Wending's main passenger piers. Though he'd spent plenty of time in the city, most of it had been limited to ultra-private meetings in Lulligan's cellar. And he had few worries he'd be recognized, either as Lord Pendulous or Blaze Buckler. Even so, as he entered the bustling flow of people stepping off and onto ferries and two-person taxi boats, he made sure his collar was up and his hair was mussed, glad he'd let himself get good and shaggy during his stay in Pocket Cove. He went from taxi man to taxi man, describing the woman who called herself Talavand, rustling the boatman's memories with Denny's slush fund. Most knew nothing. Others couldn't come up with more than a vague match for the description. This didn't surprise Blaze. The fact they handled high volumes of traffic was the very reason he'd come to canvas them. At the same time, it was maddening to hear so many possible matches to his search. Even if he could run down each one, and the boatmen rarely remembered where they'd deposited their fares, let alone when, doing so would take days. Min's time here was limited. So, perhaps, was Cal's. At midday, he retired to a public house to eat lunch and reassess his approach. Logically, Talavand must be operating from relatively nearby. Close enough to correspond with Denny. And to deliver severed fingers before they'd gone rotten. Almost certainly, she was somewhere in Galador Rift. Probably not in Wending itself, however. Too dangerous. That meant boat travel, thus his querying of the taxis, whom he'd far from exhausted. He set back to work, including more questions pertinent to her being from Narashtovic. They had their own accent, and tended to dress in more fur, among other distinguishing characteristics. The city was far enough from Galador to make visitors somewhat scarce. This turned up a few leads, which he duly followed up on trotting through the sloped streets to call on shops and tradesmen and the city's voluminous library. But by the end of the day, with nothing solid in hand, he returned to Denny's home, more exhausted than the day before. Make any progress with the blood? he asked Min as they sat down to eat. No more than you did at the docks. I inquired with the messenger, Denny said. Not surprisingly, the box was brought to him for final delivery by a third party. He had a description of the man, but no name. And still nothing from Talavand? Blay said. Denny poked at his seared whitefish, swirling his fork through the pureed basil sauce. No. She knows that the longer she waits, the further my will to resist decays. A fine dinner-time conversation. After, they had a couple drinks. But Blaze was even less inclined to talk about himself than Min was, and while he got the impression Denny would have been happy to discuss his enterprise under different circumstances, the man had more on his mind than business. They soon retired to their rooms. Blaze was slow to wake, possibly because he was less than enthused about another day of running up and down the fishy-smelling piers. When he finally rousted himself and went downstairs for tea, there was a letter waiting from Lolligan, requesting his presence as soon as he was able. He gulped down a mug of tea while it was still scalding and rolled straight to Lolligan's. Up on the porch, Jeffers nodded at him and went inside, 
Blaze headed to the cellar. Lolligan joined him shortly. I spoke to Rotterdam, Lolligan said. At first he was a bit cagey, but when I told him it was related to the disappearance, he confirmed Tullivan had been to see him. You mean recently? He nodded. Last month he allowed her to see his library. Discussion wandered to the subject of histories, and he mentioned one that snagged her ear. She wanted to buy it, but he'd loaned it to a friend who was away on business in Tatornin. Two weeks ago, Rotterdam let her know his friend would be back soon. She returned to complete the purchase four days ago. In person, she's either very bold or very obsessed. There was quite a large sum on the line. He got the impression she was there to confirm the addition for herself. He leaned forward and glanced around, mock conspiratorial. There's more. When she left, she forgot her coat. It was a few minutes before anyone noticed. Rotterdam dispatched a servant to the piers, but by the time the man got there, her vessel was already ploughing across the lake. Tell me he remembers the boat. Lolligan grinned. The blind eye, known suitably enough for its discretion. Blaze clapped, the report echoing from the stone walls. About time I had a bit of luck. Make sure Rotterdam's man gets a raise. He all but ran out of the cellar, then rode into the city so fast it was a wonder his boat didn't take to the air like a rotund wooden eagle. He'd never heard of the blind eye, but he easily bought info on its berthage from one of the other boatsmen. It was currently out on the lakes, dropping off a well-heeled passenger. Blaze settled in at a pub on the docks and treated himself to a beer while he waited for his ship to come in. That took all day and half the evening. As dusk encored, with fish breaking the surface to nibble at the few flies alive this time of year, an unmarked sloop slipped up to the pier and tied off. Blaze finished his beer. Just his third, he needed to stay sharp-witted and headed toward the blind eye. A gangplank connected it to the dock. Blaze started up, but a man loomed on the other end. Sure you're on the right ship. I'm here to see Captain Kessel, Blaze said. So unless he's left your vessel for another fair lady of the lakes, I'm pretty sure I've got my mark. Who shall I tell him is here? Blaze jangled his purse. Opportunity. The man snorted and headed toward the single deck at the aft. To avoid attention, Blaze had left his sword at Denny's, but he found himself regretting his caution. He had brought knives, though. He never didn't have knives. The sailor returned, wordlessly gestured Blaze aboard, and led him to the captain's cabin. This was as cramped as they always were, wallpapered with maps of the lakes and the channels connecting them. No other records were visible. Blaze closed the door but declined a seat on the bench shelf that ran along the wall. I'm here about one of your passengers. What passengers? Captain Kessel was younger than Blaze expected, maybe no older than Blaze himself. He had a burn scar on the left side of his jaw and looked as lean and mean as a lake pike. Just one, a woman named Talavand. The man regarded him blankly. 
I repeat, what passengers? This is a fishing trawler. Captain, while I have nothing but respect for the value you place on your passengers' privacy, do you? Then turn around and walk off my boat. Blaze stepped forward. One of your non-existent passengers kidnapped the family of someone close to me, putting me in the unfortunate position of giving a shit. I can see that if I tried to bribe you, you would laugh at me. If I threatened you, you'd probably try to stab me, and I'd have to kill you before I learned what I want to know. Kessel sniffed. Then it sounds like walking away is even smarter than it was a minute ago. Yep, Blaze said. But I never was too smart. They eyed each other. Blaze made no move. But Kessler was canny enough to pick up something in his face. The corner of the captain's mouth twitched. His backside was leaned against a compact table thick with charts. He lunged forward, driving a two-pronged drafting compass at Blaze's throat. Blaze stepped forward and to the man's right, draping his left hand over the man's incoming wrist and guiding it past his body. In the same movement, he slammed a right hook into the side of the captain's head. The man sprawled to the ground, still holding his wrist. Blaze stomped Kessel's shoulder and twisted his arm until the compass dropped from his slackening grasp. Despite all the evidence to the contrary, I respect you, Blaze said, breathing hard. Now respect that I can break your arm with a twitch. The pressure of Blaze's weight on his shoulder smushed Kessel's face to the boards of the floor. Bones heal. When my crew gets to you, your spine won't. The woman I want is a kidnapper. If she doesn't get what she wants, I expect to discover she's a murderer as well. I doubt that means much to you, because you've got your own code. Following that to the end, that's what you value. He laughed. Are you about to tell me how we're both the same? I don't need to tell you that, do I? Kessel's shoulder relaxed beneath his foot. Get to the point or let me up so I can finish what I started. It was Blazer's turn to laugh. Staying silent doesn't protect your code. All it protects is someone who deserves my wrath. Buy me a beer. A beer? Buy me a beer, Kessel repeated slowly, and I'll drop you right on her doorstep. Blaze let go of his wrist and stepped back. It was the bit about the wrath, wasn't it? The captain sat, rubbing his wrist while he rotated his shoulder. I figured you were about to hit me with a sob story. Sob story? You thought I'd torture you like that? Maybe we aren't as alike as I thought. Blaze wasn't entirely sure Kessel wasn't pulling his leg to buy an opportune moment to knife him in the back, but the man seemed relaxed, unruffled. He finished up his business on the blind eye, then jogged down the gangplank and walked shoulder to shoulder with Blaze to the pier. All told, it wound up being well more than a beer, and as they talked and joked, Blaze kept in mind the idea that Kessel was lulling him into drunken complacency, but his body language remained right. Blaze got the impression he just wanted to get off the water for a couple hours, or to kill time until his preferred hour to act. This turned out to be nearly ten o'clock. 
Blaze would have liked to get a word to Min, but figured it was better for her to worry about him than to endanger his chances of locating Cal. Anyway, that was a bit presumptuous. She might not worry in the slightest. This was what he did, after all. Kessel ambled back to his ship. With minimal orders, his crew shoved off and turned the boat around, steering north across the lake. In Blaze's experience with captains, many of them preferred to embed themselves in their cabins while the ship went about the tedious business of getting from one port to the next. But Kessel stood up front, watching the water. On the lookout for pirates, Blaze said. They know better than that, Kessel said. It's the night. I like to watch it. That's all well and good until the night looks back. Like all three lakes in Galador, this one stretched north to south, and the blind eye sailed up its long eastern shore, keeping itself a few hundred feet from land. Wending was by far the largest city on the lake, but lanterns gleamed from numerous fishing villages content to live at their own pace. Halfway up the lake, a mitten-shaped bay protruded to the east, leaving a sharp peninsula wrapped around its northern edge. Steep hills surrounded the peninsula, swooping up to Galador's short but craggy mountains, protecting it from overland approach. What little land was usable overlooked a sheltered bay. Blaze wasn't surprised to see the peninsula had been claimed by sprawling estates with high roofs and tended grounds. The blind eye drifted to a stop within bowshot of its point. Kessel pointed to the home on the tip of the peninsula. See that? Count two to the right. That's where we brought the woman. Blaze leaned over the railing as if getting a foot closer would reveal her waiting in the darkness. The grounds were bordered with twenty-foot stands of bamboo. A dock extended from the shore. Behind it, the land jumped thirty feet to a plateau housing an L-shaped manor with towers rising from each of its three corners. Lights burned in its central tower. You're positive, Blaze said. Kessel smirked. Imagine you've made a business transporting people who don't want their movements known. Sometimes these people think your word, your reputation, it isn't enough. They think maybe they should go back and make sure their tracks are covered. Thus, if they try anything foolish, you like to know where to hit back. The captain nodded. Soon enough. Thanks for your trouble. I can't say more, but I'm sure you'll be rewarded. Handsomely. Just keep my ship and crew out of it. Blaze stuck out his hand. My lips are sealed. Kessel brought about the ship and hove toward Wending. At the city docks, Blaze jogged to his rowboat and returned to Denny's. It was after one in the morning, but the others were awake, waiting for him. They convened in the business den. I think I found him, Blaze said. Min pressed her fist to her mouth, eyes bright. Denny cried out and crushed Blaze in a hug. You know the peninsula up north, Blaze said, once he'd extricated himself. Talavan's operating from a home there. How do you know this? Denny said. I promised my source I wouldn't say, but I consider him highly reliable. Blaze lowered himself to a chair. Do you know anyone who lives there? Sure, 
Many of the city's wealthy consider themselves too great to live in the city, and prefer to isolate themselves on Unba Peninsula. Should I pay a call? In the morning. Go take a look at the place. Get an idea of what we're up against. We can move that same night. Denny held his glass to his stomach. You're talking about an attack. Do you have a problem with that? Blaze said. None. They talked out a few more details, then Denny retired to catch what sleep he could before morning. Once he was gone, Min said, Do you know what it's supposed to feel like? What's that? Blaze said. Blood hunting? If that's what you call it. Dante described it as a pressure in his head. It got stronger when he was pointed in the right direction, and the closer he got to his mark. Blaze smiled. Feel something. I'm not sure. She laughed a little. I guess that means yes, but I don't know what to do with it yet. Keep trying. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. If things get nuts and they try to escape with him, that skill would come in quite handy. The next day was a busy one for everyone but Blaze. By the time he arrived downstairs for tea, Denny was already gone. Min was holed up in a room with the finger, plying the nether. Servants came and went. Jensen, the bodyguard, returned with five men, three of whom Blaze didn't recognize. They stood in the yard, pointing here and there, maneuvering themselves through formations and arrangements. None bore arms, but earlier Blaze had seen a servant lug three long cloth bundles up from the cellar, along with a chest that almost certainly contained armor. Denny had taken his favorite sloop, but his docks remained busy in his absence, with sailors adjusting and mending the rigging of a sleek cutter, whose railings alternated between open gaps and closed planks, like the Crenels and Merlins atop a castle. Blaze had half a mind to check in with Lolligan, but the tea baron-turned-rebel would have sent over a letter if anything new had come up. In the interest of not mucking anything up on the day of the assault, he procured a second sword from one of the servants. It had been months since he'd used two, and he was happy to burn the hours with practice. Early that afternoon, Denny returned on his sloop and summoned Blaze, Jensen, and Min to the tower overlooking the lake. I took a stroll around the peninsula, he said. It appears that Tullivan's home is patrolled. In the middle of the day. Jensen laughed wryly. Why would you need daylight patrols at peaceful old Unba Peninsula? We don't have to assault them. We could offer to swap the almanac for Cal. That's what they want, isn't it? If we let them know we know how to get to them, they're apt to get spooked. I have no intention of letting them escape unpunished, Denny said. Not after what they've done to Cal. But I thought I would suggest it, in case you thought I was crazy. Blaze bit his lip. Either way, we should act today. We act tonight. Denny turned to Jinson. Have you worked out a plan? With the help of a quill and paper, Jinson sketched it out for them. They would land their main force down the peninsula, then move to the ridge above Talavan's manor. Meanwhile, the cutter would position itself off the house's dock, sealing off escape by water. Once the troops were assembled on the ridge, Jensen would lead a team into the manor 
and clear it room by room, concentrating any captives they took into one room while they searched for Cal and extracted him. Then they could take one of Taliban's own vessels out to the cutter and sail home. As Jinsen laid this out, Min and Blaze exchanged glances. At last she could stand no more. All you have to do is get me inside, Min said. I can find Cal and get him out without spilling a single drop of blood. It was Denny and Jinsen's turn to frown at each other. Denny lowered his eyes to the map. This involves your sorcery. They'll never know I'm there. Denny rubbed his beard. Min, I can't let you put your life on the line for me. Because I'm a woman. Because you're my niece. A few seconds of silence ensued. Blaze leaned over the table. She's been training me. I can assure you that if you want to get your son home, she's the most powerful weapon we've got. At least three emotions fought for control of Denny's face. At last, love of his son, or respect for his knees, won out. Tell us what you can do. She did so. The two men listened, stunned. As soon as she finished, Jensen recovered, amending his plan and leaving the old one up as backup. He then left to drill the men in accordance with the revised strategy. Denny went to consult with the sailors of his cutter. I won't insult you by asking if you're ready, Blaze said. Min gazed on the shining legs. Do you do this sort of thing a lot? Enough that my parents' ghosts must have died all over again from worry. Then I'm glad you came with me. Though their exact strategy had been drawn up on the spur of the moment, Denny had been planning for potential hostilities before Blaze and Min had arrived in Galador. By nightfall, all his assets sat ready. At midnight, Blaze boarded the sloop, along with Denny, Min, Jinson, and five other men-at-arms. Four bowmen boarded the large cutter. The two boats launched at the same time, but the sloop outpaced the other vessel, making port in the underarm of the peninsula, while the cutter was still ten minutes from its final position. Exactly as planned. The soldiers debarked and headed up a path that ran the length of the peninsula's ridge. A rooster crowed in the hills. As they passed a darkened home, a dog barked, chain rattling. Otherwise, it was quiet. And as the cutter came to rest a few houses down from Taliban's, Blaze and the troops hunkered down in a ditch overlooking her home. Jinsen murmured to the men, making last-minute reminders of their next move. Before he had the chance to finish, Min stood bolt upright, slapping her hand to her forehead. Stop everything! she said. We're at the wrong house. Chapter 23 After searching so long for any knowledge about the object of his quest, Dante climbed the stairs in a daze. Horace took them to a cozy room with thick rugs, a few low tables, and sunken nooks. Two narrow floor-to-ceiling windows looked out on the cavern. Horace closed the glassless window's shutters. Given that they were already in a giant cave, this did little to diminish the light, but it would keep their voices from carrying. He settled his lantern into a sconce beside the door 
and sat in the middle of the room. The others settled down on the rugs. I will begin with an apology, Horace said. I expect I know less than you would like. As compensation, I can explore two paths for you. The first is the story of the Black Star as it has always been told, and the second is our understanding of how it manifests itself in the world. He looked up from his hands. How much do you know? Are you familiar with the cycle of Jeron? Not all my friends are, Dante said. Best to start from the beginning. Do you know the story of Aron's mill? At first, Aron's mill ground the ether that bound the world. There was harmony in the heavens and on earth. No hunger, no death. Then mankind grew too many. The ground broke under our weight. Aron's mill fell and cracked. He returned it to the sky, but couldn't fix it. It no longer ground ether, but nether and Nether brought death. Yet, it also returns men and women to the heavens, turned a broken line into a circle. Horace waited for an argument, then went on. But when Aron restored his mill, it had a wobble. With each year that passed, the wobble worsened, until all who looked up could see it, and feared that it would fall again. If the fall repeated, the floods would, too, and perhaps this time the mill would shatter beyond repair. No more nether, no more life. They prayed, begged, but Aron did nothing. Some said he was still angered that his mill had been broken to begin with. Others thought he had decided to bring his cycle to a close. The rains began. Crops and men were washed out to sea. Still the people prayed, and still Aron did nothing. Then his mortal daughter, Jeron, thought that if he refused to listen to the living, perhaps he'd listen to the dead. She put a knife into her heart. When the nether came, she followed it to him and demanded he set his mill to true before all was lost. For the first time in centuries, he spoke. He said, How do you find a black star in the night sky? Jaron went to look, but the sky is vast. The world would be long drowned before she found it. She tried looking in the shadows of stars, thinking it might be there, but found nothing. Thinking this black star might be a hole, she scattered sand across the sky and waited for it to fall, but it rolled away forever. The seas crept from their shores, swallowing the cities. How do you find a black star in the night sky, her father had said, and then she knew. You bring light to the dark. Aron gave the measures, so she snuck into his tower and pulled half the weights from the scales. The sun leapt forward, catching the stars before they'd slid behind the world. But a single one remained visible, like a hole in the sky. She showed it to Aron. He took it up, and she saw that it was Nether that had been lost to him. 
he sent one-third of it to restore the inundated lands, one-third to prop up his mill, and one-third to return Jeron from death to life. The mill turned on, humans rebuilt, and thrived. Horace cleared his throat. That is the story from the cycle of Jeron. At Dirison, we end the story a little differently. But Jeron was afraid, for if the Black Star ever came back, she knew it wouldn't allow itself to be caught like that again. The Noran have a story like that, Dante said. Noran? Another people I've met. But you said you had more than a story, that you know how it manifests to the world. It's a strange thing, Horace said. Search hard enough and you'll see it mentioned many times. Always indirectly, by people commenting on the records of others. You're left with dark reflections in a broken mirror. Many years ago, my people found a tablet that had survived where all the other records had not. It said, The star is not the mill. The mill wobbles. The star always returns to its place. He gave Dante a significant look, placing Dante in that unique situation where he knew he was expected to follow the path set before him, yet had no idea where to plant his feet. That's it, Dante said. You see, Black Star is discovered where it was last used. But any records of its last usage are long lost. So it would seem. Horace stood and bowed his head. I hope I have been of help. Aware the others would want to talk amongst themselves, he left them, closing the door behind him. Lou just shook his head. I'm starting to think this whole quest is nothing but people chasing their own shadows. When you find a shard of pottery by the river, you can't know the shape of the object it belonged to, Dante said. But if you keep gathering pieces, bit by bit, you build your jug. In this case, the river appears to be the entire known world, probably some unknown parts too. Samba folded his arms. When words fail, check the mouth that spoke them. Why would Casey give us what we want, when she doesn't have any reason to think we'll keep helping her. Dante shrugged. Because she has no leverage. She knows more. She's withholding. She'll offer to tell us in exchange for ongoing assistance. Why don't we head back to the Wodens? She said. That's where the lights were, right? Don't you think that's a pretty obvious sign where Selen's going to come back? The Norrens saw lights in their lands, too, Dante said. Anyway, we can't leave Wesley yet. We've only begun the search. She laughed loudly. Tell that to the blisters on my feet. We're not out of options. Somber might be right about Casey. I'll do some reading and check in with the priest at the stole. In the meantime, we keep stealing Julen's letters and make copies for ourselves. Somber smiled thinly. I see. See what? Lou said. That we're getting dragged into a fight we've got no business with? This man is an agent of the minister, 
the minister seeks Selen. Their correspondence might contain intelligence regarding it. Which we can take a peek at while staying two hundred miles outside Spiron, Dante said. Even if there's no mention of Selen, the letters might help us figure out where in Coral that information might be kept. Sounds like you'll have plenty to do, C said. What about the rest of us? It's a big city. Figure out how to make yourselves useful. They headed downstairs. Casey called to them from the back room. Dante rejoined her, standing just inside the doorway. Satisfied, she said. The portion was leaner than I'd hoped. She chuckled. If I knew how to get the dumb thing, you think I'd drop it in your lap rather than grab it for myself? Then why tell me anything at all? I don't have time to go dashing off after legends and myths. Not if I hope to find proof of the minister's invasion before his troops hold their own sit in Ellen's streets. Dante drifted forward. The letter wasn't proof enough. It's a start. But stealing one letter is like hearing one sentence in the middle of a conversation. You've got no context for the whole. She had a plate of fried, finger-sized objects— she picked one up and crunched it. I got a proposal. You're a heck of a thief. I know people all over this city. You bring me more letters, and I get my people to go digging for more tidbits about your star. Dante fought not to smile at Somber. I think we can continue on those terms. He headed out into the caverns. Some people haggled in the streets while others retired to empty buildings to hammer out their agreements. Men trundled along, pulling long-handled carts laden with goods concealed by tarps. On one occasion, the goods under the tarp squirmed. They headed up to what he'd heard people in the Echoes refer to as New Ellen, and went back to the inn. There they talked about moving down into the Echoes, but Dante didn't want to get too close to Casey. While he waited for darkness to fall, he read The Cycle of Geron, meaning to finally absorb enough to hold a meaningful conversation with Mickle. Maybe the priest would have no more to tell him than Horace, but the stoles of Ellen were equal parts university and monastery. There might not be a better source of knowledge in Wesley. The horns blared. Official-looking men and women in plain white robes snapped out blankets and set down trays of simple food. Rice wrapped in leaves, strips of spiced and dried laurels. Citizens gathered in the streets, augmenting the fare with platters of their own. Night came. When the hour grew late, Dante led the others to the pub across the street from Julian's apartment. Fresh letters lay on the desk. Repeating the night before, the rat snatched them up and carried them down to Somber, who delivered them to Dante and Lou at the pub. They transcribed feverishly, with Dante copying one page, then passing it to Lou to make another, while Dante dived into the second page. Working in tandem, it took no longer to make two copies than it had to make one. Julian was still asleep when the rat returned his missives to his desk. To defray any suspicion from Casey, they delivered her copy first, then headed back to the inn to take a good look at theirs. 
asked, Dante said, lowering the pages, will you tell me if this makes any more sense to you than it does to me? Ast moved to the desk and spread his fingers wide, separating the copied pages. His eyes tracked across one line after the next. He didn't give his assessment until the very end. It reads like our subject is a lunatic. Ryan, how is this intelligence? Do we even know for sure that Julian is working for the minister? Please, Somber said, voice dripping with disgust. He tapped the pages together and skimmed through them, shoulders hunched. It's written in code. What's it say? I don't know. It's code. Treating its encryption as an established fact, Dante said, do you think you can decipher it? There are few I can't, but it could take a long time. It would help to have more texts to compare. Somba went to work immediately. Dante sat down with a sigh. The next three days and nights unfolded identically. He read the cycle of Jaron, stole and copied letters, delivered them to Casey, while Somber and Lou chipped away at the code, filling the desk with scribbles and wadded paper. C began disappearing into the city. Sometimes she took Ast with her. If she found anything, she didn't deem it worthy of mention. Dante finished Jaron, went to the stole of the winds, and waited three hours for an audience with Mickle. Their conversation was dizzying, from a theological perspective. But the only reference Mickle made to Selen was to the same story Horace had summarized. Mickle offered a few interpretations, explaining that Jaron's tale served as a precursor to the conflict between the tribes of the Russian and the Elson. Aron was always distant and intractable, with his daughter Jaron serving as a bridge between his godly aloofness and the concerns of flesh and blood people. Intriguing, but outside the scope of Dante's practical interests. Dante walked away from the stole amidst an acute crisis of confidence. The fact that the truth felt closer than ever made him aware of just how little he knew. His progress was proving so slow. Meanwhile, being so far removed from his homeland in Narashtavik made him feel as though he were falling behind, missing out. On what, he couldn't quite say. Yet he had the same feelings toward Ellen. Here, he was in the middle of a fantastically exotic city, a place with an actual underground and a thriving, sociable culture of trade. And he was busy spending his days reading ancient tomes and his nights reading gibberish. He gazed up at a brick tower with a round top and, on a whim, ran to its front doors. They were locked. He continued back to the inn. It was deeply tempting to relax his pursuit of Selen and spend more time enjoying this place he might never return to, its spiced foods, its architecture, which felt skeletal in design yet stood strong as a fortress, its friendly people. If he were a different person, he might have succumbed. Yet if he found Selen, he'd have centuries to experience the world. His quest for that life wasn't something that had sprouted 
after he'd learned about Selen and the opportunities it might grant him. He had always wanted to live longer, to be bigger. That's what had driven him to the nether in the first place. To Kali, whose knowledge and power were even more staggering than the span of his life. And after that, to accept the mantle of the head of the council. All along, he'd been honing his skills with the intention of living as damn long as he possibly could. Not just for himself. Consider Jaren, wise, resourceful, heroic, savior of a people. Perhaps she was a myth or exaggeration, but it didn't matter. If you could become a Jaren, or a Cali, or a Hop, or a Laramore, you owed it to your people to endure. That was what compelled him to endure, even when the path was lost and the answers seemed further away than ever. Back at the inn, Somber and Lou were bent over the table, arguing the meaning of a line of text involving handkerchiefs and fish heads. As soon as they took a break to glare at each other, Dante spoke up. Have you made any progress decrypting the letters? Of course, Somba said, stung. I've successfully ruled several things out. Dante took a moment to absorb this. Tell me if I'm shelling the wrong nut here, but would it help if you had some words to search for? Ones that might repeat within the text? It depends on the manner of the encryption, Somba said. But it could help, yes. I'll see what I can do. That night, after they'd stolen, copied, and delivered the day's letters to Casey's, Dante lingered inside her room, waiting for her to look up from the pages. I haven't got anything more about your star yet, she said at last. I figured, but I'm curious. How do you know the minister intends to invade Ellen? Well, my first clue would be... The army. I didn't see an army while I was there, Dante said. Sure, that's cause he's drilling it in the lowlands, which is my second clue. If he aimed to take a swipe at the northern barbarians, you think he'd train in the plains? There's plains for two hundred miles in all directions. Dante gestured sweepingly, and uselessly, given that they were forty feet beneath those plains, what makes you think he'll come here? Because he's from here. She leaned forward, forearms on her knees. Son of the Lady Janessa, old, old Elenite family. The minister used that status to marry his way into the Spirish nobility. From there, he more or less bold and bludgeoned his way to the top. That seems tenuous. If he has family ties to Ellen, wouldn't he be less likely to burn it to the ground? You'd think, wouldn't you? Except these letters are plump full of talk about revenge on the homeland. That one might cause the town elders to sit up and take notice. He waved at her and left. Back at the inn, Lou was resting his chin on his crossed forearms, gazing blankly at his scribblings. Somber had his head tipped back and his mouth wide open, as if he was willing the ceiling to sprout a tap. Revenge on the homeland, 
Dante said. Supposedly that phrase is all up and down the letters. Somber clacked his teeth shut and tipped his head to the side to get a look at him. Is that so? Amazing what you can turn up when you go outside and talk to people. Without another word, Somber seated himself at the table and got back to work. C and Ast were out and about in the city, but Dante was too tired to wait up for them. In the morning, he walked around until he found a vendor selling flaky honey pastries and a reddish tea sweetened with cream, cinnamon, and spices Dante had never tasted. He spread a blanket in a patch of sunlight in the square. Over at the pastry stall, a woman argued vociferously with the vendor. Dante smiled at himself. He'd forgotten to haggle. When he finished eating, he returned to their rooms, picked up the cycle of Jaron, then set it back down. He'd already completed it. While he had segments he wanted to revisit, that could wait. Instead, he grabbed writing supplies and went back out to the square. The morning was bracing. He went to the vendor for a second cup of tea, managing to talk the man down to a ring coin just two-thirds as thick as the asking price. He took the drink back to his spot in the sun. All of this wasn't so bad. As isolated moments, they were quite enjoyable. But his moments weren't like the obelisk standing in the middle of the fountain across the plaza. They were more like the letters of a sentence. They only had meaning in conjunction with the others. And the more meaningless letters you injected into the text, the less sense it made. Still seated in the sun, his one concession toward trying to enjoy his environment, he got back to work. For the rest of the morning, he wrote up everything he'd read and heard regarding Selen, collating scattered notes into a single file. First-hand knowledge, such as the accounts in Jaron, say, was depressingly scant, but writing it out allowed him to assess the gestalt and get his thoughts down in writing, clarifying them. It felt like he might have a few beams and joists in place, useless on their own, nothing you could shelter under, but if he found the proper materials, he'd have a frame to hang them on. That night, during his delivery to the Echoes, Casey beckoned him out of the main hall, down a corridor, to a room that appeared to be in the midst of a battle between cushions and swords. Despite all the weapons, Dante took it to be her bedroom. Don't get any ideas, she smirked. You up for a change of work? Dying for it. Put the letter theft on hold for now. Starting tomorrow morning, keep Julian's place under watch. No breaks. Send someone running if he moves. I thought he never leaves his room, Dante said. He doesn't, but according to his last letter, he's about to break that habit. What is it? A meat? More than that? Her tone was amused, yet wary. You might call it an orientation. The minister's bringing more people into the city. So he thinks. She tapped her nails on her hip. Anyway, I'm much appreciated. Dante headed back to the inn to apprise the others of their latest task. So what? C said. We sit around the pub and watch his building? You mean the same thing we've been doing? Pretty much. 
Lou pinched the middle of his upper lip. Why not surround the building with your watchful rodents, while you sit right next to Casey? You could alert her the instant Julian moves. I'd prefer to keep her in the dark concerning what I'm capable of, Dante said. I don't want to get sucked in too deep. As soon as Samba figures out whether there's anything useful in the letters, we're on the move. A compromise, Samba said. You watch from up here. I position myself in the echoes. When he moves, you loon me. I alert Casey Gage. Solid plan. Just don't get involved, all right? I have no intention of placing myself between a pair of clashing swords. Plan set, Dante went out to kill a half-dozen more rats. It didn't take long. To slow their decay, he raised them on the spot and shuffled them off to a corner of the closet where they wouldn't disturb Lou. Though he didn't expect Julian to move until night, that was when such things always took place, on the day of the meet, Dante got up bright and early, pocketed his rats, and took them to the alley behind the inn. In ones and twos, he sent them running towards Julian's building, sticking to back streets, hunkering down in the garbage whenever someone went by. Completely paranoid, given that there were rats in every alley, but there was no sense in attracting attention. Dante installed himself in the public house. Somber descended to the echoes. Lou joined Dante in the pub while C and Ast strolled around the neighboring blocks, haggling with street vendors and wandering in and out of clothiers. By early afternoon, with their feet tiring and no signs of anything out of the ordinary, they came to the pub as well. All the while, Dante watched through the eyes of the rats. This kept him busy. The building had two main exits as well as two side doors, and Dante had to let his attention drift above any one set of eyes, homing in on a specific rat only when it detected motion. This happened scores of times throughout the day, and was thoroughly exhausting to follow. By nightfall, there had been no sign of Julian. Dante had had a few beers over the course of the day, and he began to nod off. He got up to take a walk around the chilly night and clear his head. He had barely stepped into the square when the building's side door opened, and Julian emerged. Dante veered the opposite direction, turned a corner, and sat down to pretend to fiddle with the laces of his boots. He opened his loon. Knack, tell Somber he's on the move, heading north on Cleftridge Lane. Knack had been asleep, and Dante had to repeat his instructions twice before Knack was cogent enough to relay them. A moment later, he let Dante know that Somber was on his way to see Casey. Julian's footsteps had already faded down the street. Dante sent two rats to follow at a distance, then huffed it back to the pub and told the others the bear had finally emerged from hibernation. Using Knack as a middleman, Somber told Dante that Casey's people were running flat out through the echoes to catch up to Julian, who was roughly a third of a mile north of them, above ground. Somber planned to stay put and keep an eye on Casey's. In the pub, Dante passed this to the others. Sounds like there's about to be a brawl. C tipped her mug to examine its contents. Should we wander over that way? There were plenty of reasons to stay at a distance. 
but Dante wanted a better idea of who they were dealing with in Casey Gage. Anyway, in the last week, he'd done little but sit around this pub and the inn. They headed out as a group, walking north. Julian dropped off Cleftridge and cut through a dizzying maze of side streets. The rats followed, advancing in a leapfrog pattern, one following half a block behind Julian, while the other lingered behind. Dante gained ground on him, but lagged blocks behind. Ten minutes after Casey had left her building, the rear guard rat spied a group of eight people moving swiftly down the alleys. They wore dark clothes, scarves wrapped tight around their brows and mouths. The whites of their eyes shined in the weak light. All eight were armed. Disguised, though they were, Dante identified Casey and Horace. A couple blocks ahead of their group, Julian hung a sudden left. As he disappeared, a dozen men rounded the corner he'd dodged behind and headed the opposite way. They jogged past Dante's rat. In the street, Casey saw them and froze. Still several blocks from the confrontation, Dante stumbled on a loose stone. It's an ambush. C stared down the street. Casey's got them? I think they might have her. The minister's people? Should we help her? He waved his hand for silence and delved into the rat's vision, scrambling for a plan. In the end, it didn't matter. He'd no sooner gotten a look at the groups facing off in the moonlight than the strangers charged. Casey's people ran to meet them. Blades flashed. A man screamed. Speechless, Dante broke into a dead run. The others fell in behind him. It wasn't easy to run through the dark in a strange city and keep his sight inside the rats. And all he caught were glimpses, the two lines smashing into each other. A man in a scarf thudding to the pavement. Casey shouting, two short blades whirling in her hands. The two sides separated, leaving three bodies on the ground. The next time Dante looked, they were fighting again. He could hear the clang of steel with his own ears. Casey's voice chopped through the night. Dante slowed enough to cut his arm, then sprinted the rest of the way. As their force hit the street, the minister's men disengaged and ran to the north. Rather than engaging, Casey whirled to face the new threat. Seeing Dante, she strode forward, blades in hand. You fed us straight into the lion's mouth. We're here to help, Dante said. Help walk us into a trap? How would the minister's men know to expect us unless you told them? It could have been one of your men. Her blades twitched. One was dark with blood. My men are bricks of an unbroken wall. Well, someone had to tip them off. Dante's jaw dropped. The hair. The hair? Who the hell is that? A few nights back, Julian had a hair laid across his letters. I thought nothing of it that it had landed there on its own. When I didn't put it back in place, he knew we were reading his correspondence. Casey's jaw worked. And so he fed us bad intel? Tricked us into walking into a setup? None of my people have any reason to betray you, Dante said. If it wasn't one of your own, this is the only thing that makes sense. She lowered her swords, then narrowed her eyes. Your fault either way, isn't it? C laughed. 
You have no idea how careful we've been. If it was the hare, this would have happened to anyone. But it didn't. It happened to you. Dante bit down on his cheek, hard enough to draw blood. The Nether rushed to meet him. Casey and her men watched him with unwavering stares. He shaped the Nether into a killing point. Behind them, one of the downed men groaned, leg kicking spasmodically. Two of Casey's people ran to help, pulling the scarves from his face. It was Horace. Let me see to him, Dante said. I'm a healer. A thief and a healer, Casey said. There anything you can't do? Oh, I got it. Tell the truth. Dante shrugged. Let him die if you prefer. A muscle in her jaw twitched. She spat and stood aside. Dante got down beside Horace. His hard leather breastplate had been punctured. Lung, probably. Dante sent the nether inside him and confirmed it. He sent the shadows to work. Horace responded with a gasp, but his eyes stayed shut. Check their pockets, Casey said. Her men moved to the two fallen enemy and searched their clothes. Dante moved the nether up Horace's lung in a black line, sealing it together. The man wheezed, then breathed steadily. Dante turned to the two-inch puncture between his ribs. In a moment, it was gone. He pulled back Horace's shirt and wiped away the blood, revealing smooth skin. He'll be fine. Casey had gone still. What are you? What have you been hiding from me? Nothing, Dante stood. I've done everything you've asked. Bullshit. If I'd known you could sling the darkness around, I would have asked for a whole lot more than letters. She rolled her lips together. You and me, we're done. Fine. Good luck with your war. Casey turned and stalked a couple steps away, breathing hard. Dante began to move back to the others, but someone grabbed his arm. Wait, Horace said, throat catching. You brought me back. You weren't gone yet. Dante knelt back down. How do you feel? Like I've just finished a long run. The man's eyes darted to Casey. He lowered his voice to a murmur. She hasn't told you everything. I don't have time to explain. If you want the truth, you'll find it in Moreve. Moreve? This is a city. Once. Bring the speech of the lost. Anything that can translate the stones. Translate the... Enough standing around, Casey said, audibly calmer. Let's flap our souls before the watch gets here. Last thing we need is to take the blame for sparking hostilities. She met Dante's eyes. You and yours? I see you again, and I'll bury you in the echoes. Dante was much too interested in prying tidbits from Horace to bother exchanging threats with her, but her troops were already helping Horace to his feet. They led him away, glancing over their shoulders at Dante. Do we have any reason to stay here? C said. Then I suggest we take a hint from our former allies and move it. 
Dante saw no reason to stick around the streets either. He turned and headed for the inn, thoughts racing. What just happened? Lou said. What did Horace say to you? That it's time to leave town. Have you heard of a place called Morive? No, but I have the feeling I'm about to be tasked with becoming its expert. Knack, Dante said into the loon, tell Somber to get out of the echoes and get back to the inn. If he sees Casey, avoid her at all costs. It sounds like you're about to have Ollivander pacing a rut in the floor, Knack said. Just a second. He was quiet for a bit. Somber says that won't be a problem. What's going on over there? For once, it's not worth worrying about. I'll catch you up as soon as I can. Knack did some grumbling, then shut down his loon. They got to the inn without further problems. Dante sat in the common room, watching the door for Somber. Just as he was ready to get a hold of Knack and ask, Somber slipped inside, eyes roving across the minimal crowd. Upstairs, Dante told him everything that had happened, including Horace's advice to travel to Morive. You trust this, Somber said. I'd just saved his life, Dante said. He seemed sincere. C looked around the low table they were seated around. Do we have anything left here? Stealing letters is out. Casey wants to pick her teeth with our bones. Dante hasn't turned anything up at the temples. Sounds like there's nothing to lose by going to Morive. Except our lives, Somber said. But even he didn't seem to believe it. In the morning, they all went to work. Dante headed straight to the Stole of the Winds to ask for the Speech of the Lost. Mikkel had a copy, but there was a snag. He only had one, and transcribing it would take days. He knew a collector, however, and sent Dante with a letter of introduction. The collector wound up parting with the book, but it cost Dante everything he had. He hoped it was a wise purchase. He got back around sunset. C had put together provisions. Lou and Ast had procured maps and information. Morive lay in a desert to the southeast. No one had lived there for as long as anyone could remember. That did zero to dissuade Dante. The others scraped together the last of their coins to pay the stable fees, then plodded out with the mules at dusk. With the city fading behind them, the wind carried the smell of the grass. With the worst of the winter behind them, and their purses as dry and flat as their destination, they camped the nights in the open prairie, burning shrubs for warmth and roasting pigeons and rabbits Dante brought down with a nether. A small mountain range lay between them and Morive, and it looked as if they'd have to detour to a pass. But, accounting for that, he thought they'd reached the ruins within a week. As they traveled, he read through the speech of the lost. It was a Wesleyan guide to translating the written language of the Moreves. His Wesleyan had become quite good, but the book's dialect was older. He and Ast muddled through it. Somber continued to work on cracking the letters. Dante supposed they might yet turn up something useful about Selen, but he suspected Somber felt compelled by the challenge. 
He was right about the former, and dead wrong about the latter. Three days out of Ellen, with the grass growing brown and patchy, Somber stopped in his tracks, letter in hand. This could be unfortunate, he said. What is it? Dante said. Did you finally crack the code? Days ago. I've been working through them ever since we left the city. Somber bit his lip. Uncertain had to proceed. That in itself was troubling. Somber trusted no one, but he always believed in himself. He blurted, The minister's not planning to attack Ellen. He's going to invade Narashtavik. Chapter 24 That's where Televan's been staying, Blaze said. It has to be the place. Min shook her head. It doesn't feel right. Denny shifted behind the cover of the shrubs. We're going to need a little more than that. Wait, Blaze tapped his forehead. It doesn't feel right up here? Exactly, Min said. But I think he's close. Can you tell where? She turned away from the home in a slow circle, eyes squeezed shut. When her back was to the house, she pointed across the path toward a dark manor, surrounded by trees and lawns. You're sure? Blay said. That's where the pressure's strongest. Denny glanced downhill toward the first house. But if she's not holding Cal here, why is it patrolled? Heck if I know, Blaze said. Maybe they've had problems with her, too. Whatever the case, blood doesn't lie. Let's move. A trail branched from the ridge down to the second house. They followed it into a thin field of trees. These stopped a hundred yards from the house. Nothing but open grass stood between them and it. Well, Blaze said, ready to do your thing? I'm about to disappear, Min said. When no one batted an eyelash, she laughed. I mean, literally, try not to scream. She gave them a moment to brace themselves, then wrapped herself in shadows and blinked away. Several of Denny's bodyguards flinched, but to their credit, no one cried out. Blaze tried to find her among the shadows, but could detect no trace. With this phase of operations dependent on her, there was little to do but sit in the trees and wait. The men shifted about, checking their weapons. At times, Blaze thought he heard feet rustling in the grass, but it might have been nothing more than the irregular breeze blowing down from the hills. Where did she learn to do that? Denny said. I'm not sure I'm allowed to say, Blaze said. Is it a safe place, at least? He laughed. Probably the safest place on earth. That's good to hear. I haven't seen her in years. Why did she leave? I'm not sure I'm allowed to say, Denny said. Well, given that she doesn't want anything to do with him, I'm guessing it's something her dad did. I don't know whether this is the time for this. He looked at Blaze, frown deepening. How well do you know her? As a student. She's teaching me her disappearing act. Trying to, anyway. I can see how that might be a handy thing to learn. The conversation died off, as it probably should have. 
They crouched beneath the trees among the smell of dew on grass and the fresh water of the lake. Min was gone for a long time, but neither light nor sound troubled the house. And then she was standing in front of them. This time, two of the men shrieked. Quiet, she hissed. Can't anyone here pick a lock? Sure, Blaze said. I should have guessed. I haven't found Cal, but I think I came close. There's a door in the way. Blaze had little in the way of tools, but a quick survey of Denny's men turned up an array of needles, pipe cleaners, and beard clips. What's the situation in there? he said. It's quiet, Min said. I saw two watchmen on the ground floor. I think Cal is downstairs. You expect me to sneak past them? Use your shadows. And if those fail you, are those swords for decoration? He stared at the house. He had to think for a moment before he remembered the last time he'd killed someone. The bandits south of Setevan. Three, four months ago. He'd certainly gone longer between deaths, but it was one of the better stretches he'd encountered since beginning his adult life as a hired armsman in Bressel. He'd hoped that, in the seclusion of Pocket Cove, it would have lasted much longer. That he wouldn't always be a tool drawn from the sheath whenever others needed their enemies dispatched to Aron. But perhaps that was what he was. There was no denying he was good at it. Nor could he deny that, when men had first told him that her cousin was missing, some part of him had known it would come to this. We can get to him no problem, he said, but he may be hurt, sick. It'll be much tougher to get him out. Once you're inside, I'll give you ten minutes, Denny said. Then I'll move my people up to the house. If you need us, we'll be right there. Jinson nodded. We don't need to fight them all. We just need to keep them off you long enough to get Cal outside. Blaze thought this sounded a little thin. He was used to that, but in these situations he was also used to traveling in the partnership of quite possibly the generation's most powerful nethermancer, and a man who was almost as adept at grabbing disaster by the horns as he was at wielding the shadows. Then again, Blaze had survived three years without his potent sidekick, and who wanted to live forever anyway? Sounds good, he said. If they spot us, we can pretend to be drunk lovers who wandered into the wrong house. Armed with swords, Min said. We'll say we stole them from someone even drunker. Min rolled her eyes, then faded until he could only make out hints of her fingernails, hair, and the buttons on her clothes. Just enough for him to follow. They crawled through the grass toward the house. Dew soaked Blaze's doublet and trousers. A lone candle burned upstairs. Min led him around the side of the house to a wooden door in the stone wall. It opened to a dark room, slices of moonlight cutting through the shutters. A sunroom, perhaps. Min grew more opaquely visible, beckoned him down, then faded again. They crawled on hands and knees across a strip of rug down a hallway. This brought them to an expansive room with a snapping fireplace, a dual staircase, a plenitude of chairs, and a silent guard seated on the landing. It smelled like wood smoke and people. The fire threw stark, elongated shadows across the room. 
His own movements would be much too regular. Blaze had left his kelevert back at Denny's home, but he reached for the nether anyway, suddenly certain that he could expand it into whipping, spastic expansions exactly like the shadows created by a fire. To his surprise and delight, they did just that. One of Min's buttons gleamed, moving behind the wide stone column containing the fireplace. Blaze followed, disguised by flickering nether. They moved to the darkness of the far side of the column. Min rematerialized and gently opened the door set in its back. Blaze could only see the top step of the staircase leading down, but he could feel the tickle of cold air arising from the depths. Min tugged on his sleeve. She stepped down, and the tread of the step creaked. She stopped and looked up. Blaze heard nothing more but the pop of burning wood. She moved down. He eased the door shut. Its latch clicked, but the sound was muffled by the snap of the fire. They felt their way down, step by step. Once they were at the bottom, Min summoned a faint white light. A banded door barred their path. Blaze got the handful of metal pins from his pocket, careful not to jab himself on the needles. Most locks were dumber than a boiled frog, and this one was no different. He sprung it in seconds. The door opened, presenting them with harsh cold and the smell of feces. Min's expression hardened. Doors stood on both sides of the corridor. Most were unlocked, the rooms beyond filled with bottles, casks, sacks, chests, and old furniture concealed under dusty sheets. Much of the storage seemed devoted to cobwebs and rat turds. They checked room to room until they came to a door that wouldn't budge. He's in there, Min whispered. How do you know? Because it feels like my brain is about to spray out both ears like flame from a dragon's nostrils. He set to work on the door. Its lock was stickier than the first, and he had to scrabble around at it for so long that he began to doubt anyone was behind it, certain the noise would have woken them. At last, the lock clicked, and he saw why there had been no response from within. The man huddled in a blanket, his pale shins projecting from its end. He smelled as bad as he looked. Sores glared from his face. His left hand clutched the end of the blanket. It was heavily bandaged and crusted with old blood. Cal! Min rushed to him, sweeping him up in her arms. He jarred awake and scrabbled back, his eyes locked on hers. Fear melted to confusion, then disbelief. Min! Don't move, you'll feel better in a moment. She got out a knife and nicked the back of her wrist. Shadows swarmed from her to him. His eyelids fluttered. The sores on his face skinned over. The hitch in his breathing soothed. He shook his bandaged hand, then scratched at it. When men fell back, he still looked like a man who'd spent too long at sea, but he was able to stand, keeping his blanket around his bare skin. How did you do that? He glanced at Blaze. And... Who is he? 
a man of many talents. Min grinned so wide it was a wonder her teeth didn't fall out. Your dad's outside. Take my cloak. Can you walk? Something scraped upstairs. It was faint, yet Blaze pegged it at once. The unmistakable sound of someone moving less quietly than they believed. Something twitched from the corner of the room. There, a rat stood on its hind legs. One of its eyes was missing. The other was glassy, but fixed firmly on him. We've been seen, he breathed. By who? Min said. Ourselves. Talavant is an ethomancer. He drew out one of his swords, and we're in deep shit. He closed on the rat. Before it had a chance to react, he hacked it in half, then cut its head in two for good measure. Come on. They followed him into the hall. Two doors down, he ducked into one of the storage rooms and made to get behind a barrel. What are you doing? Min said. We can't hide. If she knows the Nether, I'm the only one who can stand against her. She was right. This pissed him off beyond measure. At the risk of sounding like a coward, do you think you can sneak up on her? Could be. I doubt she'll be expecting one of her own. He moved back to the corridor, wishing they'd left the doors open. Shadow walk up to the door and open it as softly as you can. If anyone comes down, I'll deal with them. If not, have a look round and let us know if it's clear. Sound good? Good enough, she said. She hugged Cal again. If anything happens to me, follow Blaze. He'll get you out of here. Cal nodded, fighting down his confusion. Min smiled wanly and vanished. Cal gasped and staggered back into Blaze. She's pretty talented, right? Blaze whispered. He moved back into the darkness of the storage room. Min's feet whispered up the steps. The door creaked. Blaze's heart thundered. After fifteen beats, boots rasped on the steps. The tip of a sword moved past the doorway. As soon as he saw the man's elbow, Blaze burst forward, driving his sword into where he gauged the neck would be. His aim was true. The man dropped gargling blood to the bare stone floor. Blaze followed him down and severed his spine. The man went silent. Blaze waited, gazing up the black stairwell. The darkness was so complete he saw sparks swimming in his eyes. The silence was so total he heard the hum of his blood in his ears. Upstairs, the door inched open. He held his position. Thirty seconds later, he felt warmth on his cheek. Min swam into place beside him. Looks clear, she whispered. We can't stay down here all night. Blaze drew his second sword. I'll lead with Carl. Please, for the sake of me not dying in a stranger's basement, if you see any sign of shadows, strike her dead. She nodded. He turned to Cal. Cal gripped his shoulder. They began their ascent. The treads sided with him, maintaining their silence. Up top, the diffused glow of the fire granted barely enough light to make out the floor. After a look around, he stepped out, Cal holding onto him for strength. Blaze reached into the nether, trying to sense its presence in other bodies, but felt nothing. He waited for a full minute, but heard nothing but the crackle of the fire. He brought Cal to the wall and moved in the direction of the sunroom. 
A quarter of the way around the broad column housing the fireplace, he stopped for a quick look around. Shadows wavered, but the room was as empty as before. Something sizzled through the air. Blaze jerked Cal down. A cold force struck his back. He shouted involuntarily. Pain shot through him, but rather than plowing through him, the bolt of shadows exploded in a bloom of heatless sparks. Min shimmered into view, arm outstretched toward the landing, Nether dripping from her hands. Bodyguards charged into the room, bearing swords and spears, blocking the way to the sunroom. Blaze didn't fear them. He feared the woman silhouetted on the landing, the woman whose hands were balls of darkness. Glass shattered from the front of the house. Blaze shoved Cal back toward the door to the basement. Get downstairs! Talavan's bodyguards tore across the room. They'd be on him in a moment. Without waiting to see if Cal was following orders, Blaze sprinted to the left wing of the double staircase to the upper floors, vaulting the rail. Wood splintered behind him, pinging his cloak. He hit the stairs running. Below, three men chased him, while the other five turned and ran toward the sound of the broken glass. Jensen's voice rang out. Blaze reached the second floor landing. Talavant backpedaled, banging into a wall. Nether streaked from her fingers. From downstairs, Min deflected the first bolt. The second hit Blaze's feet. He cringed, expecting them to be sheared off at the ankle. Instead, they rooted to the ground. He crashed on his face. He fought to stand, but his feet wouldn't move. The guards pounded up the steps. Talavand and Min faced each other, grappling with half-seen forces. Blaze's feet were stuck fast, but he was able to twist around to a sitting position. He had held onto both swords during the fall. The first of the guards was upon him. Smirking, the man reached out as far as he could, driving his sword at Blaze's chest. Blaze flung himself to the side and twisted out of the way of the incoming blade. Fresh pain tore through his wounded shoulder. He dropped his left-hand sword and snapped at the man's wrist. This was out of reach, so he snagged the man's crossguard instead and leaned back with all his weight. If the bodyguard had had a moment to think, he would have simply let go, but the instinct to pull back won out. Already leaning toward him, off balance, the man was unable to resist. He fell forward, plunging straight into Blaze's right-hand sword. The man was beginning to shriek as the spear darted at Blaze. Blaze flattened himself, leveraging the impaled guard up. The spear gored the man in the back. Blaze rocked forward and pushed him off his sword, tumbling him down the stairs into the legs of the spearman. They fell in a tangle, lodging against the wall. The third guard grabbed the dropped spear and raised it high, its iron point shining in the firelight. Across the room, both women screamed. Blaze's feet yanked free of their unnatural roots. He kicked back from the soldiers, grabbing for his fallen second sword. The spear clunked into the landing and withdrew. Blaze followed it in. The man wheeled his spear, but its butt whacked against the wall. Blaze smacked it aside with one sword and drove his second into the man's heart. While he was there, he took care of the tripped man, who was still fighting to free himself from his friend's dead weight. The stairs were now clear. Men were hollering across the ground floor, maneuvering around tables, throwing knives and vases at each other. On the landing, Talavand crumpled to one knee, holding her bleeding hip. 
Below, Min lay prone, crawling toward the pocket of safety beneath the landing. Blaze ran toward Tullivand and put the edge of his sword to her throat. Bad news? I know the nether too. Not well, mind you, but if I see you make the slightest move toward it, you'll see how good I am with a sword. Her eyes danced between his. She was in her mid-fifties, black hair hanging in two braids. She was dressed in a dark nightgown, and she looked very afraid. Who are you? Mean, Blaze said. Call off your men. No one else needs to die. She licked her lips, then turned her head to look downstairs, wincing as the motion pressed the sword against her skin. Stand down, she called. Swords clanged below. She snarled. I said stand down! The sword play ceased. A man backed toward the stairs, glancing over his shoulder. Ma'am? Put down your weapons before this man puts his through my throat. More guards backed into the firelight. They glanced between each other, then set down their swords. Denny and Jensen advanced, accompanied by their troops. Are you all right? Denny shouted. Help men, Blaze said. Cow's in the basement. He's beat up, but he's fine. Denny and the two guards jogged beneath the landing. Jensen and the others escorted Tullivan's soldiers away. This was about the almanac, wasn't it? Blaze said. Tullivan nodded carefully. I'm just an agent. This wasn't my idea. Then what? You stumbled into Cal's stots in the street and he wound up in your pocket? I won't deny what I've done, but the people holding my reins are worth much more than my life. Blaze laughed humorlessly. I'm not so sure about that. Is that so? A hint of mockery entered her eyes. Do you place so little value on the head of your king? His heart did painful things in his chest. The king? Modigan sent you. Do I have your interest now? Indeed. Now we're going to sit here until people with the authority to make decisions arrive. This took a while, but Blaze didn't mind the breather. After what felt like an hour, but was probably ten minutes, the others reconvened downstairs. Min and Cal could move around, but weren't in great shape. They'd found Cal some clothes, at least. So Blaze walked Tullivand downstairs, still holding his sword to her neck. Care to have your brains melted? he asked them. She's working for the king. Denny put himself nose to nose with her. Why were you mutilating my son over a book? The finger was as far as we intended to go, Tullivan said. You'll note we made sure to clip it from his offhand. Why, you're a model of mercy. Given what my lord was willing to do to attain the book, I was saintly. Answer the question, Blaze said. Tullivan's face contorted in thought. She gave a short sigh through her nose. He wanted the book because he thought it would lead him to Selen. This last bit was gibberish to Blaze. Denny appeared equally nonplussed. Cal looked like he wanted a meal and a bath.
but Min had the expression of someone who's been struck in the stomach with a spear. He thinks it's back, she said. There are signs, Televan said. Strong signs. Strong enough to kill for? Min grimaced. Then again, any sign of Selen would tempt him. Talavand nodded, then smiled oddly. You fight well, lady. Who trained you? Min smiled back. No one you'd know. Right, Blaze said. What is happening right now? Let's be clear. We're bargaining for your life, Min said to Talavand, entirely ignoring Blaze. What else can you toss on the table? She laughed. What could be better than Selen? How is he so sure? And how does he intend to find it? The lights in the Wodens, the creatures we've been finding in the Ripping Sea, other things I'm not privy to. As to how he means to get it, I can't say. It was my job to bring him the almanac at all costs. If I return with nothing, I'll be killed on the spot. It would be finely deserved, Denny said. I think I believe her, Blaze said. Surely you don't think we should let her go? I've interrogated a lot of assholes over the years. True believers never give up what you want to hear. She doesn't give two shits about Modigan. She just wants to survive. Min laughed. You think that makes her more trustworthy? I wouldn't take her out for drinks, Blaze said. But I know Modigan well enough to believe she can never cross his sight again. She hurt Cal, Denny said. Took his finger. It's your call. And good luck with it. While you're doing that, would someone care to do me the favor of explaining what the hell Selen is? Min and Talavand exchanged looks. Talavand spoke first. We believe it is a source of pure nether, one that, in able hands, can be put to almost any use. What's your take? he asked Min. That's what I've been taught. She frowned at Talavand. But it's been more than a millennium since it last manifested. Talavand could only shrug. Denny paced around her. If you left here tonight, where would you go? Malin, she said without hesitation. I might try Narashtovic. They have no love for Modigan and are hungry for talent. But I'd fear that's not nearly far enough for me to run. Denny turned to his son. I'd give you the choice, but that would shift the responsibility to your shoulders. How do you feel? I don't care, Cal said. I just want to go home. Leave now, Denny declared to Talavand. Go alone, and never let me see you in Galador or Gask again. She eyed him, expecting some trick, then bowed her head. You won't regret it. I do already. She showed no sign of offense. She limped over to a rack, slung a long coat over her shoulders, and took a lantern from the wall. Geared for travel, she trudged toward the front room. Broken glass tinkled under her steps. Her lantern faded into the night.
There's nothing more to keep us here, Denny said. Anyway, the longer we stick around, the more likely our fleet is to attack the wrong house. A couple of his men chuckled. Some of them bore bandaged cuts, but none had suffered serious injury. Min had a gouge to the left side of her ribs and another on her left triceps, but appeared to have it under control. Blaze lent her a hand outside while Denny saw to Cal and Jinson oversaw the troops. They hiked to the path on the ridge and followed it to the pier where they tied up the sloop. Once they were on the water, they flashed their lanterns at the lurking cutter and both boats sailed for home. Denny found Blaze in the bow, cleaning his swords. If I gauge you right, you'd be insulted if I offered you money for your help, Denny said. But I owe you more than I own. You've misjudged me completely, Blaze said. I'm happy to take your money. This time I might even need it. Going on a trip? I think so. Don't suppose you know an all-night stable in town? Afraid not. Denny scratched his goatee. But I can have a horse for you first thing in the morning. Blaze figured he could use the sleep anyway. The boats docked at Denny's pier, and Blaze helped unload the few supplies they'd brought for the raid. Denny saw Cal inside. Once Blaze finished, he stood on the dock watching the moon on the water. Uncle Denny made it sound like you're leaving, Min said. He gave her the eye. After a night like tonight, it's not prudent to startle the guy with the swords. Is he right? I'm afraid my travels have been extended. Blaze slicked back his grimy hair. It's time for me to pay homage to the king. Chapter 25 there ensued an incredulous silence. He's going to attack Narashtovic, Dante laughed. Using what? The Eagle King and his faithful legions? He could never get an army close to the Wodens. Unless, Somber said. Dante sobered abruptly. He couldn't. Oh, no, Lou said. Is that why you want Selen? It fits, Somber said. If it's as powerful as everyone believes, the mountains won't be an obstacle. Dante flapped his hands. What could he possibly want with Narashtovic? The letters are opaque as to his motivations. For that matter, how did you manage to crack them? I thought you'd barely made any progress. I hadn't, Somber said. So when Casey took her people to their ill-fated ambush... I broke into their house and stole their translations. What do they say about Narashtovic? They refer to the target city as the City of Nine Fragments, an archaic reference to the city's war-torn history. Narashtovic is built on a plain, Dante said. That could be why the minister is drilling his troops in the lowlands. Even so, why us? There's more. Somber passed him a decoded letter. This details their involvement in Ellen. It consists of two parts. First, procuring materiel. Second, hiring teams of merchants, specifically those with experience dealing with Tev, Kirkit, and beyond. 
He raised his eyebrows significantly, receiving a chorus of blank looks in reply. People, in other words, with great skill at transporting goods over long and treacherous routes. C gazed westward. Sounds like we ought to head back to Call and pluck his head like a lawbill. We're only a few days out from Moriv, Dante said. Horace thought it was important we go there. I say we take a look around, then return to Call. First we go to a haunted ruins, then we hightail it for a land we're banished from. Sounds like a wonderful plan. The ruins are haunted, Lou said. Of course there's ghosts in ruins, C said. You should be happy if there's no mummies. They continued down the path. Continuing to Mori felt like an odd thing to do, considering they just learned a powerful man who was possibly crazy intended to deploy an omnipotent artifact to destroy their homeland for reasons that were not just obscure, but completely unknown. Part of Dante was in denial, and the part that wasn't in denial was in shock. The moment he came out of it, he intended to loon Knack and explain as best he could, but he needed to wait until he could explain it all. Conveying what they'd learned to Knack took three days. Not because Dante procrastinated, he'd looned Knack as soon as he'd eaten dinner that night. Rather because the loons could only be used for an hour per day, and if they exceeded that limit, they'd break. Dante had barely begun to fill Knack in when Knack, realizing the gravity of the situation, ran off to find Ollivander. Dante then had to explain things all over again, and since only Knack could hear him, Knack had to repeat it to Ollivander, who often had questions and commentary of his own. Working through everything Dante had seen, heard, and learned took two and a half full sessions. And you find all this... Credible, Ollivander asked once he'd concluded. I know it sounds like lunacy, Dante said, but all the pieces fit. What type of forces can he muster? The layout of Spiron makes it extremely hard to estimate. When I look at a city, I can guess how many people live there. A forest of titanic trees? No idea. We're still recovering from the last war, Ollivander said. Do you have any idea what time frame he's operating on? If his plans rely on Selen, it all depends on when it manifests. Even if he were to obtain it tomorrow, and use it to part a path through the mountains, I can't imagine he'd move before spring. He couldn't be planning logistics, unless he knows what to expect in Narashtovic. That means he had, or has, agents here. Any way you can get Somba back home? Use a trebuchet if necessary? He's the one who figured this out, Dante said. And this can all be averted if I get to Selin first. It makes me nervous to have you so far away from the mountains when this minister's prize could show up at any moment. Are you sure you're making the right move? People keep asking that, but the answer doesn't change. I have no God's damn idea. But I think this is the best option. I hear you, Ollivander sighed. I'll begin long-term preparations. Check in whenever there's any developments, no matter how minor, and do not put yourself in harm's way. If the minister gets wind of what you know, he'll execute you on the spot. Dante wasn't entirely sure how he was supposed to get into Call and figure out what was going on without putting himself and or his companions in danger, but he let the matter rest. 
he was talked out. Besides, they were almost to Moriv. The day before, they had plodded along the path through a line of small, worn mountains. The other side was brown and rocky. The land below was as flat as the prairies of Ellen. But here, the grass grew in lonely yellow clumps. Minty-smelling shrubs rose where they could. Branches humped like the back of an old field hand. Winds rattled across the plain, swirling the dust into tiny, erratic tornadoes. Patches of snow had been hardened into crusty sheets by the unblocked sunlight and the scouring winds. Rodents and small birds picked around for seeds. Twice they saw shepherds tending goats. Small bands of nomads passed by on horseback, dogs barking across the flatlands. For the most part, it was a place of weather and sky. The sixth day after leaving Ellen, they came to a village settled around a large pond. Most of the homes were leather tents insulated with wool and grass. A few were built from mud bricks. Fences penned in sheep and goats, the posts and rails built from ragged, warped wood that looked like it had been there for centuries. The trail led to the village. Since crossing into the desert, there had been nothing to forage for. Their supplies were growing light. After a quick discussion, they decided to approach the settlement, stopping outside of bow range while Dante and Est went to speak to the locals. A sun-tanned and wind-beaten woman met them on the road, the tails of her white braids flapping in the wind. According to Ast, she spoke first Wesleyan. He spoke enough to confirm they would be allowed to enter and trade. The tongue was similar enough that Dante could understand it in snatches. He prayed there would be no misunderstandings. Their attempt to barter did not get off to a strong start. Other than their knives and a few metal tools the locals were in short supply of, they had very little to offer. While Dante and Ast haggled over the value of a steel knife, a man brought back his son from the wilds. The young boy's feet were both frostbitten. It took some time for Dante to convince them he could help. In the end, he had to cut his arm, then heal his wound in front of their eyes. A few of the men seemed to think that this was a sign Dante ought to be sunk in the lake, or dragged behind a horse until there was nothing left of him. But the boy's father shouted them down and beckoned Dante into his tent. A few minutes later, the boy's green and red toes had gone pink, their swelling soothed. Dante cautioned the man that he still wasn't sure about one of the toes, but the man kissed him on both cheeks, slaughtered a sheep, and began preparations for a feast of mutton, blood and barley pudding, and fermented milk. Many of the villagers were disinterested, but some three dozen others came by over the course of the afternoon and evening, bearing small dishes or skins of beer. They were cautious at first. Then a young woman shyly showed Dante her rotten tooth. It was too far gone to save, but with the nether he was able to push it painlessly from her mouth, her gums healing behind it. With that, the floodgates opened. He, Lou, and even Somber were inundated with requests to heal cuts, infections, aches, and fevers— they couldn't do much for the older people's arthritis, and Dante had to inform one gentleman that even the Nether had no solution for baldness, 
Yet by the end of the feast, they were stuffed, drunk, and gifted with a score of feather charms and bone talismans, along with sacks of barley, dried mutton, and skins of spiced blood the locals claimed would make you as strong as the horses it was harvested from. Where are you going? The father of the boy asked when things had wound down and the stars blazed from the sky. More, Eve, Dante answered. The man frowned. I would not go there if I were you. Why? Is it cursed? He laughed. Of course not. But this is the last village from here until the end of the desert. There is nothing else, nor at Moriv. I hope you're wrong. My home depends on it. Dante asked the others about the place, but while it was nearby, it stood across miles of sandy dunes the villagers rarely spent any time in. Those who'd seen it shrugged, dismissing it as no more interesting than any other hunk of rock in the desert. They were given space to sleep in a stranger's tent. In the morning, they were fed flatbread and farmer's cheese. They took water from the lake and continued south. The baked dirt mingled with sinuous arms of sand. Soon the trail disappeared. Over the course of a couple miles, dunes replaced the plains, rippling north-south as the winds scattered their grains to the east. It was still freezing, but the snows were gone. The loose sand made for slow travel. At the top of each dune, Dante stopped to look in all directions, hunting for anything that looked out of place. With enough height, he could see for miles, but with no road to lead them through the shifting sands, it was possible they'd pass right by the ruins. As the sun fled west, they began to fear they had. But miles to the south, a shadow lay on the desert, elongated by the slant of the light. They pushed on. A squared stone tower projected from the sand. They reached it in the last of the light. The stone was a leopard-spotted granite, patterned with black rings enclosing a heterogeneous mash of orange minerals. It was some fifty feet tall, and its walls were a hundred feet wide. Friezes and glyphs were etched in the rock. Those on the western face were worn smooth by years of wind-driven sand. Dante wanted nothing more than to investigate then and there, but they'd already pushed too far. If they didn't put together some sort of shelter, they might freeze. They moved to the shelter of the east wall and set up their tents. He feared the sand would provide no purchase for their stakes, but the ground right next to the tower was hard-packed, practically stone. Not long after the sun was down, the wind settled as well. They were left in silence, broken only by their own breathing and the shuffling of their ponies. The stillness was so complete, Dante could believe nothing had ever lived here at all, that the tower had been dragged out here by a crazed king who fancied himself an architectural critic. Dante woke multiple times during the night, but he was so tired and sore that despite his excitement, an excitement very much like the kind he'd had as a child waiting for Falmuck's Eve, he was able to stay beneath his blankets until dawn. Once he was up, he ate quickly, then made a circuit around the Tower of Morive.
Except for the occasional patch of glyphs or wind-weathered carving, the walls were blank. There was no sign of a staircase. There were, however, multiple windows on each side, including a few that could be reached from the ground. He returned to the camp and explained he was going inside. To Dante's total lack of surprise, Lou offered to stay outside and copy the glyphs on the walls and attempt to translate them using the speech of the lost. As always, C wanted to join the more active part of the mission. Somber's curiosity led him to volunteer as well. Ast preferred to stay outside and keep watch, but said that Dante should call him up if he encountered anything strange. Dante took C and Somber back to the window. The tower was obviously long dead, but he wished he had a rat to send in first. Even a moth would do. Lacking scouts other than himself, he jumped up, grabbed onto the stone still, and hauled himself inside. Dust motes twirled in shafts of light. Sand sprawled across the floor. The room was otherwise bare stone. He gestured to the others and lowered himself to the floor. It smelled like dust, but there was no hint of mustiness. The other two climbed in behind him, landing on the floor with a burst of sand. The rest of the rooms were as empty as the first, but they found a stairwell, hard-packed sand, cementing the steps into a ramp. They stomped their feet through the crust and headed upstairs. The sand on the second level drifted against the walls, but there was less of it, with stone showing in the middle of the floor. Shrunken piles of what might have been curtains were crumpled beneath the windows. When Dante touched one, it crumbled to ashy remnants. A metal bar lay on the ground, pitted and green with age. Loose timber sprawled around the room, but it was so chewed up and rotten that it was hard to identify what it might once have been. The next three floors presented similar results. The rooms weren't empty, but they may as well have been. The higher they got, the less sand rested on the floor. The fifth floor led to the roof. The tower was the tallest thing for miles and offered sweeping vistas of the desert. Dante only had eyes for the roof itself. A circle of black stone dominated the surface, sixty feet in diameter, and divided into twelve equal slices. As usual, sand dusted it all but he immediately understood what it referenced, the twelve gods of the Selicet. A far smaller circle was inscribed in the center. Each of its foot-long wedges was carved with an icon, the twin rivers of Aron, the Hound of Menak, the Anvil, the Maiden. Some of the symbols didn't match what he was accustomed to, but what struck him was that there were twelve, same as in Malin and Gask. Here in Wesley, however, they worshipped the thirteen lords of the broken circle. The slices were filled with regal glyphs. Some were clogged with sand, others wind-worn. But he thought they'd be able to read them. He moved to the edge of the tower and hollered down at Lou until the monk agreed to join him on the roof. They set to work copying the glyphs. Somber assisted. C slipped away. Ast stood on the roof and watched the desert. As the sun climbed, the air warmed enough for Dante to shed his cloak. 
the translations weren't easy business. The glyphs stood for syllables rather than letters, and the Morivese grammar was crude. They'd had time to familiarize themselves with the speech of the lost during the walk from Ellen, though, and it turned out the words in the circle were familiar, paraphrased lines from the cycle of Oron. But Dante had found something outside the black circle, near a corner of the roof. Other glyphs had been hammered into the rock. They were sloppy, out of line, shallower than the orderly symbols chiseled into the cellar set. Dante called Lou over to help. Within an hour, they had several interpretations of the line. It was something close to, The stone has broken and brought the skies down with it. They consulted with Ast, who confirmed their translation. Does that mean anything to you? Lou said. Sure, Dante said. That I owe Horace a punch in the face for wasting our time. I don't know. It sounds portentous. What it sounds is vague. Have you checked the whole roof? The inside of the tower? Maybe there's more to see. Like a million acres of sand? Dante folded his arms. I'll check inside again. Maybe I missed something. Lou bobbed his head. I'll get back to deciphering the walls. Dante went down to the fifth floor. This time, he forced himself not to rush, using his torch stone to light the gloomier corners. But there was simply nothing to find. Besides rubble and junk, anyway. He circled through the rooms, sketching a quick layout, but there were no obvious walled-off spaces that might contain a hidden room. He walked down to the fourth floor and repeated his search. Midway through his sweep of the third, someone whistled from outside. He went to the eastern window and stuck his head into the daylight. Jump on down, C said from below, shielding her eyes with her hand. Or take the stairs if you prefer. Either way, you got to come take a look at this. What is it? Dante said. Nope, you have to come see for yourself. He clenched his teeth and headed down the stairs. On the ground floor, he hopped out the south window into the sand and headed over to sea. There, the sand dropped a couple feet, exposing the tower's foundation. She beckoned him over and pointed to a rippled patch. Very good, Dante said. You found more desert. Yeah, and it's all marked up with snake tracks. Snake tracks? These look exactly like the patterns of every dune here. Should I be fleeing for my life? These tracks run the wrong way to be the wind, C pointed. And there is no wind on this side. It's in the lee of the tower. The final reason you're wrong, these are shaped like snake tracks. Dante glanced around. Okay. So what? Are you thinking of eating them? Be my guest. Lou came by a few minutes ago. He said you hadn't found anything. She pointed at the base of the wall. You checked in there? A small hole peeped from the wall. The sand around it had a lot of marks similar to the one C had found. Dante reached to scoop away the sand, thought better of it, and delved into the nether instead. 
Moving the sand turned out to be more difficult than he'd expected. It wasn't as sticky with itself as dirt or rock, but there were still shadows in it, even in this dry and lifeless place. Sand poured out of the hole. And kept pouring. The hole, initially large enough to admit a hungry mouse, expanded to the size of a plum, and then a fist. A sour, primal stink issued from within. Counter to his better instincts, Dante continued pulling sand away. A couple feet underneath the wall, sunlight spilled onto a ball of tan ropes someone had coiled up and thrown away. In a horrible, scaly, living pile. Gross! Dante jumped back. Are you trying to get me killed? Think they're venomous? Even if they're not, I might shudder to death. She smirked. Look harder, brave leader. He crouched back toward the ball of sluggish snakes, extending the torch stone into the space. It shined on a bunch of sand and more snakes. What am I supposed to be looking at? The physical manifestation of the world's nightmares? Don't look what's in the hole. Look at the hole itself. Why don't you save yourself from being strangled by me and— He cut himself short. The hole through the wall wasn't ragged or crumbled. It was a smooth line. He brushed away the sand crusted at its top, revealing a pointed arch. He was looking into a window, one identical to the one he'd clambered through to get to the ground floor. Rather, what he'd assumed to be the ground floor. The stairwell's completely plugged with sand. And there's more building below it. He backed out, brushed off the dust, and ran to the window to the first floor. Hey, Lou, C shouted, still beside the hole. As Dante strode across the sandy floor to the stairs, Lou screamed bloody murder. The sand in the stairwell looked solid, it felt solid too, even when Dante stepped and then jumped on the place where more stairs must have been hiding. He moved back to the entry and plunged his mind into the grains, using the nether inside them to assess their shape. It was solid, all the way down to the next landing. Dante nicked his arm and focused. A snake of sand oozed from the stairs and slithered toward the window, growing wider as it went. Its head hit the wall, diverted upward, and felt its way through the window. The stream leaving the stairwell was now thicker than his waist. Several unearthed steps were visible below what he had taken to be the start of the stairs. Within minutes, he had an empty staircase and a great big pile of sand outside the window. He stood on the landing, gazing down into the darkness, listening. Sniffing, too. The air wafting from below didn't just smell like dust. It smelled... stale. And perhaps a little snaky. Basically, it smelled like the sort of place you should never willingly explore, especially by yourself. Drawing his bone sword with his right hand, holding the torch stone in his left, and keeping the nether at the ready in his mind, he descended into the darkness. Stray grains gritted beneath his soles. The stairs were clear all the way to the bottom, where a makeshift wall of rotten wood, 
fabric and ruined debris plugged the doorway. He cocked his sword and swung. Chunks of detritus hit the ground with brittle thuds. Sand slumped lazily through the hole, spilling over his boots. Inside, it rested thigh-high, drifted deeper beneath the windows, which were cemented with sand. Nothing obvious stood out from the room. The stairs to the next level down were likewise clogged. He drew out the sand and piled it in the side of the basement. Every few seconds he glanced around himself, mistaking the hiss of the sand for that of angry snakes. The air on the next level smelled less sour and more stale. From that point on, the stairwell became clear enough to walk down. Sand still caked the windows and lay on the ground in little dunes, but in much lesser quantities than above. He continued down, floor by floor. On the ninth floor, counting down from the roof, timbers lay in heaps against the east wall. He touched one, and it crumbled into dry mulch. Rather than wood, it smelled like dust and age. Two floors lower, the doorway was stuffed with a plug of brick. He sent the nether into it and discovered it was dried mud. It took a moment to get it moving, but soon enough it flowed away into the room, adding to the layer cemented atop the floor. This was thick enough that, when he stood on it, he could just touch the ceiling. He found a window and knocked on the ramp of clay that had dried within it. It was as solid as the stone of the wall. He circled around the floor, but it was a featureless mat of dried mud. The level below this was much the same, but it bore an open floor plan with taller windows, and the mud had filled it nearly floor to ceiling. In fact, guessing by the stains visible in the torchstone's wan glow, the mud had reached the ceiling, then retracted as it dried. He thought the air smelled like a riverbank after it's lost its flow, but that was impossible. This was the middle of the desert. The windows and the stairwell were clogged with branches and leaves. When he released them from the mud's hold, he smelled pine needles and sap. He cleared the way down to the next floor, the thirteenth below the roof. The stairs were twice as long as those leading to the other levels, but finally came to a stop. On this floor, he found no windows at all. As he sent the nether roaming through the hardened clay, he felt objects within it. These were mineral, too, and he could have moved them if he wished. But as he crawled into the mud floor, which lay less than four feet below the soaring ceiling, he saw the thin bones of arms jutting from the desiccated soil. The clay was embedded with skeletons. Scores of them. Mummified skin hung in flaps. The air tasted foul, yet stagnant, as if it hadn't stirred in decades. He began to feel light-headed. Panic surged through his nerves. He moved to the stairwell, the echo of his footsteps chasing him up the steps. A cool draft was working its way down the tunnel he'd dredged, and he paused three flights up from the mass grave, catching his breath, letting his pulse normalize. He might have been able to force himself to go back down, but he didn't. 
As he climbed back to what was now the ground floor, a silhouette peered down the stairs. Dante, Lou said, where have you been? Below. They checked the glyphs again, the ones you thought were written last. We were missing an accent on one of the words, the one for stone. So, Dante said, so it doesn't really say the stone has broken and brought the skies down with it. In this instance, stone means a stone shaped for work, like a work table or a grinding stone. Dante reached to the wall for support. Or a millstone. Lou pushed out his lower lip. That would fit. Get everyone onto the roof. Lou looked confused, but obeyed. Dante moved to the western edge of the tower. He had scraped his knuckles during his venture below, and the nether came quickly. He thrust his palm at the sand fifty feet below. A furrow appeared, grains tumbling down to refill it. The ground hissed like boiling water. Dust roiled into the air, billowing into a chaotic column that the western winds flung in their faces. Dante coughed and blinked, but continued to pour Netha into the earth. When the dust settled, the others gaped at the crevice in the ground. What in the name of my never-to-be-born son am I looking at? She asked. Those look like trees, Samba said, or things that might once have been trees before an angry god laid them to waste. Exactly, Dante said. He sat down hard, suddenly more exhausted than he'd been since pulling a similar, though much larger, stunt inside the courtyard of the sealed citadel. On the ground, sand trickled down the edges of a crevasse that dropped a hundred feet below the surface. The first thirty feet of the gap were nothing but sand and loose rock. For another thirty feet after that, the ground was everyday dirt. Below that, it was a solidified slurry of clay, and the branches, leaves, and trunks of a forest that had been destroyed and buried overnight. That's what we're after, Dante said. That is the work of Selen. This audiobook has been broken into multiple parts to make the download faster. You have reached the end of a part, but not the end of the complete audiobook. So please check your library for the next part of this audiobook. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.